Good evening. My name's Carl. I'm an alcoholic. Will I break anything if I move this down? There we go. There we go. All right. Thank you, Steve. And I enjoy our friendship, too. Mark, amazing. Good job. Spectacular. I'm, uh, it's an honor. And, and I bet you Don did a bunch of the work, don't you think? <laughs> That's what I think. That's what I think. See, the table of all the women who've done all the work are all applauding because Don did most of the work. And it's a privilege to be here. Uh, lots of my friends are here, people that I get to travel. I, this table right here, you never see them in their own hometown. I only get to see them in other parts of the, of the country. But it's a privilege to be here. I'm supposed to talk on steps one and two, and it's really the most important thing I can tell you about myself. The most important thing I can tell you about myself is that I'm an alcoholic. There's lots of other things that I aspire to be, that I try to be, that I have accomplished, that I do on a daily basis. But the most important thing about me is that I'm an alcoholic. It's the dominating factor of my life, drunk or sober. My sobriety date is January 21st, 1987. I'm 53 years old, so I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous sober for a little bit over half my life. And the most dominating feature or factor about my life is that I'm an alcoholic. It's been the decision maker, drunk or sober. And the reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is really very simple. It's not complicated at all. The reason I believe I'm an alcoholic is because I have a really strange relationship with alcohol. That's why I'm alcoholic. And this strange relationship that I have with alcohol takes on a few forms. The first part of this strange relationship that I have with alcohol happens when I drink it. A very strange thing happens when I drink booze. The book calls it an allergic reaction. And the book says that the symptom of this allergic reaction that I get when I drink alcohol is what they call the phenomenon of craving. I know, if you've been sober a long time right now, you're going, oh, is he really going to get into this phenomenon of craving and alley to the body, obsession of mine? Yes, I'm going to. <laughs> and, I, and by the way, if you've been sober a long time, I'm not talking to you tonight. I'm talking to the new person that doesn't understand that. I remember the very first time that I figured that out. I was fairly new, and I was sitting in a meeting in San Diego, California, and my sponsor was right next to me, and my sponsor's sponsor was right next to, right next to him. And some old-timer in the meeting was telling the same story that I had heard at least 19 times, and I was only sober about 60 days. Now, the first time I heard it, it knocked me out of my chair. Just, whoa, I can't believe he just said that. However, now on the 19th time, I say to my sponsor, I can't believe he's saying that same story. And my sponsor's sponsor reached across past my sponsor and whacked me upside the head. Said, excuse me, he's not talking to you tonight. He's talking to the new person that apparently you don't know is in the room. Like, oh, there's other people in AA. Oh, my. So anyway, this physical reaction that I get is what the book calls the phenomenon of craving. And the best way that I can describe this thing that the book calls the phenomenon of craving in my life is that it seems like whenever I drink booze, the more booze I drink, the thirstier I get. It happens with nothing else, just booze. An example of that, they were kind enough to give me this bottle, uh, this glass of water. And over the next uh, hour that I'm talking with you, I will probably drink at least this glass of water. I might drink about a half of another one of those glasses of water. But I can absolutely swear to you that once I finish this water, I am not going to go buy a case of water and lock myself in the hotel room. <laughs> there is no chance of that happening. 
Right? There's no chance that at 2 a.m. I'm going to be calling up Steve or Charlie or me soon. Oh, man, you got, you got to get me another case of water. Come on. I'll turn the pink slip on my car over. Come on. Right? There's no chance of that happening. But if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, this bizarre physical reaction that I get, if that was the only thing that made me alcoholic, well then, just say no would have wiped out alcoholism, right? Early 80s, Nancy Reagan came out and said, just say no. I would have, and I imagine you would have gone, ha ha, no, and just gone on and lived a happy, successful life just saying no. But I've got this other strange part of my relationship with alcohol, and that happens when I'm not drinking it. Of and by myself, if I don't drink for a day, a week, or a month, I seem to have this mind that is able to paint a picture that makes it okay to take another drink no matter what the pain, humiliation, and suffering was a day, a week, or a month ago. And it never enters into the equation whether it was my pain and humiliation or your pain and humiliation. I could care less. But sooner or later, my mind is able to rationalize and justify my walk back to the next drink at all costs. So I can't drink successfully because this strange physical reaction that I get, this craving. So I can't drink successfully, but I cannot, oven by myself, not drink successfully. I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. It's the ultimate catch-22 we call alcoholism because I swear to you, if I could do either one of those two things, either drink successfully or on my own not drink successfully, that's what I'd be doing. I'm going to harp on that physical feature a little bit more because it's bar none the one thing we all have in common. Because our stories are very, very different. If you're new or fairly new and somebody has said, stay here until you hear your story, you might be here a long, long time. Because Alcoholics Anonymous is a huge, wide cross-section of society. Every race, creed, color, religion, good family, bad family, education, no education, all parts of the uh, earth we grew up in, we, we all come from different places, right? In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous is the only place where the bank president, the bank teller, and the bank robber are all in the same room. And they all have a very different story about what just happened. So our stories are different on that, but then on top of that, we drink differently than each other. We do. To illustrate that, let's imagine that we cracked open the back doors, we wheeled in this giant cart with all the kinds of booze we all like. If you're a top shelf drinker, we got it on there. There's some Remy Martin, some Cavassier, we got it. If you're a bottom shelf drinker, we got it. Mad Dog 2020 and everything in between. We wheeled in a giant cart. And if we all took a good four or five stiff drinks, stiff drinks, no umbrellas, no spritzers, just really good four or five stiff drinks, we would all be acting very differently. Over in this corner, we'd have the good time crowd. Ha 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 ha! Hey, woohoo! Add a little methamphetamine. Talk a little faster. Ah ha! Talk 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 talk. Right, having a good time. Right, the good time crowd going all over the place. Woo! Over in this corner, we'd have the sobbers. Woo! In this corner, we'd have the fighters. Always get drunk and fight, fight, fight. Over here, a bunch of us would be naked. I would be visiting each corner trying to find a couple of friends to come over here with me. <laughs> so our stories are different on that level, too. 
right? Over here, the good time crowd. Lots of DUIs or DWIs, whatever you call it, right? We're always, hey, come on, next party, come on. Hey, whoa, somebody get to the bar for after hours party, come on. Always drinking and driving, got a lot of DUIs in the good time crowd. Right? The sobbing corner, no DUIs. They don't even leave the house. They're just, ah! Right? Late night drunk phone calls is about how bad they get. Ah! Right? Or drunk texting, or God forbid these days, drunk Facebooking, right? Right? From the closet. The fighting corner, they always got probation and parole, right? All some sort of prison in there, right? Lots of violence in their story. Over here, a bunch of children show up by surprise. <laughs> right? So our stories are different on that level, too. But no matter what corner we're in, there's one thing we would all be doing. We'd all be back at the cart for more. Right? That's the one thing, bar none, we would all be doing. So I set this relationship up with alcohol that I just described to you right from the get-go when I first started drinking. I started drinking much later than most people in AA. I was 11. It is. I mean, these days there's 12-year-olds up there. They're on their third treatment center, for God's sake. We lived in Seattle. A typical morning for me would be I'd show up early for school, not for study hall or anything, but to meet my new friends at the very edge of the school property, loser's corner. Every school's got a loser's corner. We'd be sitting out there. Uh, uh, we would have the playground cocktail. Remember that? It was a, it's a jar full of whatever you could rip off out of the parents' liquor cabinet the night before. And that jar is scary because none of us have been to bartending school yet. So there's equal amounts of whiskey, vodka, cream to mint, right? All in that jar. There's green things floating around in there. You can imagine eight or nine of us, 11, 12-year-olds, choking that down, <coughs> handing that jar around. And, of course, it was the early 70s, so we're smoking that commercial pot. Anybody remember that stuff? Four-finger lids, $10 a bag, seeds and stems and the whole bit. And it was even before Ziploc baggies were invented, when it would just be a regular Glad sandwich bag. And as you'd roll it up, there'd be like nine people spit on it. Like, oh, man. Were you guys there, too? Yeah. So anyway, there in Seattle, by the time I'm 14, uh, I'm the neighborhood drunk. I'm the neighborhood pot dealer. I forgot to mention, but my father was a neighborhood Lutheran minister. He didn't find anything funny about this at all. My parents, really, really good people, and they saw something was happening to their son. It was obvious that something was happening to their son. I mean, by the time I'm 14, my hair is growing down onto my shoulders, in front of my bloodshot eyes. My vocabulary is, whoa, 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 right? That's my vocabulary. But they blamed my problems on people, place, and things. They didn't understand that I was alcoholic, right? They, if I don't understand what alcoholism is, then I will blame people, place, and things, just like the non-alcoholics. The non-alcoholics who don't understand it will always blame people, place, and things. They thought, if we can get him away from that damn group of kids he's hanging out with, things get better. They tried. If we can get him out of that damn public school system, things get better. They tried. But you see, I'm an alcoholic. My problems are not based upon people, place, and things. My problems are based upon my physical and mental relationship to alcohol. You see, if you change the people, place, and things in somebody's life like mine, all that happens is that I'm loaded with different people in different places, ruining different things. That's all that happens. So 
So when I was about 18, my parents decided that Seattle was the problem. Get them out of Seattle, things would get better. So they sent me 300, they sent me 300 miles away to Washington State University. I spent three years at that university on my parents' money, and in that three years I got almost 10 credits. <laughs> at any given time, my grade point average matched my blood alcohol content uh, about a .25. I did nothing at that school. By the time I was 22, this little story I'm about to tell you will let you know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, my father was Swedish, my mother is Icelandic, therefore I look like a polar bear. And I don't know whether this custom I'm about to tell you about is Scandinavian or whether it's Lutheran. I don't know. But at Christmas time, my parents wouldn't just send out Christmas cards to their friends and relatives. My parents would send out this big, long Christmas letter that said everything the family had been doing that year. And when I was about 22, I got a hold of one of these letters that had been sent out the previous Christmas. And as I read it, it let me know exactly where I stood with my family. Now, the first paragraph talked about what my parents had been doing that year. Another impressive year, I'm sure. The next paragraph talked about what the Morris children had been doing that year. And that paragraph went something like this. Our oldest daughter, Christina, just graduated from Cornell University, University in Ithaca, New York, with a master's degree in human resources. She's now working for a large pharmaceutical company pharmaceutical company in the Midwest. She traveled to Europe this summer. She saw this. She saw that. Her hobbies are this, this, and this. She's a very happy young woman. We, we are very proud of her. Our oldest son, Eric, just graduated from Western Washington State University with a degree in marketing. He's now working for a large advertising firm here in downtown Seattle. He loves to golf. He loves to travel. He's engaged to be married to this wonderful woman named Mary Lou, who works for a very small company here in Seattle named Microsoft. It was small at one time, and they loved to golf together. They loved to travel together. He's a very happy young man. We are very proud of him. Our youngest son, Carl, just turned 22. <laughs> they were actually being very kind. It's about this same time. It's about this same time that a really, really bad night happened. It just, it, it really, it would take till breakfast to describe everything involved in this, so I like to just shorten it right up. A drug deal went really, really badly, and a bad night all happened, and it, it just went so badly that I joined the Navy. It really went that badly. <laughs> what I'm about to tell you should make you really quite nervous if you care anything about the security of the United States. <laughs> but on my way into the Navy, I passed a potential test. It's called the ASVAP test. And this test that I took qualified me to become a nuclear engineer. <laughs> that should concern you, that the United States Navy has any type of system in place that would even maybe, possibly, or even remotely allow somebody like me near anything nuclear. However, they made me take another test when I showed up at that base for boot camp, and I could not pass that particular test, and that test is called a urinalysis test, is what it's called. <laughs> Sir, remember, I'd been in boot camp for about uh, maybe 10 or 12 days, maybe, and in came the master at arms, this guy, you know, with military police is what he is, and he came into the boot camp barracks, and he had this clipboard. And they, about five or six names were on that clipboard. I knew my name would be on that clipboard. 
And five or six of us were taken out of the barracks and we were taken off the training side of the Great Lakes Naval Base over to the administrative side. And the other guys were taken into this one building. I was taken into a completely separate building, into the office of the commanding officer, officer of the whole Great Lakes Naval Training Station. Big, beautiful office, big oak desk, pictures of naval vessels on the wall. I stood in front of the man behind that desk, had so much gold on his shoulders, blind you on a bad morning. And he asked me my name. I gave him my name. And this would have been the early 80s. So he, on this big oak desk, he had a, uh, a telephone with a speakerphone attachment on there. And on the speakerphone, he pushed the button on it. And into the speakerphone, he said, Walt. That's my father's name. By this time in 1984, my father would have been in the United States Navy active in reserve for 40 years. He'd been active in three wars, reserve the rest of the time. He's one of the highest ranking chaplains in the Pacific Northwest. This was an old World War II buddy of my father's. So this man says into this phone, Walt, out of consideration for our long-term friendship, I thought I'd ask you, what do you think we should do with your son? Now, if you would have met, ever met my father, you would have, just by his body language and especially his voice, you knew he had a passion for living. You could sense it in his voice. You could tell that he viewed life as an extreme privilege and that he really, really loved the things that he had gotten to do in his life. You could sense it when you met him and especially in his voice. But there was another voice that would come out of that man. And that was a voice like somebody had just kicked him right below the belt. It was a voice of confusion, defeat, and just... And I'd heard that voice so many times. It was always when he was dealing with me. And he'd always accompany that voice with this look. And he'd tilt his head like... And that was the voice that came out of that speakerphone that morning. I heard my father's destroyed voice say... It's just none of my concern anymore. And then I heard the, that click and the dial tone. And as he just left that dial tone to go. And he, the man behind the desk just stared at me. If I could have just slithered out of that office underneath that carpet, I would have. That guy decided to, that man decided to keep me in the Navy anyway. Thank God for you guys. He took away that nuclear status thing. And a year and a half later, I'm a lower rank than when I first came in. <clears throat> it's kind of like this. I knew I was in the Navy. It was obvious. All I had to do was survey my surroundings. I saw that I was on a big gray ship in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I was in a uniform. By God, I'm in the United States Navy. However, that ship would pull into a port. And I would leave that ship and I'd take a drink. And I would totally forget that I'm in the United States Navy. And there's something else going on at this point in my life. At this point in my life, I'm 23, I'm 24, I'm 25 years old. And when I take a drink, I have no idea whether it's going to be three hours or three days until that drunk is over. And i got to tell you, it's a very strange feeling. After a three-day drunk, coming out of that three-day drunk, and I'm on a large pier in a foreign country, and it's 6 a.m., going... <clears throat> There was a destroyer here the other day. <clears throat> Been in the Navy about two years. 
And it was a Monday morning. And again, I, I'm coming out of a three-day drunk. I'm late getting back to my ship on that Monday morning. And I'm driving my car that's held together by rubber bands down this long straightaway in the front of every naval base. There's a guard shack where a Marine stands duty. Under normal circumstances, you're supposed to slowly and politely pull up at this car, up at the guard shack. Show him your military ID. He'll check the sticker on your car if everything's in order. He'll allow you to proceed onto the base. This particular morning, as I was driving my car into the base, I did what I always did when I'd come out of a three-day drunk, is I would save a pint. And I'd try to get half of that pint in me. I'd throw the other half a pint underneath the seat. And at noontime, I'd run off the, off the ship out to the car and finish off the other half a pint. It's my way of sliding into Tuesday, I guess. This particular morning, I guess I was paying more attention to getting that half a pint in me than where the car was going, and I, my eyes came into focus, and I saw the Marine had his head out of the guard shack. like. And I was wondering what he was so excited about until I looked down and saw I was still going 40 miles an hour. I yanked the wheel and tried to swerve, and I, my, the car hit this big cement median on the right-hand side and flipped over, and bang, right through that guard shack. I can still see that Marine doing this big dive out of there. He did a quick somersault, and he was right back up. Thank God those guys are in good shape. I mean, I'm just really happy about that. The Navy was very angry at me that morning. The Marine was all right. They're patching me up at the hospital for minor injuries, and they're reading new charges on me. And this is nothing significant or new in my life. New charges, that's just what happens in a guy's life like mine about every 90 days of you living the way I'm living. So there's nothing new or significant about new charges. But the most significant thing that happened that morning is the Navy doctors prescribed this stuff called Anabuse for me, and they sent this prescription back to the ship's doctor. I was now under orders to show up at sick bay every single morning before quarters, and the corpsman will put this little white pill on my tongue and make me sit there for a half an hour to make sure it actually ingested in my system. Over the next seven to ten days, I started to experience the most cunning, baffling, and powerful side of this thing we call alcoholism, and that is I had no alcohol in my system, and I was literally going insane. See, what happens to me when you take alcohol away from me, and you do not give me specifically Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not you need to, when you take alcohol away from me, you need to give me something to replace. No, no, no. You have to give me one of two things. You either have to give me alcohol or you have to give me specifically Alcoholics Anonymous. One of those two things has to be completely 100% active in my life or I lose it. What happens to me when you take alcohol away from me and you don't give me Alcoholics Anonymous, the best way I've ever heard it described is that I feel like a scream looking for a mouth. And I don't know how to tell you that. And you, the people that still care about me, if there's anybody left, always points at the things that are happening. That's what they define my alcoholism as. They all, they look at, look at that wrecked car. You flunked out of school again. You can't even get a job. You're pissing, pissing everybody off. You're arrested again, Carl. And they point at all those things. And I, I want to say, yes, I agree. I don't like the fact that that car's on fire. Really, I'm on your side. I didn't want that to happen. It's really a buzzkill right now. But if you knew how I felt when I wasn't drinking, you wouldn't be asking me why I drink. And I remember counting those days on that end abuse just... It's been four days and... <clears throat> I'm on an abuse. 
Now it's been six days, and I'm on antabuse. Now it's been eight days, six hours, and 15 minutes, and I'm on antabuse. And I started to look around that ship, the other men. They're talking behind my back. All 300 of them. (laughs) Have you ever felt that way in AA? The only difference is that in AA, uh, we are talking behind your back. It's not an illusion. We're really doing it. On the 10th day, I just snapped. I went AWOL from my ship. I locked myself in a little hotel room in downtown San Diego, the Plaza Hotel. It's on 4th and Broadway. It's still there. This would have been 1986. It was $13 a night back in 1986. I checked about six months ago. Uh, They rehabbed that whole area of San Diego. They didn't rehab too much on that Plaza Hotel because it's still just $19 a night to be at the Plaza Hotel. And I I remember sitting on the edge of the bed, and I had this bottle of vodka and a shot glass on this rickety little end table, and as I stared at the bottle of vodka, I remembered that the Navy doctors had given me a very stern warning about drinking on top of the antibuse when they had prescribed it for me. They had said, son, you need to understand that if you drink on top of antibuse, you're going to get one of two reactions. One reaction is you will get violently ill. The other reaction is you might die. I remember looking at the bottle, and I thought, well, wonder which reaction I'm going to get. I took one shot and nothing happened. Authority had lied to me again as far as I was concerned. I waited about two minutes just to make sure, and I took another shot. All of a sudden, I felt tingly in the face. So I looked in this cracked little mirror that was in this hotel room, and I was bright red, blotchy and purple in places. Hmm. Took another shot. All of a sudden, I could feel my heart going boom, boom, boom. Looked at my shirt. I was drenched in sweat, and all of a sudden, I was like... Hyperventilating. We're doing all right so far. You guys are really sick if you think this is funny. I actually have proof of that. You're all very nicely dressed, good-looking people. Seem to be somewhat in your right mind, but apparently not. And I've got proof of that you're not too well. I'm going to skip ahead a couple of years. I'm going to come back to this hotel room because important stuff happened in that hotel room. I'm going to skip ahead two years. Two years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. My first, uh, my first sponsor and his sponsor, my first sponsor was a guy in the Navy and his sponsor were real sticklers about the ninth step. I know I'm skipping ahead. Who's, who am I going to tread on here on step nine? But anyway, I'm teasing. We, the, uh, One of the amends that I was unable to make while I was still in the Navy was my parents had paid for a bachelor's degree. Remember that? I didn't have one. I had two choices. I either had to go get, I either had to pay them back every single nickel that they had paid for, for it, or I had to go get what they had paid for in the first place. So that's how I got, I wound up up in Los Angeles. I was in San Diego. That's where I got sober in the Navy. And then uh, I moved up to Los Angeles to go to school. And uh, I signed up to get this, take this telecommunications management bachelor's program. And in the first couple of uh, weeks of, this, uh, of, of, uh, of school, I, had, I was taking this uh, business presentation class, like a speech class for giving business presentations. 
first couple of days of this class, the instructor was randomly pointing at students, throwing them up in front of the room, giving them a topic to talk on. And each student was supposed to talk for two to three minutes just on whatever topic the, the student, the instructor gave them. He was doing this just to see what he had to work with for the semester. And after about seven or eight students were thrown up there, he pointed at me. And I walked up to the front of the room and the instructor in the back of the room shouted out, talk about a bizarre situation in your life. So I told them about drinking on top of an abuse. They did not respond the way you guys did. They were like... There were, though, a couple of guys in the back going, Woohoo! Right on, dude! Woohoo! So anyway, I'm back in the hotel room. I'm red-faced. I'm hyperventilating. I'm sweating. And I took another shot. And up it came. My second sponsor was a man named Eddie Cochran, who passed away in 1999 with 47 years of sobriety. Really one of the pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous, along with your Saturday night speaker, Clancy. I mean, literally, that's the way I view them, pioneers of Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous. And he called the next thing that happened to me projectile regurgitation. It's a new level of puking I was unfamiliar with. Because we all know the levels of puking, right? That one, you know, you're just out there in the middle of a good drunk and you get that little warning, right? Sour taste in the back of your throat. Maybe a little bit comes up in the mouth, but not too much, just a little bit. But only a little, and you you can kind of go, and we all know we have between 30 and 60 seconds to find a bathroom if there happens to be one. If we're driving, we try to get the window down because we know that ruins the rest of the night in the car if we don't. Or if it's our friend's shoe tonight, that's just the way it goes. But here on the Anabuse, there was no warning, right? No, it was just <laughs> sort of a Linda Blair spray across the room. Thank God the Plaza Hotel is the type of hotel room where the toilet is in the same room with the bed. It's a design feature, I believe, maybe to make convicts feel more at home upon release. I'm not really sure. But I found the magic of drinking on top of antibuse, and that is that there's two things you've got to get active at the very same time if you're going to be successful at drinking on top of antibuse. You have to, number one, hang in there. You, ca- you cannot half measure it when you're drinking on top of antibuse. You really need to be committed to this. And at the very same time, don't die. If you can put those two things together, go for it. I found that if I kept drinking and kept puking and kept drinking and kept puking for about an hour to an hour and a half, enough of the antibiotics would kick out of my system and I would quit throwing up and I would just be left with red face, hyperventilating and sweating, and I'm all right with that. So I drank on top of antibiotics the last seven months of my drinking. There's no other way to describe this but desperation drinking. My second, my last drunk, I was left for dead in a motel parking lot in an area of San Diego called National City. Uh... Three guys, I'd like to think it's three guys. I've been saying that for so long, I sure hope it was. Three guys just opened up my face and left me in a giant pool of blood, and I came to uh, a few hours later on an operating table. And because they had no idea, my jaw was broken, so I couldn't talk. They had no idea what combination of alcohol or drugs was in my system, so therefore they could not use anesthesia. That was a fun morning. My last night of drinking, I'm being led out of the San Diego jail, being transferred from civilian authorities back to military authorities. I'm in handcuffs, and there's lots of angry people around. You know those mornings, right? And, the neck, and your neck muscles aren't working well that day. And that morning, the officer deck put his arm up when they tried to bring me back to my ship, and the officer deck put his, put his arm up and said, wrong answer. 
Orders have already been processed on this loser. The orders are 90 days in the brig, bad conduct discharge, or treatment. And as I stood there in handcuffs, apparently some sort of option was thrown out on the table. And I do not remember thinking as I stood there in handcuffs, I don't remember thinking, Oh, God, you're so good to a bum like me, and I I just can't keep going this way. And look it, you've offered treatment. I don't remember thinking that. Nor do I remember, and it would have been more likely, but I don't remember feeling this way either, it would have been more likely that I would have thought, Hey, if I just act like I want that treatment thing, maybe I can beat this rap too. That would have been more likely. But I don't remember that either. I now know that it wouldn't have mattered what I was thinking or feeling that morning because I was in handcuffs. And I don't know about your experience with handcuffs, but my experience throughout my life was always the same whenever handcuffs were involved. Whoever had me in handcuffs, never once did they ever turn to me and say, so what's your opinion on this matter? (laughs) Right? When you're in handcuffs, you go where they say. And I was taken up to a military treatment center up in the north end of San Diego, and when the doors were locked behind me, That's when the handcuffs were taken off me. And that's what the society in which I live feels about how Carl Morris acts out there in the world without Alcoholics Anonymous, and rightfully so. So I'm in this treatment center. And the first couple of days of this treatment center, other men and women are coming from various ships based in commands from all over, literally all over the western United States and Hawaii. And they're uh, coming into this place over the next couple of days. In the first few days, they're doing medical checkups on us. They are doing, uh, they are doing, uh, uh, trying to get our files transferred from our from our commands or our ships, so that you know they have our file there. And they've got us in like a group therapy session. In the first couple of days, there was this assistant facilitator who was trying to conduct this group therapy session, and none of us are talking. We're just arms folded, looking down the ground, and he's running out of things to say. Right? He's describing this and this chart and that, and then he'd try to get us to talk. Nobody's talking. We're just nothing. Somewhere in the middle of the third day, I think, this fellow named Paco raises his hand. He says, I'd like to say something. And this facilitator got really excited. Yes, Paco, what would you like to say? And Paco says, I hear that I'm supposed to be rigorously honest with you guys if I'm going to do this staying sober thing. And I want you guys to know that Paco is not my real name. Paco's just a name that I've always used since I was a young teenager whenever things look like trouble. And the other day when I got here, this really looked like trouble. (laughs) But I want to be honest and upfront with you. My name's not Paco. It's really Randy. Will you guys call me Randy from now on? We all look up and go, okay, (laughs) nice to meet you, Randy. But this assistant facilitator got really excited. Oh, my God! This is the first breakthrough of any honesty of any of USOBs. Later that afternoon, afternoon, they gathered us all up again. They called on Paco. He walked up to the front of the room. They slapped a gold name tag on him that said Paco. I mean, Randy. It said Randy right on the gold name tag. And then we were all informed that whenever staff was not around, Randy's in charge. And Randy loved his new job. And we all hated Randy. On the seventh day in this place, they took us all to our first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. At least it was my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. All I know is we've been in this place seven days. And on the one M- over the 1MC, it's like an intercom system through the barracks. They said civilian closed, parking lot, 6 p.m. And so we're all about 35 of us are standing out there. And seven, five or six white vans pulled up. And five or six, seven of us into each van. And boom, out in town, each van went to a different meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous somewhere in the San Diego County area. And sure enough, the van I was in... Pulled up at a meeting, and 
if you have ever been at meetings in San Diego, the, you see the military. You know, we sit in the back of the meeting, and you guys started. You guys started your meeting, and it was podium participation. Didn't know there were different kinds of meetings. Had no idea about that. All I know is a long string of people came up to a podium up front, and the first few people read stuff. And then the remaining 12 or 13 that came up there just got up there and started telling stories right off the cuff. No notes, no nothing, just, blah, 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 just telling stories. And as I listened to what the people were reading and what those subsequent people were, were talking about, I got this overwhelming feeling of, oh, my God, they know. They know. They know. Now, if you would have seen me sit in the back going, oh, and you, and you said to me, so what is it that they know that you think you know? I would have said, I don't know, <laughs> but they know. And what was happening to me, this is really, this is what was happening to me in my first meeting. I didn't know it. But what was happening to me in that first meeting is what I truly believe Alcoholics Anonymous wants to have happen to somebody that is brand new. I was identifying. And I was identifying with two things. I was identifying with the way they told their stories about drinking. But it was strange. I'd heard drinking stories before. I'd lived drinking stories. I told drinking stories while living a drinking story, right? Heard a million of them in bars and crack houses all over the... We'd tell drinking stories out there. But you were telling your stories about your drinking in a way, without even saying so, that you were free of it. Strange. But I knew that you were free of it. It was weird. The other thing that was even more important is that I identified with the way you described the way you felt when you were not drinking. I had never heard anybody talk about that. And you guys seemed to have a whole language. You acted like it was yesterday's news that you'd known this all along. I never could put any words to it. I didn't know how to say it, tell it to you. You guys just seemed to like right off the cuff talk about this strange, bizarre anxiety, this frustration, this separation. I mean, you used all sorts of words. I remember this one guy that described this crazy way that his mind works right in the very first meeting. He got called on. He walked all the way to the front. He said one sentence and he sat down. He said, my name's Jack. I'm an alcoholic. My mind would have killed my body a long time ago except it needed it for transportation. And <laughs> so I identified right off the bat. Next night, they took us to another meeting. And I don't know what kind of meeting it was, but I, as, as much as I identified at the first meeting, I got equally as confused at the next meeting. Because everybody at this meeting was talking about something called a drug of choice. I don't hear it much anymore in AA, but back in the 80s, man, they were just always throwing that term around. Drug of choice, drug of choice. And I'm like, what? I'm sitting in the back going, was I supposed to be choosing out there? Do they want me to choose now? What on earth are they talking about? So the next morning, I'm back at the treatment center. I asked the counselor who had been assigned to us. I go, Mary, last night in the meeting, they were talking about something called a drug of choice. What on earth do they mean by that? She said, Carl, let's play a game. Now, that worried me because I knew what she was saying. She was saying, pay attention. And that was difficult for me. I didn't know what was going on. I only now know now what was going on. But it was hard to pay attention for quite some time early on in treatment because 
When I had shown up and they did that medical checkup on me, they had found that my liver was extended, my pancreas was shutting down, I had extreme what they call alcoholic edema where my skin was just soaked in alcohol. Apparently, drinking on top of anabuse for seven months does a little number on your internal organs. So they had salted my tail with these detox meds, right, just to make sure I don't throw the big seizure in the middle of the therapy session and disturb everybody's day. Everybody would freak out. and It kind of just interrupts the process of everything, apparently. So they salt your tail with these things. And if you've ever been on those things, you know what I'm talking about. Your field of vision is just fine about like this. But there's dancing squiggly things over here. And when you look to see what it is now, it's over here. And so you're doing a lot of... And it's hard to pay attention. So when she said, Carl, let's play a game, I went, okay. And she said, imagine this, Carl. Imagine I walked into this room and I had a tray, she said. And on that tray, I had a bottle of Jack Daniels, an ounce of cocaine, and an ounce of tie sticks. Which one would you take? I started to drool immediately, right out the side of my mouth. Oh, I take them all. I take them all. And she started to snap her fingers. Settle down, Carl. Settle down. You can't have them all. Play the game. Which one would you take? And I thought for a second. I said, well... I guess if I can only have one, Mary, I, I guess I'd take the ounce of cocaine. She said, oh, maybe cocaine is your drug of choice. Do you understand now? And I said, no. No, I, I don't understand. She goes, what's the problem? I said, well, Mary, the only reason I take the ounce of cocaine over the other two is, well, I take that ounce of cocaine, I get the hell out of here, and I'd sell two eight balls. I would now have enough money for a quarter pound of tie sticks and a case of Jack Daniels. That's what I would do. Now, the only reason I bring that up is to bring up a very important aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous, if you're new or fairly new, and that's sobriety dates. First of all, it's very, very important to have one. Alcoholics Anonymous just makes a lot more sense when you have a sobriety date. It really does. And there's only one sobriety date. I, I bet you there's all sorts of people that work with new people. Maybe you run across this scenario every once in a while, like I went, do in L.A., but not very often, but every once in a while. But I like to, when I see somebody, hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And every once in a while, not often, but every once in a while I get this. Well, my drinking sobriety date is January 4th. My pot clean date is May 3rd. Oh, I blew my methamphetamine date last night. I was in Walmart all night long. It's like... Funniest thing I ever heard about sobriety date. Same scenario. I saw this guy around my home group for a while. Went up to him. Hey, good to see you. How long do you got? And he said, well, I had 90 days, but I drank last night. So now I have 89 days. I almost had to call my sponsor to check up on that. I think that kind of falls into the same category as being down in Mexico, looking at the tequila, wondering, would that affect my U.S. sobriety date? Yes. <laughs> sobriety dates are international. Just a little information for the new guy. So anyway, after 45 days, and let us all out of this place. Uh, that's just what the orders were. And on the Wednesday before the Friday, they get, put us all into this room. 
And the side door opened up, and the biggest, meanest counselor in this place walked in, and he's a Marine. And that day, he's in his full-dress uniform. And i got to tell you, a Marine in his full-dress uniform is a very impressive, very intimidating sight. And when he walked in in that full-dress uniform, the whole room went, <gasps> just went dead silent. And he walked up to this lectern or a podium that was in front of the room, and he grabbed both sides, he leaned over, and he just stared at us. He didn't speak for, it seemed like, minutes. It was probably ten seconds. But he panned the room and stared at us. Then he finally spoke. He said, you 35 have been through one of the finest treatment centers in the world for alcoholism and drug addiction. This treatment center has been here for many, many years. And over the years, our statistics have shown us that out of you 35, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. Many of you will die, go insane, wind up in prison. Nice little exit pep talk, don't you think? (laughs) Then he said, many of you relapse once, twice, maybe 20 times, and then make it back into long-term sobriety. But according to this treatment center statistics, only one of you will stay continuously sober from this day forward. If you thought it was quiet before that, you could have heard a pin drop now. The only thing you could hear was me going, shit. (laughs) Because I knew if only one of us was going to make it, it was not going to be me. We all knew who it's going to be. It's going to be Randy over here, guaranteed. He's like the poster boy of the treatment center by now. So on this Friday afternoon, they're letting us all out, back to our ship's base and commands in various different ways. But there was about four or five of us that were instructed to wait on the front doorsteps of the treatment center because we had been arrested in vehicles the night before we were thrown into this place. So we were told to wait for our cars that had been in an impound lot for the last 45 days. So I'm standing with four other guys, and we're looking at each other. And, hmm, you feel treated? I don't know. Whatever you feel. All of a sudden, one of the guys I'm standing with points to this car that's coming across the parking lot, and he goes, is that Randy in that car? Yeah, sure enough. One of the other guys says, he's drinking already. Sure enough, Randy's got himself a bottle. He's polishing it off. He rolls right in front of us, and he throws the empty right out the window, right at us. Crash! We look up. He gives us all the finger, and he drives right off. I guess his name was Paco again. I don't know. Next thing that I remember of that day, it showed up at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, a 6 o'clock gong show meeting in Pacific Beach. The truth about my life is I was 45 days without a drink. I had a lot of information, and I was physically feeling better than I had felt since I'd been a young teenager. But there had been no spiritual experience, spiritual awakening, or even a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And what was even more dangerous than that is I did not know I needed one. I didn't understand that other than the fact that I have this third relationship with alcohol that I didn't, I couldn't even have described it to you until I was like 13 years sober. But I didn't know the precarious situation that I was really sitting in, in that very first meeting, fresh out of treatment, with 45 days, physically feeling better, and information. I did not know that I was suffering from this spiritual malady, as we call it here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And what that was really all about. I have a third relationship with alcohol. And it's spiritual. My spirit is connected to alcohol in a way that is not connected to nothing else on this planet. And I could not have described this to you until I was 13 years sober. And I have to tell you this story which allowed me to see exactly what that was about for me. Don't know about it, whether it's for you. In the year 2000... 
my mother called me up and said, Carl, your brother and his wife and kids are in the south of France for the summer. Let's go visit them. And I'm, yeah, absolutely. And she said, oh, and by the way, uh, let's, let's go to Iceland for a week, too. We'll go see the family farm. There's this museum that they built for your great aunt. We'll go see that. And I, I'm in. I'm in. Absolutely. And so we went to Iceland and had a spectacular time. Uh, life-changing, really. I've been back to Iceland like six times since the year 2000. But the real point of this story happened in the south of France. So we're down there visiting my brother, and he's staying at this beautiful place. Uh, remember Microsoft? <clears throat> no resentment for me here, right? And so we're staying at this beautiful, beautiful place. And one of the, and one of the nights, my brother goes, hey, 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 uh, I'm treating, and Carl, you're driving. We're going to go out for a 13-course French meal. We'll have the nannies watch the children, and us four will go, my mom, my brother, his wife, and so I drove, and we went to this spectacular castle in the French countryside, and the courtyard was a, a restaurant, and we were going to have a 13-course French meal. If you've never had a 13-course French meal, what they do is they bring a tiny little bit of food 13 times. That's what they do, 13. <laughs> and with each one of these tiny little bits of food... They bring you an even smaller, embarrassingly small, tiny little glass of wine. And my brother and his wife uh, were trying to, my mom had just a little bit, uh, my brother and his wife were having a good time and they recognize a good drinking opportunity. They're not alcoholic, but they enjoy alcohol and they're trying, if they liked one, they would get to, you know, have another one of those. And if they didn't, they, you know, and the waiter was telling this, each little glass of wine, the waiter would tell a story about the vineyard that that came from, the family who owned the vineyard and the history behind this family. All very interesting stuff. I was trying all the Diet Cokes of the region. And so I kept asking the waiter, no story about this? No, no, monsieur. Right? So like I said, my brother and his wife are having a good time. And, but my mother, after two tiny little glasses of wine, says to the waiter, no more for me, she says. And I go, and I've known that. I've known my mom. She, like, she has like two drinks a year and never finishes them. You know, she just, and I go, mom, come on, I'm driving. For God's sake, have a little more. And she goes, no, 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 Carl, I don't like the way it makes me feel. <laughs> right, if I were smart, I'd just leave it alone and carry on. But, but this, the way she said it this time just really piqued my interest. And I go, how does it make you feel, Mom? And she goes, well, well, Carl, like you had said earlier, I'm having a once-in-a-lifetime experience sitting in this beautiful courtyard looking at the spectacular colors of the French countryside at sunset. The string quartet is just, oh, it's rattling my bones, Carl. I just love that. And I'm here talking with three of the people I love the most in the world. And if I were to drink a little bit too much alcohol, the colors become blurry and dull. The music starts to sound shallow and off in the distance. And I have a hard time keeping a conversation going with you. Do you get that? That is fundamentally the exact opposite to relate to relationship to alcohol than I have. Because what she's saying is of and by herself, she sees the colors of life. She hears the music and she can connect with God's other kids. She adds a little alcohol, it all gets dull, blurry, and sloppy. 
Me, of and by myself, I cannot see the colors of life. I cannot hear the music, and you're goddamn boring. <laughs> you are. <laughs> I get three or four drinks in me, and <laughs> look at those colors. Oh, look at, brilliant. Oh. Listen to that music. Oh, I'll tell you where that cello was made, whether I know or not. I can make up the name of a German village on the spot. And you become very interesting. But not as interesting as me. I remember I had this experience of... So that's why you won't sell your soul for a drink. Oh. So then I look at my brother and his wife, and they're over there having a good time. (laughs) And I go, do you feel that way? Does it sort of get blurry and sloppy? And he goes, yeah, 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 but we like it blurry, and we like to escape. Our lives are kind of tough. You know, we like to escape. And I go, oh, you're escaping. I'm trying just to join And you're escaping. Oh, completely different. Completely different. I'm convinced that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is designed to do. It's designed to let me see the colors of life, to hear the music of life, and connect with God's other kids without a drink. And if I don't get that in my life, I'm not going to stay. I have to somehow, someway find that here in Alcoholics Anonymous. If I find that, that renders the... I am no longer susceptible to the first drink. If I find this joy, this love for life in Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm no longer susceptible to the first drink. And if I do not take the first drink, the fact that I have an allergy to it is a moot point. Right, So that's why the book says when we straighten out spiritually, then we straighten out physically and mentally. So I'm sitting in the back of that meeting in San Diego. One guy that night found me in the back. Came up to me and said, hey, never seen you here before. What are you doing? I didn't think quick enough to lie to him because I swear to you. I swear to you, if I would have thought for one more second, I would have lied to him. And I accidentally told him the truth. And I said, uh... I said, I just got out of a Navy treatment center a couple hours ago. I don't know what I'm doing. This guy's eyes went, bing, big smile went across his face. At the break of the meeting, he's like fighting his friends. He's mine, he's mine, I got him, mine, mine, get away from me. I didn't know you mark your newcomers in here, right? But there was something else going on in this guy's life that particular Friday night that made him especially glad to meet me. This guy's girlfriend had left him the night before for one of his friends in his home group. So he was wondering what he was going to do with that weekend. Homicide, suicide, get loaded or grab this newcomer. He's like all over me all weekend. We went to like 18 meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
And this guy was insane over this woman, flat out insane. In between this barrage of meetings he took me to, he would throw me in the passenger side of his car, he'd start driving, and he'd start yelling. He wouldn't even look at the road. He had like one of those AA radar cars that just made it to the next meeting, right? And he'd just be yelling at me, you got to go to meetings, you got to read the book, you got to get a sponsor. Damn her! got to go to meetings, you got to read the book, damn her! And I'm like... I didn't know it, but I was getting a very early introduction to your typical AA relationship breakup is what I was getting. But I'm so very glad that that guy, that night, in his pain, was a guy in Alcoholics Anonymous who had done the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, had taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and therefore, he understood that the solution to his pain was out of self, out of self, out of self. I am so glad that that guy, that night, in his pain, was not at home whining into his sponsor's answer machine. If you're younger than 30 years old, an answer machine is this box that sits on, right. So glad he was not at home whining into his sponsor's answer machine. Where are you? Call me. Fix me. Give me a magical answer. I'm so glad he was out dragging my sorry butt. So many meetings in the same area town with that guy, I learned something really valuable about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, especially when we're new. I saw other people going to multiple meetings over that weekend. I didn't see anybody else doing 18 meetings, just me and that guy. But I saw other people that were at two or three meetings over that weekend. And what I learned about how we go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous I'm going to correlate it to a football team. Now, a football team is out there on the field for one reason and one reason only, to win the game. And how do they win that game? They huddle up, they make a plan, and they do one play. Then they huddle up again, they make another plan, and they do one play. That's exactly what we do here in Alcoholics Anonymous. And the game around here is one day without a drink, you're a big winner. And how do we do that one day? We run in here and we huddle up. Go remember... We're bodily and mentally different from our fellows. Break! And we go out there and we try a little of this and we try a little of that. <laughs> After that weekend, I got back to the ship and one other sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous was waiting for me. His name was Bob W. He was 14 months sober and he became my first sponsor even before I asked him. He could care less whether I wanted him to be my, him to be my sponsor or not. He, he was trying to save his own life, and he was just all over me. He, it was kind of a captive audience because I would have to jump off the ship to get away from him. <laughs> I'm really, really grateful for this guy. We were the blind leading the blind. In my first two years of, alco- of, of sobriety, I was a nomad in Alcoholics Anonymous. Our ship went up and down the West Coast and up into Alaska and down to South America and out to Hawaii. And he and I would go to meetings wherever we, we could when, when we'd get off the ship. And when the ship was out at sea, he, would, he made me meet him in the aft end of the ship, way down in this little battery shop in this little, little room at the bottom of the engine room. I remember the very first night that I met him uh, down there. He had that blue book with him, right? And he tossed it down the table. He goes, I've been hounding about it for weeks or months. Have you read it? And I said, like, well, yeah, yeah. There's, like, how it works. We antagonists. Some... <laughs> Some doctor with an opinion about something. Now remember, he was only 14 months sober. He didn't know what he was doing. But he opened up the book and he started to read. And when he was tired, I would read. 
And I really look at it as Alcoholics Anonymous in its purest form, the blind leading the blind, two guys trying to have an experience with the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we didn't even know what that experience would be. But it happened. He died three years ago. He was only 47 years old. He was younger than I was. But you know what? He still had 14 more months than me. The other thing that I learned while with Bob is that when we had the, the when I went through the steps the first time in that book, I got what is described in the back of the book under spirit, the appendices spiritual experience as it's described as a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. But I was not going to get the real gift of Alcoholics Anonymous until I ever so feebly tried to do with someone else what he had done with me. I also learned that we have a responsibility to stay in our home groups, to take our seats, and do our part in Alcoholics Anonymous because there's this magic that separates us from every other spiritual movement that's ever hit the planet. And that is one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic. Something happens that happens nowhere else. And we can affect each other like no one else can. So we got to stay here. How I learned that, again, I just like love to tell stories. How I learned about this magic of one alcoholic can affect another one. As I said, my first sponsor, Bob, and I would often split, uh, would often go to, would always go to meetings whenever the ship pulled in, but we would sometimes split a hotel room, right, to get off that ship. And this time we were in Victoria, British Columbia, and we split a hotel room. We were at the Strathcona Hotel. And we went out to the AA clubhouse, went to the meeting, and after the meeting was over, Bob said, uh, you know, Carl, I'm not feeling very well. I don't know what's up, but I'm going to go back to the hotel room. I stayed out with the AAers. I maybe went out to coffee, maybe another meeting. I don't remember. But an hour and a half, two hours later, I come back to the hotel room. Well, Bob, on his way back to the hotel room, had found this other guy from our ship named Blair. And he'd found him in the gutter. I mean, Blair's got puke on him. He's got crap on him from the streets. And he'd been on a two-day drunk. And Bob has him on my bed. <clears throat> He's propped up against the headboard with like an end table and a chair and a pillow. And Bob is there reading the big book to Blair. <clears throat> we are more than 100. And I look at this scene. I go, it's ridiculous. Blair's like, <clears throat> right? He can't hear a thing, but Bob is there reading. I think it's ridiculous. But I throw, I come in, I throw my 10 cents in. And then, then we carry Blair back to the ship to make sure he's safe, get him into his rack. And he's all right. So last we hear of Blair for weeks. We're back in Port in San Diego a, a, a number of weeks later, and I'm in my rack at 3 a.m., and all of a sudden, wake up, wake up. I'm like, whoa, 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 what? And it's Bob. He goes, Carl, get up. Blair's on the Coronado Bridge. we got to go get him. Apparently, over the last few weeks, Blair has tried to drink. He's tried not to drink. He's tried to drink. He's tried not to. He's at the jumping off place, right? He's up on the Coronado Bridge. And I don't know if you know about, enough about the Coronado Bridge, but it's a very popular suicide spot. Back in the 80s and 90s, before cell phones, they had suicide hotline phones about every 100 yards. Now they just give you a cell phone number. <clears throat> but anyway, they're hoping that you might call before you... Well, they're hoping you call before while your feet are still on the bridge, apparently. And Blair had called the suicide hotline up at the top of the Coronado Bridge. And this is what Blair was telling the very well-meaning, highly educated suicide hotline counselor. Blair was saying, I will only talk to Bob W. <laughs> the suicide hotline counselor was saying, who's Bob W? Blair was saying, it's anonymous. It's <clears throat> anonymous. 
So that counselor went and got another well-meaning, her boss went and got uh, another well-meaning, highly qualified suicide hotline counselor. And they got both got on the phone. They started to do the good cop, bad cop, firing questions, confuse him. And they found out he's from the Navy and what ship he's from. Right? They confused him enough to get that out of him. So they got called down to the quarter deck of our ship at 3 a.m. in the morning and take a stab in the dark. Is there a Bob W. on that ship? Now, my first sponsor, Bob, would guard your anonymity at the level of that ship, but he did not guard his own so he could be of service at any time. So the guy who answered the phone said, yeah, 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 Mr. Twelve Steps, we know all about him. So they go down and get Bob, and then Bob, come on, Carl, wake up, wake up. So we get into Bob's car, and we're driving down to the Coronado Bridge, and Bob looks at me and goes, Carl, get the big book out of the glove box. Bone up on working with others. Like, all right. He looks at me and laughs. He goes, oh, forget it. We're going to wing it tonight. So we get down to the base of the Coronado Bridge, and everything that San Diego County has available for a situation like this is there. The fire department is there. The paramedics are there. The police department is there. The on-duty psychologist is there. And we walk up on the scene, and the fireman who seems to be in charge looks over as we walk up and goes, Is one of you Bob W.? (laughs) Bob goes, Yeah, yeah, that's me. Fireman goes, I don't know what you're going to do. We've been talking to him for hours, but go ahead. Here you go. Hands him this little speakerphone contraption. And Bob says, Blair. And you can hear on the other end, Bob, is that you? <laughs> Bob says, yes, Blair, it's me. Now get the hell down from that bridge. And you hear, okay. <laughs> one alcoholic can affect another alcoholic like no one else can. Don't forget that. We need to show up. I've got about seven more minutes. I'm going to try to squeeze in two things here. Really, I can sum up everything that's happened to me in my 27 years of sobriety in a couple of things here. Uh, in 1998, uh, my, I was asked to come down and do what I'm doing right now down in Nogales, Arizona. And before I left, and this is back before everybody had a cell phone, right, when everybody carried those pagers. Remember those pagers? Nobody still has a pager, do they? Right? So anyway, before I left, I think, you know, there's these big blackout areas where the pagers wouldn't work. Before I left, I called my mother, and I go, Mom, if you try to page me this weekend, don't get worried if I don't call you right back, because I'm going to be in Nogales, Arizona. The pager might not be working. Right? I already worried my mother enough over the enough years. Don't need her to worry when I'm sober. She goes, oh, you need to get a hold of Don and Leona. They live right near there. And I go, uh, remind me who they, oh, she goes, oh, that's right. You haven't seen them since you were like nine years old, Carl. I guess you wouldn't remember. Oh, that, yeah. But Don was the best man at your father's and my wedding. They, lifelong friends. They, he, they would love to see you. So I go, okay, mom, absolutely. So I call up Don. I go, Don, this is Carl Morris. I'm going to be uh, just a little bit south of you. I'd love to get together for some coffee or something Saturday at noon. He goes, oh, I, I hear you love to golf. Bring your golf clubs. Now that surprised me. I go, well, yes, that's true. I'm a golf whore. I'll golf with anybody at any time for any reason. I don't even need to know your name. I'll golf with you. But I, how does he know that? I brought my clubs, and on Saturday morning, I took off from the conference, and I drove up about 15 miles up the freeway, met him at his golf, golf, uh, his golf club, and we started to walk along. And, he, and the more we talked, the more confused I got, because he started to give me, he started to ask me very pertinent, very specific questions about my life. He knew what school I had graduated from, what degree I had, what uh, con- companies I'd been with, what these recovery homes I'm involved. He just knew everything about my life. And by the fourth hole, I go, Don, I'm really confused here. 
I haven't seen you since I was nine years old. And you seem to know everything about my life. How on earth is that? He goes, oh, Carl, that's easy. Before your father passed away two years ago, you couldn't shut him up. He would go on and on. It was irritating sometimes, Carl. But he would go on. He just boasted about everything you were doing in your life. Now, that was nice to hear, but it wasn't, it wasn't news because, because of the, you told me do not procrastinate reestablishing a relationship with your father, Carl. And how you are going to do that, Carl, is you're going to quit trying to get him to understand you. It's your job to understand him. And you act that way every single time you talk to him. And because I didn't procrastinate on that, I was able to have a relationship with my father before he passed away. That wasn't so, but it was, so it wasn't news, but it was really nice to hear from a lifelong friend. But the second reason, I couldn't even golf anymore. He said, besides, Carl, every Christmas I get the letter. I'm like, yes, I finally got in that thing. <laughs> when I was uh, 17 years sober, I got married, and we had two beautiful, beautiful kids. The marriage did not work out. I know you've never heard of that in AA, <laughs> but... But you know what? We've got these two beautiful kids that we both love so much, right? And she's a good mother. She is a good, good mother. And we have tried our best to be good co-parents. And we're doing a pretty darn good job of it. But, man, something something cracked in me when Madison, their names are Madison and Ryan. Madison just turned 10. Ryan is 7. And, man, there's something inside of me that cracked when she was born and, and when he was born. And, oh, a little, little piece of trivia my sobriety date is January 21st, 1987. My son's birthday is January 21st, 2007. On my 20th AA birthday. It's like, oh. Anyway. <laughs> this level of love for another human being, I did not know that existed until I had kids. I mean, it's like I met who I would die for. I know in the military, when I raised my hand, I said I would do it. I was hoping it was not going to come to that. I really was. <laughs> But really, if, if it's, it, it's like I, I mean, here's an like if Ralph or Char, Ralph and Charlie and I or, or John back there, if we were, if we were out at Starbucks this weekend and some guy comes in wielding a gun saying, when are you going to go? I would go, well, have you met Ralph? Have you met Charlie? Have you met Post-it John? Right? But if I were with my kids, I would dive right in, without even a thought, without even a thought. I would never trade my kids for the first drink never in a million years but I'm alcoholic I know what it means to be alcoholic although I would never trade them for the first drink I would trade them for the second drink like that so there is nothing that is more important than Carl being in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous that's why I love weekends like this. I get to sit the whole rest of the weekend right there with you and just absorb everything that these brilliant other members of Alcoholics Anonymous have to say this weekend. Do not miss it. Get up for the 9 a.m. one. Don't sleep in. Katie and Ralph are the two 9 a.m.s, right? You don't want to miss that. Come, join, be with us this weekend. It's spectacular. Thank you. I introduce Mike L. with honor. All right, Mike Alcoholic. 
Uh, dry date September 7, 1985, and uh, that's just kind of average in this crew, but uh, really surprised the people that had watched me fail for years. Uh, I, uh, I sponsor the son of the guy who I hope gave me my last desire chip, and when Bob Sr. gave me that chip, he said if he had to give me another one, it would be in suppository form. So... Uh, <laughs> So just give you a, a, a flavor of what I was like around, around AA when I got here. I, uh, it sounded like uh, Erica was reading a note from my former wife here when she was re- <laughs> t- talk, talking about tornadoes in the home and hearts broken and sweet relationships torn apart. Uh, and it's strange that I would be talking on this topic because... Uh, I managed to do most all of that sober. Uh, I'm I'm one of the people that uh, managed to create a lot of harm once the plug went in the jug. And uh, thank God uh, for spiritual principles and uh, the people that have showed up over the years to uh, guide me uh, along the path once the plug did go in the jug. Uh, If you'll indulge me just a moment here, I'd like to uh, just take a couple quiet moments here and uh, begin this session with uh, a little meditation that I wrote uh, a few years ago for some, uh, regarding something else, and uh, I think it's really appropriate. Uh, it's, uh, it's about our first principle, uh, the principle of unity. And I think that's what this entire weekend is, is about. And I found that uh, unity is a vital thing because I've got to have it in all areas of my life. Uh, first, uh, you know, at the f- first I drank for unity. I drank so I could be with me. I drank so I could be with you. I drank so I could just breathe and be in the world. And I didn't know that's what it was, but it turned out that's what it was. And now I've got to, I've got to have unity in, in my business relationships, my personal relationships, and, and obviously uh, with my relationship with God. So, uh, oh, gentle God, please show me the things I already know but I'm unaware of. Reveal to me the wisdom that I already have. I've failed to pay attention to my life, and I've squandered the riches of my own experience. Like Gulliver, I'm tethered and bound by countless old ideas. I'm now ready for you to remove the shroud from my eyes. How has has self-reliance failed me? Haven't my best intentions failed to produce lasting happiness? God, please redirect that marvelous will you gave me so that it might align with yours. God, please channel my energy that my efforts might be useful to you and my fellows. If I'm to be truly happy, joyous, and free, I must be guided by the principle of unity. 
My heart's unspoken desire has always been to live in unity with you and my fellows. I'm now willing for you to remove the blinders from my eyes and my soul that I may stand in the sunlight. My fear has failed to protect me. I must let it go. Envy has blinded me to my own gifts. I must let it go. Jealousy has poisoned my loving spirit. I must let it go. I'm malnourished for I've been feeding on my ego, starving at the banquet of love. I've lived in the insanity of separation from you and my fellows. Now is the time to turn my prodigal spirit towards home. Loving spirit, restore me to sanity. Loving spirit, please bring my wandering spirit into unity with you and my fellows. Amen. I am. I grew up in a little Big Ten college town in, in Iowa, Iowa City, and when I grew up there in the 50s, it was, uh, uh, there were about uh, 25,000 uh, permanent residents and uh, 25,000 at the university or a few more, and uh, it, was a, it was a classic little small town, college town life, and everybody knew everybody else, and I've... Uh, I really panicked when I saw forgiveness there because uh, on the on the program because I don't have much of if anything at all to ever forgive those people for. If 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 anything, uh, I'm sad that I failed to be awake and listen and appreciate uh, the growing up and the raising that I, that I had. I, I didn't come from a perfect family, but I came from a what I'll call a functional family. I'm the oldest of four kids. Uh, And the sad thing was that I lived most of my life as if I was an only child. Uh, And when it came time to make amends to those brothers and my sister, it was for because their big brother just sucked the oxygen out of the room. Uh, Because the drama, whether it was good or bad, was always about Mike. Oh, Mike's been wounded again. Mike's done this again. Oh, Mike's in trouble again. You know. Give you a little quick snapshot and then we'll get... I, uh, I was a guy who... Uh, I've always been a power seeker. I, uh, I looked for power in the beginning before I found alcohol and other stuff. I, I looked for it by pleasing adults and people I thought had power. And uh, so I was a very good student, and I, I worked in the principal's office, and I belonged to all the appropriate organizations and that kind of stuff. And uh, if your parents, uh, somebody would ask me over to your house for dinner, uh, you'd wince a little bit, because as soon as dinner was over, I'd jump up and start clearing the plates from the table and carrying them out in the kitchen, and I'm rinsing them off. And pretty soon your mother turns to you and says, Billy, why can't you be like that nice Lorenz boy? You know, and I, I had what I needed. I thought it was a, a hit off that approval crack pipe. <laughs> yeah. 
drama and approval, those are my, my drugs of choice, Carl. Uh, I, uh, when I'm 11 years old, I, fi- I, fi- I got a hold of enough alcohol that the miracle happened. And the miracle for me was just exactly what uh, Carl Jung describes in our, our page 27 of our, our basic text where he's talking to Roland Hazard and trying to tell Roland what a spiritual awakening was. Uh, he says, uh, and I'm paraphrasing, ideas and emotions that govern the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a new set of conceptions takes hold. And that's what happened in the Lorenz household when Mike got enough liquor that he found the miracle. See, everything, I didn't care, with, within weeks, I didn't, now I wasn't out sticking up 7-Elevens, you know, doing B&Es, doing anything dramatic. You can't do that when you're 11 years old. But <laughs> I, by God, don't need your approval anymore. And that just stunned my parents. They thought there had been a demon possession in our household. You know, that what happened to the honor student, you know? It's all, yeah, get out of my... You're ruining my life. You don't want me to have any fun. You're putting too much pressure on me. No wonder I... I got a drink. You're putting pressure on me. Uh, You want me to show up for class. I mean, you know. So... uh, you know, and I expect that's not unusual. A lot of people will have that reaction. However, it started to manifest. And, and, and I got in touch with this piece because I got here and I was sober for a period of time. And I really believed that there was a period of normal drinking that I'd enjoyed. And it turns out there was just a period without handcuffs and, and consequences, you know. But there was never any normal drinking. Let me tell you what normal drinking looked like for me. I'm, uh, I told you I grew up in this little town and, and we know everybody in town and my folks and my dad's a businessman there and my mother's in the bridge club with the president of the university's wife and the police chief's wife and the sheriff's wife and all this. So we know everybody in this town. And uh, I'm about 16 because I'm just driving recently, and I'm out with a buddy kind of riding around out in the county with a couple of six-packs in the car, and we're drinking and we're yucking it up and having a good time, and all of a sudden the red light comes on. Well, uh, turns out it's Barney Fife, the, the deputy, is going Barney, Barney's going to pull me over. Now, I know Barney. Barney knows me. Barney, every, every, it's, it's all cool. So I pull, this, this was the days before two-man patrol cars. So Barney, Barney pulls me over, and I turn to my buddy, and I say, watch this. So I get out of the car, and I'm smiling, and I'm waving, and I'm walking back toward Barney, and he kind of, he's, you know, he isn't smiling, but he, he knows who he's got. And all of a sudden, as I get parallel with him, I grab him and I slam him down across the hood of his squad car and I take his gun away from him. And then I turned around and I gave it back to him. And he was upset. (laughs) I mean, he was just sputtering, you know. And I've always... You know, my four-year-old told me once, you know, that I'm always, I'm a little smart, too smart for my own good. You know, he says, Mike, you'll do a lot better if you'd probably start doing the second thing that comes to your mind instead of the first. 
But I, uh, what happened is Barney yelled at me and screamed at me and gave me a lecture and poured the beer out. But at the end of the day, he turned me loose. Because I had it figured out. There's no way Barney's going to write me up, take me in, and have to listen to his buddies at the sheriff's department razz him for the rest of his career about the kid that took his gun away. Not going to happen. And the most important part of that deal was that my buddies looking out the back window of that car with big bug eyes watching this all go on, and he runs back to my high school, and he's all over telling about Lorenz taking the cop's gun away the next day, and I get a, I get a little, you know, I can walk down the hall at my school. I'm, I'm, I'm somebody, you know, in my mind, and I needed to be somebody. And uh, then the last piece of normal drinking I'll tell you about uh, was about a year later. We. <laughs> We, we, we had another tragedy at the Lorenz household. Uh, I'd been lobbying my dad for a new Corvette for a period of time because I, you know, I need to be somebody, so I needed a Corvette. And uh, instead of buying me the Corvette that I was entitled to, he actually bought my mother a new car, if you can imagine such a thing. And To add insult to injury, he bought her the lamest possible thing you could think of. He bought her a four-door Buick hardtop with that kind of ARP senior citizen tan color, you know, uh, that that you see putting along. And and I'm I'm, I'm mortified. And I'm I'm, I'm sincerely outraged. Uh, now, Now, my mother, if she had been able to keep drinking. She could have been one of us, I think, but she was just kind of normally my my uh, confidant and competitor, uh, confederate. And so eventually, after a couple of weeks, she decides that, uh, you know, she's going to give me her new car for a date. And so I take the car out, and I don't remember about the date, but what happened was after I got through with the date, met up with the guys later that night, and we're, we're having a few drinks, and it's going on, and I end up down at sometime after midnight at uh, my buddy Jerry's da- dad owns a machine shop. And so we're down at Buck's machine shop, and one of my friends, we all got to have friends like this, is razzing me about this car, and then he lights a fires up a cutting torch and puts the torch in my hand, and I get the brilliant idea, well, I may not have a Corvette, but at least I can have a convertible. So I proceed to cut the top off Mom's new car. Now now we fast forward to Sunday morning at the Lorenz house. Uh, my parents bring the younger kids. They're going to take them to church, and they come out in the garage, and here's the smoking hulk of Mom's car uh, with Big Brother laid out naked across the front seat. And I, I'll, I, all I can remember really is my mother screaming, Art, don't hit him, don't hit him. Uh, <laughs> And so that was my normal drinking period.
got uh, got sober by a series of miracles that that we've all had in our own ways and, and got here and uh, once I once I finally caught hold here in Alcoholics Anonymous I uh, I found I, I love I loved AA uh, and I did what I what I'd never done before I, I became an active member of Alcoholics Anonymous or what I thought an active member was I'm going to 11 meetings a week I'm uh, I'm I'm grabbing a hold of every service position I can I can get to it and this is not 90 meetings in 90 days this is year after year after year uh, and. Uh, I uh, love all this stuff. Oh, I even started my own meeting. Uh, this is my junior guru phase, and if you're going to be a junior guru, you've got to have your own meeting. Uh, because chances are there are meetings where they're just not doing it correctly. And, you know, so... Uh, And I get a, I get a new, I'd crashed and burned badly, but I get a new career and I, and I, and I, I meet and marry a beautiful woman and she, she's got a year and a half year old son and so I'm, I'm, I'm instant dad and we're back, I'm back living on the cul-de-sac. It all looks good. Sponsoring people. Uh, but as my fifth anniversary in Alcoholics Anonymous approaches, uh, I'm considering suicide with a sincerity I never had when I was drinking. I'm more hopeless and more broken five years away from a drink than I ever was when I was drinking. Uh, and my experience was, see, when I was drinking, uh, there was always the hope that someday I might get sober and the pain might stop and the, and the things that were driving the demons might go away and, and so forth. And if you'd listened to everybody talk, it sounded like drinking was my problem. You know, I, how many people would said to me over the years, Mike, if you just didn't drink, you know, uh, we'd promote you in this company. If you just didn't drink, I'd keep this engagement ring. If you just didn't drink, you know, whatever you want to you want to call it. I haven't had a drink for five years. I've been given, given gifts. I, I'm, I'm going to lots and lots of AA meetings. And I don't know it, but I'm dying from untreated alcoholism, sitting right, going to 11 meetings a week, and slinging slogans around AA. Uh, there's a gal back home that likes to remind me that she... She was a few years, she is a few years in front of me, and she was, uh, she was a young divorcee with four children, and her crazy husband that I allegedly sponsored came, came by drunk with a shotgun and terrorized her and the kids, and my, my suggestion to her was she needed to do more service work. Really? Really? Uh, but that's all I have. And I love AA. And my friends are here. But my secret when I'm sitting in the room is this works for you because I can see you're changed and I can see you're happy and I can see that your, your, your lives are going differently. 
but I feel like I'm full of broken glass. See, if that wife I love, she's telling me things like, Mike, being married to you is the loneliest thing I've ever tried to do. Mike, do you suppose if I let you sponsor me that we could have one of those intimate conversations you have with those guys you sponsor? I know more about what you think, feel, and believe by listening to your half of those conversations than from anything you'll tell me. And God's got a sense of humor because in the, in the midst of all of this, uh, well, your, your speaker tomorrow, one of them, uh, was the guy I dislike most in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and I disliked him. I began disliking him, first of all, because my married girlfriend thought he was cute. And <laughs> that, that'll do it every time. Uh, and, uh, yeah, gosh, the first time I met Gary... Uh, I was getting a 90-day chip, and he was getting a 21-year token. And everybody went, oh, God, he's gorgeous. Oh, he's so tall. He looks like the Marlboro Man. You know, and, uh, yeah, you know. Uh, and so... Turns out later Don tells me, you know, if all you've got is resentment and a bad attitude, God can work with that. So there was this Sunday Sunday morning fancy speaker meeting uh, that I would go to, and I, being a junior guru, I had one of the I didn't have the front center table, but I had one of the front tables at this thing, and it was with tablecloths and china and all this kind of stuff, and. I'm sitting there with my sycophants, and I find out too late this guy I'm gonna, I hate is going to talk at this meeting. And, see, my ego trapped me in that chair. If I'd had my, I wanted, everything in me wanted to stomp out of that room and not listen to a damn thing that this guy had to say. But I was afraid that somebody, if they saw me leave split before the talk, would think there was something wrong with me. And you can't think there's anything wrong with me. So I, I sat and I listened to the talk from the guy I didn't like. And the fast-forward version of this is that he said some things about his recovery and his experience with this that I knew for a fact were lies. They couldn't be true. And so being a spiritual giant, he would mentioned where his home group was, and it was way out of my way, about a 30-mile drive around town. Uh, but being spiritual, I decided that I was going to track him down to his home group and expose him as a phony and liar and see if I could, <laughs> see if I could run him out of AA. <laughs> so I, I, I showed up at my current home group. Uh, <laughs> With this agenda, and, and Gary meets me at the door and welcomes me, and I go in, and I sit through the meeting. Anyway, I never got the goods on him. I mean, I don't know why he, you know, he kept up a good front. And I was leaving this place never to return again, you know. I don't need this kind of stuff. And just as I'm leaving, he grabs me and he says, Hey, Mike, I'm supposed to chair next week, but I may have a business commitment that will keep me from being here. Would you be willing to fill in for me? Well, 
I'll come back to run your group, you know. I, <laughs> so once again, ego snagged when I came back there. And I, and I further from a drink than I ever imagined I could be, I, I got to have a, have a, finally have an experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. What happened to me was uh, a great deal like when I'd gone to the university years before. I went over the field house, registered for all my classes, bought my books, joined a fraternity, threw the books in the closet, and started to party. And if you ask me what I was doing there on campus, I'd say, well, I'm a pre-law student here at the University of Iowa, sir. Well, that's technically true, except I'm like Carl. I'm rarely in class. And uh, that's what I'd done in AA. I'd, I'd never missed a meeting. I'd never missed a dance. I didn't miss a service commitment. I just missed the program. <laughs> now, that didn't, that didn't keep me from talking about the program as you, you know, I, I would... I would tell you, you need to turn that over. Now, now if, if you'd asked me how the hell I was going to go about doing that, I wouldn't have had a clue. You know, I, well, I think there's some kind of prayer you say, do that, you know. So, uh, turns out, uh, yeah, spiritual principles... I got here, now this was before I got married, but what my early sober time in AA, uh, I'm having a conversation with my sponsor number two in the parking lot of the, the local AA club. And uh, I'm, uh, <coughs> George is releasing me with love at this time. And, and the reason is that, uh, I'm, as I explained to you, I'm dating a married woman in the program. I'm sponsoring her 16-year-old son. And I play cards on the weekend with her husband, and he's a gun-toting federal agent. And, and George says, Mike, you know, every time I can confront you about your behavior, you explain it to me in such a way that I start to think it might be God's will. He says, I, <laughs> he says, I know that's insane, so I can't have anything to do with you. So this is what sober Mike looks like, and uh, Gary, Gary and the guys got a hold of me, and I, I, I had my first real experience, and it was unfortunately not in time to, uh, to have uh, to save that marriage. Uh, by the way, if you're trying to save a marriage, don't do something like go home and tell your wife who's eight months sober longer than you are that you're going to have step study school for her at the kitchen table at your house. Uh, that, that, that is not a good move. Uh, so, spiritual principles here. It turns, it turns out, here's what... I'll, uh, I'll share with you something. This is, this is how I started to connect in a concrete way. And uh, now, with the proviso that Katie's going to tell you how to do this very correctly in the morning, uh, this, this is a very imperfect effort. I'm, I'm here and I survived as a result of lots of very imperfect efforts in AA. Uh, one, of, one of the things that Don told me, he says, the only time you need to do something perfectly in AA is if you've taken the position that you're only going to do it once. If you're going to do it once, then it better be perfect. 
But if you're willing to repeat as necessary, uh, then uh, then you need no ha- have no fear about maybe not correctly, quite correctly doing it, because you'll life is generous and you'll have another t- chance. So. Uh, a guy that I'd met along the way, uh, had, had, I was calling him and calling him and trying to get him uh, some insight and stuff from my, I don't know what. St- I'm a spiritual thief, turns out. Yeah. I, uh, I laid that line on, on Don once. Don, I want what you have. He says, you can't have it. <laughs> what? He says... He says, you can, what I've got is mine. He says, I'll show you how to get yours, but you can't have mine. And by the way, why would you want it? Uh, so I'm trying to get something from, from Mickey, and uh, I keep calling him and calling him. Finally, he says, look, Mike, I've told you I want you to do this piece of inventory. If you're not willing to do it, don't call me back until you've done it. Click. So I, I wrote a piece of inventory I didn't want to write. Uh, and like I did so often, I, I'm, I'm, I put myself in this position because I've way overthought this whole thing. See, what he wanted me to write about was all the ways I hated myself. And that sounded way too new agey. And besides that, I knew that if I put myself in column one there, I was going to get taken to a place where I might have to make amends to myself. And I don't want to be like that guy that I see in the noon meeting, you know, the half measures meeting there. He's, he's in there talking about, oh, I think I hurt myself more than anybody else. And <laughs> instead of paying my back child support, I bought a Porsche for my inner child, you know. Uh, see, this is, this is the way my ego will keep me away from life saving stuff. And so anyway, I, uh, I'm, I won't. This is boring stuff, but I'll, I'll give you just a, a, a little little taste of what rolled off here. Uh, uh, I resent Mike uh, because I'm uh, unable to be a true friend. I gossip. I only pretend to care about you. My mind's only f- always focused on me. And by the way, watch your wife or girlfriend around me. Hmm. Affects my self-esteem because I don't respect my own behavior. Imagine that. Uh, security's lacking because I either assume other people are like me and don't really care, or they're better than I am because they do. I built myself a box there. Uh, <coughs> affects my personal sex relation because I'm always looking for my own pleasure and trying to manipulate other people for my own benefit. Even the good things I do are done to impress others or benefit me and manage and control how others see me. My mistakes. Well, I'm unwilling to trust God. I want to be important, the center of attention, full of ego. Uh, and I find an old idea here. Why am I interested in your wife or girlfriend? Well, if I can, the old idea here is if I can be loved by somebody you want, I can steal a little self-worth, you know. Uh, if you're married to her or you're dating her, uh, she's already pre-approved, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's given. She's, she's a good deal. No. 
that's uh, there's there were pages and pages of, of junk like that, and there isn't any particular marvelous insight in all of that. But what happens? See, I come from a tradition uh, where we. Uh, when we write inventory, uh, we tend to share it with more than one person. So I, I shared it with the guy that made me write it, and you know, it was sort of okay. I, I got around finally. I'm sharing it with another. I'm sharing it with Don, and, and I went after page and page after, and he changed my life. He said, Mike, every one of those fourth columns, I hear somewhere in there, unwilling or unable to trust God, unwilling or unable to trust God. It's there all over this thing. Its fingerprints are all over it. And he says, I believe you're a man who'd very much like to trust God. So if you're not able to trust God, there must be something blocking you. Let's see if we can find out what that is. And so what happened, uh, he sent me into consideration with that. And I, where I came back, came out is I'm... Uh, 21, 22 years old. I'm sitting at the kitchen table. I'm back from Vietnam. Uh, I've, uh, I'm a highly decorated guy in my part of the country and, and all that kind of stuff. And my dad, my, the guy who's my hero, is sitting across that kitchen table from me. And he's not angry. He's got tears in his eyes. And he's looking at me and he says, Son... He says, I love you more than anything I can even begin to tell you about. And he says, I'd do anything to help you, but it seems like the more I do for you, the worse you screw up. What am I going to do with you? And given what I'd been doing, I mean, he's got a pile of my bad checks there. He had to go around to his friends and fellow businessmen and buy his kids' bad checks back and and all that stuff. Of course, I, I've broken his heart time and time again. I terrified him when I was in the war. And I've broken this strong man that's my hero. And so what I've done with that, I was, I'm operating at this time from the conception of God the Father. See, what I've done is I've transferred my father's perfectly appropriate reaction to my behavior over... I hear God telling me, look at all I've done for you, Mike. I've given you careers. I've given you an education. I've given you relationships. I've given you a marriage. I've, I've given you money. I've given you everything, and you keep screwing up. What am I going to do with you? See, what was a perfectly appropriate response from my human father was a death sentence when I, when I put that on, on the God of my understanding. And I didn't even know that was there until that man helped me find it. Uh, and then uh, get into the part that really started the change. Uh, we got to find something or somebody where I can begin to have a relationship. I, I had a... <laughs> A good friend by the name of Clint, and Clint, Clint would always harp on the fact that he says, Mike, you don't need to believe in God, you need to have a relationship with God. And his example, he says, you know that in your inventory, that, that cheerleader, Becky, that you were all excited about, he says, now did you, what, did you need to believe in Becky, or did you need to have a little something more going on with Becky? I mean, was just believing in Becky going to be, get the job done? And, 
He says, if it's that way with Becky, then it's probably that way, you know, in this relationship. And so I come up out of this after some, a period of consideration and reflection with what I call my, my four pillars that I, that I started to uh, uh, assemble a spiritual life on. And the first, the first characteristic that uh, that higher power had to have for me was God's not angry. I don't know about you, but I will not be close and open and intimate with anybody that I believe is angry with me. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never quite making the grade. It's, it, there's, there's always a chip in the china, all this kind of stuff just for me. Uh, see, I was treating God like the IRS. So I got to do business with him, but I'm not going to get any closer or spend any more time than I got to. You know. So God's not angry. That's the anchor point. And then uh, the next piece was that uh, God doesn't think comparatively. God loved me just as much when I'm standing in a liquor store writing a bad check to buy a bottle of whiskey to go seduce the neighbor's wife as he does when I'm at the Salvation Army trying to help a newcomer. Uh, Now, Make no mistakes. I get different consequences depending upon which one of those things I'm doing. But that's not God punishing me. That's just me getting the consequences of my behavior. If I go out and lay down in traffic out here and a car hits me, that is not God punishing me. That is traffic, you know, coming. coming. And then... The next piece was given to me uh, by a priest that was in our home group for a long time, who's now passed. And uh, Larry, uh, Larry said, "You know, this is a, an inner city parish here, and I get to do a lot of pastoral counseling here. And uh, there, it's a rough deal, and there's some bad families here, and, and so forth. But uh, I." Uh, he says, even, thank you, even the worst parents, the roughest parents, the worst parents, when I, when I ask them what they want for their kids, they will all tell, they don't tell me they want their kids to be doctors, lawyers, nuclear physicists. They, tell, they say they just want their kids to be happy. See, he says, Mike, can you believe that, that if these worst parents can want their kids to be happy? that maybe God might want you to be happy? And I'd never occurred to me in that relationship. So now I'm starting to build something. I got a relation I got somebody who's not angry that I can show up with. Somebody who's not judging me on an ever failing scale. And now somebody who's interested in my happiness. And he went on quickly to explain that there's a difference between happiness and pleasure, by the way. You know, happy happiness. There isn't a price to pay for happiness. There's no downside reaction to happiness. Pleasure. If I go out and scarf up a couple of pints of Ben and Jerry's, you know, it tastes real good, but I'm going to pay a price for it. Not so with this deal. And then finally, Larry asked me. He says, "Would you be willing to consider that perhaps?" 
it's possible that God might know what would make you happy more than you do yourself. And because these guys had had me do a lot of writing and a lot of consideration, I, I, I looked at those inventories, and, and if you wanted to look at them in a certain way, it's really the story of Mike for 38 years doing everything Mike can do to make Mike happy. My happiness, or my pleasure anyway, was my primary purpose. And I'm sorry if you got in my way. And I understood that I'd failed utterly, and I, I, I couldn't convince myself if God gave me another 38 years that I'd do any better job at making myself happy than I'd done with the first. So now I show up for this relationship. And old ideas are, are interesting things. Well, here. Here, I'll show you what an old idea looks like. This is an old idea. Now, it, it's hard to see from here, but this is, an, uh, this is a picture of a, an attractive young woman. Now, three months ago, approximately, I get a phone call from a family member that says, Mike, uh, and asked me to find a certain picture for him. So I go into the shoe boxes and start looking around, and I, I come out with this picture. And she looks kind of familiar, I mean, you know, and everything, but I, I can't really place her. And I turn it over, and on the back it says, To Mike, with love, from Kathy. And then it's got a date on it. Well, it's a funny thing, but that date is the exact same date that's on my arm. And see, my story was that when I returned from Vietnam and got out of the Army at Oakland Army Terminal and went to fly home from San Francisco, that they were hating on us GIs and they were mean to us and they spit on us and they cursed us and they did all this stuff. And I've lived with this story and I believe this story that, and the story just went poof, it blew up. Because when I'm looking at this, I remember that uh, the real story was that Kathy and I ran into each other at the San Francisco airport. And Kathy adopted me and took me home to her apartment in Oakland for three days to properly welcome me back to the United States. (laughs) Now, no cell phones, no emails, so now I know if I... If my mother gets wind that her son is back in the United States, his butt is going to have to be home. And I'm not quite ready to go home yet. I love my mother, but I'm not in that much of a hurry to get home. So what do I do? I make up a story. You know. See, first of all, look at the self-centeredness. I'm willing to let the people that love me dearly. And remember, I've been shot and almost killed a number of times. So... I'm willing to let those people think I'm still in a war zone being shot at so I can be shacked up for the weekend. How selfish and self-centered is that? And I can't tell you that's the way I am, so i got to make up a story. And I told the story so many times, I honest to God, you could have polygraphed me six months ago and I would have told you the truth. I've told Gary the story. 
I believe that story was true. So whatever your story is, don't hang on to it too tightly. It may just blow up. But my my experience is when those stories blow up, it's always good news. See, I found out that that really uh, people are far more loving and kind than I ever gave gave them credit for. Because the story I had was about how how mean they were and how nasty it was. I uh, want to tell you another quick story here, and then uh, I'll be out of time. But as a result of writing another piece of inventory, uh, I, uh, well, I'll read it. What the hell? It's, I'm, I'm trying to think of that this may be the short way to t- tell this thing. Uh, okay. I, uh, I get in a, a major self-pity attack. Uh, Mike, I couldn't save my marriage, but now I'm a great three-day-a-week three parent uh, to that marvelous uh, young boy I was telling you about. And Andrew's a lot of fun. Uh, he... Uh, he comes. He's six years old by this time. By the time the divorce comes about, and so he says, uh, comes up to me. Mike, and he says, Mike. He says, I'm tired of going to these kids' places. I want you to take me to a real restaurant tonight. No McDonald's playground. No Arby's. No, you know, Applebee's. Any of that stuff. So I want a real restaurant. I want cloth napkins. And yeah, six years old. Well, hey. I, I didn't have a clue as to how to be a dad, and I, I asked uh, Lori, my wife, I says, Lori, you know, what, what's going on? She says, you know, if you pay attention to him, he'll show you what to do. Hmm, what a concept. And sure enough, not long after we had that concept, uh, Andrew and I were riding home from daycare, and he turns to me and he says, you know, Mike, he says, I got lots of friends. He says, I need you to be my dad. And I got my job description. I don't need to be your buddy, your pal, or anything else. We have those moments. But anyway, so we're in this restaurant. And it's Friday night, and the lights are kind of dim and everything else. And I'm having a good time. Kids, good company. And all of a sudden, I look up and I look around this restaurant, and my God, it's full of couples in love, and I'm sitting here with a six-year-old. And look what God has done to me. And the self-pity tsunami just washes over me. I mean, the tragedy of Mike's life being s- stuck here with the six-year-old. So you've, you've, you've got me trained by now. So we finish our dinner. We go home. We watch a video. Uh, you know, he gets his shower, and we put him to bed, and we have a little bedtime story. But as soon as he's out, I'm at the kitchen table, and I'm writing inventory, and I am mad, and I am mad at God. So this is what it sounds like for Mike to be mad at God. Uh, well, I'm mad at God. I do, why? Because I don't have the relationship I want to have with a woman. I think that God is only going to give me the choice between having a sick relationship or no relationship. I'm lonely. People with less recovery 
are ahead of me in this area. People I sponsor are doing better. I'm afraid that God will keep me in this pain because I'll be more useful to others than if I have the relationship. (laughs) Unfortunately, it gets worse. (laughs) I feel like God has given me a gift of communicating with others, and the price of the gift is my own happiness. You can't make this shit up. I (laughs) I'm mad because I know that only God can help me, and I don't believe he will. Hmm. Turns out that's a spiritual death sentence, folks. So, well, we get over here to column three. Well, it affects my self-esteem. I feel like I'd sell out my principles to have a comfortable relationship. For example, I might do something like hitting on a newcomer. Uh... As a result, I feel like a phony. Don said, Mike, that's because you're a phony. (gasps) He was that way with me. I feel so ashamed. You should be. I feel so guilty. You are. That, by the way, is love. That's the real tool we have here is love. See, I would listen to that man because I knew he loved me. And that had to be established before any of the other technical stuff really meant much at all. Uh, uh, Distorts my sex relationship. I'm having an increasingly emotionally unsatisfying sex-only relationship. I decided, this is the early 90s, I decided before it was fashionable to out-sex my sex life. And what that looked like was that I found a gal who is not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, who was like-minded and the agreement was no cards, no movies, no anniversaries, no any of that stuff. We'll just, we, no, no cell phones then. Well, we just call each other secretaries and the code word is racquetball. Uh, that we're, we're going to make a date to play racquetball. And, and this isn't working for me. See, it's not my problems that are killing me. It's my solutions. You know, I, you know, of course, Don says, now, he says, that's wonderful. I said, it is? He says, yes. He says, if you were the kind of guy that could use another human being that way, there wouldn't be any hope for you. But since you can't do that, he says, I think there is. And uh, anyway, keeps me uh, jealous of everybody else and comparing myself to them and unwilling to share my pain. I feel ashamed apart from flawed and different. My unbalanced drive in this area makes me vulnerable to getting drunk, compromised. My principles will get me drunk, and I know I don't have the strength not to do this. Column four, I'm not willing to give this to God because I don't think he's interested or willing to help. I'm willing to sell out all my principles in order to get relief. Uh, And I won't take an honest look at what this... I've I've got this fantasy that if I just get this thing in place, just get this magic relationship going, everything else lines up. And uh, and I'm looking for somebody else to fill me up and make me feel safe and secure, and only God can do that. 
And I pretty quickly that same night I called Gary and I fifth stepped that with him. And I, I start working my way west across the time zones. And I, I uh, called Don and, and Don listened to that. And uh, he, uh, he changed my life with a couple of things. He, uh, he said, tell me about this magic woman that's going to fix it all. And uh, so I did, I, in exquisite detail, exactly what she was like and personality, everything. He says, Mike, he says, let me ask you this. On the off chance such a woman actually exists, why would she want to have anything to do with you? <laughs> he says, look, it's, it's the fall. He says, look out in the sky tonight. The geese are going to be flying over with the geese. The ducks are going to be flying with the ducks. And there won't be a cow in the middle of either formation. So, you know, he says, if you want, if you want that woman in your life, you have to become somebody that woman would be interested in. Do you really think God's going to go mess with some nice woman's life in order to make yours better? And that's true. Wasn't, isn't that the God we always afraid there was somebody that would use me to help somebody else at my expense? Doesn't work that way. Turns out that the spiritual arithmetic, God always two, puts two people together so they both get what they need. If they're willing to accept it. And so he gave me a prayer, and uh, the prayer was, I, I kind of blew off. He says, God, the prayer is just this, God, teach me, please teach me about love. And I said, thanks, and I hung up, and I called Clinton, L.A. And part of my deal with Don was that if I, set, if I followed his advice and uh, didn't like the results I got, I could call up and complain. So a couple weeks later, I call up, and I say, Don, you need to know I don't think much of your damn prayer. And he says, well, tell me about that, cowboy. And uh, I says, well, since I started saying your prayer, the only woman I was really thought I had a chance that, you know, she might be the one, her company transferred her out of town. And so she's, she's out of the game now. And then to put a cherry on top of the whole thing, I went to see my doctor last week. He said, I've got high blood pressure. And he gave me some medication that's made me impotent. And Don just laughed. And, uh, <laughs> he says, you misunderstood that prayer. You thought the prayer was God get me a woman, didn't you? He says, the prayer is God, please teach me about love. Work with me here. He says, Mike, you're a, no, you're a man who knows a lot about sex and knows nothing about love. And so I started... Because I knew he loved me. Oh, his other one I will give you. Uh, this would be the dialogue. You know I love you, don't you, Mike? Yes, Don, I believe you love me. Well, knowing that I love you, you know that if there was any way I could tell you how to have a successful sick relationship, I'd do it, don't you? <laughs> but, there, but there isn't, so I can't. Uh, that's a great one to have in your sponsorship toolkit, by the way. Just saying. Uh, it saves a lot of, a lot of torture. Uh, so I start, I start saying the prayer because I, 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 I know this man loves me. 
not believing in the prayer, but all of a sudden I find out that I'm in love. And, and I'm head over heels in love, and I'm in love with that kid like I was never in love with him before. Uh, he and his mom were always a little more special with each other, a little tighter and everything else. And, uh, you know, he and I had always gotten along, but blew out. And I, I just loved him like a rainbow. And that's been a lot of years and still do to this day. And then another strange thing happened. I, I, I fell in love again, and it, it was with my former wife. Uh, now, I didn't want to marry her again. Uh, but, now that's not a laugh line. I didn't want to marry her again, but what I, the best way I can describe it to you is God restored her to the place she had in my heart before all the stuff started happening. Uh, and one of the first things we were able to do together was go to a PTA meeting. Uh, and we're riding in the car home from this PTA meeting. I turned to her and I says, you know, amends had been made and all this stuff by now. And I said, Lori, I says, you know, I think about the only bad feeling I've got left about the divorce is that it interrupted our friendship. And I look over and she's got this big ear-to-ear grin. She says, you still don't get it, do you? I said, no, what? And she says, Mike, it was the marriage that interrupted our friendship. Uh, and it turns out that we're two people that are really well-suited to be each other's good friends. But we're alcoholics, so being married sounded like it was more. So we just picked. And all that happened was God just settled things back to where they work. And they still do. Uh, I, uh, I eventually kept saying the prayer and kept saying the prayer and eventually uh, she did show up in my life and uh, I didn't pick her uh, and she uh, she was a way too young way too pretty you know all this in in AA and we she was my kind of like Charlie and Katie a little bit she was my AA buddy and uh she came up to me in a parking lot after we'd done a workshop for some people back home one Saturday and, and says, you know, Mike, you need to know I love you. And I said, well, that's nice. And she says, no, focus. And <laughs> she said, I mean, I really love you. And uh, wow. You know, I just tell you, wow. Now, wow was short-lived, however, because... Our third date, I showed up over at her place, and uh, <clears throat> she had a piece of paper in her hand, and she said, Mike, I've, uh, I've written out what I think the primary purpose for our relationship ought to be, and uh, I'd like to see your efforts pretty soon. Uh, and I thought that was way too serious and way too, you know, just... She used to come to the podium, and she'd tell you that uh, her... her uh, Ideal for our relationship uh, primary purpose was so specific that it specified the color, clarity, and weight of the diamond I was supposed to buy, and that mine was so vague and general that it could have described my relationship with my cat. And uh, we uh, we did the dance together because uh, she, like I. Uh, had been schooled in this program, and uh, I'll, I'll give you, uh, we carry two things here, uh, our uh, ideal for our sex conduct and uh, 
the primary purpose for our relationship here because they're things that we always need to have close at hand, especially when temptation or anger or any anything may arise. Here it says, uh, the primary purpose, we'll practice the active support of the growth and well-being of each other's spiritual condition. We'll honor and express God's love and devotion within our relationships so we may worship and serve God both together and when we're apart. Honor the holiness of marriage, the sanctity of service to others, and the delight of living and loving each other without fear. And then the conduct is, for me, I'll try to be the best of lovers by being the best of friends and seeking each day to contribute to rather than take from you in our relationship. My love for you doesn't give me special privileges. It gives me special responsibilities. I will listen to you and to God, and you will teach me how to do that, this, if I'm faithful and attentive. And my experience is that uh, when we're willing to thoughtfully consider and take such a position, uh, these are prayers that God seems to, to answer and honor. Uh, now that... Uh, I thought the prayer turned to ashes because I came back from a trip to Santa Fe and I found Linda didn't meet me at the airport. I found her collapsed in her bathroom uh, at her house and uh, she'd been there for about 15 hours and we went to the hospital and we were in neurointensive care and this young beautiful woman uh, died five days later from a hemorrhagic stroke. And another miracle happened here. I uh, I got to see this from an entirely different angle. Uh, I got to not listen to the voice that was screaming in my head, this isn't fair and you know, all this other kind of stuff. And I just got to be present with her and not lose that whole thing. And uh, so after that, it turns out the lesson is accepting love from others. And that can be very scary because when I'm giving out the love, I'm deciding what it looks like and how long it's going to last. And when you're giving it out, you're in charge of all those things. What if I'm just leaning into you a little bit and you say enough? Uh, And then I get all these marvelous, keep saying the prayer, keep saying the prayer. And... All these beautiful women turn up in my life, and it turns out they're my friends without benefits. And I, I, get, I get to have the joy and intimacy and delight and spiritual wholeness of, of knowing these women in an entirely different way, and uh, it's really sweet. I'd like to tell you more about that, but we're way out of time here. I, I just want to tell you that uh, I'm, uh, I'm the crazy guy that at closing time at the bar, I used to be pounding on the bar and looking in the mirror and screaming or mumbling, you know, it's not fair, it's not fair, God damn it, it's not fair. And I'm here to tell you tonight from the bottom of my heart, thank God it's not fair. Thank God it's not fair. Thank you very much. God, grant me the serenity 
to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. To bring up my friend and teacher, Peter. My name is Peter. I'm a recovered alcoholic. Grateful to be alive and sober. I'm part of a sacred place called Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, first things first, thank uh, this committee for uh, having me here. And uh, specifically, Mark, uh, for the work he's done on his first attempt. I remember uh, Mark pretty much coming in. And uh, I was speaking uh, either North Jersey or upstate New York. I get confused, but there was nothing around but this meeting. And... uh, Mark somehow got up there. I don't know if he thumbed the ride. I don't know how he got up there. And he had no money to get back. But he came up there because there was a little bit of a workshop happening. And I kept seeing this guy show up at places and not knowing how he was going to get back. Just like an alcoholic. Get there, you know. We usually find a woman to bankroll the whole thing, but that's a whole other meeting. Um, but... Um, and then he married uh, uh, Dawn, and uh, he's putting on this conference, and we get to see the age of miracles happen right in front of us. And so when I think about Mark, I think about how about sobriety and how about God? So if we can just give it up for him and Dawn and the rest of his community. Huh? <clears throat> um, so I'm grateful to be here to get to share my experience and hope with this step three and this vital decision. I'm grateful to get to share about this power called God that I've gotten to experience in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. A loving God separated me from alcohol June 23rd, 1988. And I'm here tonight to talk to you about being a recovered alcoholic. And I say recovered because I am anything less than that great fact would be falsely humble. I don't say recover to separate myself from anyone in this room or be unique or sound like an expert. That's not what the intent is. The intent is just to share the truth that's been given to me in the sacred rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that took me or drove me to a loving God, God of my understanding, and took me from a scrap heap to here tonight as a recovered alcoholic. And that's just the great news that we get to share and bear witness for others. So, I'd rather be accused of telling the truth than be accused of telling a lie. And so I'm here to talk to you about my truth, which is a recovered alcoholic, recovered from a single hopeless state of mind and body. And I'm very grateful for that. This here, these talks that we get to do, this is not work. Lots of times folks say, hey, are you nervous about speaking? And my answer is, I just hope I don't show up for one of these. You don't want me showing up because that would be the fear-based, egotistical, self-driven, approval-seeking alcoholic, and you know how that sounds. So what I do is let this be a reflection of what I've been doing since the last talk, which was last night, by the way, that's a whole... (laughs) All week long, what I do on awakening till I close at night, let this be a reflection of some current experience. So there is no preparation, whether I'm doing a workshop or just a straight talk. There is no preparation. I don't come with notes. What I do is hide out in my spiritual bunker, and I surrender to this power called God. And I keep an empty vessel and let that spirit push and let the words flow. 
So I have no idea what this is going to look like or sound like, but if I'm aligned with God, I'm sure I'll be able to do something okay tonight. June 23rd, 1988 was my separation from alcohol, and I had no plans on landing in Alcoholics Anonymous or let alone doing something like this. My best plans always let me depend on me because a real man doesn't need anyone, and my life blew up. And through the gift of desperation, June 23rd, 1988, I surrender to a loving God, and what he does is give me all of you. And I have a dependence upon God to walk free in life. I could depend on other AA members because the intent is pure and I can walk free in life. So this here is fun. This is not work. I get to talk about God. I get to talk about the experiences that are freely given to me. I get to talk about a daily surrender, deeper levels of surrender. And my brushes up against God, which aren't always pleasant, but they're brushes up against God and some oneness with this power called God. But it didn't start when I just came to Alcoholics Anonymous. It started before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous in the back of a filthy hallway in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, which is just across the bridge. In fact, when we were driving here, coming through Manhattan, going over the Brooklyn Bridge, Marion and Jimmy were kind of looking at the, all the wonderful little sights, and I'm saying, I, I was doing this, I got arrested there, overdosed there, beat up there, you know. And it, yeah. Uh, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you know. But this is fun. We get to talk about this stuff. We get to share our experience, strength, and hope. Right? June 23rd, 1988, I was in the back of a hallway, maybe a few miles from here. And I had no clue what was going to happen to me, but the gift of desperation showed up. I didn't have to go look for it. I didn't have to go look for God. I didn't have to go look for a truth. I didn't have to look for anything. It was delivered to me when the intent was pure and there was a bit of an opening. And that was my surrender. I wasn't planning on landing in Alcoholics Anonymous. There was nothing left for me to even grab onto. Well, I'll get sober for her, I'll get sober for my parents, I'll get sober for a job, I'll get sober to keep my reputation. All of it was gone. I stood before my Creator in the raw, June 23rd, 1988. There was nothing to lock into but, I don't want to die. And how dark it is before the dawn because my plan wasn't landing in another treatment center, number seven. My plan wasn't certainly to land in Alcoholics Anonymous and be an upstanding member of this fellowship and a small spoke in a very big wheel. That wasn't the plan. I don't want to die. That's all I asked for. And he gave me you. My God is here to seek and to save. My God's pursuing me and pursuing every one of us. And all we have to do is stop for a moment, because I'm always busy trying to do something, and usually the stopping is in a surrender. I can't do this whether we're drinking, and sometimes that gift of desperation will, sh- will find us while we're in Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're bottoming out in Alcoholics Anonymous because of untreated alcoholism. My life today is not about just recovery from not drinking. It's recovery from alcoholism. Because I can be in Alcoholics Anonymous, my first six months in Alcoholics Anonymous, without a drink in me, without any kind of chemicals in me, and I was looked like a drunk without a drink in me. I was completely upside down, driven by a hundred forms of fear, a prey to misery and depression. I was still having God problems, and, and then I was starting to have problems with you, and little by slowly I started to get thirsty again. Because what I do is pour booze on my alcoholism. It works. That's why I return to it. 
So I got to taste untreated alcoholism, and that was just as painful, if not more, than putting a drink in me where I can wash the night away. So I bought him out again. It was I never forget the day it was December twenty second, nineteen eighty eight. And I was really thirsty. And it's only by the grace of God that December 22nd, 1988, almost six months to the, uh, almost six months of sobriety, that I didn't pick up a drink because I bottomed out in AA. And again, I was living in Minnesota. It was like 45 feet of snow out and 10,000 degrees below zero. I said, what am I doing in this place? Right? I felt loneliness again. I felt fear again. Suddenly the meeting a half a mile away seemed like 10 miles away. I was all alone. I didn't know what to do. And I said, I got to go drink. It's better than doing what I'm doing. And I began this journey. And I said, I'm going to go into the first bar I see, the first liquor store I see, the first drug dealer on the corner. And while I did that, I piggybacked it with, God, I'm in trouble. Please help me. Another surrender. Not thinking much about it. And I kept driving, and I kept driving, and I kept driving, and I wound up at this guy's house in Cottage Grove. And I knocked on his door, and I says, I have a problem. I don't know what to do with myself. And I kept going and kept going and kept going. And when I finally paused for a moment, he said to me, Pete, where are you with God in the 12 steps? I says, when do you start the steps? He says, when you stop throwing up, you're late. Untreated alcoholism will take me back to a drink. And it was only because of God's grace that I didn't get drunk December 22nd, 1988. What I love to shout (coughs) from the rooftops is that we get God's grace when we're not drinking. We get God's grace, the gift of God. Like we take care of our children, we give them our food when they're hungry. We'll go hungry just because they're ours. We get God's grace. But there's a difference for me with the getting God's grace and experience that power which gives me grace. I get to experience oneness with God. For so long in Alcoholics Anonymous, I would go into these little places, and they were subtle, where I would try to wrap stuff around me. Approval, money, relationship, things, external conditions, just wrap them around me. So I felt validated. I can validate myself because I got stuff, and you can validate me. Look at what I've achieved. I I am someone. And what those things were were bandages around this empty vessel that had nothing. I was empty once again. And those things are short-lived, and I'm looking for more and more and more. And it just never, never remedies the hole in the soul. So I've had more surrenders in Alcoholics Anonymous back on my knees, and what happens is those things get removed. God gives me in abundance. God gives us in abundance. He's always giving. And what I have found out on this journey, God giving doesn't mean I'm going to get something new. God's way of giving sometimes is removing stuff from me. That's how he gives. Things that are going to cause me pain and suffering. Things that are not good for me, although my mind says I need more of this. And every time I bottomed out, God has rescued me, seeking and saved me, pursuing a relationship with me. And remove things. And my instant reaction through the mind was, why is God doing this to me for? Why is he taking more stuff away? I was getting freer. Quick story, a handful of years ago, I was working in Texas, <coughs> working as hard as I possibly can, 80-hour weeks for a treatment center. Filled the place up, 
built from the inside out. I build it. And then they drop me like a hot potato. And I'm down to Jersey Shore. It's Labor Day weekend. And I'm out of work. And I'm thinking, who in God's name is going to hire me at my age? I know how to do one thing, and that's the treatment center business. I can't do anything else. Where am I going to go? Now, God knew I'd been looking to move to Florida for the longest time. I did my work in Texas, and God said, enough, I'm going to put you somewhere else. I interpreted it as God dropped me on my butt once again, removed my income. Why is he doing this to me? And what he did was set me up to move where I'm of maximum service to him right now, an effective agent, and where I work, and my community down there. I couldn't see it at the time, but God's way of giving was removing. My brushes up against God or my oneness with God, my mind would always tell me it's going to be joyous, happy, and free. It's going to be wonderful. I'm going to hit Powerball. I'm going to have a new car. (laughs) It's going to be an easy walk. When we, I, I use the expression brush up against God, when we get that taste of God, when we're experiencing oneness with God, that path happens to be for me an incredibly narrow path and a very narrow gate to which I'm about to walk through. Which means everything about me, no matter where I am in his journey, is going to be challenged in a new level of surrender. And he's going to take me on paths I didn't plan on, valleys I didn't plan on, peaks I didn't plan on. And I get challenged all the time. And what I have found out, it's on his terms, in his time, in his way. And all I can do is lock in and take the ride with him because it's better than anything I can come up with. Huh? It's a narrow path to which I'm walking. Many of us are going to walk a wide path, even in Alcoholics Anonymous. Instant gratification. I want what I want when I want it, and it feels good right now. That's not going to bring me to what Bill talked about, utopia in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got to get pruned, continually pruned, in order to bear good fruit. That doesn't feel good. And the ego fights for its life when that happens. When I get on the other side of the archway, I take all credit for all my growth. I get on the other side of the archway and I look back on the journey he put me on and I feel blessed. Here's what makes me keep going. Why do I keep going any lengths with a few years sober? Why am I continuing to seek this power called God in his glory? Why do I continue to pray and meditate three times a day? The same reason I came in here and locked into you desperation and surrender and the path you guys put me on I never walked before the God you guys are offering me I never experienced before and the method to get to that God I had no clue what it looked like and the only thing that allowed me to see one foot in front of the other was that light that fire that burns in all of our hearts to get right with something usually a God and I look for it in the bottom of a bottle all the time when that didn't work now what? I still need to get something. I need something or somebody to make me right in here. And you guys, little by slowly, spoon-feed me God. I like the effect produced by God, so I keep moving. And I enter the world of the Spirit, and I don't get free room and board. It's about growing and understanding and effectiveness. But I like the effect produced by God. I don't think about drinking anymore. I don't have obsessive and compulsive negative behaviors anymore. And still with that, the mind kicks in and wants to take over. Just recently, we all know the current events that are happening. Some gruesome things were shown on TV. 
My first reaction was this. I'm going to Brooklyn in a couple of days. I'm rounding up some old guys. We're locking a load of We'll go over there. We'll straighten out the mess. That's what I was thinking. Because the people are running the place, our country doesn't know what they're doing. I want to be careful not to break a tradition. But my mind was, I need vengeance. I know what I need to do. I'm taking over. I'm impatient. And I was getting restless, ill, and discontented. And I was plotting revenge. Mr. Spiritual, plotting revenge. <laughs> and it was justified in my mind. Well, thank the good Lord, Wednesday nights I called my sponsor. I had my inventory because I wrote inventory on this. And the pen was pushing against the paper. I need vengeance. Vengeance is mine. Justified anger. And I read my inventory. And my sponsor showed me some things. And by 11 o'clock that night, I was on my knees, a new depth of surrender, because what that was was really about me and me getting what I want and my fear showing up of what might happen if I don't fix this. And it went on and on and on. And it's not my business. It's not my job to fix. My job is just to be an effective agent for God, not have an apathy. But how can I possibly fix that? Because soon as I hit you for hitting me, I'm guilty of what I just accused you of. And my teacher says, you turn the other cheek. He's got my back. So it was a new level of surrender, and it didn't feel good. Looking at Every time I hit a new depth of surrender, I get to look at new demons in me, if you will, that get exposed. I don't like that. I like to think there's nothing left in the back of the closet anymore. But here I was Wednesday night on my altar, on my knees saying, Father, please free me from this. Your will, not mine, be done. It was a turning over of this once again and another surrender. Went to work Thursday. That was in the past. Went to work Thursday morning. I wasn't blind to the facts that are happening, but it didn't have me anymore. How could I possibly serve God, how could I possibly be a servant in Alcoholics Anonymous when I am a slave to things, when I am a slave to worldliness, rather than being centered in godliness? It makes no sense. And how many times we walk around saying we're servants for God, yet we're slaves to everything. I need things, I need reputation, I need approval, things to make me feel okay. It's hypocrisy, and a house divided against itself can't stand. I can't serve two masters. And Wednesday night, I was looking to serve two masters, Peter Spiritual and Peter Lock and Load. I was calling Tommy Taraco. Where is he? He was on the first guy I was calling. So I do a surrender in step three and turning it over. When I was a newbie, I got here. You know, my sponsor did this, I do this. He says, do that, I do that. It was the flying blind period. But desperation, hey, you're sober five years, 15 years, 20 years. Your life seems together, so I'm going to do what you do. I had no idea what I was doing. My intent was pure. And what we did, he had me write out the third step prayer word for word as appears on page 63. And underneath that, write my interpretation of it so I knew what kind of those words meant. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. We didn't talk like that in Brooklyn. It was kind of different. So I had this prayer personalized because what happens is we have to be the book. It has to be part of my beingness. I shouldn't have to remember. I remember Don once told me, you're going to get to a place one day, 
that you'll be able to take someone through the steps without having a big book in front of you. And I said, that's that's blasphemy. How could you do that? (laughs) And what he meant by that is, if the book becomes me, oneness, my beingness, internalized, then I can sit down and walk you through the work. I don't have to remember about the step. I don't have to recall what I did 20 years ago. It's current. And so this prayer became internalized. And I remember after I wrote down the prayer, my sponsor had, uh, had me meet him, and we held hands on our knees, and we did the third step prayer together. And I didn't wait 90 days and 90 meetings to do my fourth step. I launched out in a course of vigorous action at that moment. And I got to see my unmanageability when we went through step one. Why I need this power called God. That I was doomed to drink no matter what. Whether things were good or things were bad or things were right in the middle. I drink. I'm an alcoholic. There's no power choice called. I'm drinking. I'm doomed. And while I'm not drinking, I'm going to experience untreated alcoholism. Which means I'm going to go on sprees. And I'm going to merge remorse with the firm resolution. I'm not going to go on a spree again. Because if she finds out I'm divorced. If the boss finds out, I'll get fired. i got to get it right. But that pain of being alone... With all of the noise in the head, the 10,000 voices, I need to escape so I go on another spree. A food spree, a sex spree, a money spree, a spree. The biggest spree we all go on is thinking. We're always thinking. <laughs> always thinking. Some thinking, when is this guy going to shut up? I'm tired. It's 9.30 already. <laughs> thinking. Always thinking. We're always thinking. In fact, when an alcoholic, I ask him a question, he says, let me think about it. I get back to you. I go to somebody else. I don't know. Ten o'clock at night, if we go back to ten o'clock last night to right now, how much good did our thinking provide for us in, in, 20, in 12 hour, 24 hours? Think about it. <laughs> that thing you can do. Well, I can think about this. With the, if, when I try to figure stuff out, I need to think about this. I need to figure this out. What I'm really doing is turning my will and life over the care of my mind at that moment. My mind is Buddha, Allah, Jesus, it's God. Let me think, I've got to figure this out. I'm not going to call my sponsor. I'm sober 26 years. I am going to figure this out. I'm going to think about it. My mind just became God. How often do we do that during the day? My sponsor pointed out to me, anytime I'm in that kind of thing, I'm in self-reliance, which means I'm practicing dishonesty. Because I made a commitment, step three, that my life was none of my business anymore. Isn't it interesting, when we're on a spiritual pit, we get really clear, that my, I got really clear, my life is none of my business, my recovery is none of my business, but my God allows me to participate in it as if it was. This talk is none of my business. Me being here is none of my business. What I do for a living is none of, it was none of my business. I just suit up and show up on an invitation. But soon as my life and my recovery becomes my business, and again, I don't mean apathy when I say it's not my business, when it becomes mine and I take ownership of my life and my recovery, guess what meets me is my ego and fear because suddenly I'm afraid of losing something that I own. 
And it's a huge attachment to another external condition. It's none of my business. My Heavenly Father will take all my money if it's right for me and will reward me with money, will give me a job, remove a job, whatever it is to prune me to be an agent for Him because that's who I work for. And when we're in that place... You can hit me, it'll feel pain, but you can't hurt me. You can throw me under a bus and verbally abuse me, it'll hurt. It'll hurt my feelings, but you can't hurt me. I'm in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. Because I have the arms of God around me the way God has the arms, His arms around us. So I saw my desperation in step one that I'm going to drink and I can't stop drinking. When I'm not drinking, I'm in unmanageability and fear. Oh my God, what am I going to do? And they pointed to the solution in step two. That this power, I will get to a place where this power is going to give me wholeness of mind, truth, God. Well, I'm not driven by fear. I'm not seeing the world through fear. I'm not hearing the world through fear. I'm not acting out of fear. I'm not listening to thinking mind. But I'm being moved by spirit. And we get to a place, experientially I can talk to you about this, bear witness, that we get to see the world through God's eyes and hear through God's ears. And we get to do God's work. That's what we're here for. But what was in the way, what were my perceptions and conceptions about this power called God? Old belief systems, old ideas about this power called God. When you talked about spirituality, I heard religion and I would bristle at antagonism. And those were one of the blocks in my way and another surrender demanded of me. I don't know about you, but when I was, even now, if I'm going to buy a car, I do my due diligence. I like XYZ car, I go online, I see the best price, I see what kind of colors I like, who has the best deals. If I'm going to buy a house or real estate, I want to do my due diligence, investigate, do what I have to do. When I was buying dry goods out there, I wanted to know where Flocko was and if he had the best stuff. (laughs) We do our due diligence. Isn't it funny when it comes to belief systems that we were given and we buy into that no longer work, we never do due diligence. I just honor it and fight for it, even though it doesn't work anymore. My whole life was completely upside down. Desperation once again. So my perceptions and conceptions about God were wrong. I was the one who had the problem with God. God didn't have a problem with me. Not an all-loving, all-forgiving God. Even for all the things I've done, all the bad decisions, all the people I've hurt, God didn't have a problem with me. It was me towards God. And I had to get that. And one of the ways I got is by hearing you guys tell your stories about some of the things you went through and were still able to be feel forgiven and have peace with this power called God. Well, I wanted what you guys had to offer. Keep moving. Chop wood, carry water, keep moving forward. This power called God is going to bring me to wholeness of mind, to sanity, where you're telling me not only the obsession is going to be lifted, but I won't even be thinking about drinking anymore, and my life will be of maximum service to others. I'm not going to be consumed with me like page 62 talks about, but less about me and more about you. And my life is going to get better Okay, let's keep moving. In chapter 2 Agnostics, they make it really clear over and over and over again that I didn't need to consider anyone else's conception of God. Whatever conception worked, was I willing, yes or no? 
Was I willing to go to any lengths? I don't know about you, but I went to many, any lengths to keep the drunk going. I have the ability to go to any lengths. If I'm not going to any lengths in AA, it's because I just don't want to. I'm lazy. And beyond that, I just might find truth. And the truth sometimes is just a little too much to bear. I like my little spot in the corner, not sponsoring anyone, no commitments, just hanging around AA and dodging bullets every day. I'd rather do that because there's greater pain in not changing and the change itself, but I'll settle for that because that's what I know. I'm used to pain. This requires self-searching and leveling of pride for me to move forward. And I had to be convinced that drunk or sober, my life's unmanageable. 26 years sober, if I decide to start running my life, it will quickly become unmanageable. It will unravel. And you'll know about it quicker than I do. So I show up to step three. And my higher power was a G.O.D. group of drunks of a good only direction. I felt safe around you. I would sit with some of our old timers and hope they say sit next to me because this is good. I'm in the club. I used to go to a, a group in Bay Ridge, not too far from here. There were a couple of guys who were my idols in Brooklyn. And when they knew my name, they said, kids, sit with us. This was a big deal. They're at the meeting. They're always sat in the front. Good. I'm safe. Group of drunks, good only direction. That was my higher power. It was, it was a matter of how much willingness I showed up to. A mustard seed of willingness and the mountain will move. That's all this is required. I don't need a PhD in addiction or alcoholism, yet I go to so many meetings and workshops and speakers sound like you need a, a PhD just to open up the big book. It gets really complicated quick. The book is simple and easy and God is simple and easy and open. There's some requirements. But it was a G.O.D. group of drunks for good only direction. Okay, keep moving. And I start to discover me as to where I was in this step three. But my sponsor didn't allow me to sit in there a long time because it was about moving, action, commencing, changing. Page 62 talks about self-resistance, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our troubles. Roots on a tree are underground. You can't see them. They hide out. I confront really well, but inside I'm dying. And as my ego starts to reemerge, or I show up in here with an ego the size of this room, I'm not going to let you in because the ego will deny, will not want you in. i got to front. i got to look good while I'm dying on the inside. I needed to be broken. I needed to be broken in here and continually broken on this path because that's all I am. Alcoholics Synonymous, and forgive me for saying this, but we're a room full of broken toys. I'm broken, and in my brokenness is my surrender to God. My third step, I'm turning my will and life, my actions and my life over to God, and my thinking and my actions over to God, because I've made a mess of it in my brokenness. I'm floored, and the only way I can get rent fixed is to the touch of His hand, and nothing less than that great fact. There's a force feeding of humility. 
regardless of how much money I have, what, how successful I am, how poor I am, what color I am, I can't run my own life. I can't do life on life's terms. I drink trying to do life on life's terms. I do bad things trying to live life on life's terms. My book is saying life on God's terms. That sounds foreign to me. I don't know that walk. And suddenly what gets in the way is the way. But only through desperation and that fire in the heart that I'm going to say, I'm going in. It's got to be better than this. Huh? I'm broken. Alcoholic Synonymous is the, all those toys on Christmas morning with missing parts and no batteries. It's broken. The things you throw in the corner. And God got us all together. And the touch of the Master's hand, how do we become productive again? These broken toys. By complete surrender in our brokenness, little by slowly, he fixes us. It makes no sense. The whole spiritual life makes no sense. That someone like me or people like us who show up in the condition we show up, Park Avenue, Park Bench, we just can't do life. And little by slowly, through his grace, get put back together. We become effective agents for him and become productive members in our communities. We raise families. We get jobs. We show up for work. I practice fidelity to my God. I practice fidelity in my relationships. This is new territory for someone like me. But it happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous. And little by slowly, I become employed. I become back in my family. I have some integrity. I have some self-respect. I have respect for you. And it goes on and on and on, chopping wood and carrying water, just by the grace of God. What happens when we get to experience the power that gives me grace? Look out. We erupt. We catch fire. Recovery is contagious. The same way we, I infected people when I was drunk. And not because I'm so powerful or my, my alcoholism was worse than anyone else. Alcohol is alcoholism. I infect people. I hurt them just by walking into the room the way I used to. Then I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, and they give me this book, and they give me a sponsor, and they give me all of you. And they deliver me a God. And I get put back together, which makes no sense. The spiritual life makes no sense to a mind. But in God's world, it's just the way it's supposed to be. And that awakened spirit goes back into the home that we infected, goes back into our communities that we level, goes back to work, the jobs we lost, get employed in new places, and that awakened spirit begins to touch the lives of others. Do 12-step calls. Go get the drunk who's falling apart. You walk in the house, the wife says, get him out of here. The kids are afraid of him. The house smells and looks drunk. It looks like a drunk on a drunk. And then we bring him in here. We go get God's lost sheep. And bring him back to the flock. We get the power in Alcoholics Anonymous to heal the lives of others. Now, contemporary meetings will say, oh, that's a little extreme. No, it isn't. It's truth. Based on my track record, I'm not supposed to be here. But you put me back together with his power. That's what we do. We heal people. We get people healed. And you work with that drunk. And then you go back to the house in six months, nine months, a year from now. The entire house has changed whether he or she's an Al-Anon or not. Going to family therapy or not. The power of one drunk with an awakened spirit is an army of many going into that home. And now raising those children and going back to work. We ought to be a pep rally for the power of God and Alcoholics Anonymous. And the pep rally for the great work that God does for people like us, all his broken children. On a Friday night at 10 o'clock, we're listening to an AA meeting. That doesn't make sense. But we're here. 
and we'll be here tomorrow morning if he wakes us up. And we'll patiently wait online to thank a speaker for sharing everything. Because it's no longer about me, and it's no longer about us, it's about what we can do for others. My Lord, let's shout that from the rooftops in some of our local meetings, huh? Rather than just put the plug in a jug and have a nice night. This vital decision, nice little fancy name for the third step. Vital, life-giving when I have it, and life-threatening when I don't. A vital organ gives me life. If it's damaged, I die. God is vital in my life, my experience with God, my oneness with God, my growing and understanding and effectiveness with God, my seeking this God, my surrendering to God. It's vital. My book says, be careful if I rest on my laurels, I'm headed for trouble. Guys, trust me, I get to do this a lot. The eagle will get me where I know I'm doing good. Oh, I speak a whole bunch. I'm special. (laughs) I better be grounded. I better have a sponsor I'm accountable to. It's interesting. I call my sponsor Wednesday nights. 8 o'clock, I'm on the phone with Mickey. All my inventory. I've been disciplined to the spiritual life. I have a big book in front of me. I have my notepad with my inventory. And I have a pen in my hand. Sometimes we'll talk about scripture. Sometimes we'll talk about book. Sometimes we'll do inventory. Sometimes we'll just talk. But I am sit there willing. I come back from a conference on a Sunday. Once I'm on the phone with him, he doesn't say, how many people were there? Did they like what you said? He says this, you have any inventory for me? Let's get grounded right away. The only thing I've been given is the gift of awareness, the greatest agent for change. Awareness, because I've seen a lot of people crash and burn when they got too comfortable in their chair and Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't need to be accountable. I'm sober this long. I don't need to be accountable. I sponsor a lot of men. I don't need to be accountable. I speak. So I want to make sure my car is running good, my consistency, my accountability, and my responsibility to someone in Alcoholics Anonymous, starting with this power called God. So on awakening, I hit my knees, and closing at night, I hit my knees, and I hit my knees in the middle of the day and work with some religious uh, 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 practices. I'm seeking God. He's seeking and saving. I can seek Him. So I hit my knees with my sponsor, and we did the third step prayer, and he gave me instructions for step four. And what I have found out through the teachers that God put in my life, the way I do step three is four through nine. My third step prayer is an affirmation of the bottom of 62 to the middle of 63. He's the father, I'm the child. He's the principal, I'm the agent. An agent represents the principal. LeBron James is the principal. He has an agent. That guy goes out and makes deals, goes back to LeBron and says, yes or no? He says, yes, no, I'll think about it. That's what we get to do. Effective agents for God. That's what my book is telling me in step three. We're agents for this, for this principle. How am I doing with that task? And God could have gave that task to great minds. He could have gave it to PhDs, all sorts of doctors, all sorts of religious men, gurus. He gave it to another drunk to go get another drunk. That makes no sense. But it worked. I think 79 years we're here. 
And the basic thing we do, the basic service we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, is you get with me and take me through the work. One drunk working with another. Thank God we haven't lost that. And so I finished my third step prayer. My sponsor gave me instructions and off I went. And I saw that that third step prayer was an affirmation of the considerations on 62 and 63. And somewhere, as I'm doing four, as I'm doing five, as I'm looking at six and seven, as I'm into amends, I've turned my life over to this power because there were plenty of times through those other steps I had doubt and skepticism. You know, spiritual growth doesn't occur until I turn, until I go into the unknown, and that unknown can be really scary. Okay, God, let's go. I'm going in. You better be coming with me. Spiritual growth, turning it over once again. I'm looking at the fourth column. Oh my God, it's about me. I can't blame anyone. Oh my God, let's go in, and the pen keeps moving. I'm turning it over once again. Got to go sit with the sponsor in five. They're going to know everything about me, everything, including the sex inventory. Okay, God, we're going in, and He gives me the courage, strength, and direction, and here it comes. And I get freer as I experience the death of self. I get lighter as I experience the death of the ego. And I become present and mindful to where I am, what I am, and my breath. And this is the only moment I can really experience is the breath I breathe. That's it. That's where I find God. Not yesterday, not before, but in this breath. That means I need to die the death of self before the physical death. And the only power that can do that is God. You go to Barnes and Nobles or one of these big bookstores, there's books on top of books on top of books on how to be spiritual, how to, how to recover from addiction. There was one book called Ten Ways Not to Be Angry. The title pissed me off. I mean, it was all right. Yeah. All these books. We come into Alcoholics Anonymous, And we have a big book with 12 spiritual disciplines. And they say, if you follow these, great things will happen to you on the inside that will manifest out there. That makes no sense. Our fellowship has changed. A lot lot of young people coming in. Different dynamics in our meetings from time to time. God doesn't change, nor does our 12 steps change, nor does the first portion of this book change. It doesn't change because they work. My job is not to have AA fit me, but me fit AA. Me surrender to this book and me surrender to this God. That's vital for me to do. So it's a daily surrender. June 23rd, 1988, that wasn't the plan. I just didn't want to die. And I went into my seven treatment center. I tried Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, don't drink and go to meetings. If I cannot drink, what do I have to be here for? I leave the meeting and get drunk. Get drunk on the way in. Share drunk. Criticize the speaker drunk. (laughs) And go back on another drunk. Try to kill myself in a flea bag motel in Staten Island one time. Couldn't do that. Couldn't get drunk. Couldn't get sober. Couldn't kill myself. A, it doesn't work. My religious community doesn't work. What do I do? I can't take it. God's got it in for me. Brought me to the edge of a cliff where my nails were dug in and there was nowhere else to go. No attachments. There was nothing left, but I don't want to die the first time in my life. I don't want to die. My nails were dug in long way down. Father, please take me from this. He lifted me up and put me in treatment number seven. And 30 days turned into 60 and 90 and six months and a year. And I'm here tonight. 
and I still chop wood and carry water. And on this path, over the last few years that I'm sober, 26 years, I've had money, and I almost filed for bankruptcy. I've been employed, and I've been let go. And I've been unemployed. I've been married, and I got divorced. And when I got divorced, the house went, including all my money. I remember going to the ATM, and it said insufficient funds. And I said, where did my money go? She had it. What do I do now? I remember trying to get a job, and I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get arrested. I couldn't do anything. Why? Why? Why are you doing this to me for? What did I do wrong? And I would bargain. I would argue. I would have skepticism again and doubt again. And I would bottom out and say, Father, your will, not mine, be done. I'm not figuring this out anymore. I did it after my divorce. I did it when I was flat broke. I did it when I went to a lawyer that said I need to file for bankruptcy. It was about turning over once more. How dark it is before the dawn. It seemed to be every time I surrendered and completely let go of my life because it's none of my business, somehow I found the path again that, was, that things were accumulated. My belief systems, my ideas, my comfortability, and what makes me me. Money, a relationship, a car, and a house. Now I'm valuable. I couldn't see the path anymore. How much money do I need? How much money do we need? Just enough not to need God. How much success do I need? Just enough not to need God. When God sees that, He's going to take it. There's a reason why I was born. There's a reason why God got me sober. It's to go be of service. I work in the morning. Boss, what are we doing today? What do you got? Where am I going? Well, 8 to 4, you're going to work. And tonight, you're going to go work with a drunk. Then you can go to bed. Okay? You're going to get tired. Your knees are going to get scraped. You're going to be exhausted. You might miss some meals. You're going to get a phone call at the god-awful hour. You're going to work and work and work and work, and I will take care of you. Or I can do it on my own, get my belly nice and fat, and die a drunk. I'd rather go to work for my God and surrender every day because he gives me, and I don't mean to, he gives me paradise. He's given me my family back. He's given me friendships. I got, there's a guy in here, Tom Needham, I know forever. I can see him every three or four years. It's like we spoke yesterday. He's given me values and integrity. He's given me Marion and Jimmy and some other folks in here. He's given me a job, self-supporting through my own contributions. He's given me care for other people. And all he asks for is seek me. My third step for me, when it's all said and done, is me seeking God. Father, your will, not mine be done. I'm out. What do we got to do next? Let's do inventory. Let's find out the things that are in your way that keep you blocked from me and keep you blocked from them because I have great work for every one of you to do. Based on our track records, we're supposed to be here on a Friday night doing this, getting on planes around people we don't know, another hotel room. But we do it for fun and for free. I'm so glad my life was none of my business. I'm so glad for my elders in Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm so grateful that I'm teachable. And I'm so grateful that next to sobriety, the greatest gift I've gotten is knowing that I am known by my Creator. What a freedom. What a gift. How about sobriety? How about God? Huh? That's all I got. Peace.
I'd like to thank Peter for sharing with us. And we close this meeting with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Forever and ever. Amen. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes, our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Primary purpose group of Austin, Texas. Hi, y'all. Katie Parker from Austin, Texas, alcoholic. I don't know which is more important, alcoholic or from Texas. <laughs> I know I'm in the state that you guys love Texans. I've already had somebody come up to me and go, I don't like Texans. All righty. Wow. Got off to a good start there now, didn't we? Um, my sobriety is October, my sobriety date is October the 28th of 1984, and for that I am truly grateful. I will be coming up on 30 years sober, which is unbelievable to me. I know. I know it. That is, that is longer than I've done anything other than have a child. You know what I mean? But, uh, I got sober when I was 26 years old, and uh, and none too early, you know. Uh, I, I see people come in at all ages, and I, I am grateful that I got sober at 26 years old. I do. It is important for you to know, though, that I I have five and a half months more sobriety than my husband Charlie, who will be. <laughs> you know, and they say time doesn't matter, and that is bullshit. <laughs> it damn sure does. And I. I love your line, Steve. I, I steal it all the time. But in our house, when he's having trouble, I tell him in about five and a half months, it'll get better, honey. Just <laughs> hang in there. <sighs> I love that. Um, you know, the speakers, oh, my God, the speakers have been wonderful. What a, what a fun weekend these are. And I'm so happy to see you guys up at 9 a.m. I mean, we were going to the wee hours of the morning last night, and everyone was wonderful. Let's give the speakers a big round of applause. I mean, this... 
You know, and, and for you guys showing up, I mean, we are all one here. We are all garden variety drunks, you know, and I love it. And I, uh, Peter was in Austin last weekend and he was, uh, at our, co- our convention. We were participants and I got to see him speak again. And, and, you know, he said something that was so interesting. He said, you know, I, I fast for four hours before a talk and I was impressed. I was like, wow. And he, and he's, he doesn't do notes. I do, and I don't fast. So my deal is me and God in the morning have this amazing communication that's in front of my computer going on. You know what I'm saying? But I just, I told Charlie, I said, I'm going to try that fasting thing. It lasted about 20 minutes. I thought, oh, I'm all over the place, man. I am losing it. But, uh, you know, I want to thank Mark and Dawn. Oh, my God, you guys. This was this was a, a real uh, a love child. You know what I mean? A real love child. And, and we walked through this with them. And, and, you know, it's tough. I mean, New York City, my God, a bagel's like eight bucks, you know? <laughs> You know, this is not a cheap deal to have. And, and it was so funny. Before I'd, I'd met Mark a couple of times, he and Dawn, at another conference. And, and sometimes you get names and you don't know really who you're talking to on the phone. And, and he had called me and he had invited me to this event. And this event happens to fall. Charlie and I shoot shotguns competitively. We are from Texas. And, uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, we, I, I carry, you know, two shotguns in the trunk of my car at all times. And, uh, and we, and this weekend is a huge event that we always do. And so I've got it blocked out on the calendar. You know, nothing really comes on that weekend. And Mark said, you know, he calls and he says, Katie, you know, this is Mark Cox. I'm not putting two and two together. And he says, can you do this event? And I'm like, oh no, I have a previous engagement. I'm not about to say it's not AA. You know what I mean? I love it when people say the hand of AA, when it reaches out, you're always there. Really? <laughs> Let's watch everybody on that line. You know what I mean? Come on. And uh, so I said, no, I, I have a previous engagement. Da, da, da. And then he tells me the lineup. And all of a sudden I go, hey, hold on just a second. Who, who all was that? And I'm the only girl. I'm in. I'm in. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do have to say it's nice. They did arrange the lights, the scenery, and the ballet. <laughs> the girls are here now. Yes, sir. My home group is the primary purpose group in Austin, Texas. We study the big book line by line. Uh, every Tuesday night at 730 at Faith United Methodist Church. If you're ever in Austin, Texas, please come by. We'd love to have you. It is an amazing experience for me. I've been studying the big book for eight and a half years now. And i got to tell you something. There was a time that that did not appeal to me. Even a big book meeting didn't appeal to me. And I'll tell you, based on my experience, oh, my God, you guys. I mean, I, I was in untreated alcoholism. You've heard that term a few times. It, it can fall under many things. We call it dry, um, stale, flat, period, uh, drifted, whatever you want to call it. I call it untreated alcoholism. If I suffer from a fatal illness and I'm not treating it, I am a loose cannon in the world. I'm an absolute loose cannon in the world. And so when I when I was in a, a the first three years of my sobriety, I was all about the book. Chased a boy into AA. He was a big book guy. I'd sit at his feet while he read the book. It was actually fabulous. Very glad no one was the arbiter of my sex life. And, uh, you know, we and I remained married for 20 years until he got very, very sick. He got very, very sick and... And uh, ended up having a brain tumor, and unfortunately, he relapsed at 23 years sober, went out and, and uh, shot some dope and died. And so today, I get what untreated alcoholism is, because you almost lost me. 
The obsession to drink came back. What? I mean, I thought that was a done deal. That was off the list. And what I didn't realize, guys, is if I don't treat my alcohol, I thought meetings treated alcoholism. Nobody said they did or didn't. I thought meetings treated alcoholism. So I was doing five meetings a week. I was doing five, my husband was doing five meetings a week when he died. And we were not treating our alcoholism with the recovery program based out of the big book. So today I study the book. Today I am a book technician. I have, I'm not at all embarrassed to say I'm a technician. I, I am a technician. Yeah. yeah. God Almighty, it's clear-cut directions. We will screw up Disney World books. You know what I mean? Green eggs and ham we can screw up. You know what I mean? So to me, it's like I'm okay to be a technician. Are there people out there studying the book that bug the crap out of me? Yes. Are there people that don't study the book that bug the crap out of me? Yes. So welcome to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, man. I mean, oh, my God, I've written more inventory on you guys than I ever wrote on my family. Um, oh, I do have to tell you, I did, you know, my, my grandmother, my, my whole family's from the Northeast and, and, uh, you know, I got to Texas as quick as I could, but, um, the, I've never ridden the subway, man. Charlie's got some history in New York City. Oh, you'll hear it. And, uh, I swear to God, I told him, I said, every time we come to New York, do we have to mention the ex-wife? I mean, can we just come to New York without your world with her? And, uh. So we get on the subway because we're going to go meet Bob and Linda in, in Manhattan and, and go for a walk in the uh, park. And so we get on the subway, and it's, it's pretty exciting, you know what I mean? And so we're on the subway, and we get the deal going. And, and, you know, I mean, that thing takes off. There's no seat belts, okay? I mean, it's like all of a sudden you're meeting your neighbor, you know, whoo, a little bit faster than the one at the airport. And... uh and then all of a sudden, you know, it, it's, it feels like, remember when you were a kid and you had those train sets that were pretty, pretty uh, technical train sets, and they would go so fast, and when they'd round a corner, they'd shoot right off? Well, at one point, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, and Charlie leans over and goes, we're underwater now. <laughs> oh, good, good. And I, I tell you what, now, if I were in charge of the subway system... There would be railings. This no railing thing. Woo! Oh, man. I could see being pissed off at a boyfriend drunk and pushing him. I could. I could. You, you, know, you know, we do crazy things. We get behind the wheel of a car drunk. Oh, I can push you. Oh, that'd be a terrible decision, wouldn't it? Ah. And I got I got to tell you, in, in Central Park, I got to get off. I, I, I kind of jumped into the story too quick. In, in Central Park, you know, the boys went for a walk and I went for a run. And I and I love it. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm, I'm in New York City and looking all around. And let me tell you, the people run on the trail the same way they drive. They don't stay on their side. See, in Texas, on the trail I run on, you stay on that side, I stay on this side. I mean, they're coming at you. We're playing games of chicken on the trail. You know what I mean? Come on. Oh, I'm not moving. Uh-uh. Come on. Bring it. Bring it. Uh-uh. And I mean to tell you, we just went, whew. Got a little tense there. Oh. And I, uh, I do a lunge walk that's kind of peculiar looking anyway. But then once I started that, man, the dogs, the kids, people are... Liking me now, aren't you? <laughs> Charlie's a funny bird. Boy, he, he gets out here, and the next thing I know, we're walking by, people goes, how you doing? <laughs> okay. 
Oh, my gosh. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. I, uh, um, like I said, the book, the book talks about these clear-cut directions. Oh, hi, Clancy. I brought you some postcards. I found them. Yeah. Sucking up. Just want you to notice them. Um, I, uh, you know, the book talks about these clear-cut directions, and there's a reason I think that they're clear-cut directions. Man, we can screw up just about anything. Wouldn't you agree? And so, you know, and they found it important to put it in a short, uh, amount of pages. And so I do go with a technical approach on what the fourth step is. To me, I think it is very important. It says in the third step, it says I'm almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though my motives are good. You see, to me, what that's telling me is what happens is I come into Alcoholics Anonymous with very few tools in my toolkit. I have a tool of self-reliance. I get what I want. I am a powerful girl. I, that, that, that was established early on. Left home at 15 years old, managed to make it through high school. I mean, I got what I wanted. I was voted most likable four years in a row in school. Uh-huh. You have any idea how hard that is? That's a, you gotta get everybody to like you. That's a lot of sucking up. And, uh, and, and I'm good at it. I'm good at sucking up, you know? And it's the, it's the corroding thread in my inventory is i got to get everybody to like me. And I'll tell you something. Ralph says this beautifully. It's crucial that you like me. I don't particularly have to care for you. But you do need to like me. And then look at my personality. I mean, there's already people, once I stood up here, you just didn't like me just based on my appearance. You know what I mean? And, I mean, that's how... That's my life, what i got to constantly be looking at. But this constant collision the book is talking about, after a while, I learn about service. I learn about unity. I learn about integrity, dignity, honor, respect, right? That's what we're about learning. That's what the process is about, becoming somebody, part of society. Well, before you know it, man, I'm, I set up chairs. I'm 30 years sober. I'll still set up chairs. But you know what I do? I pay attention to who's not. Do you see that behind a kind motive? It's like, oh, yeah. So I start to get real self-righteous. I'm a good AA. You're not. <laughs> see, and that's where it gets troublesome. And I, I miss that. I miss that whole point. Because I'm only looking for when I show up and I'm a real jerk. Oh, I get that. That's the obvious one. It's behind the kind motives that I'm troublesome. And then it says in the 10th step, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, that position of neutrality that Peter was talking about last night. Oh, my God, that position of neutrality, I can't get in it by myself. I absolutely can't do it without God's help. It's an absolutely wonderful gift. It's kind of like the bubble on a level when you just get it just right. All of a sudden, I got no dog in that fight. You know what I mean? That is none of my business. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I still love in Alcoholics Anonymous, it makes me feel uncomfortable, but I love gossip. And thank goodness it makes me feel uncomfortable. I'm getting better and better and better with God's help to not gossip about people. And, and in Texas, all you got to say is, bless her heart. She's such a... Yeah, bless her heart. She's such a dumbass, you know. And uh, you seem to have, you know, you, you put it in a nice package. And... Uh, the, the third step is just a prayer. It's not just a prayer, and that's what I thought it was. You know, and in my experience, I went from the A, Bs, and Cs. Do you believe you're alcoholic? Well, if there is anything as far as alcoholism, yes, I'm it. Do you believe in God? I had no problem with the God deal. I mean, I didn't, I didn't go one way or another. And they said, well, let's hit our knees. And I remember doing that third step prayer and feeling nothing. 
And I'm not saying that I needed to have felt something, but I can assure you at that point in my sobriety, I wouldn't have even understood the self-centeredness if you would have explained it to me. See, I believe the drink was my problem. If you get the drink off of me, I still think people in Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the alcohol is their problem. You get the alcohol off of me, I'm fine from here. You heard all the speakers say that when you take away the alcohol is when my problems begin. But you see, I am most likable. I'm not selfish and self-centered. Charlie is. (laughs) Oh, my God, is he. He was my best friend in AA from, uh, well, he had six months sober and I had a year and when we met. And, uh, and I was crazy in love with my husband, and, but I loved Charlie. And to watch Charlie, he to me was a train wreck. He did suffer from selfishness and self-centeredness, but I didn't. And I remember it. I remember people would talk about it in meetings, and I'd think, God, too bad. You get the booze off of me and watch me work. See, man, I'm a doer. I get it done. And I've been that all, all my life. And so I didn't see this. I didn't see it at all. And I ended up in those bedevilments at about 17 years sober. And let me tell you what, that is the darkest place of my life. I was in the darkest days of my life for about 18 months. And when it talks about contemplating killing yourself, I'd never contemplated killing myself drinking. I mean, I'd lay there in that self-pity. I was the phone call in one. I had a kid. By the end, I had to stay at home. And, you know, I'd listen to the same song over and over and over and over. And I dial late at night. <laughs> oh. But the, the, the feeling I felt in the bedevilments was totally different. You see, by the time I pick up alcohol, it's the solution. And therein lies the problem. See, I don't work a program for fear of drinking. Because by the time I pick up the drink, it will be the solution. I do it because I don't ever want to live in the bondage of self of what I was in. The bedevilments drive me into doing this work. Would I rather write inventory? No. Would I rather be in the bondage of self? Absolutely not. I'll write inventory. You see, those are my decisions that I make. And uh, one of the things about it, it says on page 61, that first requirement, you can't do the fourth step without re, uh, dipping a toe in the third step. It says uh, the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. I'm not. I'm not convinced. Watch me. I'm walking around. I'm not convinced that my life is, is a mess. And then it says on page uh, 64, it says being convinced. So between pages 60 and 64, it's going to convince me the many different ways that self shows up. See, if you get somebody and you ask them, what are your defects of character? Well, I'm selfish and self-centered. I'm jealous. I'm envious. Oh, you're going to have to go way deeper for me. Yeah, yeah, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's early sobriety. The longer I'm sober, I'm absolutely blinded to it because it's a shapeshifter. I don't even see how I show up until my stuff's in the ditch. You see, when the wheels come off, I don't realize I had a kind motive. I was just trying to be helpful, and now I'm in real trouble. See, I, I always believed, you know, I'll let somebody in traffic, right? Come on, come on, come on, come on. But I need this. See, I'll hold the door open for you, but I need a thank you. Okay. I'm not going to be holding the door and having about a herd come through. You know, after a while, I'm like, hey, 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 hey. 
It says uh, that I'm an actor running the whole show. Oh, my God, you guys, let me, let me introduce you to the sheriff. I'm not the actor. I am the sheriff. See, you are the deputy. That's what you are. But when I come in somewhere, I mean, I, last night I went, oh, Charlie, we, we need to get those lights on me. Did you see the hoist? Thank you. I am the sheriff. I am the sheriff of everything. I am the sheriff of the grocery store. I am the sheriff of AA. I am the cleavage police. Yeah. You come in with too much cleavage and I am just like this. You know, and I got to grow in understanding and effectiveness. I have to figure out what is the best way to come at you because I, if I'm not careful, I will come at your ego. You see, and that's never good. If I come at you too harshly, you didn't even hear the message. My sponsor says, why do you feel like you need to stand up for all the women in AA? Oh, I'm sick of hearing that. But it's very, very true. Why do I? Oh, my gosh, my old ideas. You really want to know the real one? Because you threatened me. There's the real one. See, we got to be like this. So I got to show you that I'm here for you. Now, it's it's changing. And it's becoming more important that we are like this. But at first, it's because you threatened me. And that's never good, guys. And, and that's what I got to get down to. I got to get down to this swallowing and digesting. Then I have this bizarre delusion that if all my arrangements would stay put, if everyone would do as I wish, it'd be utopia. Don't you believe that? Oh, yeah, I take this motive and this delusion that everything would be great, and I run my actions through there, and the worst I'm going to get is an A-, because I'm a good person. See, we alcoholics are not malicious and bad people. We're just self-centered. I believe that we're missing so many filters. I mean, I, I encourage you to go through your day-to-day, -day, and when you're talking to somebody that is not in this organization, look for this reaction. We are an extreme example of self-will-run riot, though we usually don't think so. And I'm telling you, you just watch people. They are shocked and appalled when we open our mouth. <laughs> then it starts to talk about page 61 is the beginning of what the inventory is getting ready to look like. Oh, my gosh, I take all my sponsees back to page 61. What usually happens? The show doesn't come off very well. She begins to think life doesn't treat her right. There comes the self-pity. Everybody's mad at me. I can't believe it. My family, I went for Thanksgiving. They're pissed. And, and then it starts. It says, I become angry, column two. Indignant, column three. And self-pity, column four. It begins the process. And then it says, what's my basic trouble? Am I really not a self-seeker even when trying to be kind? It's trying to wake me up to behind my kind motives. You know, people always say, check your motives. I'm sorry, I can't. I can't check my motives till my stuff's in the ditch. I've written enough inventory on it. I've had enough effect of pain that I begin to just awaken the spirit enough to go, oh, this looks like those last 19 situations. <laughs> okay, God, hold up, hold up. See, I can't check my kind motive at the door. I can't check my ego at the door. You know, people say, you know, things like, to me, you know, where's your humility? I can't make myself humble. I can't do any of this without his aid. And, you know, we, I love this one when I'm working with you. If, if you call yourself a people pleaser, oh, my God. 
please, let's line up all the people you've pleased over here to the right side of the room. Let's, let's, let's see how well this is working. It's that what we are is an approval sucker, you know? We're chameleons. You, you like it this way? Fine. You like that music? So do I. Okay. You know, I mean, that's what we do. And, and that's the other thing. It says, is Katie really not a victim? That means I'm tricked or duped by my own delusion, the failure to recognize reality, not denial, delusion, that I can rest, and that means to seize by force, satisfaction and happiness out of this world if I just manage well. That's a lot being said in that line. That means my spirit's completely asleep. You know, you hear things like, would you rather be right or happy? What a stupid line. <laughs> Both. I mean, you know, I want to be happy when I'm right, okay? And I want you to know that. I'm not going to go, oh, silly me, I'd rather be happy. You know, it doesn't work that way for me. I, I'm the kind of personality, I'm a lot coming at you. You know, my husband likes to say I'm a little like taking a drink out of a fire hose, man. You get a lot more than you were expecting. And that is very true. And, and one of the things about that is, you know, it says rest, satisfaction, and happiness. Do you see where it says would you rather be right or happy? I'd rather be both. You know, that would be a delusion to think I'm anything but. So what do I do? I become a producer of confusion rather than harmony. And that's the way the inventory is supposed to lay out. I just wanted everyone to be happy. Now the whole group's pissed off at me. How many of you guys have had your AA group pissed off at you? Yeah. Welcome to the fellowship. And if you haven't, oh boy, isn't that fun. You know, the safest ground, the most sacred ground is our AA group. And if, if, you, if you've upset everybody in there, we got trouble. You know, that's the way the, the disease will separate you. It'll separate you from your sponsor. It'll separate you from your home group. It's desperately trying to kill you. And, and I'm so blinded to self-centeredness in me, but I can see it in others clearly. And it says, you know, there's some words I like to kind of uh, refer back to that we don't use in our, in our literature. Uh, it's a different word, and that's controlling, if everyone would do as I wish, right? You know, people say alcoholics are so controlling. That's the root of my illness here with my selfishness and self-centeredness is that i got to get everybody to do as I wish. Manipulative is my self-seeking. And expectations are my ambitions. It, it's, 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 see, guys, it's in my DNA, this level of self-centeredness. It tells me I can't live up to these moral and philosophical convictions. I mean, on my own power, I can't even work on my own defects. You ever heard someone say, I'm working on my defects? I did for 17 years say that. All these things that I'm saying, I said. And moral and philosophical convictions galore. If you're in untreated alcoholism, oh, you can have an affair. Yo, you can have an affair. You can do things you never thought you could do. You could lie, you could steal, you could cheat in untreated alcoholism. And yet we become that man on page 73 that was referred to. I only thought I had lost my egotism. I only thought I had leveled my pride. And the other thing, you know, one of the things that I can tell you is when I was in untreated alcoholism, I, I, I spank my kids. I'm a spanker. And uh, that may be against your value system. It ain't against my value system. I, I'll, I'll spank you at 15 years old. You know what I mean? I'll spank, I'll spank you at Disneyland, man. Put him up, put him up, put him up, put him up. You know, I am a spanker. But one thing that's against my value system is I don't slap my kids in the face. Now, you just don't slap your children. 
Well, I slapped both my kids in untreated alcoholism. Slapped them right in the face. No one was more shocked than I was that I slapped my children sober. Wow. And then as I begin to learn the book, I realize, oh, my God, it's all in here. It says moral and philosophical convictions galore. I can't live up to them no matter how hard I try. Without his help, without me staying in, these, in this work. See, four through nine to me is the tenth step, right? To continue to take personal inventory. The directions are just in the fourth step. And I don't care what you call it. I don't care if you call it a tenth step, doing another four and five. I don't care. But just do it. I don't care if there's a fourth column or you want to call it an expanded third column or you want to do 15 columns. Just put pen to paper because that's where the magic happens. This self-knowledge is such a dangerous thing, too. When the book is talking about it, it says the fourth step is a consideration of how self shows up for me. We just went through the whole third step on, on what the third step is about, the different ways self shows up. I am an outspoken individual. Oh, my God, let me tell you. If I see something that's an injustice, usually I'll say, hey, 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 knock it off. Like I'm Mighty Mouse. You know what I mean? The guy's gigantic. I love this one in Philly. When I'm in the airport, Charlie and I are having a fight that he doesn't even know we're having. And, uh, and uh, so he's walking ahead of me because I'm not even with him. And uh, this gigantic athlete-looking guy comes at, to, you know, he's walking. He's got a pair of those long, you know, kind of basketball pants on. And I swear, he buries his arm down his pants to his elbow to fluff something. And I mean, it is a, you know. And I'm, I go, oh, my God. Really? Really? I'm just saying, man, sometimes you can't shut me down. You know what I mean? And uh, now he didn't stop. We didn't have a little chit-chat. He'd go, I'm sorry, I buried my arm down to my elbow. But I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe nobody else was saying something. Okay, so it says, before, so, so I, am, I am an off-the-chain kind of personality, right? I am. Now, if you show up... And you couldn't say peep if you had a mouthful. You couldn't stand up for yourself if your life depended on it. Does not make you any less alcoholic than me. Matter of fact, it's just the different ways that self shows up. So that's what the fourth step is. It's a consideration of how self shows up. It's the tapestry of Katie's life. And in order for me to be able to have anything to take in the sixth step to God that's objectionable, i got to be able to see... How do I do it? How do I show up? There's warnings. You know, the spirit falls asleep. It dreams that it's awake. So I'm asleep going through life dreaming I'm awake. Awake and aware. Awake and aware. If I tell you to go out of here, well, now I don't know about New York City, but, you know, the, the surrounding areas. If I tell you to look for a white car, you'd be shocked at how many white cars are out there. About every other car is white. And, and... That is heightened awareness. You now have a heightened awareness. Those cars have always been there. But I had a heightened awareness of them. That's what the inventory process is. The knowledge of it won't do squat. Because I, on my own power, cannot take these away. I can try to behave better, don't get me wrong. 
But, but God has to remove these things. Listen to the many different ways that the, the um, spirit falls asleep. A victim of the delusion, I can rest satisfaction and happiness if I just manage well. The more we tried to have our own way, the worse matters got. The victor only seemed to win at war. The word seems is italicized, which means I think I'm getting it. It says, uh, the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. See, life's not coming at me. It's coming from me. I didn't get that. I thought life was coming at me. It says the world and its people really do dominate us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, have the power to kill. I'm telling you, I, I didn't write inventory. Oh, my God, I didn't write inventory for 15 years. And I don't know why I thought I didn't have to. And, and you may not write inventory. Hey, I'm not telling you you have to, but I'm telling you, you're probably living in an experience. You're, you're, you've got an experience that is not, let me reword this, because this can go against your ego. If you're sitting out there not writing inventory, you're going, what is it, little lady? <laughs> go ahead and tell me what I'm doing wrong. I, would, I had an experience, I had an opinion on an experience I hadn't had. And when I realized the more I would write, just jot down. Heck, I don't care if it's on a bar napkin. Jot down what pisses me off, myself, uh, my, the cause and the effect. It is amazing if I share that with another human being. You heard Lorenz reading inventory. I mean, that kind of stuff is amazing. And it is in my lineage that you put pen to paper. As a matter of fact, it's not only in my lineage, it's in the book. You know what I mean? So I'm going to treat my alcoholism by putting pen and paper. Do I do it on everything I'm pissed off at? Of course not. I have my own barometer. I can call my sponsor with a verbal 10 step, and if I get the freedom I need, that's it. I'm all good. But if by that evening I wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning, my eyes ping open, and that son of a bitch, I'm writing inventory because of this line. The world and its people really do dominate us. In that state, the wrongdoings of others, fancied or real, have the power to kill me. I get blocked from the sunlight of the spirit. The fourth and fifth step talks about this life or death errand. Next, we launched out on this course of vigorous action. Now, I always thought the course of vigorous action was four through seven. I was incorrect. It says the first step of which is a personal house cleaning. It's four through nine. I missed that whole thing. I hear people stop on the fifth step, and they just kind of do the mouth, the um, six and seven. I did it for years. I didn't even know what six and seven was. What? It's two paragraphs, for God's sakes. I mean, how important can that be? I always went to the 12 and 12 because I needed more depth. I didn't realize that the, from the doctor's opinion all the way up to the sixth step, it was preparing me for the sixth step. Because I didn't study the book. Today I am a technician. Today I get what the book is telling me to do. And let me tell you something, guys. I was a fitness professional for 30 years. And uh, I, can, I can get you fit. Do you believe that? Come on. Yes. Now, I can get you fit. It is going to require so much on your part. But I know how to get you fit. I know how to get you to eat right. I know how much you need to exercise. I know exactly the kind of exercise I can get you to do. But if I can't get you on that treadmill, we got nothing but knowledge. And that's what I'm talking about. This is a program of action. And I love that I'm in a lineage that puts pen to paper. I just love it. Because, my God, I cannot, you know, other than the guy in the airport and the hand down the pants thing, I have been so much better 
You, you, you just be, I, I walk away, I got no dog in that fight kind of deal. And so this, I look at this as a, this um, launching out as a golf swing. You know, it just goes all the way through. It's four through nine, because traditionally there's going to be an amends in this process. I, I, I don't write inventory where there's not an amends, even to the man I hate. And so the three different types of inventories are there's a resentment inventory. And the reason it's selfish and self-centered is because you didn't do what I wanted you to do. A fear inventory is I'm afraid you're not going to do what I want you to do. And a sex inventory is I feel guilty for what I did to you. Do you hear the selfishness and all of that? Now, keep in mind, a sex inventory, as we get into that one, a sex inventory is really a conduct inventory. You know, there's very few things in the book I would want to change, but I do want to change some things. <laughs> so do you. And uh, I would like the word to be relationship right, instead of sex, because for some reason you say sex, I think of the act. And, and it's not about the act of sex. It's about the relationship with sex, which would mean my relationship. But it's also a conduct inventory. So we'll get more into that as we go. Um, it talks about uh, uh, in the tenth step that if you don't take regular inventory, you usually go broke. Or excuse me, in the fourth step, it says if you don't take regular inventory, you usually go broke. Oh, my gosh, I can sit in meetings and hear where somebody, have you heard the guy who's constantly complaining about the divorce? Oh, or the boss. And and what I do today is I'll walk over there to him and go, you know, she usually, I, I try to work with the girls, and I'll say, man, it sounds like you are really upset with your in-laws. Oh, yeah, did you hear me? Well, yeah, I've heard you for the last couple of weeks. You, you, you know, you got a few minutes? Sure. I take them outside. Man, I'll sit down. I'll write the darn inventory for them. I'll put it in column two. I'll talk about what it affects in column three. I'll talk all about that. See, because to me, I've been given this gift. I do believe that I have the power to get you connected to the power, right? I am the vessel to connect you to the power. Do you believe that? Do you have a message of depth and weight? These are questions you need to ask yourself. Because if you don't, trust me, there is directions in the book to get it. If I want to be as effective as possible with another sponsee, I better know what I'm bringing. I always take it back to fitness. Mark Houston was the one who said, God, Katie, of all people, you get fitness. It says stay in fit spiritual condition. You know what's required. The disciplines that I have to do. I'm down at the gym today. There's quite a few people there, actually. Mm-hmm. Not all of y'all, but quite a few. And uh, I'm down at the gym because I got to stay in fit spiritual condition. I eat good because I got to stay in fit spiritual condition. I am a fitness professional. I do my prayer and meditation. I do my evening review. Do I slack? Of course I do. And do I pay the price? Wow. Yes, I do. I'm telling you, I write inventory, I bet, on my husband about once a month. And, uh, you know, I, it always gets a laugh. But I'm telling you, how many people in this room are currently married? Just look around the room, guys. Next relationship you're in, you might want to write inventory once a month on them. I'm just saying. Because the reason for that is, before you know it, all I see are his defects. And then before you know it, I've married the wrong man. You see, and I work my way right out of it. Everywhere I go, I can ask how many people are married, and it's just, it's a handful. And I really believe the book, the 12 and 12, says we can't form a true partnership with another human being. That's a sponsor, a neighbor, a boss, a, a significant other. 
And, and Charlie makes my evening review. You know why? Because I've got to see that my troubles are of my own making. It's not Charlie. I never consider the stress he's under. He is just not doing it the way I want him to. And that's the problem. It, I'm telling you, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing. You know, the book talks about inventory being a fact-finding and a fact-facing mission. Oh, I love that. Matter of fact, I take all emotion out of an inventory. I'm not going to sit there and do a fist step with you while you're bawling your eyes out the whole time. As a matter of fact, if you do that, it's dangerous. It's very, very dangerous to me. We're re-feeling. We're not looking to re-feel. We're looking at the facts. I feel like it's like a court of law. Ma'am, just answer the question. Just answer the question. God Almighty, that's a yes or no question. Just answer the question. We're going to be here for nine days, you know. I mean, you should see me. I am moving. I am moving through this thing. Mark used to say you could ask an alcoholic if they were married and get a 15-minute answer. That's a yes or no question. Yeah. Let me ask, how many people in this room have been married? Have been. Yeah, the hands go on. More than once. Oh, yeah, they are the wave twice, three times, four times. And you're kind of waiting till your number gets hit. Wow! Um, so, you know, if, if, if I were to inventory my closet, I would say I have five black shirts, I have three white pants. I wouldn't take each shirt out, remember where I bought it. Remember how much I enjoyed wearing it with those cute shoes? You're just doing an inventory. This is a fact-finding that I'm on as the person, you know, listening to the inventory. And you're on the fact-facing. You're on the swallowing and digesting. Because traditionally, the second column is a delusion. Oh, it's your perception of how it went down. But it's my job to show you, is it possible it went down a different way? Yeah, not just did they do the best they could with what they had. I've never been a big fan of that term, you know. I mean, you'll hear people say, oh, my my uh, dad was never there for me. Really, what what, what, did, what did he do for a living? Well, he had four jobs. Is it, did, did, was he able to pay for your college? Yeah, yeah, he did pay for my college. Okay, so really what your dad did was bust his butt so he could financially take care of you. And you are such a black hole of emotional need. <laughs> That when he came into the house, you're all up in his business. You couldn't give him two seconds to sit down in the chair and take a breath. Hey, look at me. Check it out. 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 Oh, my God. So, you know, and what I swear to God, once you start really getting there, they go, oh, my God. Oh, and and I love it. I, I get the privilege of listening to about 10 hours of inventory minimum a week. I'm retired now. I mean, I love it. I absolutely love it. I listen to inventory from people I don't even, I've never even met. You know, I'll tell you tonight uh, or this morning, if you want to do a 10 step with me and call me, I'll give you my number. Call me. I'll do a 10 step with you. I love it. I love it. You know why? It, it feeds my soul because you are me. And I am more awake and aware than I have ever been. When the book talks about that we have entered the realm of the spirit, the first time I remember reading that in Untreated Alcoholism going, what does that even mean? Entered the realm of the spirit. I know what it means today. I can't put it in words to you, but I know what it means right here. And I love when I listen to inventory. And before I listen to inventory, I always pray, God, open my eyes to how this is me.
with the person because it is a mirror image. It is the gift to listen to somebody else's inventory. And I'm not always talking about a four-hour inventory. Most people think that, oh, inventory, oh, God, you know, that's going to take forever. No, 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 no. Ten-step calls usually about 30 minutes, maybe 45. And I, and sometimes I'll tell you, you know what, you're going to have to write this one down. And write it down fast. Don't think. Don't think. You know, the inventory in the book is very, very clear. You know, Mr. Brown got 19 words. He wanted his wife, right? He wanted, he told him about his mistress and he wanted his job. 19 words. My favorite AA t-shirt is Mr. Brown needs his ass kicked. Now, I do agree with that. I do agree with that. But to me, it's, it's trying to teach you that it's quick. It's one thing is it's an effort to discover the truth about the stock in trade. That's me. How do I show up? What do I do in life? I'm a know-it-all. I'm opinionated. I have tried to not be sarcastic. Wow, the entire state of New York has a lot of sarcasm. (laughs) Jeez. How you doing? Worth looking at. Do you find sarcasm offensive? Ask the person you were just sarcastic with. Did that hurt your feelings? Yeah, yeah, it did. Sarcasm is ripping of the skin. It's a tough one. And sarcasm to me is the ego just being, you know, blocking you. <laughs> My dad was from Chicago and he used to say, you know, Katie, uh, you know, if you didn't, if you're, you, you're, uh, well, you'd screw up a one car funeral. And then he'd say, you know, your ass would fall off if it wasn't hooked on. And I always thought, you're so funny. And the more and more I thought about that, I just began to lose my self-confidence. Now, I was a pain in the neck. My dad did a great job. Oh, my God, I got his humor. I got a, a ton of stuff. And I also got some of his ugliest qualities, opinionated, outspoken. And if I can channel that through God's power, I'm a very powerful woman in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. I know that. And I'm also the kind of person that will climb the highest mountain for you, man. You show up and you really want this deal, I will bust my ass for you. But you take any of it for granted, you'll move to the bottom of my list real quick. It's the way I operate. It says, one object is to disclose damage or unsaleable goods, to get rid of them promptly and without regret. Oh, my God. If you're not careful in an inventory process, you go from self-righteous to self-pity. And the ego loves it, as long as you're still thinking about you. See, you got to go from self-righteous to right here. To where God can remove this. Do you believe that? It says in the fifth step, we will be delighted. Oh my gosh, be very careful you don't drift into that self-pity. We try to keep the emotion out of it. It says self-manifested in various ways is what had defeated us. How do I show up? We have to get down to the causes. That's the second column in the conditions. That's the third column. How do I show up? I can't fool myself about values. Oh, my gosh, you guys, I can't even begin to tell you. Values, old ideas. You've heard the term several times. Values are a tough one. See, there's a lot of, uh, one of the things about values I can tell you is I believed I was a good parent. I got sober. I took parenting classes. We did group therapy for families. I mean, we were all about how do the kids feel. We were doing the deal as a good parent. And my kids love me today. I have a 35-year-old, a 25-year-old. I got three grandbabies. Oh, I swear to God, those grandbabies are the best. Don't you just love them? Oh, my God. I swear, Max will say, Graham, can I have a popsicle before dinner? I'm like, have three. I don't <laughs> Run with the scissors, baby. You know, I don't care. I'm not going to be the disciplinary. I'm done. 
And, uh, but, but one of the things is I, I am a good parent. Now, Charlie, on the other hand, not so good to me. Now, I've written so much inventory on this. And what I didn't realize is my I am a good parent went to I am a better parent than you. And I didn't know that till I did inventory with Lorenz. Now, I've done a hundred pieces of inventory with my sponsor, Marty. And she was, you know, doing a, an amazing job. And I kept getting hit because his youngest daughter stole some of my jewelry. And this kid, I, I'd like to hold her head underwater. I kid you not. Just to scare the crap out of her. Oh, she pisses me off to the point to where I want to get physical. You know what I mean? And uh, I called Lorenz and I said, oh, my God, Mike, I just read inventory to my sponsor and I, I, I just don't feel like I'm completely free. And I said, read it to me. So I'm reading it to him and I'm talking. About it. He goes, well, Katie, it sounds like you petted the rattlesnake and it bit you. Hmm. Oh, yeah, this little girl's a thief. She's a liar. And she blows up the world. I said, okay, keep going. He goes, but I'm more interested in what drove you to be this, this ally with this little girl. Well, because I wanted her to succeed. I, I, I really wanted her to do well. Oh, I'm such a giver. <laughs> and he goes, really? And he goes, somehow we, we, we worded this and worded this and I'll condense it. And it says, it sounds like... Had she succeeded, you could have stood at her college graduation and the birth of her child going, look, mom and dad, I did it. I did the good job. So Charlie and the ex-wife. Because <sighs> I'm better than you are. I mean, it was just like, whoa. And all of a sudden I realized I got no dog in that fight. That child is none of my concern if all I'm going to do in there is to try to do it behind a kind motive without God's help. Oh, my gosh, you guys. And I have gotten to where I've gotten this soft spot in my heart where I can look at Charlie after he talks to her and I say, how are you doing? Instead of what is she doing? And that's the place I got to be, guys. I am dangerous. And that's what I'm saying all behind that kind motive stuff. I just don't get it. And that, where are my old ideas show up? They show up in the third column of a four-column inventory. My old ideas, I just ask you the question, you know, a lot of people do the check marks. That's what I did for a long time. I didn't understand. If you asked me, how does it affect your self-esteem, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. I just say it affects my self-esteem, my pride, my ambition, my security, my personal relationships. I don't get it. I don't really know what that means. I just know I'm pissed off. So it's got to affect everything, right? <laughs> But when you say how, see, this is the sixth step. This is how is this objectionable? How do I show up? So how does it affect my self-esteem? I am a good parent. My pride. No one should disagree with me. My ambition. If she would do as I wish, this show would be great. My security is I really want everybody to be happy. My personal relationship says I am a good parent. Do you see that my self-esteem and my pride always stand in the way of my security? That's what's killing me. It's always killing me. So I got to know what's in that third column. Oh, let me tell you, it's a, it's a dicey one. 
And then we've got that sick man prayer. This was our course, right? The world and its people really do dominate us. In that state, fancy to real, have the power to kill. How were we to get over this? This was our course. God. Oh, my gosh, could you imagine if you were leaving Florida and heading to the uh, Bahamas and you didn't have a course, you'd end up in Cuba. You have to have a course, and this is a course of vigorous action. And this course is what we call the sick man prayer, right? The world and its people really do dominate me. I mean, if you want to pray for them, that's great and groovy, and that's a nice piece of work. But what the book is telling me is that I have to ask God, please help me show them the same patience, tolerance, and pity I'd grant a sick friend. They, like myself, are sick too. See, I miss that. I miss that whole deal. See, I just see you as sick. I'm really better than you are. That's, that's, that's the pair of glasses I tr- typically wear. Page 19 says, the viewpoints and shortcomings of others is my guiding light. Really? So the guy that pisses me off and bugs me the most is my guiding light? Why? Because when I do the inventory, I can see the me and you and have that compassion. I could be either person in this play easily. I could be, well, I can't imagine being the guy in the airport sticking my hand down my pants, but... Oh, I'm sure I've done a couple of those, you know, that was inappropriate. You know, that's what I'm talking about. I could be either person. And and the fourth column, it says to refer to our list again. I don't care what you call it. It says putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done. See, the book is very clear that it is not about my part. If there's anything in, in AA I could erase, it would be the term my part. It's not in there anywhere. It's the only place it's really in there is to the man we hate. But the rest of it, it is all mine. Disregard the other man entirely. The inventory was mine, not theirs. And that's what it's talking about. Selfish. My fourth column, it's going to be how I'm self-righteous, how I show up self-reliant, how I show up self-pity, dishonest, how I lie. Oh, I can lie. I'm almost 30 years sober. I could lie like that. I can tell somebody I saw their text, and then when I finally call them a week later, I tell them I didn't see their text. That's a lie. Yeah, I didn't see your text. Oh, you texted me. Oh. So I lie. Okay, let's let's get that out there real clear. I also don't tell you the whole truth. Right? Heading to work in a hurry. Left the house late. There's an accident. Yes. Blame it on the accident. See, I, I can I can weave a story. And then the worst one is the dishonesty is the delusion. I believe a delusional lie, and and I'm driven by that fear. That's the problem, selfishness and self-centeredness. That's the root of my problem. I am driven by a hundred forms of fear, all my old ideas, self-delusion, self-seeking, self-pity. I step on the toes of my fellows, and they retaliate. That's where the period is. They hurt us seeming without provocation. But invariably, I find that I made a decision based on self that later placed me in a position to be hurt. What did I do? And if I ask the right questions and I'm on a fact-finding mission with you, oh, we'll figure out where you made a decision. And then all of a sudden, you get to be free. See, the cause is always fear, and the condition is always self-will and self-reliance. It always is. This self-centered fear is my problem. I'm afraid I'm not going to get what I think I need and lose what I got. I'm afraid I'm not going to get the job. I get the job. I'm afraid I'm going to lose it. I'm afraid I'm not going to get the guy. I get the guy. I'm afraid I'm going to lose him. I finally get sober. I'm deathly afraid I'm not going to stay sober. 
I mean, it's self-centered fear, that ping-pong ball. Do you see how you cannot be in a position of neutrality with that in your life? We're still doing well on time. How are you doing? Are you still with me? Because now we're just at the fear inventory. The fear inventory, guys, is... It's interesting. I, you know, some people technically see a fear inventory as four columns. I don't. I see a fear inventory as two columns. Uh, the fear inventory, it says, it, it says it's the corroding thread. It's important that you know what your corroding thread is. My corroding thread is I got to have everybody like me. Oh my gosh, you, almost every inventory goes down to that. And look at my personality. Oh, you either like me or you don't. Trust me. And, and that's a tough one for me to do. I'm the best at everything. That's the other corroding thread I have. I think I'm the best at everything. Man, I, I will. You should see me out there shooting with the boys. I am gonna, I'm gonna be on the cover of the magazine. Yeah. I mean, to tell you, and if I don't get good, I go and I just cry. I'm better than that. I know I am. And that's what I'm talking about. Oh, my gosh, you can't even begin to believe how this corroding thread will eat my lunch. And that's why that evening review is crucial for me, because I've got to take those corrective measures into my prayer and meditation. I've got to ask God, God, I, help me be okay with just you and me, man. It's just me and you. Let me be okay. See, because I'm not. All my life, I always had to overachieve to prove to you. Cut off my nose to spite my face. It says this short word sometimes touches about every aspect of our life. It is an evil and corroding thread. The fabric of our existence was shot through with it. And, and in our, our meeting, we have a 1964 dictionary. You know, we're techs. I, that's what we are. And in this, we, we asked Charlie, said, hey, look up the word shot. Now listen to what the word shot meant. I shoot shotguns. I thought it meant blow a hole in, you know. I mean, that's what a shotgun does, blows a hole in it. And that there's the hole of fear. That's what I thought. See, if I don't check out my stuff, I just take that and go. And it says the word shot is woven with warped or weft thread, causing the fabric to take a different appearance based on the viewpoint of the observer. So that's self-centered fear. I get the guy. I can't believe it. Now I'm afraid I'm going to lose him. See, the fear just changes. When my husband died, I had just gotten him a life insurance policy. He was six weeks from it being the two-year you know, period that he didn't kill himself. And uh, it looked like they weren't going to give me this money. And it was a good sum of money, and I needed it, man. I was in trouble financially. That one will wake you up in the middle of the night. And uh, the next thing I know, I finally get the check. And, I mean, I am talking in the grips of the four horsemen in bed, you know, panic-stricken. I'm not going to get it. I open that envelope. I don't even take the check out. I just pull it to see if it's the correct amount. And I am gripped by fear. It is the correct amount. And I am deathly afraid I'm going to spend it all because I'm irresponsible with cash. It changed just like that. My fear that I wasn't going to get it, now I'm going to spend it all. And guess what? I spent every nickel of it in one year. And I had somebody come up to me in a talk and go, why didn't you give that check to somebody? And did, 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 did. Oh, shut up. Really? Really? Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. You think I had that kind of power? I'm an untreated alcoholism. I'm not about to give the check to Charlie and say, Charlie, now ask me every time I need money. You know what I mean? Not doing it. Not doing it. Now, I want to mention the other, the other speakers have cussed. I don't think Peter did, but the other ones have cussed and uh, Carl shot the finger. So I'm just doing along the same lines. 
I know I'm a girl and it's not supposed to be. Well, too bad. Okay, and then it says, it set into motion trains of circumstances we felt brought us misfortune. We felt we didn't deserve it, but didn't we ourselves set a ball rolling? Absolutely. And so that's what I do. I do a two-column inventory. What is the fear and why do I have it? You know, the fear could be all kinds of things. I'm irresponsible with cash. How does that affect my self-esteem, my pride, my ambition? What does my self-reliance do? What does my self-righteousness do? I get in there and I get to see it. A book promises me that my troubles are of my own making. If I want to be free, the problem's got to be me, man. I'm telling you, self-reliance failed us. And I, I will fall back to self-reliance like that. You hurt, threaten, or interfere with me. You get me on a bad spiritual day. Whew, it's troublesome. It says, I love this. It's, there's a fear prayer. And it talks about on page 25, blotting out our intolerable situation or accepting spiritual help. Those are the two alternatives I have. Page 53, it says, crushed by a self-imposed crisis, I could not postpone or evade. Either God's everything or he's nothing. And page 133 talks about the deliberate manufacture of misery. God didn't do it. But when trouble comes, I'm to cheerfully capitalize on it so he can show his omnipotence. You have two turns. That's the turning point. Continue managing this thing, and let me tell you, the wheels will fall off. Bad. Or accept spiritual help. And that's what the book is constantly talking about. i got about six more minutes. Hang in there. The, yeah. Shut the doors. Lock them. Because now we're going to talk about the sex inventory. Oh, my gosh. Do you just love the sex inventory? I first thought it was about everybody I had sex with, you know. The, the caterer, the, you know, the bouncer, the, it was, it was the eighties. Come on. You know, there was nothing out there. The HIV wasn't around. It was just don't get pregnant. You know, every once in a while you had to go to the clinic. Woo, big deal. You know, I remember I walked into the clinic one time and I said, Oh, we're all obviously looking for love in all the wrong places. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I mean, sex was sex. It was no big deal. It was just the act. It's a, we set it up that way. You know, it's a little bit bigger deal now. I mean, it is a bigger deal. It doesn't mean that anybody's being more, any more safe, but it is a big deal. And the sex inventory is crucial. It is a conduct inventory. It, it's got a hundred million prayers in there. If you can't live up to it, if you can't stop watching porn and it's causing your relationship problems on your own power, you can't not click. If you can't stop flirting with the guy at the office because you're pissed off at your boyfriend or your husband, you can't stop that train. You're going to end up in the hay, period. And if that's outside your value system in the sex inventory, it says, we're not kidding you. If you're, if you don't begin to change that, you will drink. It's black and white, man. And I tell people that piss some people off, but let me tell you, it's a dangerous place to get. It says, we are not the arbitrator of anybody's sex conduct. Thank God. Thank God. My job is merely to give you the facts, ma'am. And that's tough when it talks about sex. It says many of us needed an overhauling. You know what the word overhauling means? Examine thoroughly. Sex seems to be the place that we, we women use our sex powers. Oh, my God. Do I need to get to the front of the line? Watch me. Oh, nobody's getting laid, trust me. You know what I mean? I'm just getting to the front of the line. I need to borrow your pickup truck. I'm not even kissing you. Just give me the keys. You know what I mean? I, I, you know, I will use my powers and you boys fall for it so easy. Oh, 
I swear it's like shooting fish in a barrel. To poo, poo. You just, I mean, it's just, just, oh. Come into the light. Yes. Get the net, get the net. Got him, got him. Um, and, and the book talks about there's nine questions. Nine questions. It's not a four-column inventory. There are nine questions. Very, very important nine questions. And, and i got to tell you, one of my sponsees, oh, my God, was her. Oh, she had boys, girls, you name it. We had the whole, you know, let's bring in the whole camp and we'll sleep together. And, and oh, my God, was she sexually active. And to try to, you know, get this girl down to her real values, because most of us values are really monogamous. They really are. And so she says to me, um, oh, Katie, I've met this guy. I had to write out the whole sane and sound ideal. I met this guy. Oh, my gosh, he's fabulous. He doesn't drink. Really? She's wild. Really? She goes, no, he has, he has a breathalyzer in his car, you know. <laughs> oh, my God. Dude, this is where even I do this. Did you hear yourself? Oh. Well, let me tell you. Oh, that was, she ended up getting a restraining order on him. Yeah, he was probably one of us with a breathalyzer and no program, you know. And then it says, if sex is troublesome, we throw ourselves harder into working with others. So if you're in a breakup, I love that story about that guy. He knew what to do. Grab the newcomer. Oh, my God, it's the best thing in the world. It says here, guys, on page 77, our real purpose is to fit ourselves. That means to adapt ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. We're here to play the role God assigns. I'm going to get angry, guys. I don't have the privilege of staying angry. Ask yourself. The best thing you can do is to lay your own experience up against the book. If you're sitting out there and you're pissed off at about four or five people, put pen to paper. Hell, I'll listen to the inventory. That's all I ever do is listen to the inventory. I love it. Book implies I'm going to have trouble. The tenth step is the key. The disciplines of 10 and 11 are crucial. Remember, my pride is trying to, it's, it's the delusion of my pride and my ego is that it's protecting me. And it's trying to kill me. My ego wants me dead, but it will take me drunk. If you're not in the book, please get in the book. And if you are, I'll see you on the firing lines. Thank you very much. This meeting with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. Who is going to come up in just a moment is uh, Gary from Indianapolis. And uh, I don't know anything about Gary. Uh, so I have nothing to tell you uh, except that like every other alcoholic that I've ever met in AA, uh, I feel totally connected to you. And I just feel like I can identify. And there is something that happens between alcoholics that is so extraordinary and so magical, and I have felt it happening over and over again uh, the past two days, and I look forward uh, to it happening again when I hear your story, which I'm sure, if you're an alcoholic like me, I will relate to and enjoy. So thank you, and here's Gary.
did that on purpose. That's the first step that'll get you. I'm Gary. I'm not a Holland. My dry day is December 3rd, 1964. Uh, uh, visiting with Sarah there for a minute, uh, a member of Mike and my home group is a young lady named Betsy. And she and Sarah went to school here, I think, together. Not that long ago. I'm looking at you. It can't be that long ago. Um, Boy, what a privilege to be here. Uh, uh, Julie, my bride Julie there, and I love to uh, come to New York any chance we get. And it's delightful to come be, just to be with you people and all of that. I, I, it's a privilege to be with all of you, even this bunch of yahoos around the table. Uh, but uh, uh, that's not why we're here, but it doesn't hurt. So thank you very much for having me here. Uh, December 3rd, 1964, I found myself in a conversation with my wife and her dad. We were having that talk. You relate to that talk, I assume. And uh, that talk was, what are we going to do with Gary? And uh, uh, at times it was like I wasn't there, and uh, but I was. And, and at times I don't think I was there, but I uh, uh, we talked about what to do. I mean, this was in Cheyenne, Wyoming, in 1964, and all they knew to do with drunks there at that point in time, uh, at least this current family, uh, was to send them to the Wyoming State Hospital, which was 400 miles away in a town called Evanston, Wyoming. And uh, 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 that's what they did. In fact, Julie had an uncle that had been up there two or three times and, and uh, had failed the courses three times and be sent back. And so they asked me if I would go there, and I agreed to if my father-in-law would take me. And uh, uh, he says, no, I won't take you, but I'll put you on the next bus. They'll take you up there. And he did. And, and, and I got on the bus and, and I got off the bus in Rock Springs and bought a pint. And for some reason, I got back on the bus. That was not my nature. That's not what I did. I didn't very seldom fulfill anything I told anybody I was going to do. Uh, years later, I picked up a sponsor who had a quick definition of honesty as doing what you say and saying what you do. And I thought, man, that's an awful lot to live up to with my track record. So anyway... I got there, and that is the time that things started. Got to tell you, years later, after been sober several years, Julie and I and our three daughters were in, in Cheyenne for Thanksgiving, I think it was, and we're sitting down at the dining room table, and uh, Julie's dad said to me, he says, Gary, do you remember the day you went to the nut house? And I said, yeah, yeah, why? He says, I didn't care which bus you got on, just as long as it was leaving Cheyenne. <laughs> and so... Kind of gives you a feeling for where we were at. So on that day, I arrived at the nut house. It was a month or so before my 25th birthday, and uh, I looked like a very tired 12-year-old. Uh, uh, I've always appeared younger than I am, and, and uh, even then it was. But I, uh, I do recall that I, I uh, 
I was just numb, I think. They asked me when I entered the door if I, if I was there for the alcoholism rehabilitation program, and I said, yeah, but I, I didn't know. I, I, it, I didn't know. I just, okay, I'll do that. I thought the alternative was, was another ward on the hospital, and that didn't seem like a good idea. But anyway, that was the beginning of things to come and to kind of get where I want to go with this. Uh, oh, my bride's name is Julie, and I wanted to thank Katie for uh, mentioning my name at the podium. Julie has two Mr. Brown Needs His Ass Kicked T-shirts. <laughs> And a sweatshirt. <laughs> she doesn't wear them to the Al-Anon meeting because she don't think the girls will understand. But <laughs> I uh, I got my health back there. I, when I got there, I, I was uh, I was six foot two inches tall, weighed something less than 130 pounds, hadn't been eating well, <laughs> hadn't been eating at all because. Food money took away from money you needed it for, and, and uh, with that. So, but I didn't realize I was in the bad shape as I was. And uh, they locked me in a little room for, I think, three or four days, and it uh, had one window about like that in the door. You'd look at the room, look out the window, and there'd be a nose pressed up against the glass on the other side, looking in. And, uh, and I don't think that bothered me much. And, and uh, uh, they kept me. Medicated with drugs you know most of you never heard of, such as peraldehyde and Noctec. And all I can tell you is, uh, in that nut house, there seemed to be some regular old alcoholics that would show up there in December. And it might have been for the cold, and it might have been for the peraldehyde. We don't know which, but uh, they would they would show up there. But I, I didn't. It did what I needed, I guess. I don't know. And after I'd been in there and moved in on the alcoholic ward. I uh, uh, started learning about AA. I was attracted to AA because they told us if we didn't go to the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings there, I had to change wards. So I was attracted to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd seen what was in those wards. And I almost hate telling part of this story because the truth is I don't remember much of it, and I'm not sure I had it right when I thought I did. uh, we went to AA meetings, and then we had an AA meeting that was just the alcoholics on the ward. And uh, uh, there were talk about the steps. Uh, this one particular meeting, and uh, it seemed to be my turn to talk, and uh, I, I, I just thought it was crazy. I didn't know anything about this God bit. God was not a part of normal conversation in my home as a kid growing up, unless you were swearing. Uh, uh, and it was, I guess it happened a lot now I think about it. And, uh, uh, that, and so the only time I'd seen anybody that, uh, my parents had to do with that had a religious background at all was during a drought. Wyoming didn't get much rain anyway. And when they say there's a drought, it's by God dry. It's a drought. And my dad would go to the Mormon's house and ask him to pray for rain. Sometimes it rained. <laughs> Henry Standing Bear said one time, do you know what the most important thing is about a rain dance? <laughs> Timing. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> so anyway, that was all I knew about religion or God or any of that stuff. And I'm hearing these people come into the nut house and talking about God and praying and uh, that kind of thing. And, and I don't know why. I didn't have reason to, but it kind of made me feel a little squirmy. I didn't know anybody that, that did that. And that was just one of all the crazy things going on in my mind as we were going along. Flash forward, I was in that place for four months. That was the normal stay. I didn't get extended for any reason. Uh, for alcoholics. And, and uh, uh, a couple of months later, I'm sitting down in the canteen drinking coffee with a few other alcoholics, and they're talking about what they're going to do when they get out of there. You know, and it's kind of normal AA lies going around the table. Uh, uh, we, were, we were talking about what we were going to do when we get out, and one guy wanted to go back to Fort Bridger and get the ranch back. The other one wanted to get the family back, and just, you know, all these things are doing it. For some reason, they got around to me, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm in a room full of has-beens, and I'm a never-was. I've not done a damn thing. But they looked at me like it was my turn to talk, and I said, I have no idea what I'm going to do when I get out of here. Uh, 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 I just know I don't ever want to take another drink. And I heard myself say that. I had never thought that. That that was so new to me that uh, I just knew it was true. I didn't know why. Uh, with that, and then two months later, when I nut that house, and I'm on left that nut house, and I'm back uh, on the bus going back to Cheyenne, and uh, I, uh, I'm scared. I got the same hole in the belly with the wind blowing through it I had four months before, and I went in there. I had my physical health back. I had I had a place to go. Julian and our daughters were, were waiting for me, sort of. They they had they'd had a tough time. Living hither and yon because the house was gone that we had when I, uh, with that. And she was living with parents and with cousins and getting along and dragging the girls around. It wasn't any picnic for her uh, with that. And I, uh, uh, of course, I wasn't thinking about them at any point in time when I was there other than wonder if they could send me some money. Uh, I... Uh, Came home, and just a real quick story there to get where I'm going with this. I got off the bus in Cheyenne in the morning at, at about 2.30 in the morning, and in Cheyenne, Wyoming, at 2.30 in the morning, there's not much going on. I, I hear nobody sleeps in New York, but by God, they do in Cheyenne. And, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I, uh, I walked into the bus depot, uh, and uh, uh, I figured, well, I just have to walk on out to Julie's parents' house which, I don't know, a mile, mile and a half, no big deal uh, with that. And uh, there was an old police detective there named Lloyd, Lloyd Gallion. And he came up to me, and, and he said, Gary, he said, uh, you going out to the Bailey home? And I said, yeah. He said, I'll give you a ride. Come on. That wasn't the first time Lloyd had given me a ride somewhere. But it was the most pleasant by far. Uh, and I, we're on the way over there, and, and, uh, and he says, you know, Gary, there are just some people that shouldn't drink. And I said, so you know where I've been? He says, Gary, I've known where you've been since you were 16 years old. And I always bring that story up because I think as we're looking over our men's and things, where we're going with that, we look over our lives, and all of us have had one of those people in our lives who the Denver Young People's Group used to call an Eskimo. 
that would show up your life and help it out. If you've not heard the Eskimo story, it's just about, about three three guys sitting in a bar in Alaska talking about whether or not there's a God. And this one guy says, I know for a fact there isn't. And all that, I don't care what you guys say and these crazy things you're talking about. There ain't no God. And he says, I was sitting out here last winter in that worst blizzard we ever had. I was 30 miles away from town, stranded out there. The last dog had died, and I'm laying, I'm just going to lay there and freeze to death. He says, I know damn well there ain't no God. And they say, you're sitting here. How can you possibly say that? He says, some damn Eskimo came along and drug me into town. And so you always have these Eskimos out there that showed up out of nowhere and that. that the, to kind of do that, and that's the last I've seen of Lloyd. I don't know anything more about him, but that kind of goes into where I hope to end up when I get, when I get going on this. I uh, uh, got a free ride to college. I took advantage of it because I'd have had to look for work otherwise. And uh, I got a four-year degree and three years in the summer in accounting at the University of Wyoming. Then we packed Julie and the kids up, and we went to uh, to Denver. And where after a series of circumstances in Denver, I still was very, very, uh, uh, I, I, I gained some weight back. I think I got up to about 175 after I got out of the nut house there and all that. And, and uh, began to think I looked a little bit about like a man. I wasn't sure, but uh, uh, things were changing physically. I was doing better. I, I fooled myself and I fooled my dad when I did well in college. There were two AA meetings a week in Laramie, one on Monday and one on Friday, I think. If, this, uh, if somebody showed up, uh, there were two scheduled meetings a week. That's probably the way I'd phrase that. And uh, uh, after I'd been there for a while, they, uh, they uh, asked if I would be the treasurer, and I said, of course, I needed the money. <laughs> and uh, this is going to go in the immense story, too, Charlie, so don't. <laughs> So anyway, um, uh, uh, I would go, to, you know, I'd go down there and I'd open up the room for the meeting, and and uh, it was on the second floor over a corner of an old drugstore, and, and uh, uh, you'd look out the window. So I'd go in there and I'd make a 30-cup pot of coffee, and uh, and really hope somebody would come along to drink it. And oftentimes they didn't. So I'd, I'd take my books down there and study if, during the time of the meeting, the nights nobody would show up. And I remember the night I'm sitting there. I'm dry. I'm going to AA. And I'm doing everything I'm told to do about AA at that point in time. There wasn't a whole lot of advice in this little town. And, and uh, so I was, I was, you know, setting up the room, making the coffee. And I'm sitting there trying to study. And I look up, and I'm looking out the window at the Buffalo Bar across the street. Had one of those neon lights that go buffalo, buffalo, and, and uh, uh, sitting there looking at it. Had a bee out of it on the neon light. The, the bee was gone. Actually, it said buffalo, buffalo. <laughs> and, uh, and and I'm looking out that window, and I said one of the first prayers I think I said in AA. I said, God, please help me. I can't stand this much. This is most. This is just so miserable. I can't do it. It was the most painful time of my life when I was first sober there. And I really didn't have many people to run to. My best buddy in AA there was a drug addict who didn't have a drinking problem. We fished him out of the nut house the day I got home, uh, out of the jail the day I got home from the nut house. A guy named Jim knocked on my par- her parents' door. 
And her dad says, Gary, this guy wants to talk to you. And so I went over there and said, hi. He says, my name's Jim. He says, you're not doing anything tonight, are you? And I said, no, why? And he said, I'll come by and get you. We're going to go to an AA meeting. And he said, but first we've got to stop by the jail and fish this guy out of, uh, out of the jail there and take him to uh, the meeting. And so we got down there, and I was familiar with that jail. And, and uh, so I went in to get him, and, and uh, he looked up the stairs to the, the holding pen, and I look up there and see who was waiting to come downstairs. And I'm thinking, I ought to leave. I don't want to be anywhere with that guy. It, he, he's just no damn good. And he looked up and looked down at me from the stairs. He says, I don't care how bad it is. I'm not going out of here with him. And uh, what we did, we went to the meeting and all that. And then later on, he ended up in Laramie going to school with me. And so we would go to AA meetings together. This is before there was any discussion that I'm aware of that, that uh, what do you do with a drug addict in Laramie, Wyoming, when there's only AA and there's nowhere else to send him. So they came into it. And we protected each other and lied for each other with our, each other's wives and what we were doing when we were gone and did probably everything wrong you could possibly do. Uh, and, but we, I didn't drink and he didn't do anything else, I'm saying. And I graduated from school and, and uh, uh, moved to Denver. I went to a job in a, in a large oil company, so I thought for sure, well, this is Wyoming and the oil business and I'm going to get rich for sure. And, uh, that didn't work, but I had a nice job there, and I started going to AA meetings in Denver. And it was different. I went to this one meeting. As it turned out, oh, never mind. It, it, it turned out to be a meeting that uh, uh, my friend Bob O went to when he first moved to Denver. It was just an awful meeting. It was just so bad. Uh, uh, it was run by these two people, uh, and uh, and. Uh, Wayne, and I don't remember her name, thank God. Uh, I, uh, another young guy showed up at that meeting, and uh, we left the meeting thinking we needed to change A entirely, starting with the first portion of the fifth chapter. And uh, I think we went over to his house to discuss how to do that when his wife threw us out. She thought we were the two miserable, most miserable AA members she'd ever seen, and she didn't want us in her kitchen. And so she says, go, why don't you go down to downtown Denver? There's the Denver Young People's AA group down there. We think you ought to go down to that. My friend Joe all got pumped up, and he says, well, Brown, he said, let's go do that. The girls there got to be better looking anyway. <laughs> well, they were. Don't laugh. Uh, but that's how I got there. And that's the first place I ever heard anybody but talk about taking the 12 steps in order uh, uh, and using the book Alcoholics. And I had not heard that in, in nearly four years, and nobody had ever said that. I don't, I don't think anybody ever told me to take them in order before I got there. And so that was the beginning of a whole bunch of things happened to me. And those were the guys and the gals that got me started in the program in A&A and that sort of thing. So they took me to the other meetings in town where that was going, going on and stopped that. And I became friends with, with some people that a lot of people were afraid of. And they, they called them the God Squad. And, and uh, they were big book thumpers by God thumpers, too. They weren't kidding. With it. And there was one great big guy named Big Frank. Of course, he called him Big Frank. And uh, I learned a lot from Frank uh, from the time I was there. And he didn't really pull any punches. But he always seemed to care for me. 
And if he wanted to make sure I got a point, he'd hit me. With, he had a finger with about a size 35 ring on it. Listen, kid, he'd say. And he'd hit me in the chest. I'd make sure I got it. He got my attention. And then we, we uh, uh, through a series of circumstances, uh, we did everything in AA. We had our two meetings a week. I had a closed discussion on a, on a weeknight. And on Sunday nights, we met at the York Street Club, and it was an open speaker meeting. And the York Street Club Sunday night meeting would be jammed with people. They'd come down to the young people's meeting just to see who the hell was coming in next. And uh, uh, it was fun, and it was a phenomenon, and, and, and uh, we had a great thing going there. It's just we went on 12-step calls together. Uh, and I, so now you go to meetings and you see the people running to meetings these days, it seems, and, and they're all going home after the meetings. I always thought you had to go out and drink about a quart of coffee and eat about a half a quart of ice cream. And, and, uh, but they don't seem to be doing that now, and, and or maybe I'm just going to the wrong meetings. But I uh, 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 got involved uh, when we got a 12-step call from a guy named Mac Cheater out of Winnipeg who... Uh, Came to Indianapolis in 75. I know Clancy doesn't remember this, but 1975 they had the International in Denver, and I'm working on the uh, down on the floor of the convention center. They're trying to keep all these plane loads of people were coming in for that convention. I, uh, I was down just trying to get them all that were because the whole plane load would line up to get their tickets, their registration. And my job was to get them to pick up registrations for people around them. Go back, get five or six of them. Don't all of you stand in line to get up there and do that. I, I start that at the back of the line, and they said, uh, uh, "No, no, you got to go up and ask that little guy up there. You go up and ask Clancy what to do." So I went up and told Clancy and, and, and what we needed and all that. And he stood up on a chair and said, "Do whatever this kid says." And they did. I said, I hadn't seen that kind of power in AA before. <laughs> so we went through the steps as carefully as we could. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time there, but what I, what I did get to with that is I don't think if I had been going through the steps any other way by myself, we were doing it together. As a group, we were reading the book as anally as we could and as careful as we could, and if it gave us a course of action, it took it. If it asked us this question, we answered it. And that's how we got through it. And I, at the first time, I, two things happened there. One, I, when I read that thing by myself, any time before we did it together, it's like I would read it and miss it. I'd read a paragraph or a page and set it down, and if I thought about what I just read, it was gone. It, it, it had disappeared. Uh, I had done that. And so this time, by us going it through together and being that careful about it, uh, I was getting it, and it was making sense for me. I understood the doctor's opinion right now. I fully understood that the alcoholic of my type, once I take liquor into my system, you cannot predict when or how I'm going to stop. I just didn't stop until I got stopped. I got stopped by cops a couple of times. I got stopped by running out of money a couple of times. I got stopped because I had to go to work. I didn't stop because I wanted to or thought it was a good idea. That wasn't ever a part of my deal. I understood the doctor's opinion quite well. And when we started reading 
in the third chapter, more about alcoholism, there in the first page, where it said we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholic. This is the first step to recovering. The delusion or anything like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. It's like I got it. And I don't know. There's no intellectual reason to explain why I got it right there. But now I see I'm powerless and I'm unmanageable and I can't get it. Uh, on my own, I, I must have some help. And that made my life easier from that point on. And we, we got through steps. We took the third step prayer together. There were uh, 14 of us at the time that we took the third step prayer together. And we read it slash prayed it out loud together, 14 guys. And a week or so later, uh, Eddie Durkin went out and drank and froze to death. But the other 13 of us are either still sober or have died sober. Uh, it's pretty fair odds. I, you, don't, you don't see that very often. In fact, those of us that are left of that and, and a few other members of the young people's group that were not a part of it are going to uh, kind of have a reunion at the Colorado State Convention next, oh, next weekend uh, with that. And so Julie and I are going to get off the airplane when we get home Sunday, get in the car Monday, and we're driving out there to, to hang with the guys, a bunch of old people now. But uh, uh, we're still going to call ourselves the Denver Young People's Group. To hell with them. Uh, <laughs> uh, and I took my fifth my step with one of those guys, a guy I didn't like. Uh, 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 Got to go move on for now. And we made our first going through the steps with them, and our lives changed. And they say we're still sober. In uh, 1977, we moved to uh, Indianapolis. And uh, uh, people ask me today, why did you leave Wyoming and Colorado to move to Indianapolis, Indiana? I say we lost our minds. <laughs> and the Hoosiers will say they we understand. I don't. Uh, we might have been. And, and uh, well, why did you stay here? Well, we got what we got three generations behind us now that are pretty well embedded into Indianapolis, so we're not going anywhere. I moved there, Indiana, and in 77, when we moved there, Indianapolis had 50 AA meetings a week, 49 of them were speaker meetings, and one was a discussion meeting. And I was a new kid in town that would talk, and so they had me all over town shooting off my mouth. And I told them all my experience of going through the book and the steps like this. Uh, over time, and we took a, a group of 14 men, 13 men, finished going through the book together again after I was in Indianapolis. One of them disappeared, and we don't know where he is. I hope he didn't freeze to death. But the rest of them stayed sober and started getting this same idea of setting people down and taking them, in, and taking them through the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and getting into taking the steps and showing them how to write inventory. None of them go out now and kick somebody in the pants and give them a big book and tell them to go write their inventory. They show them how to do it, and they may sit with them and do it and, and do that. It's not fair anymore. I, that's what happened to us originally until we figured that out. And kick in the pants, tell me go do something, so it may get you a kick back. You don't know. So anyway, uh, uh, that started, and I guess in Indianapolis now today, I, I don't know, Mike, I, 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 there might be 20, 30 workshops like that going on in the state and city on any given time. It's come out from that and, and uh, that. And so, in that time, two things were going on. I uh, 
We were living in a strange area. Bob and I met in September of 1977 at the International Young People's Conference in Houston and uh, uh, have been friends since then. We see each other every 15, 20 years, whether we need to or not. <laughs> He's been a great friend. And I'll tell you more about him in a little bit. Uh, uh, but I... Uh, I got to thinking I was a big shot in AA because all these people were quoting things that Gary Brown said at meetings. And, and I was getting some of the other stuff that Mike referred to. He could have done it more kindly than he did yesterday. But, but we uh, uh, are going on and, and AA is going. You go to a meeting and they say, well, I was around AA umpteen years and never stepped the steps and went to a workshop. My life changed. And, uh, and I really got to thinking I was some kind of big shot in AA. That was part of the problem was that I got to thinking a lot of things. I, I, everybody's talked about it here. I was, I was spending money I didn't have. I, I, I was chipping on Julie. I, I, was, I was doing about everything wrong I could do in AA except I didn't drink. And it probably wouldn't have been long, but I'd do that. And I would, uh, was going on like that, and I had dinner with uh, uh, a guy in AA I sponsored, a bohunk out of the steel mills in Pittsburgh. And he sits down with me, and, and he said, Gary, he said, uh, when are you going to stop that? Don't you think it's time you grew up again? And, and uh, I thought that was pretty disrespectful to talk to your sponsor that way. But uh, uh, it, it probably was within a day or two that... that uh, uh, started on the process of getting things going. Meantime, uh, before that incident actually itself happened, I think Bob showed up in town. He, he was traveling to a convention somewhere and said he had an extra day. He wanted to stop in Indianapolis and see Julie and I. And so I, uh, uh, I was delighted with that. And he, uh, as I remember this, I, I uh, met him at the airport. And we stopped and we had a cup of coffee and, uh, and uh, somewhere. And he looked at me and he didn't think I looked too good. I think he said I looked like hell is what he said. And, and what's going on? And I told him that, well, they're going to uh, foreclose on the house Monday. And uh, Julie doesn't know that. And I'm afraid it'll kill her. And that's the first time I had told anybody that that was coming up and all this was coming to it. I hadn't told any of my best friends in AA or nobody with that. And I got some relief just by telling him that. I mean, I really did. It, you know, it improved right there. And we're driving by downtown Indianapolis on the interstate. And Bob says, uh, where's the bank? And I said, what bank? said, the one with the note on the house. I said, it's all right downtown here. Why? He said, let's go talk to them. And I said, Bob, they're really tired of talk. Them guys don't want any more talk. Trust me. And he said, no. He said, let's, uh, let's go see them anyway. And so we did. And as I recall, we found a parking place across the street. We're jaywalking across the street to go into the bank. And I felt like I was going in to see the principal with my dad. And, uh, and we went in there, and uh, Bob pulled a chair up right behind the, the desk there where it would be out, and I sat clear back by the wall. 
And, and uh, as I remember, an angry banker came out, big wrinkle right down, right down there, and uh, had a stack of papers, and he sat down there, and the conversation went so Bob just very simply said, what's it take to get Gary caught up on his house payments? And uh, uh, the banker gave him a number, and Bob reached into his pocket and, and took out the cash and the traveler's checks. And 10, 15 minutes later, I was current on my house payment. And we're walking back into the uh, to the car, and I said, "Geez, Bob, I got to pay that back." And he said, "That's your problem." And I thought about that answer over the years and how right you were. <laughs> that was my problem. So anyway, that was one incident, and that happened, uh, frankly, during the worst of my behavior right there. But it was a great relief. And then uh, uh, let's flash forward some time. Uh, not too long, actually. I, 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 every time I took somebody through the, the 12 steps, I... Uh, I would try to write an inventory with them. And normally I had some juicy stuff to put in the inventory. But, but uh, I wrote inventories. I did everything. But I had always stopped at the end of the fifth step or the seventh step if I was feeling real good. And, and uh, I uh, uh, knew what I was doing. I had called a, a guy in Chicago who died a few years ago with 62 years of sobriety. I met Paul uh, uh, a few years in Denver ago about him like that, and and I think the reason I wanted him is I knew that I needed somebody that would hold my feet to the fire. Uh, uh, the biggest reason I called him, he was a step Nazi. Uh, uh, the whole time I knew him, the 20-some years I knew him and was sponsored by him, I never saw him change his mind about a damn thing. And he, uh, uh, but he, he was always the right way and hard-nosed. And that, but I called him and I said, is there any possibility that a uh, 20-some-year-old alcoholic, 40-some-year-old grandfather, uh, could be going through a period of male menopause? And Paul said, well, maybe. He says, but if you go review your first three steps, write another inventory, and take, come up here and take some fifth steps and make some amends, I think you'll feel better. And I told him I'd do anything he said. I'd never meant that more in AA about anything. I was, I'd do anything Paul told me. And I did. I went home and, and, and I wrote another inventory with that. And it was all current stuff. The resentment list was all current stuff, which ought to scare you. Because that tells you I can, stone sober cause as much or more harm sober as I can drunk. Because I had done it. And I went down, the, went down the fear list. It didn't matter if they were young or old because they hadn't gone away, and, and uh, I still had them. And, and I, when I went down the conduct list, I went back and worked on it harder than I'd ever done in my life. I did the before inventories and back inventories and went all the way down through it. And Katie answered all nine questions. Uh, uh, and I called Paul, and I said I was done with the inventory, and he told me to be up there in, in uh, LaGrange and by 4.30 on a Friday. gave me a list of a motel up there. And I got up there and found the motel and ran across the street and got a cup of coffee and came back to it. And there was a knock on the door, and, and uh, a stone stranger I'd never seen before stood there. 
and, and he said his name was Dennis O'Brien. He was 29 years sober, and he was there to swap fist steps with me. And he went over, and he takes the only chair in the room, which still irritates me, and, uh, and opens up the three-ring binder and starts reading inventory. He said, I want to go first so you'll know what to do. And so he did. He read inventory to me, and I sat down, and I opened up my notebook, and I read inventory to him. We compared notes because I'd picked up some. It's interesting, you know, we were both fairly long-term sober and both been doing the same damn thing. Uh, with that, you, you thought I had, he had something I'd missed. wasn't anything new, but I'd missed it. And, and I had something he'd missed, which exchanged notes, and he left. And I go get another cup of coffee, and there's another guy at the door, 21 years sober, and Chuck's there to swap fist steps with me, and he's going to go first, so I'll know what to do. And so by uh, noon Sunday, I'd done that nine times. At that time, uh, Paul was uh, probably about 35 years sober uh, with that. And, and I, I'm swapping fist tests with guys two or three years sober. But they had something going I had never done in AA yet. And so uh, uh, that Sunday, after we're finished, I, I uh, am told to meet them for breakfast, some of them for breakfast at a pancake shop over on, on LaGrange Boulevard. And uh, I go there, and four or five of them there, I'm thinking it's over, the heat's off and all that. We finish our breakfast, and they say, Gary, get your pad and pencil out. We're going to help you with your amends list. And they had really good memories. (laughs) And uh, so we went down that amends list, and we picked them off all there and wrote them in the list. And then Paul says, now, Gary, how about all those amends you owe that aren't on your Inventory. What about those? And so then we went down there, and I'm answering questions, and most of them are about money. Well, Julie and I had borrowed money from anybody and everybody, you know, parents, both her parents, my parents, from from uh, AA members, dial finance, good old di- everybody's got a dial finance in their history, God. And then. Uh, uh, and so we listed all of those things, and by the time that morning is over, those guys are looking at me, and they say, how the hell did you stay sober this long without having making any amends? There's no good answer for that, other than it must be God, because uh, in 12-step work, I, we were always chasing drunks and things like that, but I never, obviously wasn't working with them. And uh, I... Uh, didn't know the answer beyond those guys believe and still believe that anybody with substantial sobriety that goes back out goes back out with unmade amends now you define substantial sobriety it could be three years and we've seen them go out and die at 40 years uh, with that so whatever it is get your amends made I don't know that's going to ensure you won't go back out but I think it's not going to hurt uh, I'm sure so anyway uh, went home and I sat down with Julie and we looked at that amends list, and she looked at it with me, and she said uh, that if those amends were as much hers as they were mine, because she was with me at many of those visits to borrow money. Uh, uh, with that, and it's kind of, I, and I can't honestly tell you. I know that when I was telling you, I would pay it right back by the terms of the agreement when I said that. I think I was telling you the truth. But an hour later, I don't think I had any intentions of paying them back when they did that. Just looking back on our behavior and when we did that. Not speaking for Julie, I'm speaking for me. 
So anyway, we put out this big list and we started working on it. And every payday I'd go upstairs and, and pay everybody off the list I could, keep enough money for current debt and if the kids needed shoes or books or something for school, and then run broke till the next payday. And we were doing that, and that went on for quite a while. And then a day came down. Well, I had done that for a while, and I was a little discouraged. And uh, I went down looking to my Al-Anon wife. I said, uh, I don't think I'm capable of making enough money to ever pay all this money back. I, I just don't think I can do it. And, and uh, I thought I was going to get a little sympathy. <laughs> I, uh, I didn't. Next morning she comes in and we get up for breakfast. She says she has an idea. And when your wife in the early in the morning says she has an idea, you probably ought to listen. But your first impulse is to get the hell out of there and go to work. And her idea was that I'd had the same job for quite a while and done well at it and had accumulated a lot of money in a 401k retirement plan. And uh, she said, Gary, we could, we, could, we could take out all your retirement. We can sell this house. It's appreciated a lot, I think, since we bought the house. It's in pretty good shape. And we could buy a trailer house to live in, and we can pay off all of those amends. And, and uh, I th- she thought there would be a little bit left to pay off any current debt, too. And, that, and I'm thinking, my God, she can't be serious. And, but I knew she was. And so I I ran out the door to go to work to get away from her. And and in the meantime, during the day, I called Paul, and I told him what we had talked about. You know, we were going to sell the house and cash in the retirement and all that and pay off all the amends and buy a trailer house to live in. I said, that just sounds so crazy to me, Paul. What do you think? And he said it was the sanest thing he'd heard me say in 20 years. Was it my idea? And I said, no, it was Julie's, and he said he thought so. <laughs> so so uh, uh, well, we did that. It took a few months to get the house sold and, and that. And, and the day we sold it, we're sitting down, and we're, and we're uh, paying everybody off, writing the checks and sending them, making phone calls. And I called Bob. And I said, Bob, give me your address. We're in shape to... Send you that money back he gave us all those years ago. And he laughed. And I said, what's so funny? And I think the direct quote is, is, well, cowboy, it's like this. And he told me that in his business that at one time they were making money almost faster than they could spend it. But Congress had changed the laws on that kind of investments and that sort of thing. And the cash flow died off. And, uh, and as I recall, you were even on an allowance and, and, uh, that. And you said, but, you know, the strangest things happen. He says, I haven't told many people. I haven't talked about this in the podium. I haven't. But he says, I, I talk to my sponsor every day about it to make sure I'm being honest about it. Uh, and that, but uh, I haven't done that. And so, anyway, he gave me the, he gave me the, uh, he gave me the rest of the stories, what he gave me. I don't know where I'm going. And he said, but I, uh, uh, what's happening today is I go down to the mailbox a couple, three times a week and get the mail. And so often, he says, we've been doing this for quite a while. 
Linda and I pray about who we can help with with the money. Our tithe is to help alcoholics we see out there that need help uh, with that. And so since I, we started that, and now I'm in a little trouble financially and that sort of thing, I go down to the mailbox and get my, and every week or so in there, there's a check in there from somebody we've helped out that have, have returned the money. And uh, uh, so I, I got to be one of those guys. And I think I, that's one of the first times that I, I was able to really realize a relationship in AA is one of those big deals that goes all the way around and then it comes back around. Uh, and and it, it certainly did for us in that case. Uh, uh, so we got that taken care of and we did. The house sold and uh, we moved into a mobile home. That's, a little, that's got a little bit more class than calling it a trailer house. Uh, it became a mobile home then. But you could hook it up and trailer it anywhere you wanted to. Uh, and we lived there for, for uh, I don't remember anymore, five years. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Julie wanted to start this nesting thing again. And so we bought a house. And, and, and what you got to understand is why we've never had a lot of money and, and we don't make a lot of money now, but we haven't been in trouble financially anywhere close to what we were back then. It seems I learned a lesson with there. And I was thinking while, while Bob was talking that uh, there was one instance where, where Bob and I were together and we were talking about fear. And I think you had just finished your work with the psychologist or in the psychiatrist and we're in the middle of it uh, with that. And, and I was explaining something I was doing, and you told me that I was afraid of failure uh, with that. And the definition of that is how that goes, and the way I did it was, if I had a project in front of me I needed to do, my process would be to do a half-assed job because I knew it was going to fall apart anyway. Instead of giving something 100% and giving the results to God, I was doing that, and I never forgot that. And that was a great help to me in dealing with that over the years, because I would always remember that, that conversation over the years since then uh, uh, with that. So not only am I thanking you for the loan, you thanked me a number of times. And again this morning with that great talk. I uh, have spent some time here recently uh, working with a lot of people. Uh, that one, Let me back up a little bit. Uh, uh, our three daughters are, are uh, Carrie's 54 and Patty's 52, and, and uh, no, she turned 53 this month. And our youngest daughter turns 50 on the 31st of this month. And uh, 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 Carrie, the oldest one, is either the world's oldest Alateen or uh, certainly a long-term member of Al-Anon. And, and Patty has taken on the responsibility of Adopting and raising her grandchildren. Uh, that's a Jerry Springer story I don't have time to get into. Uh, and Tracy, the youngest one, uh, uh, it took her a long time and she didn't drink like I did and that sort of thing, but she drank enough alcohol that uh, uh, she started attending Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I don't remember, maybe six months ago, and, and that was interrupted when some money showed her hand, and she got in a car drunk and hit a tree. 
So when she came back into AA this last time, uh, there's something a little more, more she's more motivated, it seems to me, uh, than what she was, and she's kind of going through her line. Tracy's the little girl that when I went into that nut house, I knew she existed, but I had no memory of her. Uh, I, I knew we'd had that little girl, and my first memory of her is when I saw her on the night after Lloyd dropped me off at her folks' house. The next morning when we woke up, she was standing in the crib trying to shake the bars off it like I used to shake the bars. And uh, it was my first memory of it, uh, with that. So uh, she, she spends about half the time up with us because she lives in a little bitty town south of Indianapolis where the AA is a little different than that. So she comes up and spends some time with us, and the sponsor comes and gets her in there. She's going through the book and the steps. Uh, with that. Now, in fact, just last uh, Wednesday, I had to take her back down to, to that little town she lives nearby and, and uh, uh, through the hills and the hollers. And so she went to court for her DUI, and, and uh, that came out in pretty good shape. She's got a few things to do, but she knows what they are. And dealing along, she was more important about getting, more worried about getting to her meeting that night than anything else uh, with that. But the only reason I'm telling you this is I've been working with uh, a guy that's about 50 years old and, and, and a family man, successful family man, and a good businessman and that sort of thing. We've been going through the steps on Wednesday nights, and we were going through the amends recently. And he's discussed, you know, he's done the same same things we all had. He, he, he's... Uh, Lied about the money. There's infidelity going on. He was caught up in pornography. He was uh, all these other things that, that's, that's going on in AA, and men don't normally talk about. But uh, uh, it's uh, we were talking about how do we make amends to those. I'm talking about those of us who have long-term relationships, marriages, or, or if they're not marriages, but long-term relationships. How do we make amends for that? Not, not just not just the hell we caused them. But the more subtle things that we don't think about that, that probably drove them nuts and we really haven't heard about. And so Tom and I are talking about ways to do that. And uh, uh, I invited Julie to come out and join us in that conversation. Uh, uh, because uh, uh, is there more to be done than what we've done so far is the question one. What have we missed? And I wanted to hear from the bride of what they think more we could be doing with that. Now, I'm in a situation where Julie's health is, is, is taking a turn. She has Parkinson's, and that's disabling in a number of ways. And so I've been helping more around the house. I've been cooking more. I, I, I just do more. I've always done some of that, but... but uh, uh, and doing a lot of that and, and trying to be more and more available to her uh, as part of that. But I really don't see that as a mend. I think that's part of the deal that I made 55 years ago this month when the priest said, for better, for worse. So I don't really see that as an amend. So I'm having a little trouble with the term living amends. Now, how much of that is real and how much of that is bullshit? Uh, uh, I, I think, who said bullshit first? <laughs> 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 
Anyway, I, uh, I, uh, I just keep looking at that and what else we've been doing. And Tom's working on that, and I've been bringing that up more and more. It's kind of interesting. Barrier. Now, Tracy, I was talking about her a minute ago. Uh, when uh, flashback, when she was in high school, she had come home drunk one night, and I wake up to she and her mother screaming each other in the kitchen. And I made the biggest mistake I'd ever made in my life, and I promise you it will never happen again. I am never going to get between two women who are fighting again. <laughs> Damn, that's dumb. Uh, you, that, that's a no winner. But anyway, uh, I do get them separated. Julie goes back to her room and shuts the door. And, uh, uh, and I'm trying to get Tracy to go to her room. And she starts getting in a fight, screaming in my face, telling me everything is wrong about me and this family and, and all this stuff and all this thing. And I don't know what they did, which, I mean, she literally is right here screaming at me, and she says, you want to hit me, don't you? And she was right. I, by God, wanted to hit her. And uh, she just kept doing it, kept doing it, kept doing it. So finally I stepped back and I slapped her as hard as I could with an open hand, but it knocked her over the bed diagonally uh, to the other side of the bed. And then I felt so bad, I just left it and I shut the door. And, and uh, I didn't see her in the morning. I got up and left up early, I think, so I didn't have to see her. But... When I was coming home that night, she opened the door, and she was black and blue from here to here. My hand had covered her whole face like that when I had hit her like that. And it was just revulsed. I was so revulsed by that, I can't, I can't explain it to you. It was just awful. And she said, Daddy, don't do that. I had this coming. She says, I had this coming. Well, the answer to that is that's not true. No daughter in the world deserves that. They don't have that coming no matter what happens. Period. And that. So I, I, I have been trying to say making living amends, make amends for that by all this stuff I've been doing for Tracy since she's trying to get sober, taking her to meetings. And I stay hell out of her program. I don't, I don't, none of her program work comes out of my mouth. If any's at the same thing, it ain't coming from me. I, I've learned one lesson and that, that's one of them too. I don't think I can help a child of mine uh, with their program that, that well, at least at this point. Uh, uh, so I got this, this current stuff going on between working with Tom and uh, about that and, and this whole situation with Tracy. And, and that I, I, I got a hunch that I can be as diligent as I possibly can with the amends from now until, until I'm gone. And I'm afraid I won't have all the amends made. I think I'm going to be creating new problems somewhere, somehow. I am still incredibly careful, uh, capable of becoming so self-absorbed that, 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 that uh, I promise you I'm not thinking of those I love the most. My bride, my daughters, some friends. Uh, uh, and I know I can. I can completely discard them in an instant. And I can do that. So I, that's one of the reasons I was glad to talk about amends here. Because when I did get through those amends and, and got Bob and the rest of them paid back and all that sort of thing, there was a permanent change in my mind. We've not been in that kind of trouble financially since. We've been a little smarter about what we do that way. And I've behaved in, in, 
any other way. There's been no infidelity. Uh, and uh, uh, I think probably somehow uh, my life has taken a more stable point. All I got to do now to keep it there is work with others every chance I get. And I get a lot of chances. On Monday nights, I'm taking 12, 13 men and women through the book on the steps right now uh, with that. And uh, I don't know, the phone drives Julie nuts. I kind of like it. I'll get off the phone some night. She says, can I have some time with you, please? And I say, of course, and we turn the phone off and, uh, and we take care of that. So. So I see my life now as an AA member. I don't think I'm ever going to be a, what's another term for the old timers? Uh, huh? Elder statesman. Elder statesman, yeah. Yeah, that's probably not going to work for me. So thank you very much. I'm glad to have been here. Meeting with the serenity prayer. God. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can. Your program, but number one in our hearts, Bob Bizantz. Hi, I'm Bob. I'm an alcoholic. Sober through the grace of God in age since the 10th of December 1967. For that, I'm very grateful. Uh, someone said it's really tough following Katie. I, I don't think I will. I think I'll just join. I, uh, uh, I love these Woodstocks. There's something that happens, you know, I get stimulated and in different ways. If I don't compare myself, I have a tendency, you know, that I have to do it like Katie does it or Peter does it. Or, uh, it is also individual, along with having a primary text, along with having 12 spiritual principles, along with having a very long experience that we have in the program. Each of us brings ourselves to that process. And uh, I'm going to talk today about step six and seven. Uh, I want to thank Mark uh, and Don, who I <laughs> suspect was heavily involved in the way. This is, this is really a uh, risk, but what a wonderful thing that we're able to experience because someone stepped up. I've been involved in, you know. And I don't know why, you know, there, you always hear a little skinnier gossip about why people thought it wasn't going to work here. I, this is really cool. Very cool. Thank you for including me. Someone would have told me 46 years ago that I'd be in New York City at an AA conference speaking as opposed to... <laughs> I, I, I sometimes don't get what a complete privilege and change... That it is. My wife and I are thrilled to be here. Yes, we had a great day. Tom and Cheryl, mostly Cheryl, has been a great host. I, uh, uh, but they allowed Linda and I to have a morning lunch together, so we had kind of walked down memory lane and did a little shopping and went to her favorite restaurant for lunch, and it was just cool. We had a great dinner Friday night with Tom and Cheryl, and 
Charlie and Katie, so it was cool. And I'm here with people that I love and respect. It's uh, I feel like I'm, I, I, I like being with you. I like joining this process. So I'm going to talk about, uh, I started drinking when I was 13, 14 years old. Uh, liked it from the beginning. I was an insecure kid. I entered high school at 4 foot 11, 95 pounds. You know, you kind of try to compensate for that as you go through. You're pretty insecure. Went to a military academy and a high school and a college campus. Uh, we drank a lot in high school. We had fraternities. Our parents were those Second World War heroes that came back and made life look pretty easy and drank hard, played hard, and worked hard. I was lived in a Catholic ghetto. If you had less than seven children, you had a reproduction problem. <laughs> and there were, I just went to a funeral of a, my next-door neighbor, and we were each other's lower companions. We were the sneaky bad boys. And uh, I quit drinking when I was 23 and he, 24, and he kept on. He had got Korsakoff syndrome and died of, he died eight days ago. And I went and visited him in the hospice. Brought back a lot of bad memories of what a sneaky little craphead I was and uh, how we shared that experience. And um, it was interesting. Uh, I drank my brains out as a young guy. Got into a lot of trouble. I was the guy who made the false ID cards. I got into a lot of trouble. I thought my trouble was I was underage. Uh, I, we, were cop, we were copying our parents. I mean, we had cocktail parties, and we stole their booze and, and, and went out and did it. Had a chance to go away to school. Thought I'd get away from my parents. Thought I'd get away from the cops. Went to school. Thought my life would change. It got worse. I was, uh, you know, I, my mother sent me to school early. So I was 13 in high school, and I was 17, I guess, in college. And I was unprepared for it. I was sophisticated, but I was pathologically immature. So I get down to school, and now I'm the school drunk. I mean, they use my room as a study hall. I started out as an A student. I walk out of the University of Notre Dame, middle of my senior year, in the yearbook, with my class ring, walk out, never finish. And uh, I'm due to be commissioned. I lose my commission. The Army lets me out with a uh, diagnosis of alcoholism. I was diagnosed an alcoholic at 19. I thought that was goofy. I, I just, goofy. I mean, I just couldn't, you know. I, went to, I remember going to a library, getting a book on alcoholism, and it was a Freudian-based book that related alcoholism to latent homosexuality. And uh, as much as I couldn't even deal with the one issue, the combination was deadly. It was <laughs> a, little, a little more than I wanted to examine. And, uh, I remember I went to the psychiatrist. That was the first question she asked me when I went in her room. Now, I don't know why you'd ask that of, a, of me, but that was the first question she had. So uh, I leave school, show up back at home, finish school at a local university. When I finished school, my dad asked me to leave home. He said, we love you, but we just flat ass don't know what to do with you. And uh, so I left home, got a job at a liquor store. So <laughs> I... Have to use your gifts. I had so it's my last year of drinking, and I'm drinking a fifth, four or five days a week. Worked as a waiter for six months. Got in a fight. Got no, no, sorry. Worked at the liquor store for six months. Got in trouble. Got fired. Worked as a waiter for six months. And I'm living not quite on Skid Row, but pretty close. I'm shacked up with people that I live with and worked with, and uh, went to a party one night. Got my face kicked in. 
got fired and I was tapped. I had no place to go and I went back to my family and asked if I could move back in the house. They allowed me to move back in the house. They asked me not to drink. I was unable not to drink. I started to fall apart when I quit. So I drank my way through that process. When I moved back in the house, I really tried to change my life. I was as unhappy with being the family jerk as they were unhappy having me be the family jerk. I'm one of seven kids, number two in line. Love my brothers and sisters, love my parents. My dad was my hero. And uh, when I moved back in the house, I got back together with Linda, who I'd gone with for, we can't remember anymore, a year and a half. Broke up with her for almost a year. Called her about once a month like a low-grade headache just so she couldn't get anything else going. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <laughs> then I went back and asked her. We were pretty serious before we broke up, and I went back and asked if we could get together with the idea of looking at marriage. And uh, she allowed that. She was a psychiatric nurse working on an alcohol ward at the time. Uh, so while she's attractive, she's <laughs> not very bright. And uh, <laughs> we had. why they are attracted to us is such a mystery. God. And uh, she's a 47-year member of Al-Anon. And uh, uh, She's got a great program, and we have, it's been a great, a great ride all the way through. Um, and I got a job as an executive trainee, bought my first car, thought I'm finally going to be a grown-up. All I wanted to do was be a grown-up. Everybody who was a grown-up looked like they had it together, only I could not quit drinking. never occurred to me if I really wanted to quit drinking, I couldn't quit drinking. So I get a job with this manufacturing, or yeah, now I'm in, in the engineering department. I'm the company drunk. I mean, I use my sick leave up in the first couple of months. I'm falling asleep at my desk. I'm, you know, I mean, they want you to stay at lunch. They have lunch hours. They want you in on Mondays, stay on Fridays, and I am, I am in serious trouble. Quit that job after six months. When I went back to make amends to that boss, he said, "God, you interviewed so well." I said, "Yeah, we do." Um, <laughs> We're looking for an entity that would give rewards for in, in, interviewing. And uh, then I took a job as a salesperson. I had the job about four months, and a buddy of ours got married. I went out on a four-day drunk, and I woke up. That was my moment of truth. I had plenty of moments, but I woke up on Thursday, hugging the toilet, doing my morning exercises, looked at myself in the mirror, didn't know if I had a job, didn't know if I had a fiancé, didn't know if I could continue to live at home until I was married, and I called AA. All of a sudden that day, that didn't seem like such an impossible idea, and two guys came out and made a 12-step call on me at a cafe. One guy had six years, one guy had six months. They sat me down in the booth. He said, we're from Alcoholics Anonymous. We had a drinking problem. We found an answer for it. We'd like to share it with you. If it helps you, that's great. If it doesn't help you, don't worry about it. For some reason, talking to guys like you helps us. And they told me their story. Now, I had been in front of every kind of help you could possibly get. Doctors, lawyers, Indians, bishop, priests, nuns, psychologists, proctologists. I have run the, <laughs> the whole spectrum of help that any reasonably well-off family could provide. And uh, I'd never been in front of another person who had a drinking problem. 
In a 45-minute period of time, those two men changed my life. We have many traditions in Alcoholics Anonymous. The most important is that we share our experience, strength, and hope, not our belief, not our philosophy, not our doctrine. Those men changed my life by sharing their drinking history with me. That night, I went to my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I met my sponsor at my first meeting. And... Uh, I drank twice after coming to AA, once on a business trip after 30 days of sobriety. I didn't go to AA. I was in Santa Monica. I mean, of all the places I could have, you know, I went back. I drank, came back, got three months sobriety, and drank on our honeymoon. Had my last drink on the airplane on the way back in December of 1967. My sponsor sat me. My sponsor's name was Warren McGinley. He passed away three, three years ago. And uh, he was my sponsor for 43 years. We had 100 years of sobriety between us. He was the 12-step champion of the Uptown Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. He did more 12-step work. He was a mailman. He was a powerful, ordinary man who probably changed the course of 200 people's lives in his AA career. And uh, his wife was Linda's sponsor, and we were privileged to... Be part of that right now. My sponsor is a guy by the name of Dick M. in Omaha, Nebraska, or Bellevue, Nebraska. My sponsor sat me down in a chair and said, Alcoholism is a disease, physical, mental, and spiritual. Once you're across the line from problem drinking into alcoholism, your alcoholism affects you all the time when you're drinking and when you're not drinking. The idea that my alcoholism could affect me when I was not drinking was a very new idea. I had never, in all the help I got, I had never had anybody give me the idea that my alcoholism was active when I was not drinking. I pretty much just heard I had a drinking problem. He said, what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous once we take our last drink or drug is we use the 12 steps to change to find a different way to live than the way we live before so we don't have to go back to drugs or booze to do something for us that we're unwilling or unable to do for ourselves. If you don't change, you will not stay. He said, have you ever quit? I said, yeah. He said, did it work? I said, no. He said, it didn't work for me either. There's a difference between sobriety and abstinence, and that's the program. And that's what we do in alcohol. That was like the Gettysburg Address of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got to be his, I got to be his wingman. I got to go on those 12-step calls. I got very, very active in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, when I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a wall built up around me so you couldn't see what I didn't want you to see what was going on in my life. Thinking went on, you like me, but you only like what I let you see about me. If you could see everything about me, you'd hate me. I hate me. Who knows more what a lousy, crummy, insufficient person I am than me. <clears throat> I'm walking around comparing my inside with your outsides. But at some point in time, I got sick enough or afraid enough or tired enough or hurt enough that I started to tear that wall down, and I said, hey, come and get me. I don't care who you are, where you come from. Just come and get me and help me not be who I am anymore. I can't stand me five more minutes. For the first time in my life, I started to tear the wall down. Started when I called AA, continued when I, you know, when I joined Alcoholics Anonymous and culminated when I did my fifth step and I made a discovery. Tore the wall all the way down. I'm not unique. My personality may be unique, but not my illness, not my behavior, not my feelings, not my experience. And I started to have a sense of hope that what worked for you could work for me. Big change. Most of us, Clancy talks, Clancy has about a half a dozen things that I think are unique to him. He talks about, you know, the disease perception. But my case is different. And each of us walks in here with a profound sense of uniqueness. If that doesn't get reduced, you look for the differences rather than the similarities. Most of us have some sort of ego collapse 
when that wall comes down and you start your you start to identify and that's what happened to me in Alcoholics Anonymous I uh, was a very active member from the very first time I came in Alcoholics Anonymous my gift is I loved AA since the moment I walked in the front door it's been hard for me to do the work but it has not been hard for me to stay this has been my place I have no other place to go those men and women, there were two women, Rose and Helen, <laughs> but the meetings I went to, my, my two home groups, uh, there were mostly about 35 men, mostly 50 years of age, talking to this punk, 23-year-old, 24-year-old, Second World War vets with the same issues and problems and feelings that I had. It was just one of the most profound experiences. They welcomed me. They got me involved. I learned very quickly that AA wasn't about just abstinence. I'm staying, you know, I'm going early, I'm staying late, and I'm listening to the conversations they're having, and they're having conversations about fights with their wife, amends. I mean, they're not having problems at work. They're not having, they're talking about life. They're not just talking about how not to drink. So, and in Minnesota, 95% of our meetings were closed step discussion meetings. That's all we did. Would we come in and you do the fifth step or whatever step we were on for five minutes? We break up into two groups and Today, you know, and then we'd finish the meeting and we'd discuss. So we stayed with the program and stayed with the steps was the basis of our recovery discussion. So I said, okay, I'll buy it. I'm an alcoholic. If I'm an alcoholic and AA's got the answer, I've got a half a dozen other things that are going on in my life that are tearing my life apart. And if AA works, those ought to be taken away from me, right? And it might take a year. <laughs> it might take 50 from what I can tell. It's amazing. Gary's going to have 50 years in December. That's a really something. Uh, so I got very involved. I went through the steps. And uh, I had different areas of unmanageability in my life. I spent more money than I made, which you end up in debt if you continue that. I had trouble getting up in the morning. I had trouble getting to work. I had trouble staying at work, and I had trouble working at work. Other than that, I was a pretty good worker. <laughs> we started to have children. As my children got older, I was loud, impatient, angry, and sometimes violent with my children. Had a gambling problem, more of a hobby, uh, <laughs> four or five hours a day, four or five days a week. It wasn't a big deal, and I'm. But I'm making five grand a year playing backgammon, and it's kind of like a second job. I've always kind of supported myself by gambling. It was just, you know, I did it all the way through college, and now I'm doing it in, my, in sobriety. I had every one of those problems when I did my first, fourth, and fifth step, and none of those issues made my first, fourth, and fifth step. My first, fourth, and fifth step was a recitation of the worst things that I had done, the, the guilty things, the things that separated me and made me different. I did not get to the causes and conditions. I did the best job I did. I wouldn't go back and redo it. I had a chance. I've since taken 15 or 16 or 20 fourth and fifth steps. But my first fourth and fifth step did not get to the causes and conditions. Uh, I didn't have a very good sense of my defects of character during my first year of sobriety. During my second year is kind of where I got them handed to me. One by one, the issues that I, the gambling, the money spending, the angry, the pornography, the you know, the poor husbanding, you know, the work issues, one by one, those started to come and land on my plate. 
And one by one, I started to take them on, and I tried to deal with them. And I had, you know what I thought recovery was? I thought recovery was the absence of problems. Now, I'm, I'm kind of an idealist, but I did. I thought if you had a good program, you didn't have any problems. <laughs> now, I'm at my sponsor's house two or three days a week. He's a very human guy. It isn't like I don't know, but for, there was some reason that I'm harder on myself than I am on others. I so admired and loved these guys and gals that I was in the group with, I didn't see their issues like I saw my issues. I saw mine from the inside. And one by one, I'm taking these things on, and it's kind of like, you get me sober, I'll learn how to be a husband. You get me sober, I'll learn how to work. You get me sober, I'll do this, I'll do that. And one by one, I get taking these things on, and I'm making very little progress. I'm on the down escalator going up. They started to bother me. You know, second year, I really get a pretty good list. Third and fourth year, they start to bother me. Fifth and sixth year, they're eating my lunch, and I'm seven years sober. My pants are in fire, and I'm in trouble. And I'm going to talk more about that. But I want to say right now, I think that's normal. I used to, I was so ashamed because I'm a great starter, never finish anything. And I thought, this is just what you're doing. You're just repeating this pattern in AA. For the first two years, it was one of the youngest guys in the group. They're patting me on the head, telling me what a great guy, I'm, what a great job I'm doing. I got all the merit badges. I'm sponsoring people. I'm giving talks. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And, uh, Uh, but I'm dying on the inside. And I'm, it's, it's kind of like, you know, when you start drinking, one of the great questions when you first start drinking, when people say you're alcoholic, is when did you start lying about your use? Early, you know, from the beginning, I started lying. Well, now I'm an AA, and brick by brick, don't worry about that. I'll get them. So now I'm an AA, sober, going to seven meetings, you know, seven meetings a week, Sponsoring guys, giving talks, and brick by brick, I build the damn wall back up. Sober and alcoholics anonymous. Thank you very much for helping my drinking problem. Stay out of my sex life. Stay out of my marriage. Stay out of my parenting. Stay out of my work. Stay out of my finances. Brick by brick, sober, sponsored. I'm telling my sponsor 65% of what's going on. I know in New York you do 100%. I think that's. <laughs> I think that's great. Shit. You only tell yourself 65%. <laughs> Life is lived forward, but it's understood backwards. You don't see it until you're through it. I did not get it when I was going through it. I was sleepwalking through my own life. And uh, I'm seven or eight years sober, seven and a half, I guess, about the time of the international. Linda's dad dying. We have, we have to cancel Denver. and. And uh, I'm in trouble. I'm in as much debt as I was when I walked in the front door of Alcoholics Anonymous after paying off all the bills. And uh, every area of my life is in trouble. And uh, I'm scared. I'm thinking about suicide. I'm not thinking about drinking. You know, it is, I'm just, this is too much for me. And uh, I've gone through the steps twice. I don't seem to get the relief that I think I'm supposed to get. And I'm in serious trouble. The two things that have saved my butt in Alcoholics Anonymous is I love the old-timers, so I had good examples and plenty of teachers and good people to talk to. second thing was I can't keep my mouth shut, so I am talking about some of the stuff that's going on in my life, but it's kind of surfacy. And uh, I knew what the problem was. The problem was to find out what God had to do with Wednesday. I'm busting my ass trying to get my life straightened out, and my life's not straightened out. And... Uh, 
The problem I had is you go to God and you ask God for help. Who's there? God is Bob. What do you want? <laughs> what do I want? My pants are on fire. I need help. Will you help? God says, yeah. Then I ask God, what do I do? Now, you have to be a rocket scientist to figure out what God's going to tell a guy with my list of defects of character what to do. Get up in the morning. Go to work. Stay at work. Work at work. (laughs) I know you don't have that problem in New York, but it's it's kind of a Midwest thing. You know, get on a budget. I think that's an Al-Anon word. It's not in the book. It's a tough word. Be kind and loving to your wife. Be gentle with your children. And stop gambling. I'm going to say, hell, if I knew how to do all those things, I wouldn't need God. What the hell you think I've been, you know, <laughs> the hell you think I've been trying to do for the last seven years, eight years? And uh, I was stuck in that place for almost two years. So what's the, what's the use of going to develop a relationship with your higher power if you can't fulfill the conditions of the relationship? As soon as I clean my act up, as soon as I start making some significant progress in what's going on, that's when I'm going to deepen my relationship with the God and my understanding. But until then, I just don't see the efficacy of doing that. I'm stuck. Out of fear, I went back to the steps for the third time. Powerless and unmanageable? <laughs> Hell yes. What I discovered as I lost the second step, I believed it for us but not for me because I'm eight years sober and I'm in trouble. And I had it when you're in pain, you start to do more work. I started to see people with bigger problems than I had with smiles on their faces walking through the walls that I was trying to avoid and I came to believe again that God would restore Bob to sanity. Took the third step on my knees with my sponsor. Did a fourth step. Best fourth step I've ever taken. Did a fifth step with my sponsor. First two I did with clergy. This one I did with, I said, be careful. When I'm done, I'm going to do whatever you recommend. I said, I feel like I'm dying of thirst lying next to a lake. I am so goddamn tired of the problems I'm having If you came to my house with my problems, I could tell you what to do. I just can't or won't do it. And I am burnt out on can't and won't. Did the fifth step. Uh, One of the things he wanted me to do was go to a psychologist. You got a lot of issues about work, money, failure, and success. I want you to go to a psychologist. I want you to have conversations about that. I want you to bring those conversations back to me, and we will sort them out in the AA manner. And I did that. Psychologist wanted my wife involved. I did not want my wife involved. God, the conversation's always different when your spouse is in the room. I mean, it's just <laughs> the data is there's just a different data bank available <laughs> when your spouse is in the room. <laughs> And then he wanted our kids involved, and I was ashamed of how I was with the kids, and I did not want to, but we we did. We went through it. I don't have the time to go into it. What I discovered in the meeting with that man was fear. Remember, he said to me, why are you so... I'm telling him my business is going broke. I'm busting my ass two or three hours a day. And uh, (laughs) I know. I know. I'm glad you think that's funny. And... uh, the, uh, you know. He said, why are you so afraid of failing? I wanted to punch him. And uh, what I discovered was fear. I'm swimming in fear. I'm afraid of being a husband. I'm afraid of being a father. I'm afraid of work. I'm afraid of failure. I'm afraid of success, which I later found out. And uh, 
Not too long after that fateful meeting with that guy, I mean, that was like the seventh or eighth meeting with that man. I'm in my living room after a particularly hor horrible day. Went to work late, left early, got in the back end of the game. I won $700. I missed dinner. I missed the AA meeting. I came home. I got a fight with my wife and slapped one of the kids. One of those you like to have videotaped and sent to the general service office to show what eight years can do. And I said, gee, it happened again. I said, it happened again. Weren't you there? You know? Yeah, I was there, but it's so habitual. I don't even have to think about this. I fall into these patterns like I'm in a blackout. And all of a sudden, I realized I was a bunch of crap. My life was the way it was because I designed it that way. I wanted to gamble whenever the hell I wanted to gamble for as much money as I wanted to gamble and not have problems because of gambling. I wanted money without work. I wanted my wife's and children's love and affection without spending time with them. Not a very good design. And all of a sudden, I realized that I had tried as hard as I knew how to try to clean my act up, and I had failed. And I was given the opportunity to take the six and the seven step at a level that I had not taken them before. The six steps said we're entirely ready to have God remove our defects of character. Seven steps said we humbly ask and remove our shortcomings. I had spent eight years trying to, with your help, trying to get rid of my defects of character. I do not have the power. I have the responsibility, but it happens through me, not by me. I'm the pipe, not the well. A doctor doesn't heal. He creates a septic environment, creates an atmosphere where the healing can take place, and God heals. Farmer doesn't grow. He plants a seed, creates a fertile environment for growth can take place, and God grows, and we don't change. We create an atmosphere in which change can take place, and God changes us. Honest, open-minded, willing. Six in the seventh step. And that night, five of the major problem, four of the major problems of my life disappeared, such as the power of the six and the seven step and the power of God in the AA program. I quit gambling that night. Now, I had to put a structure in to support that change. I gave the checkbook to my wife. My wife happens to be a spouse who can manage money. Not all spouses can. She could. Gave her the checkbook. I went on an allowance. She still puts a $100 bill on my bedstand once a week. That's kind of, I like, it's kind of a... Good feeling. <laughs> Actually, recently she went up to 140, so I mean, it's. it's uh, I made appointments with my sponsor about when I'd go to work, how long I'd stay at work, and what I would try to do at work. I spent thousands of dollars and hundreds of hours trying to learn how to be a better parent. I think having children is one of the most demanding, wonderful experiences, but I think it's like having a bowling alley installed in your head. I mean, it's a great privilege, but it is. Take 125 percent of whatever you got. And my life started to change. It got much better. My business career took off and all that sort of stuff. If you ask many of us what our greatest gift in our lives were, I think most of us, many of us in this room would say Alcoholics Anonymous. I just, you know, it gave me my life back. I'll tell you something. One of the greatest events in, in, in our lives was not our recovery. It was our collapse. And it wasn't just like hitting bottom. It was like hitting bottom and having a trap door open. We talk about when I surrendered. I think it's more accurately to say when I was surrendered. Most of the important, dramatic, fundamental changes in our lives do not happen by us. They happen through us. Uh, 
I'm a Catholic. I've been gone to parochial school. I've always had a pretty good sense of values and ethics. I've always wanted to be a pretty good man. Tried like hell with varied success. Many of us come up here and we talk about the problems we have in sobriety. You never used to hear that talk. When I came in Alcoholics Anonymous, the talks were a drunk log. Talks started with the first drink, ended with their last drink, and they spent five minutes at the end of the talk talking about wives, kids, and jobs. Included in those wonderful talks was recovery if you could hear the music. These were powerful men and women, and you knew that something very dramatic happened to them to alter their lives. Chamberlain probably almost single-handedly started to change the communication in Alcoholics Anonymous and started to talk more about recovery, the program, and the steps. Cecil McCheater, other people did that, but almost single-handedly Chuck changed the oral communication in Alcoholics Anonymous. Today, because we have so much sobriety, because we have people coming in early, people are out in the audience saying, then what? <laughs> you know, you got sober, then what? So today, in our communications, as you hear from this weekend, we talk a little bit more about life and sobriety. So when Mike talked about allowing those things, you know, having a God that didn't judge him, didn't separate him, was not angry, you have to allow yourself to have what you have. Katie is talking about inventory. I mean, how do you, you know, it's see it or be it. If you don't see it, you are it. It wasn't until you saw your alcoholism you could do anything about it. See it or be it. It owns you if you don't see it. Ladies on the, you know, lady goes to the doctor. She's got a problem. Doctor says, what's wrong? She says, well, I'm passing gas. You can't hear it. You can't smell it. But I have this horrible sensation. I wish you'd give me something for it. Doctor gives us some medicine. Come back in a week. Doctor says, how is it now? She says, it's worse. He says, what do you mean? She says, well, now you can smell it. <laughs> He said, good, now that we have your nose cleared up, we can work on your hearing. Uh, the, uh, okay. There is, okay. I promise you the people around us have been smelling and hearing it for a long, long time. Okay. So if you've been around AA for a while, as Bill had been, I don't know if I, I want to read something, because I, I really think unless you allow yourself to uh, have the problems you have, nineteen fifty one a guy by the name of Mel Barger wrote a letter to Bill Wilson. And uh, so this is a guy with two years of sobriety writing Bill Wilson asking him about his spiritual experience and uh, wondering about how his life's going. And Bill... Oh, crap. Well, Bill says two, th two things about it. He, so he's asking about his spiritual experience. He said, I failed to make the point to every AA who has been in the program gets the same thing. The only difference is that I have the most experience that is strung out over a long period of time in sudden events. I think the ego gives way at depths in those sudden, in those complete collapses, at least momentarily. This permits a huge inrush of grace. 
and brings a vision. In most cases, grace leaks in a little by little. Therefore, I can't hold them with most theologians that the sudden experience that there's something very special and unique. If you were to take the sum of your own transformation since you have been in AA and condense the whole business into six minutes, you too would see the stars and more. Uh, he goes on to say later that he's just been into about an eight-year depression, that he doesn't believe that, you know. He said, even at my worst, he said, on further point, with me, the original experience was so prodigious that that the preview of destiny was so intense, I have never had any difficulty with doubts since that time. At my worst, and that has been oftenly damn bad, I sense the presence of God, and he has never deserted me. Long ago, I became a pupil of AA. All around me, people were doing better with themselves in a spiritual sense than I ever could. This is Bill Wilson talking to a guy with two years of sobriety. In my role as Mr. AA, I have been enabled to manage fairly well. But as one neurotic drunk talk, trying to get along and grow, I often have been pathetically rebellious. Practically all the sins I didn't have time for when I was drinking, I've fallen for since in the last 12 years. Despite all my blessings and opportunities, I spent eight years in depression, sometimes very severe ones. And he goes on to talk about how the advantage, what he did is he got off the road and he was able to write the 12 and 12 and design the general service structure. So he said maybe it wasn't all that bad. He goes on to talk about how Dr. Bob was more grounded spiritually than he was. And he just kind of ends it and says, this is my report. This is the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous talking to a new guy writing him a letter. We talk about Bill's ego. I think Bill had a level of humility that was astounding. Every time the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous asked something of him, he said yes, every time. So first of all, in my life, I have to allow myself the truth that I have failed. I have to allow myself so we know we're powerless over our disease, but do we know we're powerless over our lives? Do we know that we're, you know, you come in here and you've got a six-foot ball of dirt that you've dragged through the junkyard of life, and you show up in AA with this thing, and then they start power washing it and reducing it, and you find out somewhere in the middle of there there's something that looks pretty sexy, and it's this beautiful thing, and it's got jewels on it and everything like that, and you find out it looks like a lamp. Two years later, you get a cord. A year after that, you plug it in. A little while later, someone gets you a bulb. <laughs> later, you turn the bulb on. Quite a bit later, you find out it's a three-way bulb. Now, would you diminish the lamp? For not having power, like we diminish ourselves for lack of power. We're designed not to have the power. We're designed to be in relationship with the power greater than ourselves. That's our design. We are not designed to know. We are designed to be in contact with our source. At our core, we are God. We aren't everything God is, but everything we are is God. The powerfulness of the program, so we've talked about Carl so aptly talked about our powerlessness. And then Mike talked about forgiveness and his experience with inventory. 
And Peter talked about that powerful decision. And today we just go, the word decision doesn't seem to have the power that it seemed to have if you want to come over to the house and make, tell your story or make a decision. I mean, it was a big deal. It was not a, a small deal. Today I think we, that word doesn't quite have the, the depth that it used to have. And uh, then Katie so wonderfully went through the inventory process. So we've, we've had our collapse. And in the collapse, what happens in the collapse? The eagle gets ground to dust. When the eagle is down, there's an opening. So Katie talked about being broken or Peter or someone. But we're broken open. That's where the light comes in. Who's that singer that talks about when you're broken, that's where the light comes in? Yeah, you have to, Cohen, or, I mean, you have to, all of us have to be broken. Otherwise, we're eggs. There is no entry point. We are designed to be broken open. We have to die to get the message. In that place, we're united. In that place, we're like one. Okay. I mean, you're sitting in an AA meeting. You're sitting in this room. You're listening to the speakers talk. And all of a sudden, something someone says is powerful and it's meant just for you. And your soul goes, oh, yeah. It doesn't go, isn't that interesting? I think I'll write that down. Oh, I like that. Isn't that cute? It just goes, oh, yeah. Who's doing the oh, yeah? You're nowhere. You don't think it's true. You know it's so. You just know. And we regularly in meetings and regularly with our sponsors and regularly when we read the, the book, why is the book so powerful? The most dynamic spiritual books in the world, when you read them, you have an experience. You don't get information. If you're really present when you're reading it, you have an experience when you read it, and it alters you in the reading. My biggest, I have two biggest obstacles in living my life as well as I would like to live it. One of them is that I'm afraid of God. If I really turn my will and my life over to the care of God, what, you know, I mean, in the old days, it was kind of like being be a missionary and sent to China. I mean, if I, open, if I open the whole deal up. But if the process of finding God is the process of coming home, if the process of finding God is becoming who you have always been, it is removing what is in the way, the process of finding God is not a process of addition, it's a process of subtraction. And what you discover is what's always been there. Your instrument. It used to be under the piano, still in the box with the damn ribbon on top. We never got to open the box up and find out what instrument you were supposed to play in the orchestra of life. But once you start to have a spiritual experience, once you start to live in the world of the spirit, it's an entirely different world. You can make it as complicated as you want to make it, or you can make it as simple as you want to make it. Today, I have a choice. It's the choice Chamberlain talked about. I can have, lead a self-centered life and suffer the consequences, or I can lead a God-centered life and suffer the consequences. It's a choice I always have. Spirit or intellect? Spirit or ego? There's two rooms, intellect and ego. In that room, I've got a 16-year-old running my life. I'm fairly smart, I can figure it out, I can tell you what to do, I can pass the test, but I have no power. 
in that room, I am conditioned to make the same mistakes over and over and over again. And that mistake, I mean, my intellect, not bad. As soon as I start to get an emotional content over five, my intellect, my IQ goes down 50 points. So my emotions dominate my intellect. The only thing that orders my emotions is spirit. So if I'm going to find a... So we, we talk about these profound things in very simple ways. You're going to, you're going to live your life at the, at the level of the problem or live your life at the level of the solution. That's profound. You're going to live one day at a time. You're going to do the next right thing. You're going to do what God would have you do. And Bill talks about the six and the seven step. Humility, why is that so essential? Because when you have a lack of humility, what you have is ego. When you have a lack of humility, what you rely on is your intellect. Relying on your intellect and ego is like bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's helpful. It's insightful. You can have the words, but you do not have the power. You have to plug the lamp in, turn it on. That happens in the room where we're God-centered. Why? One of the reasons is in the room where I'm program-centered, I am not as important. It is not as important. There is rubber on the tire in that room. There is no rubber on the tire in the room with ego and intellect. That's circumstance-based. So the new guy or new gal, when you're talking to him, you come up and you make the mistake of saying, how are you? Okay. What you, what you often get is the dump. Okay. It's the, it's, it's the word by word, blow by blow description of the fight with the wife or spouse. It's the word by word, blow by blow problem with the IRS, with work or whatever the hell's going on. In the God-centered room, that same person, a number of months later, when you ask them how they are, same circumstances. I'm okay. I blew it a little bit. I think I'm okay. I was a little nuts yesterday, but I think I'm back on track. It's an entirely different conversation. It has nothing to do with the particulars of the problem. It has to do with their response to the problem. It has to do with what they're supposed to be doing. It's a different world. It's just not a little different. It's totally different. So today, you know, I've gone broke once, one and a half times in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, <laughs> I've had periods of time where I've been nuts. I had a period for two days last week where I was in not very fit spiritual condition. It doesn't happen to me very often, and it doesn't happen to me very long. And what I have to do, and my temptation is to dive into it. My temptation, when I'm hooked, that's the only conversation I'm going to have. I'm literally obsessed with that conversation. It's painted on my eyeball. When it's painted on your eyeball, it's your reality. When you have a program and you're God-centered, it's here. You can go, oh, my God, I haven't been that nuts in a while. And then you can get in the God-centered room. Do you understand that you could enter that room in an instant? And that's our choice all the time. When you listen to us talk, most of us who are talkers, the issue is we keep bringing up, <laughs> to a significant extent, we're neurotics. And we keep talking about problems that we have resolved. But most of the problems we have are self-created. So we just cycle through 
the creating these illusionary problems, congratulating ourselves for resolving them. I mean, it, re it really is a cycle. I mean, it really is like a gerbil on a track. And we just, and, and you can make, you can get so deeply into that process that you just would be shocked at uh, <laughs> my son calling from Geneva. <laughs> With uh, 25 years of sobriety, 23 years of 23 years of sobriety, uh, what I try to do today is not get into that internal dialogue. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with an internal dialogue that needed me to drink a fifth a day to be okay. I don't know what was wrong with a guy that I was born on third base and been congratulating myself for hitting a triple. If you can't make a living. <laughs> If you can't make it from where I started out, you <laughs> don't bother. I mean, I was given an education. I, I just, you know, I had an easy time of life, and I made a hard going of it because I had this internal. I don't know why I had this internal dialogue. Most drunks in a room, you look at them, and you, you know, if you talked about are you afraid of dying? No one's afraid of dying. What we're afraid of is living. We're more afraid of our greatness than we are of failure. It takes more courage to get the lid off your box and abandon your story, the limiting aspects of your story, not your experience, the limiting aspects of your story, so that you can allow yourself to be present to who you are at your core. You're not going anywhere. Chamberlain sat me down in a room with 20 guys. Chamberlain would hold court. We'd have, we had him at Gopher State for the first five years. And we'd go up to his room about 10 o'clock at night, and we'd get out of there about 1 o'clock in the morning. I was sitting on the floor, and he said, Son, you're not going anyplace. You already are everything you're ever going to be. You're as good as you're ever going to He said, I can tell you're disappointed by that. I said, yeah. <laughs> I said, hell, I don't even understand it. It is... <laughs> He said, the man on the street committing rape is do, right now is doing, it was hard to listen to, is, the, is doing the best he knows how to do. When he has more light, he will do better. Before we were alcoholic, we were alcoholic. Once we identified our alcoholism, accepted it, surrendered to it, we started to be available to change that process through the grace of God in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. We had more light. We saw it differently. You cannot alter your lives. If I had a magic wand and said I could take away every defect of character in this room on the condition we come back in this room in 10 years, everybody. When we came back in 10 years, if your consciousness had not altered or improved or increased, you would have recreated the same problems in your life that you have today in this room. Anybody in this room have any new problems? <laughs> we got new circumstances, but we have any new problems? Most of us don't. Most of us, same old, same old. And most of us have resigned ourselves. We're afraid of change. Scott Peck wrote a book. Road Less Traveled later wrote a book further along Road Less Traveled in that book. He's got a chapter on the, called The Road to Omaha, and he talks about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages of death and dying, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Denial, it, maybe I don't have it. I'll go talk to get a second opinion. Anger is why the hell is this happening to me? 
bargaining with God, take this away and I'll give my life over to you. And then they talk about the depression, not necessarily talking about the clinical depression, but the appropriate depression due to the circumstances that you're in. And then she says, but if you allow depression to do its work, which is to grind the ego to dust, you go through depression into acceptance. Now, most of us have had that experience in our collapse, in our entry into Alcoholics Anonymous. Then she says, most people who are dying do not go through the five stages. They go through denial, anger, and bargaining. But when they get to the depression, this pain's so great, they back up and go and recycle through denial, anger, and bargaining and never get through depression to accept it. And interestingly enough, he says, this is the same process we go through in the major problems in our lives. Most of us are scared, witless about change. I never understood how afraid I was to change. When I came into AA for the first six or seven years, I, with the issues and defects of character and the problems I had, I tried and failed, tried and failed, tried and failed, and I still grew. But there comes a time where you change or you go. It's like the age of reasons. At that point in time, the path diverges. You either get deeper into the program and deepen your relationship with the steps and deepen your relationship with your God and increase your consciousness, or you build an addition onto your house to accommodate the problem. Chasers hang out with the chasers. Gamblers hang out with the gamblers. I won't call you on your crap. You don't call me on mine. Deal? Bad deal. Bad deal. Was it Peter talking about us being a flawed group? Uh, <laughs> we're the elite of the mentally ill. <laughs> you know. There was a great Zen master that talked in one of his sessions. He was talking about one of his dearest students. And I won't be able to quote this exactly, but what he said to his student, he says, I love you. You are the worst horse we have here. He said, you know, the best horse, before you ever even want to go left, the horse anticipates what you want him to do and he goes left. A good horse goes left when he sees the shadow of the whip. But he says, the worst horse, you have to take the whip to the bone before the horse goes left. But with the old timers that we see in Alcoholics Anonymous, they've had the whip to the bone. It's not an intellectual process. They're surrendered. They were done. They were just flat ass done. Today, the religion of the world of today is psychology. The second major issue I have in my life is what I bring to my AA program is my intellect and my psychology. It's worthless. It's helpful and nice to have insight. Don't get me wrong. I read a lot of books. I'm interested in this stuff. But this is a spiritual process. Intellect plays a minor role in the spiritual process. The knower, how do you find out what needs to be done? Peter, chop wood and carry water. Why is that the way to find out what needs to be done? Because that's the demonstration of your life. You want to know what to do? Look at what's not working. Look at what to attend to. That's the entry point. When Bill says pain is a touchstone of growth, it's the entry point. That's where we're supposed to 
show our spiritual attention. Our advantage is that we are so flawed. We are the worst horses. As a result of that, we need a practice. As a result of that practice, you have to do an inventory to know what to focus your attention on. Most of us settle far too early for far too little. We are not going to become perfect human beings. I'm not having this talk. I have, you know, I have eating issues. You can't tell that by looking at me, but I... <laughs> okay. I have significant unmanageabilities in my life. I'm not going to do a fist step from the program, but I'm not without my problems and not without my issues. Uh, if I was giving myself a grade, I don't know what I'd give myself, a B plus? I'm in love with my wife. I have a good relationship with my children. I've retired and I'm self-supporting through my own contributions. A lot of luck in that process. I've damn near drove the bus off the cliff twice. And uh, But last week I got into an argument with my business partner and for two days I was nuts. So you still get hooked. But the fact is, is all I have to do is go to my spiritual room. All I have to do is ground myself. All I have to do is say a prayer. What if I really put my whole life in the game? What if I was really open to being what God would have me be? That's still, when I say those words, that's still scary to me. And it's scary to me because it's this trust idea. If I really, you know, you trust me, get in the wheelbarrow. You know, that one about, you know, they have that line across the Grand Canyon, you know. <laughs> you think I can, can do this? Yes, I think you can do it. Are you sure I can do it? Get in the wheelbarrow. What if I really got in the wheelbarrow? And I'll tell you, I'm an old, older guy now. So I've had this question about who God is in my life for a long time. And when my spiritual advisor, who died also three years ago, said to me, Bob, he said, you are God. I'll tell you, the first time I heard those words was not from him. The first time I heard him, I thought it was heretical. I just could not even listen to those words. But what if who I was at my deepest point was God? What if I really am a spiritual being? What if I really am a spiritual being having a human experience? You know, we talk I am so goddamn sick and tired of improving. What if we really are right now, just in our seats the way we are, the way we are supposed to be? And we're not all doing what we're supposed to be doing, but what if we are just the way we were created? Do you know any perfect human beings? Okay. But if we had a spiritual practice, if we were on a spiritual walk, if we opened ourselves up to that and relied less on knowing, knowing is the booby prize. Is there anybody in the room that couldn't pass the test, the knowing test? But we need an alteration in being. Until you see it differently, you cannot respond differently. And that is why we need a practice, and that is why we need our program, and that is why we need the text. There's nothing missing. There's nothing that needs to be added. For most of us, there are things that we need to discard.
as Chamberlain talked about, you know, uncover, discover, discard. And in that, your consciousness is open. Having had a spiritual awakening, what's the difference in life today? I'm more awake. I don't strike children. I don't spend money I don't have. I'm not as angry as I used to be in my life. That's an altar. Do I do that as a practice? No, it's happened to me as a result of my participation in Alcoholics Anonymous and of my participation in the steps. You're not, we're not going to be perfect. We're not going to get rid of all our defects of character. The first two or three years in Alcoholics Anonymous, we sp spend our attention mostly on the consequences of our drinking. And we do an extraordinary job. Those are some of the most difficult circumstances and difficult issues that we deal with over a period of time. And it is just astounding to watch how people take those on with the grace of God, sponsorship, and the program. But the more subtle things that restrict us, when Katie talked about how many people are married, how many people are married, where I went, the things that restrict us from marriage, from permanent relationship, that restrict us from careers rather than jobs, that restrict us from the relationship. Most of us, in our, at our worst, we had to take hostages. We had to find people who would put up with our crap. We had a little clique that, you know, and they were the people we could have the conversations with. As our lives start to broaden, you run into which do, what doesn't work. And all we need to do is put it on the table. Most of us take our defects of character and live them at the level of complaint. They are not a piece of business. And if we could elevate them from complaint to a piece of business, if we could allow ourselves to have them, if we could bring them into the healing powers of God and the healing powers of the program and not be afraid that if I really open myself up to what God would have me do, there is no limit. And you will find, as whatever that great poet said, when you end the journey, that you will be where you started. Thank you very much. the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom. Steve, um, I met Steve maybe five years ago, six years ago at a men's retreat in Nashville, Tennessee as the usual suspects. And um, it was an unbelievable experience for me, and uh, Steve was one of the powers of example that was there. And, you know, I don't know. I, I would love to say that Steve is a great friend of mine. I've, I've maybe seen him six times. But every time we connect, you know, it's that unbelievable phenomenon in AA that when we connect, we have a, a really good, unbelievable relationship. And uh, so it's my honor and privilege to introduce Steve. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Steve Lee. I'm an alcoholic. Thought I had this timer set. You'll just have to uh, depend on my good sense of timing. Uh, uh, the 5:30 walk could be in jeopardy. Uh, 
Listen, I'm, I'm thrilled to, uh, to be here this weekend and, uh, and, and for you guys to invite me to be a, be a part of what's going on here. I, I really appreciate it. It started with Spencer picking me up at the airport and, uh, and the great conversation we had on the way over here. And uh, it was uh, a treat for me to, to hear that Matthew was going to uh, be here and be able to introduce me and, and, uh, and have that connection. Uh, I've got a couple of great friends uh, from my home group uh, uh, back in Nashville, uh, 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 Tammy and, and Rachel here. They wanted me to, to let you know they're here in spite of me, not because of me. And, uh, 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 and my friend Matt uh, has been around most of the weekend, too, from Nashville. That's in town. He, he had an obligation this afternoon. And then I have so many other wonderful friends in the room and, and people who just uh, have met and mean so much to me and, uh, in my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, so, so it's an absolute privilege for me to be here. Uh, it says on the program uh, that I will uh, speak to steps uh, 10 and 11. Uh, however, having been here all weekend, I know none of the other speakers have been held captive to the topic on their page. <laughs> uh, uh, I say that jokingly because the truth is, you know, if if, uh, if I speak to you about about my experience and about about the spiritual journey of Alcoholics Anonymous, whatever number you put in front of that is almost always going to fit in some description. And uh, and and what you've invited me to do is not to instruct or or teach you about a step. I, I, I certainly would be out of my depth doing that. But to do what we do in Alcoholics Anonymous, which is is share our experience. I'll share my experience. I will try to to talk a little bit about about what what AA seems to say about these steps, because as has been made uh, uh, so abundantly and accurately clear. That's where the clear-cut directions are. That's, that's where the, the basic text is. That's where the guidelines for living are. And, uh, 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 but, you know, it, it says uh, in our book when it's talking about, it says that each of us in our own language and from our own point of view talks about how we establish a relationship with God. And uh, it says there may be a wide variation in the way each of us approaches and conceives of that power. And I would suggest that, that, that likewise, what, what I'm going to do to the best of my ability is share in my own language and from my own point of view my experience, my personal experience, both in the understanding and the application uh, of steps 10 and 11, both as I came upon them initially and, and kind of where they are now. Because the great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous and, and about these spiritual principles which serve as the guideline for my life is that uh, is we don't leave them behind. We don't we don't outgrow them. They don't change. The the the, the language doesn't change. The the uh, premise of a step or a principle doesn't change. But I continue to have hopefully a deeper understanding. Not a better. Not more accurate. Not a, not that I was wrong ten years ago if I saw it a different way. But I'm always having a current experience. And step 10 really speaks to that current experience. And step 11 really speaks, I think, to that current experience. Because it's, it's kind of what now, you know? It's kind of what now, right after those night step promises, uh, uh, it says, uh, uh, you know, that, that I'm going to embark on this, on, to continue while I go about cleaning up the past. I'm going to continue to look for any new mistakes. 
And I keep looking. If I make one, I'm going to let you know any new mistakes as I go along. So there's not even a time gap between the moment I begin the process of looking at making amends and doing that. I'm also supposed to, as I go about that, immediately begin looking for new mistakes. Because the truth is, I start making them immediately. Uh, There's hardly a real time lag between my last mistake and my next one. And the tenth step has me kind of paying attention to that, you know. Because if I don't... If I don't, then, 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 then they will sort of build up like residue. And uh, um, so I'll, I'll start by just kind of, I, I want to confirm my alcoholism. Uh, 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 you know, I, I've got, and, and, and what you can assume, and, and, and I'll just ask you to make a presumption as I start here kind of talking about 10 and 11, that what you've heard from the other speakers is, is in their own language and from their own point of view, kind of mirrors what happened to me. Some of the experiences are different, but I've got the relationship with alcohol that Carl talked about. I've got that, that phenomenon of craving. I've got that, you know, allergy. I didn't know that before I got to AA, you know. I did, that, was, that was a huge piece of information that I was allergic to alcohol. Because as it says in the doctor's opinion, it explains that for which I could not otherwise account. It explained, and you know, I never knew that, that I had the phenomenon of craving. I was never in the bar somewhere in about the third drink, nudged the guy next to me. I don't know about you, pal, but that phenomenon of craving's kicking in on me. <laughs> Whoa, lack of power is my dilemma. <laughs> I didn't have any of that language. I didn't know that. I just thought I changed my mind. And I get here against my will, not wanting to be here, having been uh, convicted of my sixth DUI and done a plea bargain that sent me both to jail and to uh, uh, drug and alcohol rehabilitation, where they introduced me to the problem I had and then took me out to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs that graciously let me come in and others, even when I didn't want to be there and even when I didn't know how to act. And even when I was probably a bit of a blight on that particular meeting. But see, you didn't expect me showing up knowing the rules. You didn't expect me to know how AA works before I get there. You gave me a little time and some people gave me some private instruction outside the meeting uh, that I might conduct myself in a way that was respectful of what other people were there to do. But I was made welcome. And then having bought into this problem that I've got and recognizing that I'm in a trap I can't spring and got a problem I can't solve, I became grudgingly open-minded to the prospect of step two that a power greater than myself would be required, something other than me. I don't know what it looked like. I wasn't a religious guy, not a religious guy. Didn't have a concept of God, or at least not one that I could articulate. I often say I don't know if I was agnostic or a... or atheist, but I was at least apathetic. I just paid no attention. I was uninvested in any of that, and I gave it no thoughtful consideration, except when you brought it up, it made me uncomfortable. But I know I can't solve it, and then I land around at step three and, 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 and had no idea, coming up on step three the first time, the magnitude of the decision that was talked about, and as Peter, as Peter discussed it, and as Katie went on to describe today, what, what am I copping to? What am I, what am I doing when I do that? What is, so, because that self 
that we will talk about. I don't realize that I'm, when I turn my will and my life over the care of God, I don't, I don't really know what that means. I, I told my sponsor, Frank, you know, at the time, I said, Frank, I, I, I don't get it. I don't buy in. I said, let go and let God. That's a nice bumper sticker, but, uh, uh, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to, I'm involved with that. He said, hell, Steve, just let go and let anybody. And, uh, uh, you know, just let go. Because that's the first thing I have to do, and, and the book says, to, to be convinced that a life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Me running my life. Because I have said in the first step that my life is unmanageable. Now, I misunderstood that for years. I mean, I didn't, I knew what it said. I just misapplied it. It says my life is unmanageable. I keep thinking my life is difficult to manage. That it's hard to manage. And that the solution is to become a better manager. That, that, that it's, it, you know, if I get to my car when I get back to the airport and the power steering is out when I'm driving home, that's a hard car to drive. But I can do it if I concentrate and work hard and give all my effort. But if the battery's dead, it's just undrivable. It's not going anywhere no matter how much I read about car batteries, you know, no, ma- no, no matter how much I recognize that a car battery is going to be necessary. But I'm going to have to go get the necessary power. I'm going to have to jump this sucker off to get anywhere. And here in Alcoholics Anonymous, I, I don't realize the depth of the decision that I'm kind of walking into. In fact, it's a trick. It's, it's only after the prayer that it tells me to think long and hard before taking the prayer. And, uh, uh, uh. To be truthful, uh, our book is full of bait-and-switch moments. And... Uh, uh, because I think the people in AA know a guy, you know I'm not going to read ahead. You know, you know, what if they had lit on page 164, it's the first time you guys tell me we realize we know only a little. <laughs> I do the best I can with, the, with an inventory, and my inventory was like the one I think Bob talked about. My inventory was a confessional, and it was unbelievably unburdening, cathartic. Uh, to share those things with someone uh, that I had never been able to share. And, and there were, I didn't share everything, but I, I shared things I had never told anybody, and that was, that was a huge unburdening. It was a relief, but perhaps not recovery. But I think it's, it's part of the process. I, I'm just, you know, when it says we cease fighting anything and anyone, I, part of that is I just don't nitpick it near the way that I used to. Because what I want to have is, a, is an experience, and I've gone through a lot of my time in AA trying to articulate it, trying to, to in fact, I wanted you to have my experience, but to validate my experience, <laughs> to make me feel good about me. And so if you describe it a different way, I don't get too worked up, particularly if you are getting the results you want. You know, my, I, when I went through a Pentecostal stage in AA and, and at six years sober, and my sponsor, you know, a guy named Joe S. at the time pulled me up. He said, Steve, relax, pal. He says, not everybody wants what you want in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, fewer people still want what you have. <laughs> and there are thousands of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous going on every day without your input. I am here. My home group, back room group, meets on Saturday and Sunday morning, and I'm here. Odds are they went ahead and met this morning in my absence. <laughs> there was probably even a buzz around the room. Uh, uh, 
some mic time opened up in that meeting. I did a couple of amends, which were, which were kind of the apology that our book says is insufficient, but it was huge. It was huge for me to go look at a few people, my wife and my daughter and my mother, and say, I'm sorry. You know, our book says a, a mere mumbling, I'm sorry, isn't sufficient, but it doesn't mean it can't be part of the overall amends. There's a difference in me going, I'm, look, I'm sorry, get off my back, than a true re- heartfelt recognition that I am sorry that I hurt you. I am sorry that I let you down. And then I land at the, at the tenth step. And, and if I go to my sponsor and ask what, what, what I've done at most of these others, which is, okay, what now? And the short answer of the tenth step is, well, just keep doing what you've been doing. Continue to take personal inventory and when wrong, promptly admit it. And ease on over there toward the eleventh step and, and, and seek through prayer and meditation to improve your conscious contact with God as you understand it. Get going on that. How do I arrive at step 10? How do I know I'm there? Well, I mean, you know, because I, I do sometimes read ahead. One of the things that I think that I will confuse, and I, again, none of this is good or bad necessarily from my point of view. It, it is kind of my shared experience. Because I've said I've taken a step doesn't mean I've taken it. And sometimes I've taken a step before I get to it and didn't know I took it. Because, I, because there's been an experience that happened. So when I land at the 10th step, it suggests, as, as was read, that, uh, 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 that I want to continue to look for this selfishness, this dishonesty, this resentment, this fear. Keep an eye out for that stuff, Steve. You know, when I was a, a little boy in the South and out playing, you know, in, in the yard and come back in at night, my mother would make me and my brother strip down and she would check us for ticks. Because if you don't take a look, you might not know the ticks there. And actually, you can go quite a while with a tick bite with perhaps no ill effect. But after a while, it just might get infected, and it just might begin to cause a bigger problem. Having the tick and getting it picked off that night would pretty much alleviate that problem. But if I'm not paying attention and checking for ticks, they can begin to build up. I can have a problem. So you're just asking me, hey, take a quick look. Hey, were you selfish today? Dishonest, resentful, afraid? Then you got the other questions that are over there kind of in that end-of-day review. I, I don't get too hung up, you know. Is that a tenth step or is that an eleventh step? i got to say, if I'm asking any of those questions, I, I have really raised my game big time from before I got here. Uh, so I'm not getting hung up on the number that's in front of it. It's what, am, I, am I engaged in the process? And, and is there a bit of self-reflection? And, boy, there's a dangerous moment for an alcoholic. I have just come through these steps where I have admitted after I have stopped drinking, after I have moved alcohol to the side, I have said that the root of my problem is selfishness and self-centeredness, that this obsession with self, this preoccupation with self, this self-driven life is my problem. And then you say, and by the way, Steve, think about yourself a little bit every day. I got the kind of same relationship with self I do with alcohol. I get the phenomenon of craving when I think about me a little bit. I'll pretty soon, I will turn that in. So, so, so I, the directions are just, you know, they're, they're kind of clear. They're just hard for me to follow sometimes. I've got to be careful not to turn self-examination into self-obsession. I've got to be careful to make it a, a, uh, uh, 
a positive uh, uh, experience rather than just look f- to flog myself. It is that fact-finding and fact-facing business. Hey, hey, Steve, were you selfish today? Yes. Well, how? Maybe I can talk to somebody, call my sponsor, call, call a buddy of mine. You know, maybe I do it the next morning, depending on how bad it's weighing on me that night. I'll call, I got a couple of guys uh, other than my sponsor and some guys I call, I talk to Carl a lot, I call my buddies uh, Butch and Danny a lot, and I'll call Danny and I'll say, man, you will never believe what I did or what I said. And he said, I will have no problem believing what you did or said. (laughs) But I arrive at step 10 and it suggests some things have happened for me. It suggests that, uh, uh, that regarding alcohol, I now react sanely and normally. And uh, uh, so sanely and normally for me means that I'm not confused about the fact that I can drink anything at all. Sanely and normally, it says we're in that position of neutrality. I tell you, it's the, I'll tell you what's not neutral for me. Here's what... what looked like for me when I would go someplace where other people were drinking during the first few years of my sobriety. I had a good reason to be there. It might be a, it might be a restaurant. It might be a, a business or social event where other people are drinking. One feeling is I'm not going to drink. I'm not thirsty. But I'm really disappointed. I'm, I, but I'm feeling self-pity. I'm feeling like I'm missing something. It is amazing to have the relationship with alcohol that I had and feel like giving it up is giving something up. I mean, I was arrested. I, I, I mean, you know, you guys, we all got our own story, whatever that looks like. And, and most of the damage is internal. Most of those feelings are, are given away of, of integrity and, and, and who I am and the person I want to be. And then I go, hey, but I hate to give it up. You know, I was, I met a guy one night. I picked him up at the airport. Uh, I never met this guy. It was going to be a business, uh, 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 deal. And he was coming in. We were going to go to lunch. We were going to make a sales call. We were going to go to dinner and he's going to get on a flight the next morning. He flies in. I pick him up. We go to lunch. He has a few drinks, uh, a few beers at lunch. He's ordering about his third beer. He noticed I'm not drinking. He, nothing about AA. He says, Steve, I hope it doesn't bother you that I'm having this beer. I said, man, it doesn't bother me at all. I said, fact is, if that's going to make you more effective on this sales call, I'm buying. You know, I, I'd, I'd really like this to go well. And uh, 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 then we did our business, and we went out to dinner that night. He started drinking at dinner a little bit, and I'm still not drinking. Nothing, No mention of AA or Alcoholics Anonymous or being an alcoholic. And, but he just begins to ask some questions, and he begins to tell me about he's, He says he's in trouble at work because of his drinking, about to lose his job. He said his wife's been on him. Said his wife uh, uh, had her brother come over and talk to him, who was in AA. And, uh, and I thought, man, the, uh, the brother-in-law 12-step call has got to be the deepest cut of all, isn't it? That's, that's got to be tough. And, uh, and I just talked to him, and I said, well, I, I said, you know what? I, and, and you guys know that this is a trick question. But I just said to him, I said, you know, since you're having all that trouble, I said, why don't you just stop drinking? He hung his head for a second, and he looked up, and he says, you know what, Steve? He says, I'm afraid I'll quit, and I really didn't have to. And I get that. I mean, I get that to him. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I mean, maybe, maybe that's not Maybe I'll get better at it, you know. 
All the stuff we talk about, he was just doing what we say in AA. He just didn't want to quit five minutes before the miracle. And uh, <laughs> Before he could find some new miracle of control. But now I'm over here in this tenth step, and hey, I'm in. So, so the other thing, after I feel a little bit of self-pity, there's another thing that happens to me sometimes, and that's self-righteousness. See, these manifestations of self are showing back up. And that's self-righteousness. Look, over, look at him. Look at that's about his fifth drink. That poor son of. It's, I hope one day you can find what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know. <laughs> and then there's the neutrality. Then there's that where where I am, I am unaffected. I am unimpacted by my not drinking and by you drinking. That can, that can get comfortable. I'm not always there, but that's a comfortable place to be. And then it used to bother me that the book said, but but uh, uh, that I've gotten here without any thought or effort on my part. So what do you what do you mean? I've been working steps. They use the word work in front of this. I've been working hard in AA. But see, it's this new attitude toward liquor. But I've not been working on my attitude toward liquor in AA. I've been working on building a relationship with a higher power, and my attitude comes with no thought or effort towards that attitude. I didn't learn more about it. You know what? I read something. You know what? Finally, I've got a piece of information that, that is totally changing my view of alcohol. No, you guys have, have told me, and that third step to me, in a sense, is, is saying to, you have redirected me when I get to AA. You have turned me. I, I, before I got here, I tried with all my might to do some things. Sometimes I tried with all my might to not drink. Sometimes I tried with all my might to not drink too much. Sometimes I tried with all my might not to drink tonight or, or, or to, to somehow use every ounce of willpower, good intention, firm resolve that I had to, to come at my problem head on. Sometimes it was about acting differently, even sober. As Bob said, it was news to me that I had alcoholism even when I wasn't drinking. But I kept coming at my problem head on, and you guys went, don't. You, you can't. That's where lack of power is your dilemma. Lack of power is not my problem. Just my personal opinion. The fact that I don't have power is not my problem. It's the fact that I act like a guy would act if he had power. It's the fact that I keep trying to do something I can't do. And you guys say, so, so a dilemma, by the way, is, is I looked it up after 18 years sober. I didn't want to rush into anything. And, and, it, and, uh, uh, and one of the descriptions of a dilemma was a problem with two equally unacceptable solutions. So my dilemma, lack of power is a dilemma. I don't have power, and I don't like the idea of what you're suggesting I do to get power. I've got a problem I can't solve. You've got a solution I don't want or I'm afraid of or don't understand or don't think is available to me. But you tell me, quit fighting your problem. Redirect your willpower. Redirect everything toward the solution. Don't fight the problem. Embrace the solution. That's the proper use of the will. It says that in the 12 and 12 in the third step. It says it in the big book at the 11th step. This is the proper use of the will. So I'm landing here, and this is how I land. I think about the way the book's talking. This is the way I'm supposed to land. This is the way I come ashore at the tenth step. I'm, the, the first nine steps have produced this effect, and now I am just trying to, to, to maintain, to continue this, to enlarge and grow this spiritual relationship uh, with a higher power. So I've got to keep looking for any new mistakes as I go along. 
just this week, I was talking with Bob at, at breakfast, but just this week, uh, my wife asked me a question, something that was really important to her, went right over my head. And I heard her, and I don't see it. And one of the reasons I didn't see it was because I wasn't stopping to check for ticks. I wasn't asking myself the question. I was an extreme example of self-will run riot, though I usually don't think so. Sometimes I'm self-will on purpose, you know. I just load up and go. (laughs) But I'm my most dangerous when I am absolutely unaware that self-will is driving the boat. And that self is my pro- Once I quit drinking, self is my problem. God is the solution. Self, the problems of the alcoholic arise from within. So my problems are internal. They're not external. They look external lots of times. My sponsor, Frank, used to say, it ain't them, Steve-O. I'd call him, I'd say, Frank, today it looked a lot like them. It was cleverly disguised as them today. Because I think that the solution, because when I think my problem is external, I think the solution to my problem is resolving my external circumstances to my satisfaction. And that will bring about peace of mind. And I will continue to say it is much easier for me to get peace of mind when you cooperate. So I, so I still, it believes me, when, when circumstances in my life are good, I tend to do a little better. But I was walking into a meeting, and I, I was, had work stuff going on for a long time. Well, I, I had non-work stuff going on for a long time and not getting paid stuff that went along with that. And, and, and life was kind of felt challenging to me because I decided it was. And uh, I'm sitting in a meeting, but, but now I, I had hit this really good space in, in spite of these circumstances, I'm sitting in a meeting, I uh, got there a little early, and nobody was sitting to my left or to my right, which may say something about me. But uh, uh, sooner or later, a guy came and he sat on my left. He said, he said, Steve, he said, how you doing, man? Just a casual hello. How you doing? I said, man, I am doing great. Thank you for asking. And I, was, I said, I, don't, I believe that I'm about as, as comfortable and, and at peace uh, as we sit here tonight as I've been in a good while. Thanks. And a few minutes later, another guy came in, sat down on my right. He said, uh, Steve, how's it going? Man, I went, oh, it ain't going worth a damn, man. I said, the job thing, the, 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 the money thing, my kid thing, you know. And, and, and this guy's looking at me like I got three heads. And, uh, and I said, look, man, you asked me how I'm doing, and he asked me how it's going. And those are two different questions. And sometimes, far too often, how I'm doing and how it's going are directly connected. But you have taught me in a perfect world they do not have to be connected. That how I'm doing does not have to be attached to how it's going. When I can be free of the bondage of self. Because my problems aren't even what I think they are. I think, I think it was Katie maybe that touched on it and Bob today as well. My problems aren't what I think they are. My problems aren't my problems. My problems are that I've decided my problems are problems. My problem is that I, I have I have labeled it a problem, so I am now stuck. I have painted myself into my own corner. My problems are self-inflicted. And what if it was just okay? I'll tell a quick story and go on to 
I can just pretend that the steps are interconnected because our book says they are, right? It says taken separately, prayer, meditation, and self-examination are quite useful, but, but when logically interwoven, they form an unshakable foundation for living. Unshakable. So when I, when, I, when I put this stuff all in the pot and stir it together, man, that, now, I, now I got some, some glue. I got something that's really working, that's substantive. And uh, uh, so I went to a conference a few years ago in Toronto. We took a little break for lunch. And uh, uh, this will be my Zen moment for the, for the conference here. And uh, uh, we break for lunch, and, and we're ordering lunch. And, and uh, I ordered a cheeseburger, and, and uh, the guy next to me ordered a club sandwich, and then everybody ordered. And... A little while later, they brought our food, and, uh, uh, and they brought me a cheeseburger, and they brought the guy next to me a cheeseburger. And he started eating his cheeseburger, and I said, man, I thought you ordered a club sandwich. And he went, I did, but they brought me a cheeseburger. <laughs> I said, brother, you don't have to live like that. <laughs> I, said, I said, we can get you a club sandwich. And I'm calling people over, you know. And he said, hey, Steve, man, I'm good. I'm, I'm good with the cheeseburger. And, 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 and understand, he wasn't saying, he, he wasn't just eating the damned old cheeseburger because that's what life dealt up. He, he was perfectly content with his cheeseburger. Now, it would have been okay for him to say, you know what, ma'am, I, I ordered a club sandwich. Would you mind getting me one? And, and they would have. And that would, there's nothing wrong with that, and that would have been fine. But wasn't his life simpler because he was okay with the cheeseburger? And I live my life on a regular basis ordering a club sandwich, getting a cheeseburger, and it ain't okay. (laughs) And what our literature says about that is that living a life of unmet demands will leave me in a state of continual disturbance. And that this is not a life in Alcoholics Anonymous of having my demands met. It's a life of lessening my demands of being more and more comfortable under today's set of circumstances. And it's perfectly okay. There are a lot of things that I hope and aspire to in my life. I just don't want to wait till they happen to be okay. Because what happens to me is I realize that I spend most of my life getting ready to have a good day. When? When this, you know, and and we talk about a day at a time all the time in Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I first hear a day at a time, it's about me enduring this day. I can, I can tough it out today. I can take anything for a day. I can endure a day. But you guys are teaching me to embrace a life where I can live this day, where I can live one day at a time under this set of circumstances, as I am, as you are, as it is. Or is it always going to be too hot outside, too cold, it's too crowded, there's too much traffic? I mean, you know, cheeseburger instead of club sandwich. I mean, what is it? And I don't even know that I'm walking around with this list of unwritten demands unless I'm paying attention. Unless I'm doing some self-examination and seeing where these things are showing up in my day. When it says in the book... Over around the inventory and, and, and the, the pages that uh, Katie was talking about today, it says, right before I start out on this resentment inventory, it says, being convinced that self in its various manifestations is what had defeated us, we looked for its common manifestations. This says resentment's the number one offender. Being convinced that self is what has defeated me. Am I convinced? And then I want to look for its common manifestations. And in steps 10, 
and 11, I'm continuing to look for its kind. Where did self show up today? Where did it happen? It's like an autopsy, you know. I think my inventories look like an autopsy because I watch two, I'm, I watch CSI. You know how that goes. It's a, you know, there's a, a dead body. And uh, uh, fact, this guy was driving over a bridge. The car crashed off the bridge, went down in the ravine. When it hit the ravine, it, it exploded into flames. And now here you got this badly mangled from the crash, burned from the fire body that is clearly dead. But the CSI team takes him back to the lab. All external evidence would imply the crash or the fire killed him. But they go in. And they discover he had a heart attack, which caused the crash, which caused the fall, which caused that. And so you're telling me to go look, look for the real cause of death, Steve. I know the, in fact, we won't even argue about the external circumstances, real or imagined. But are you willing to go in and look for self? Did you show up? Did selfishness, self-centeredness show up in a way that you didn't even recognize? Are you willing to really ask the question? And I got to say, often the answer is no, I'm not. Often, you know, because it, 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 Bob says all the time, and he said it the first time that I heard it in 1989, I'm six months sober. I'm listening to a Bob B. tape. I tell him it was an eight track. Uh, uh, uh. But he said, if there's a problem I'm unwilling to have, I'll have it forever. That's still true. If I can't own it, if I can't spot it, admit it, correct it, as the tense up suggests, then I'm stuck with it. Then I land over here at the, you know, so now I'll just chat a little bit about my experience with the 11th step. Because all of this, does, to me, these do begin, the numbers begin to fall off of me, have, of me living this spiritual life. The numbers aren't unimportant. The sequence of the steps are not unimportant. But pretty soon, and even it's, it's there around the 11th step that it says that, that this becomes a working part of the mind. That now I am more naturally doing what was unnatural to me when I got here as a result of a psychic change that is limited to, to a, a daily reprieve. But what happens around the 11th step, it suggests that, I, that, that in the 10th step, I started reacting sanely and normally around alcohol. The 11th step is now I'm encouraged to ask God for the first time to give me some direction. Almost all the prayers prior to, to getting to the 11th step, as I see them, are me asking God for power uh, to do something that I can't do. In the 11th step, I'm beginning to ask for, for direction and for power. And I'm asking God to divorce my thinking from selfish, self-pitying, dishonest motives. Take, let's take this stuff which clouds my vision. I can't see things as they really are. But what if I wasn't afraid? What if I wasn't selfish? What would this look like? How would I, how would I live this life? As Bob said, what if I really let go? What would that look like? So I'm asking God to divorce my thinking from this bondage of self, take all of those things that have held me hostage, pride, envy, jealousy, sloth. You know, I, it's embarrassing to say that one of my biggest defects of character is, is I'm just lazy. And I would prefer to have a lust problem. Uh, 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 I mean, it's just more fun to talk about. And, and uh, uh, 
because lazy's just such a weenie problem. But it's just, you, but that's what I'm stuck with, you know. I got some other minor defects, but uh, you know, and 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 so can. But what if I wasn't burdened by this bondage of self, by my human frailty? See, I'm never going to be free of all of those things. I'm never going to be absent these things. But every now and then, I can get the swelling down on them enough to be able to see life as it really is, and not be motivated. You know, those motives, so those things which push me into action. Fear will push me into action. Greed will push me into action. All of those things will determine how I act because I'm prisoner to them. But what if I can get them down to their right size because all of my defects of character are just God-given instincts gone awry? And our book says that the measure of this defect is the measure between God's intended use and my misuse. So I'm always going to be somewhere on, on, on the scale. But can I just get back here sometimes long enough? And if, and if through that prayer and through asking God to remove those things, to do what I can't do, and take a look at my day ahead, it says I can begin that my thought life will be placed on a higher plane. And I can begin to trust my thinking in that day. That perhaps I'll begin to have an intuitive thought or idea. And it says I come to rely upon it. And then it tells me, by, and, and Steve, by the way, when you rely upon it, you're going to make some huge mistakes. That you're gonna, you're gonna mistake your voice for intuition. That intuitive voice implies that it comes from somewhere other than my intellect. I did not create the intuitive voice. It, I have cleared, the steps are clearing those things away that let me begin to hear that intuitive voice. Not coming through the prism of that fear and self-centeredness and selfishness. And I can begin to hear and see this. And, and, and what would that look like, you know? And so I begin to, can, can, I, can I listen to that voice? And I'll tell you what happens to me today more often, not, at least as much as not, is, is when I got here, that thing you guys, we always say to each other, is, hey, just see, just uh, whatever you're going to do, whatever your first thought is, just do the opposite. And that's a pretty good plan for a guy like me when I get to Alcoholics Anonymous. But if I've been here a long time and every t- and my first thought continues to always be a bad thought, I, I, I might not. I might still have the alcoholic mind. But it says I get this intuitive voice and I come to rely upon it. And what happens is I'll hear the intuitive voice and I'll shout it down. I'll shout it. Pride and fear will shout it down. I go. I can't do that. I was on a plane headed out to, uh, um, I was going to uh, Canada again. I guess most of my worst stuff's ever happened to me was in Canada. And, uh, 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 but I was headed, I was going to a conference in Canada. I was really excited about going. It was really, it was a, re- it was a really big conference, which I thought made me a really big deal, which is, uh, 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 so, so now I, I am, I, I've got these things that are self is showing up. Now get on this little, as I'm going to the uh, uh, gate area in the Nashville airport, there's a, uh, um, a woman and, and holding an infant child, and she's just crying inconsolably. And, and uh, 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 but I go on and get on this little, you know, 50 passenger jet or so, regional jet, whatever size that is. And, and we're on there, and and a flight attendant comes on and says, "There's a young woman out here with her infant son. Her brother has been in a has been critically injured in a car wreck in Detroit. We were flying to Detroit before going to Toronto. Critically injured in a car accident in Detroit. Would anyone be willing to give up their seat?" Uh, so she can uh, get there. And intuitively, immediately, my voice said, sure. I mean, my inside voice said, sure. (laughs) 
But I thought, but then I started thinking about it. And, and perfect, I said, well, wait a minute, these people bought my plane ticket. There's going to be cost if I don't go. You know, my goodness, what will they do if I don't show? Uh, uh, this whole thing could unravel. Uh, 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 and I'm thinking, and my mind is spinning, and I'm trying to do, I, I'm rationalizing because our, our book calls rationalization, back in one of the personal stories, she calls it a, providing a socially acceptable explanation for socially unacceptable behavior. So I'm trying to give myself a good enough reason not to get off this plane. While I'm thinking about it, they closed the door and nobody got off. And for that whole weekend, I'm carrying that. And I'm standing up at that conference like I'm standing up here. And what was clear to me is the man they thought they invited would have gotten off that airplane. Because, see, I'd rather come someplace and talk about spiritual principles than actually act on them in the firing line of life. When it shows up, give me a week or two to sort through that, I probably would have, you know, I probably would have ended up letting her have my ticket. Magnanimously. I would have leaked word that I did it. And, uh, uh, uh. There might possibly have been a mention in, the, uh, you know, box 459 or the grapevine. And uh, uh, I've got some headshots I could have sent in. Uh, uh, you know, give me that time. And I might, but what about when life is fired at point blank range? And, and my respo- when my response is, is, I wasn't up to the task that day. Yet intuitively, I knew what to do. So over time, you're teaching me to be intuitive. So this 11 steps suggest, and that's the word it uses, prayer and meditation. And uh, uh, I, I used to use the phrase that I struggle with meditation. Uh, I would have told you and passed a polygraph that I struggle with meditation. And about 13 years ago, I was going to a conference and uh, uh, Howard P. was going to be there. And Howard's a... Uh, those of you who know him is a devoted practitioner of, of meditation. And uh, my friend Danny said, you should talk to Howard about that. So I got there and I saw Howard. And I, I didn't know Howard very well at the time. I'd met him a couple of times. But I said, Howard, I, I'm struggling with meditation. So those of you, so you know, I was now right in Howard's wheelhouse. I mean, he was excited and, and rubbed his hands together. He went, oh, Steve. He said, let's go to my room. And... Uh, uh, we go to his room and, and we get in there and he went, he went, okay, what are you doing now? And I says, well, I'm really not doing anything now, Howard. And uh, he went, oh, I see. He says, he says, your problem's not technique, it's commitment. You're not struggling with meditation, you're not meditating. My struggle wasn't with meditation. My struggle was with discipline. My struggle remains with discipline. And discipline, on the surface, the sound of the word discipline seems, seems punitive and, and seems punishing. But that's not what it means at all. This discipline, it is, it is a, a discipline. You, you practice a discipline. Martial arts is a discipline. And Howard says, what you've got to do is create the time. What happens in that space and time, that's a different, that's a different matter. But are you willing to create the time? And I, and I still, I don't struggle with meditation at all, but I struggle with discipline. 
But the great news for me around the 11th step, and because the other thing, I become very uncomfortable, you know, and, and you could, boy, I, nothing, Bob mentioned earlier uh, about the comparisons we make. And, uh, and, of course, my feelings were hurt when he said it because he said he's liable to compare himself uh, 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 to Peter, to Katie. And I'm thinking, wait, what about me, man? <laughs> Clearly, you're not concerned about that comparison, but uh, 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 but I come I come to some place like this, and I listen to these guys talk, and, and 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 you know by Saturday afternoon, I'm thinking, man, I am the worst AA member that ever drew a breath. I'm nowhere close to these guys. But see, we get here, we're at our best. But the, the good news for me. is I know the people at this table. And they are just like the people at this table and that table and that table. And that is the good news. And when I hear, when I hear you talk, sometimes it sounds like a guy like me or the folks here or when you're telling your tale, it sounds like a guy like me knew what was going on when it was happening. And, man, I didn't. I was lost. What's happened today, A, is you've given me a design for living. You've given me a true north. You've given me a set of spiritual principles to guide my path. I waver off of it all the time. Here, I will say that, that, that I, my execution and my commitment to the steps of AA has wavered over time. But my belief that AA and these 12 steps are where I belong and where I want to be has never wavered. And there is so much comfort in that. It is, it is so much better to question yourself around a group of people that you have no question about. It is so much better to question myself in a fellowship and, and in a program that I know is spiritually ideal but you shared with me my first day, I'm going to come nowhere near perfect adherence to these principles. The point is, am I willing to grow along spiritual lines? And as others have implied, that, that growth is not a race. That is not me, me trying to grow in comparison to your growth. How am I doing? I'd like to get a little bit better. I'm encouraged when I take that inventory, that end-of-day review that's in the 11th step, not to fall into morbid reflection, for I will minimize my usefulness if I do. It says, if I have fallen prey to one of these man- one or many of these manifestations of self, I ask God's forgiveness. I see what corrective measures can be made and turn my thoughts to what he would have me be. Don't, but, but I'm a guy that will go into fetal position and suck my thumb for a week. And that is, that is the self-obsession. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous and, and, and you suggested to me, and our literature suggested to me, that, I, that, that if I'm alcoholic, I may be suffering from an illness which only a spiritual experience can conquer. And I'm not interested in a spiritual experience. I'm afraid of it. I went through my book my first year sober. I got hung up on language. See, that's why I try so hard not to get hung up on language today, mine or yours. 
because I was not willing to have a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. I wouldn't say the word God. I wouldn't hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer. I'd step back from the circle. Gatsby said, Steve, why are you doing that? I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite, you know. And and I was earnest as I could be. I said, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I'm not just going to hold hands and and sing Kumbaya with the rest of the campers just because that's what you guys are doing. And this guy had heard that confessional four-step that included infidelity and and included stealing time and money, included being drunk at the hospital uh, when my daughter was born, included a host of things. And he said, but hypocrisy, that's where you draw the line, huh? He said, that, that's impressive. Uh, uh. He said, I got good news and bad news for you. And, uh, and I said, I, okay, I'll play. But I knew I felt I was being condescended to. And, and uh, I said, you know, what's the bad news? He said, the bad news is hypocrisy is way down your list of problems. And you might ought to address them in the order in which they will kill your ass. And I said, what's the good news? And he said, the good news is there's room for another hypocrite in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, I'm as pleased about that today as I was then, by the way. Uh, but he freed me up to move a little bit. I went through my book and I blacked out everywhere it said spiritual awakening or, or spiritual uh, uh, experience. Blacked it out with my sponsor's permission. My book looked like a CIA redacted document. <laughs> But I wrote above the blacked out part, personality change, profound alteration of reaction to life, because I was more comfortable with that language that was in Appendix 2. And Frank said, said, hell, Steve, I don't care, you know, I don't care what you call it. I want you to have it. This spiritual experience, put, I don't care, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. He says, take the actions. I'm, I'm unconcerned about the label, and I'm hung up on the label I'm putting on it. I don't want to say the word God because I don't think I, I don't think that I mean what you mean when you say God. And if I say God, you're going to think I mean what you mean when you say God. And I don't want you to think that. <laughs> I told people what I didn't believe about God for, you know, for a few months in AA. Same guy pulled me aside. Steve, good news. He was just full of good news. And uh, 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 good news, we don't care what you don't believe. See, I was spending all my time saying what I didn't believe. He said, decide what you do believe and act like a guy would act if he believed. He says, you're free to not believe anything you don't want to believe in AA. But decide what you do believe. And that was my problem when I realized I had no anchorage to any set of permanent values. So I didn't know how to grab hold of this guy. So finally... I found a conception that works for me. And it was in We Agnostics, and, and, and it says that uh, uh, no one can fully define or comprehend that power which is God. That's comforting to me. Because what we do is spend a lot of time appropriately doing just what our books suggest we do, sharing with each other how we establish a relationship with God. We spend a lot of time talking about a spiritual experience that defies description. Our book says it's indescribably wonderful. But we are, we're encouraged to do our best to articulate my experience of that. And you do the same thing, and so I'm now no longer upset if they sound different. And then our book says that deep within every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. 
In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. Bob touched on it today. It is, it is, it, I don't know, it's my experience that it feels like to me that God is deep within. And it feels like to me that these steps are relieving me of the bondage of self, which is blocking me off from that, from that authentic me, from that divine spark within that allows me to be who I am. I think Katie said something about us not being able to have a true partnership with another human being. How can I have a true partnership if I'm not bringing an authentic person to the relationship? If I can't bring who I really am to it, then there's no way we can have a real relationship. And I'm trying to be freer of those things that are blocking me off from being who I really am. And that's a, well, I got a check for ticks on that every day. That, that stuff reapply, reattaches itself to me all the time. But, but every now and then, I, the, the bonds aren't gone, but they're loosened. They're loosened. Because it says, look out, because this new relationship that I'm trying to build and enlarge upon can be obstructed, obscured by pomp, by worship of other things, and by calamity. And pomp is a reemergence of self and pride and ego. And worship of other things is anything that I that I set above that my relationship with that power when it when it's you know money property prestige the job what you think of me oh my God what you think of me and really what I think you think of me and I'm almost always wrong about what I think you think of me but tell me later what you think of me <laughs> if you only if you think highly of me and then. Calamity. That can be real. It can be death of a loved one. It could be financial ruin. We went bankrupt at 10 years sober. Uh, took our cars, our home. I called Frank. I said, Frank, they just, they just took our cars. He went, no, Steve, they took their cars. Uh, But calamity can be when I get home, and, and I recorded some programs on a DFR, uh, on DVR when I left, and if they didn't record properly, that can be a calamity. <laughs> now, it seems trivial to you, but a calamity is anything I've decided can't be happening to me. And, and in AA, more and, I'm, I am more and more open to more and more things happening to me and that not interfering with my relationship with this higher power. And then it says, as I draw near to him, he will disclose himself to me. And the way I draw near to him is to draw near to you. Since God is deep within every man, woman, and child, that's just the choice I've made. That's the point of view that I have taken. That becomes my connection point rather than a separation point. That is now my connection. And then there's a little poem that my... Nashville used to recite, and, and uh, when he became ill, this little poem had described my experience in AA more clearly than I've done for the last hour. And uh, uh, I asked Mo if he would mind if, uh, if when he was gone, if I closed my talks uh, with the verse to that poem. And, and he, said, he said, if you think it'll help another drum. And that's what Mo was all about. He's the best AA member. He loved AA as much as anybody I'd ever met. And more importantly, this may seem like a distinction without a difference, but I don't think it is. He loved alcoholics more than anybody I'd ever met. And a guy, I can show up at AA, and about an hour and a half later, I love AA, but I'm not too crazy about alcoholics, you know. Particularly the ones, that, ooh, don't, don't let the drinking guy come to my meeting. He's really, you know, we, well, I got some 
high-minded stuff I need to talk about, and he's over there throwing up or, uh, or interrupting <laughs> us or something. But the, the, the poem that, that Mo always recited was, I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul, my soul eluded me. I sought my fellow man and found all three. See, in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's been my experience. I was here chasing something I couldn't find. There was a God I can't get my arms around. There's a power I can't describe or comprehend. But, but when you guys open yourselves up to me and when you allow me this opportunity to open myself up to you, this power shows up in a way that I can't explain and acts in my life in a way that, I, that, that is indescribably wonderful. So thank you so much for giving me your time and attention. Serenity prayer now. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Some general announcements. Topic for this weekend. This is what this weekend is all about. I hope everybody has felt the, uh, the potency in the room from all of our wonderful speakers and also all of you, as we said from the beginning with the uh, manuscript, you, us, to get out there on the firing line and take this back with us out there to those who need it. And that's what Charlie did for me a few years ago because I had the distinct pleasure, uh, and Chris put the timetable together, it was 2009, in a little place called Oak Ridge, New Jersey. And it was their first, Kate, Katie and, and uh, Charlie's first together um, workshop. And it was mostly women. Uh, but Chris told me to show up. We had to hear these, these two. And so in the minority is one of the guys I got to hang out with Charlie. And like a lot of the other folks that have been up here at the podium, uh, affected my life by helping to show me how to actualize this power through his experience. And I want to tell you this, that when a guy opens his heart up alongside of his wife, kind of like the frog in the biology class pinned down to the, you know, and there for us all to dissect, and we get to look at that, and he, he showed me what being a sober man can really be like. And so I did the only thing I knew how to do, and that was to take the action that Charlie had already taken and to follow him. And, uh, you know, his, you'll hear about it, his sponsorship lineage and all. And I, I heard and I saw him in action, and I had the pleasure to hang out with them a little bit over, over the years, so much so that I've realized that the folks in Texas aren't so crazy because I, too, now have a clay shooting in my backyard. Yeah. So I give you all Charlie P. Close the book. Whoever's after me. Give me just a second. You guys don't go right to work when you get there, do you? 
I'm Charlie Parker. I'm a very grateful recovered alcoholic. Woo! What a good time we are having here this weekend. Everybody having fun? My home group is the primary purpose group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Austin, Texas. I think it's the greatest meeting in the world. If you're in Austin on a Tuesday night, we'd love to show you the same kind of hospitality you've been showing us here. It's a, it's a big book study group. Uh, we study the big book line by line, week after week, and uh, it's a lot more fun than it sounds like. Um, there's a... <laughs> There was a time in my sobriety, many times in my sobriety, where I would have been like, oh, boy, uh, the big book. You know, what, and what about next week? Oh, more big book. Oh, <laughs> good. You know, I, and, but uh, um, we, we, uh, we meet on Tuesday nights, and we've been running about 250 people on a Tuesday night studying the big book. And it just it tells me... I think Alcoholics Anonymous is making a big comeback in AA, and, uh, and I, I think, uh, I think uh, you know, real alcoholics are hungry for real solution, and we find it in this book. I, uh, I'm, I'm a bit of a big book uh, thumper. I'm an unapologetic big book guy. I, uh, I love what my buddy Bill C. out in California says. He says, when did working the steps and out of the big book become right wing? You know, I... You know, but but uh, we're gonna we're gonna. I can't wait to hear what I'm gonna talk about. I uh, we'll get around to it. But oh my God, you know, I mean, I've been places where they set the bar high before. But come on, you know, I mean, I'm sitting there. Even my my wife, you got you got to hear my diminutive bride do four and five this morning. My little shrinking violet, uh, Katie is. Katie's my best friend in AA. She's my wife. She's my partner, and uh, and she's the the best AA I've ever known. She uh, um, she I hope to talk. Katie, my talk and Katie's talk have a lot in common. We both talk a lot about Katie. You know. Uh, <laughs> but we were sitting here and. I'm, you know, I'm watching, and you know, and I'm, I'm watching Peter last night. I mean, just just going through the speakers. You know, uh, we had Carl last night. We love Carl, I, and you know, and Carl's step one is is fantastic. And I listen to Carl, and it's amazing how many of the same things we say. And and I listen to him, and I'm going, did I steal that from him, or did he steal that from me? You know, and and we've kind of figured out that we're just we're on parallel universes. You know, I mean, because it's amazing with the, with the a lot. He does like this, I do like this. You know. But um, a lot of the same stuff and a lot of step one, you know. And, and then uh, we love Mike Lorenz. Uh, you know, he is actually literally one of our best friends and one of my – he's in – as far as pace horses or running buddies in AA, you know, we, I go to Mike with 10 steps probably as much as I go to my own sponsor, you know, uh, and, and I know what I'm going to get there. And, uh, and I, but I don't always anticipate it. Sometimes he hits me with a sucker punch out of nowhere, and we may talk about that a little bit tonight, you know. And, and then Peter, when Peter was up here, I'm going, why am I talking about actualizing the power when we got Peter here? I mean, he was up there, and I was going, why didn't I do step three and we have Peter talk about actualizing the power? Because that was all his talk was about last night. And I love an unapologetic talk that talks about God. You know, we're going to talk about God a little bit tonight. You know, and uh, um, I'll get back to that. I should warn you, 
I got some pretty serious ADD working up here. And I, 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 I go off on bunny trails. I have to bring some little bullet points with me or I'm liable to talk about first grade for 45 minutes, you know. I was giving a talk one time, and I called this buddy of mine, and I said, he was giving a talk at the same time in Dallas, and I was talking to Austin. He, he calls me the next morning. He goes, how did it go? I said, oh, God almighty, Tom. I said, you know, 40 minutes into my talk, I was, uh, I was still drinking. And he goes, oh, that's okay. He goes, two-thirds of the way through my talk, I was 11. You know, I mean, <laughs> so, so I said, sometimes I have to focus a little bit. But there will be times when I'll say we're going to get back to that later. And what that means is this is not the appropriate time to introduce that piece of information into the talk. But when I say we're going to get back to it, we're probably not coming back. You know, I mean, I always, I always get real excited when I actually circle back around to one. You know, I was like, hey, Katie, did you see that? I just pulled one back up. But, but then, you know, and then... Uh, and then, uh, Kate, of course, Katie doing four and five, and I thought Bob just nailed six and seven. That was spectacular. I've been, I've been admiring Bob for 25 years. We did work together 25 years ago when I was uh, going through my first divorce. Um, not my last divorce, but my first one. And, and, uh, and Bob was a lot of help to me, and I'll never forget that. He was about 20, he must have been in his 20s, I would have been about four and a half years sober, and it was a, it was it was a significant event to me, you know, and, and that a guy like that was taking my calls. And then, of course, Gary Brown is at the at the head of my lineage, and and uh, um, we'll talk about that some too. But we had the pleasure of having Gary and Julie down to the house here a few weeks ago, and it's just it's just a real treat. But I mean, and and then Steve. I was, I was rooting for Steve. I love Steve. I admire Steve. I, you know, I, I'll never forget it. Though the first time I met him, and we got a common friend in Danny. You know, we uh, we both love Danny. I mean, this guy is beautiful. And for some reason, Steve's at Brownwood one time, this Lakeside conference, and I, I'm finally going to get to meet Steve Lee. And I walk up to him, and I and I swear to God, it was like I went, Hey, <laughs> uh, <laughs> how you doing? You know, and and I walk away, and I go, What the hell was that? You know, I just I just cratered in front of Steve, you know, and, but he makes me a little nervous, you know, and, and, and a lot of it, a lot of it is the clarity and the definition, and he just reminds me of a man that I like to be like, you know, in AA, and, and I'm sitting there, and, uh, and he's talking, and he's just crushing all the topics that I'm going to talk about, and, you know, and, and, and I leaned over to Katie, and now Katie's my biggest supporter, and I lean over to her, and I go, honey, i got to follow this, and she goes, yeah, but there's a long break. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, thank God for my support group. But, but you know, I, wa I want to take a second to thank anybody who had anything to do with this thing coming together. I have been involved in things like this. And if you've been involved in stuff like this, you know there's a lot of people that did a lot of hard work to get this thing to come together. And uh, and if it's like the AA where I come from, there's also a lot of people that didn't do a darn thing, but, but they have an opinion about how it could have been done just a little bit better, you know. And and uh, and, and I, I know that's the fellowship I crave. That's my people, you know. And uh, but I, w I really want to thank you know Mark and Dawn and everybody that had it because you know it just blows my. I've got some history in New York City. One of my marriages was centered around New York City, and and uh, and 
And Katie loves to hear about it, you know. I, uh, oh, my God, we used to go to movies, you know, and I'd be like, that's Columbus Circle right there, honey, you know. And that's, you know, and she's like, look in here. You see anybody who gives a flip, you know. But, but, uh, uh, <laughs> but I commuted in a marriage from Austin to New York City for 12 years, and 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 I hope to talk about some of that, you know, tonight, because we we had, a, you know, it was a, it was a very interesting situation. But the idea that that New York City doesn't have a big conference just blows my mind, you know. I mean, it seems like there'd be a squillion people at a thing like this. I don't, I, you know, and I'm hoping that it builds support, and once word gets out about what a good time we're having. That, uh, that, you know, it'll be, they'll have to take this wall down next time we're in here, you know? And I've seen that happen in other conferences. But oh my God, it's so expensive to do something in New York City. I mean, did you know, I mean, I've spent a few dollars in my life, but did you know the coffee is $94 a gallon? $94 a gallon. I'm like adding water to mine, you know. I feel like I'm doing 12-step work by watering down my coffee, you know. And, uh, and, uh, and you know, and so anyway, it, it was a big risk to put this on, and, and I, for one, am grateful, you know. And, and, you know, well, I didn't pick this topic. I am filling in for my buddy Bob, who, who is not, who's not here this week. And he had picked this topic, actualizing the power. Doesn't that sound deep and complicated? You know, I was like, and I told, I told Mark, I said, I'll take the time slot. I'll keep the topic, you know, I'll bounce around it, you know, and then everybody has just crushed the topic. You know, I went, I went to St- Steve and I go, you're killing me. You know, you're just, I mean, <laughs> all the stuff you said, you just hit my topic better than I was hoping, but I'm going to try to take the topic seriously. You know, um, and Mark has been killing me all weekend. He's like, it's attenuating the power, Charlie. It's, it's, in, it's actualizing, it's insinuating the power. It's, uh, <laughs> Is, you know, formulating the power, and I'm you know, by, by, by the time, and, but I, uh, at 7.19, I was in my room in my underwear and needed a shower, so I'm, I'm still, I hope to show up here any minute, but I, uh, uh, that was, that was record time for a boy my size getting dressed, I gotta tell you, so, so anyway, I hope you see the coat and tie, I come from a lineage of people where, in, in my sponsorship lineage, if you get behind the podium, you, you show respect for this fellowship that saved my life, and I wear a coat and tie when I get behind the podium, my sponsor told me it was okay if I didn't want to wear a coat and tie, he said, you still have to do it, but, but, <laughs> if you want to do it under protest, that'll be just fine, you know, I mean, you know, and, and, you know, and it, most of my experience in a coat and tie before I got to you people, I had a very simple job. My job was to stand there, and when they nudged me, I'd say, not guilty, Your Honor. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one with that experience, but I, uh, but, uh, I'm going to talk out of my own experience. You know, one of the things you've heard everybody talk about is out of their own experience. And, and, you know, how do you actualize this power? Well, you know, Steve's story is going to be a little different from Mike's and Carl's and Ralph's. And, and, and the guys coming, you know, Ralph and, and Clancy. Now, Clancy is showing a lot of potential in this program. And I, and I think, I think, I think we should stand behind him. You know, uh, and then, and then Chris tomorrow morning, I just love. I mean, Chris is the one that got us to do our first workshop. He told Katie, I goes, I think you guys should do a workshop. And I'll never forget it. 
you know, he says, you should do a workshop. And I'm like, oh, my God, what are we going to talk about Friday night, all day Saturday, and Sunday morning? I'm still a little nervous about doing a one-hour talk. And he says, and, and so uh, what are you going to talk about? Well, he sends down a little perspective schedule. He goes, I was thinking you could do step one from here to here, and she could do and then And I look at the schedule, I swear to God, my first thought was, I'm going to need more time. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> so we've been fighting over the microphone ever since, you know. But that was a lot of fun, and we love doing workshops, we love doing conferences. But everybody talks about, in AA, we talk about coming out of our own experience. And I have a little joke I like to tell just to kind of get warmed up a little bit. It's, and and uh, it's, uh, it's, 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 some of you may have heard this joke before. Some of you might have heard me tell this joke before. But it's a good joke, and I like the way I tell it. So, uh, um, And it's about this guy that's driving along one day. And he, we're talking about coming out of our own experience. This guy's talking along. He's driving along one day, and he sees a sign on the post at this farmhouse, and it says, Talking Dog for Sale. He can't stand it. He goes up to the farmhouse and he, and he says, so you got a talking dog for sale? And the guy says, yeah, he's around back. And he wanders around back and there's this red hound dog laying there and he walks up to the dog and he goes, so you can talk? And the dog says, well, I certainly can. He goes, good grief, how did that happen? And he said, well, when I was young, I started picking up some language skills. And as I got older, I developed some of the nuances of the language, began to develop slang and colloquialisms. And it's really made for an amazing life for me. He said, I've traveled all over the world. I've eaten in some of the finest restaurants. I've stayed in five-star hotels all over the world. I've eaten the cooking of some of the best chefs in the world. And he said, but really, more, you know, more interesting than that, he said, some of my pups have developed foreign language skills and have become international diplomats. He says, I... I have, he says, I had a 19-year career with the Drug Enforcement Administration, and I was able to infiltrate some situations that no human agent would have ever gotten into. But, you know, but my pups are really what I like to talk about. I have two pups that are in the United Nations right now. And uh, the guy goes, good grief. He said, it's really been fascinating talking to you. And he goes back out front where that farmer is, and he goes, how much do you want for a dog like that? And the guy goes, I don't know, 40 bucks? And he goes, why on earth would you sell a fantastic dog like that for $40? And the guy thinks for a second, he goes, none of that crap he told you is true. You know? <laughs> it's kind of like that around here. It doesn't matter how good the story is if it's not my experience, you know? So, so we're going to talk about actuating the power, you know? Um, I looked up actuating in the dictionary when I was still pretty serious about doing this. And uh, it says actuating, to put into motion, to start a process, to turn on, right? To turn on what? To start what? To put what into motion? The power. When we show up here, we don't have any power. The book clearly says, lack of power was my dilemma. And then what we do, though, is in step, and then why are we trying to talk about it? Because in step one, we experience the need, we, we establish the need for the power. When we get a guy in here and we go over step one, and, and then, um, and I'm going to talk about that a little bit. I love talking about step one. Our book spends the doctor's opinion in the first 43 pages of the book talking about step one. It's that important. If you don't establish that I got no shot on my own power, I don't know why I'd be interested in this other power. As long as I think my power's got a shot, how am I looking on that screen? <laughs> they say those screens add about 60 pounds, you know, so... Uh, um, but 
We introduce the power in step two, and then we get to the root of the problem in step three. And in steps four through nine, we remove what's blocking me from the power. And in step ten, like Steve was talking about, I watch for reemergence of the things that block me from the power. And then in eleven, we try to improve our conscious contact with the power. And and we go on and on. I'm going to read a couple of things out of the big book. This is just a large print copy of the big book. It's just it's not outside literature. My sponsor owns a book bindery, and he took my big book and and uh, leather bound it for me. It's one of my most prized possessions. It doesn't wait long to make promises to a guy like me. Some people heard me say I'm a recovered alcoholic. I, there was a time in my I've been on both sides of a lot of the things we're going to talk about tonight. And there was a time when I would have thought, man, don't you better not say that, dude. You'll be that's like walking under a ladder. You know, I mean, you'll be drunk by sundown if you say you're recovered. What are we talking about having recovered from? It says the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. And in the forward of the first edition. It says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. I love that. But, you know, back on, later on page 19, one of the things I'm going to get around to is it, this blew my mind when I'd been working a program based on not drinking for a long time. And you've heard some people talk about that tonight. When you're thinking that the finish line in Alcoholics Anonymous is to not drink... This line knocked me off my chair. It says, we feel that the elimination of our drinking is but a beginning. What? A much more important demonstration of our principles lies before us in our respective homes, occupations, and affairs. The places where I spend the most time, my home, my job, and out in the world. You know, is, is where it says a more important demonstration of our principles. That's what we're going to talk about when we talk about actualizing the power. I love on page 20 where it says, doubtless you are curious. Where did it go? Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of expert opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a seemingly, from a hopeless condition of mind and body. If you're an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, what do I have to do? It is the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We shall tell you what we have done. And in the book on 25, it says, there is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for a successful consummation. But we saw that it really worked in others. And we'd come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of our life. When, therefore, based on those two things that I've seen, I've seen it work for others and I've discovered how futile my life is, the way I'm living it. When I'm convinced of those things, when I'm approached by people in whom the problem had been solved, there's nothing left for me to do but pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of, uh, of which we had not even dreamed. The great, see if they're, they're not really going easy on God on this page, you know. It says, the great fact is just this and nothing less, that we, the people who are on the other side of this deal, have, have experienced have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced 
to accomplish those things for us which we could not do by ourselves. And then it goes into talking about that turning point, which several people have mentioned tonight. You know, we read how it works in every meeting. And they say, we stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandoning. Well, the we they're talking about is the founders of our program. And, I, and for a long time, I didn't ever ask myself what that turning point was. But it's there on page 25 where it says, if you were seriously hopeless, as, as alcoholic as we were, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out of my consciousness, consciousness my intolerable situation, the best I can, and the other to accept spiritual help. My sponsorship lineage believes in turning these statements into questions out of the big book. And, I, and when I read stuff like that, I ask myself, is that my situation? Am I convinced of that? Is that what I believe based on my experience? Or do I think there's a door number three for me? I mean, we know that God irritates some people. About half of our fellowship has some problems with the idea of talking about God. And you notice that the book, we don't open the book on page one and go, God gets you sober, God keeps you sober, rock on. You know, if for a guy like me, you gotta pound me into a hopeless spot where I got, I got no shot. If I got it the way you're describing it, I got no shot without this power. You know? Do I believe that? Because there's no good news at the end of step one. Right? Imagine we bring Carl in here. He's brand new. He just got out of the Navy. And, uh, and we say, I love your drinking on Annabeer's story. That's, uh, I would have drank with this guy in a minute. That's the highest compliment I can pay anybody in AA is when I go, oh, I would have drank with him. You know, I mean, there's some guys where I go, I wouldn't have drank with him if he had a keg in his living room. You know, but, uh, but uh, of course, I judged no man. But, uh, but you know... Um, but we get Carl in here and we go, okay, Carl, here's the deal. you got a body that doesn't respond regular to drinking. When you start drinking, it's going to get away from you, and, and, and you'll never be able to control it with any success. You know, it's a big problem. Not your biggest problem, though. You've also got a mind that gets so uncomfortable when you're sober that it's going to lead you back to drinking every time, every time, every time. Really sorry. Try to have a nice day. You know? <laughs> but... But that's where I find myself at, at the end of at the end of step one, you know. And I'm rolling through my notes pretty good here, you know. But it says, uh, by every form of experimentation and self-deception, I will try to prove myself an exception to the rule. Therefore, non-alcoholic. I'll even try not working the steps. I think the bulk of people that come into AA these days go to the meetings and put the plug in the jug. I hate to say it, but I really think people that have worked all 12 steps out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous are in the minority in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous these days. It's been my experience. I don't like reporting it. But I think most of us, you know, and I've been on a lot of sides of a lot of stuff. I think most of us, when we decide we got a drinking problem, we got, for most people, going back to AA means going to those meetings and not drinking. And if you got alcoholism the way I got it, those meetings will keep me sober. Right up till I get drunk, you know, uh, you know, because there's going to come a time when I can't recall the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago, and I can't stop on self-knowledge. I love Fred. We study the big book a little bit. There are stories in there that just, just, you know, I used to read some of this stuff and get nothing out of it. I have fallen in love with Fred, you know. I mean, this guy, you know, you know, Fred's the one where it talks about that he was the accountant and he had the family. And I, I like to say I was a lot like Fred, except for the 
family and the career and the likable personality and, and you know and every, but other than that I was a lot like Fred and and uh, but you know Fred he he uh, he comes in he says they laid out the spiritual answer in the program of action and and he he says I. I agree with what you say, and I can identify with a lot of it. And thanks for the information. I'll take it from here. And he goes out in the world. And next thing you know, he says, we heard no more of Fred for a while. <laughs> I'd like to hear more about that period. But, uh, but then he's back in the hospital, and they come back to see him, and it says they laid on me heaps of evidence that, that an alcoholic personality like mine you know, was, was going to drink again. And, and it says, and, and it says they, they cited stories out of their own existence. Why would they do that? It says this process snuffed out the last flicker of conviction that I could do the job myself. That's why we tell these guys our stories. That's why we go into, you know, and identify with, you know. And then, but when I fell in love with Fred, was then it, he says the program of action, though entirely reasonable, seemed a little bit drastic. <laughs> you know, that's my man right there. You know, it's like. Yeah, I'll admit I'm dying and I got no shot and you know and, and you know and, and I understand it's working for you guys, but really? Eight? Four? That seems a little drastic, you know. Can't we just can't we just go to the meetings, you know, and put the plug in the jug and that sort of thing? So, you know when we talk about the spiritual answer to our program, there's a thing in there where it talks about this doctor. It was, it was Percy Pollock was the doctor's name at Bellevue Hospital. And, I, you know, when you read the book real fast, you know, a lot of this stuff will just go right over my head. But when I really am looking at this line by line and looking at what this guy says, he says he was a staff member at a, at a, a well-known hospital. And he says that the, he believes that everybody was hopeless apart from divine help. And he says, there's the part I love. He says, though not a religious person, I have profound respect for the spiritual approach in such cases as yours. For most cases, there is no other solution. So here's this doctor saying, look, I, I don't really believe in God, you know, but you might want to look at it, you know. <laughs> Just saying, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's like, because we got nothing else for you, you know. I mean, there's only two powers that have ever worked in my life. It's a whole lot of vodka. Or a whole lot of God. God dang it. I should warn you, I'm a shotgun shooter. I'm a big guy. I ride Harleys. I do all this stuff. I'm liable to cry like a little girl in a pink dress up here in a minute, in a minute you know. And, and I swear to God, even during Steve's talk, I was going, he even cries more manly than I do, you know. I mean, for God's sakes. So he can cry and keep talking, you know. And But, you know, Peter knows what I'm talking about. There's a guy I'm going to talk to him about tonight named Mark H. And he came into my life, and every once in a while, I think I'm going to be able to get out one of his trademark lines. And I get about halfway through it, and uh, it just goes up in me. So uh, forgive me. But the thing, we, the reason we talk so much about God, you know, is in this power is, you know, it says you may, like Peter said last time, you, if, if, if those two things on page 44 that I can't control when I start drinking and I can't stay stopped when I really want to stop, it says, if that be the case, you may be suffering from an illness which only 
a spiritual experience will conquer. In my book, I've underlined it twice, and it says only with a question mark. I hear people talking about maybe we should reduce the talk of God in Alcoholics Anonymous. That we could get more, we would attract more members if we didn't lay on the God piece so much. It's the only product we have to offer. We got identification and power. That's the only two things we have. We can identify with the guy. You know, I was going to say, if you want to attract more members, I'll tell you the piece that's running new guys off is the not drinking part. You know? <laughs> Maybe we should lighten up on that one a little bit. You know I mean? For God's sake. I mean, I'm just like... You know, I mean, we know that not everybody's just digging the idea of, a, of God in this field, but it's the only, th- I mean, we, you know, do I believe that my two choices are live life on a spiritual basis or die an alcoholic death? Do I think I got some kind of a door number three? Because that's the way I operate. When I get out of a treatment center, I don't act like a guy that thinks he's powerless over alcohol. I act like somebody who's almost powerless over alcohol. And when I'm almost powerless, I don't have to do all the stuff you're talking about, right? I don't have to. I don't have to go to any lengths. I don't have to do this inventory. And Mark, Mark used to tie everything to step one. You know, when you get around to, do you want to write inventory, Charlie? And you're like, no, not not particularly. No, I'm, you know. And he goes, well, what if your choices are write inventory or drink vodka? Like, well, good grief. I mean, compared to what happens to me when I drink vodka, right in the inventory is a walk in the park. That's what we, that's what drives me through a lot of this stuff. I want to talk a little bit about my story in AA because I've had two very distinct experiences in AA. Katie and I were, came in at essentially the same time. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> she has a, uh, and, uh, and she's watched a lot of this story take place. She's been she's been around for all my marriages, and and uh, and and you know. But we were literally like brother and sister for 20 years. We were in the same home group. We were what we call littermates. We came in at the same time, and and, and but. I came to the meetings. I hit bottom with drinking. I'm a bad drunk. I started. I didn't start drinking until I was 16, and I probably didn't need you people until I was like 17. You know, I mean, so, so I had a pretty good year of controlled drinking. You know, uh, but I'm telling you, it got it got ugly early, and, and I mean, by 17, I had a I had a serious problem, and, and I was. Uh, I'm, I'm a big believer in singleness of purpose. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous is about alcoholics working with alcoholics. So we don't try to be all things to all people. And, when I, and I have deep respect for this program. But my alcoholism led me to do things other than drink alcohol. I did things to treat my spiritual malady uh, that uh, outside of alcohol. But I don't talk about it from the podium of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I, I just, just say I have deep experience with with a lot of things that and, you know. But it had really gotten away from me fast. And I came to the meetings, I came to AA, and I just, you know, uh, uh, Bob talked about it. I fell in love with AA when I came in. I loved it from the very beginning. I loved the fellowship. But I'm sitting in those meetings with the chatter of a thousand monkeys inside my head. You know, you, you remember, I mean, just the mind of a newcomer is, uh, is a fascinating thing. You know, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, you know, I just, and, and, and I came in. And I, I got a sponsor, but, you know, I was really basic. 
We went through the steps. I had a sponsor that had five years. I will love this man till the day he dies. I don't ever want to stand up here and act like Jim did anything wrong and sponsor me. I am a firm believer that if a sponsor and a sponsee are both giving it their best shot, God takes up a lot of slack in that equation. You know, and, 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 and now he wasn't a technician as much as, you know, but... But he showed me a lot of things. He showed me character and dignity and respect and, and how to do what you said you were going to do. And there were times where he'd made me do things just because I said I was going to do it. Completely foreign concept for me, you know. I would make, I'm quick to commit and quick to bail. And he would say, if you told somebody you're going to be there, then you're going to go, you know. But I got a better offer. You know, it's like, it doesn't matter. You told him you're going to go. And you're like, what? You know, and he taught me, you know, we're going to these conferences, and he taught me about all kinds of stuff. I mean, he taught me about, you know, when you go to the conferences, you get in the line and you thank the speaker. And, and you know, it's funny. We're going to talk about selfishness and self-centeredness a lot. That's my favorite thing. And I, it, just, it killed me that Steve was pounding it so much because that was going to be my whole trick tonight. But uh, I talk a lot about selfishness and self-centeredness out in the world. And I'm giving a talk out in Oxnard, California one time. I'm getting way ahead of myself, but I'll never get back to it, so I'm just going to tell it right now. There's a long line of people in the thank the speaker line. I love the Louis Clancy because it's the thank the speaker line. It's not the do your fifth step with the speaker line. It's not the <laughs> tell them, you know, it's thank the speaker. You know, it's also not the time when you need to come up and tell me what you didn't agree with. You know, oh, my God, that, that guy goes home with me. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, I had a guy come up and one and he goes, loved your talk. I agreed with almost everything you said. And in a burst of spirituality, I was able to say, Thank you. And not have to go, what was it you didn't, you know, what, what did you not agree with? You know, I, you know but, but I'm in, I'm in Oxford, California, and there's this big long line of people, and they're pretty good about getting in line and thanking the speaker. And, uh, and we're, we're doing this whole line, and I've just done a big chunk of my talk on selfishness and self-centeredness. And I look over, and there's a guy standing around here, and he goes, hey, man, uh, I don't like standing in lines. I just, I just wanted to say thanks, you know, for coming. And I go, <laughs> Did you happen to hear the piece about selfishness and self-centeredness? You know, we were talking about, do you really think all these people in line are the people that just dig standing in lines? You know, I mean, they just, you know, I have sponsors that go, I'm not going, you know, I I don't dig funerals. I don't, I don't like going to funerals. I go, really? Really? Are you that self-centered? I mean, you really think all those people that are getting dressed up and going to that funeral are people that just can't wait for their next funeral? You know, it's like, oh, I love a funeral. You know, it's like, could you be a little more self-centered? You know, I mean, but anyway, I mean, I wasn't hearing all this for a long time. And, and I, I love the fellowship. And I went through the steps. And, 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 but I still had, I didn't have the selfishness and self-centeredness piece. I went, and what we did was we went through the steps. I did an inventory. Like Bob said, my first inventory was pretty much a confession, right? You know, I talked about the major things that I had done that bothered me. I talked about things that were in, in all the dark stuff in my past, and I felt a lot better as we talked about it. And at the end, we had no fourth column. And I'm, I don't like to get hung up on the fourth column, but there's a major piece of work on page 67 that was missing in my first inventory. Whether you call it third column, fourth column, fifth column, tenth column, expanded third column, I missed this big piece of work, and we'll talk a little bit about that maybe. <laughs> but, but then six and seven... You just kind of phone those in, you know. I mean, I, I, you know, I'd done my little confession thing, and I said, "Go home and think about what you did." And six and seven felt like I was saying, 
God make me a better dude, you know. And and uh, and and then I went out to make amends. Now we did do a pretty good job of making quite a few amends, you know, and some pretty serious ones. Most of the ones that bothered me, and, and most of the ones, you know, when we talk about that tornado roaring its way through people's lives, I kind of went to the people that were first touched by that tornado, you know, my family and my mom and my dad and that sort of thing. Well, and then uh, tenth step. Every once in a while, if I really did something awful, I would apologize for it. And then 11th step, I kind of kept a uh, daily reader on the back of the toilet, and about one day out of ten, I would read it, and it's, okay, God, see you tomorrow. And, and off we go. And, and, you know, but I'm rolling along, and I'm very much about staying sober. And you know this guy, when the whole deal is about staying sober, I'm that guy in the meetings, you know, that's going, well, screamed at my wife this morning, and... Burned out of the driveway, slapped one of the kids, got in the car and burned out of the driveway. Got to work an hour late, looked at two hours of Internet porn when I was at work and gambled a little bit online. And then I left work an hour and a half early and got a gallon of Bluebell ice cream and ate it in the car. But I didn't drink today, and by God, that makes me a winner, you know. And you're like, no, uh, that kind of makes you a nimrod, pal, you know. Uh, you know, but, But... But that's kind of the AA program I was working in. I mean, I was barely hanging on. And when I, when I went to Bob, I will never forget it because it seemed like I've always been a conference guy. I've always been a, a go to conferences. I like the gathering up. I like the people that are fired up about being an Alcoholics Anonymous because clearly my life was saved and changed by the fellowship and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never had any doubt about that. I was a dying man when I got to you people and I was a burden to anyone that, that happened to be unfortunate enough to know me. I was a big fan of pawn shops. I don't know about any, any other pawn shoppers here tonight. Come on. Okay. All right. I mean, I loved everything about the pawn shops. I could go. I could go. There was a purity about it. You know, you go. You go in the pawn shop, and 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 they never say like, "Good God, man, what are you going to do with this money?" You know, or, uh, or weren't you just here this morning? You know, or you know anything like that. You just give them the shotgun and you leave. And you know, and and. And, you know, us drunks, we make some good plans. We make plans that you could take over to NYU, and they'd look it over, and they'd go, pretty solid plan, you know. I mean, you know, and, and, and my plan was I had 90 days to get everything out of the pawn shops. And, and I, would, I would go get everything out of the pawn shops, and, and except for one time a blackout drinker. And one time I pulled a little scam that was enough to get everything out of the pawn shops. And I, I stopped by to settle my tab at the bar that I drank in, and I came out of a five-day blackout. I blacked out often, but I didn't have many of those. This was five days, don't remember anything. And I come out of the blackout on the side of the bed at my parents' house, and, and I had $8 in this pocket, and I still had all those pawn tickets in this other pocket. And you know those mornings. That's the morning where I'm sitting there on the edge of the bed at my mother's house. I should tell you that I was so poorly treated as a child that I ran away from home at the age of 28. I, uh, I'm serious. Never went back. You know? But I come, out of the, I come out of this blackout on the side of the bed at my mother's house, and I got $8 in this pocket, and I got all those pawn tickets. And I'm just like, oh, no. Oh, no. 
because I shot my wad on this other little scam, and now I got nothing. And my dad was a good man. My dad worked hard for his stuff. Nobody was giving him his stuff, and I'm out there pawning it, and I know that ain't right. I'm not a sociopath. I, somebody else talked about it. I can't do that stuff and not have it bother me. And I'm not going to let my dad's shotgun go for $40. So I would have to go to my father and say, Dad, listen, um, if we act now, I can get you a pretty good deal on all your stuff, you know. But but if we wait till tomorrow, it's strictly retail, you know. And, I mean, and if are there any Alanons in the room tonight? How many Alanons do we have here? Welcome. I'm so glad you're here. I, I love Alanon. I love the program of Alanon. I especially love it for Alanons. I don't want to get off on a big soapbox, but I don't know that the Alanon need a bunch of alcoholics coming in there trying to figure out how to manage their lives better. But I said I wasn't going to get off on that, but uh, I love Al-Anon. For God's sakes, they're the only group of people that loves us. You know, and, and I mean, and for the Alanons in the room, because when I came in in the mid '80s, my sobriety date—I don't know if I told you—is March 22nd of 1985. And uh, when I came in, it was real clever to, to tell jokes about Alanons in, in the rooms, and it never did strike me as funny. I mean, the, the, most of us would be dead if it wasn't for one or more Alanons in our life. And I just—I want to—I want—I I don't ever want to take that for granted. But if you're Alanon, believe me, we know that's not funny. When I talk about if we act now, I remember the desperation of that day. I remember having, you know, to go to him and say that because what would happen was we would get in the car and we would drive around Dallas and it wasn't just going to the pawn shop. Dallas is a big spread out town. Like I live in Austin now, but this was in Dallas. And it's like Los Angeles. It's spread out. You know, we got to go to Garland Road and get your shotgun. We go out to Beltline Road and get the deer rifle. And your metal detectors are in Oak Cliff. And up on East Grand is the coin collection. And the sterling silver is in Garland. And it was all day in the car with me and my dad and all that shame. And when we'd be driving around, I'd be saying, Dad, I swear to God, I will never do this again. And if I was lying to that man, I damn sure didn't know it because it felt like I meant it with every fiber of my being. I will never do this again. What I didn't know riding in the truck with that man was that I didn't have the power to make good on that promise. When I was promising him that I would never do this again, I might as well have promised him that I'm going to flap my arms and fly around this room because I did not have the power to make good on that promise. That's the guy that showed up here for Alcoholics Anonymous. That's how cool I was. That's how slick I was. I was a burden to everyone that was unfortunate enough to care about me or be associated with me. That's how slick I was. Well... So that, I worked that program for a while. I go through the steps, but I'm hitting walls. I, hit, I blew up a marriage at four and a half years, and that's when I got with Bob. Bob was the first one. I went to the Lone Star Roundup. There were 3,000 people there, and I'll never forget it. I can still tell you the temperature of the room, where I was sitting, where Bob was, this ridiculous sport coat he had on. And, uh, and, and uh, I mean, they were wild back then. Those were, those were awesome sport coats. I wish I knew where to get one now, but... Uh, he was the first guy I'd ever heard talk about having significant problems in sobriety. It seemed like up to that point that everybody I heard talking from these podiums was talking about my life was a wreck, and then I came through 
those doors. And it's been nothing but caring and sharing ever since. And I'm sitting there at four and a half years sober, and I don't know what's wrong with me because I ain't doing okay. When I stop drinking, untreated alcoholism will kill me. You know, and I'm, I'm about half a badass. I can hang in there for a long time, but I am miserable. And the booby prize is everybody that's associated with me gets to be miserable too. I'm a little bit restless. I get a little irritable. Huh? I never really thought I was irritable. I had this sponsor call me the other day. This is a great story. This sponsor called me the other day, and he says, I came home today. I was a little irritated with my wife, you know, and I was, I was, well, I was still kind of irritated with this guy from work, you know, and then I got a little irritated with my, with one of the guys at the meeting, and I said, you know, it's funny. I said, uh, I hear you talking a lot about being irritated. He goes, yeah. I go, you probably wouldn't like being described as irritable, though. He goes, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I see, because when I'm irritated, it's y'all. When I'm irritable, it's me. You know? Katie said, if I'm going to be free, the problem's got to be me. Well, I, I get in this marriage up here, and, and things are good. From the outside, everything looked good. I married a, a woman with a seven-figure salary in a penthouse apartment in New York City, and we had a beach house in the Hamptons, and from the outside, everything looked good. It was... The phoniest, most dishonest relationship I've ever been in, but my mother loved it because all the merit badges were there. And I, I got to say, in all fairness, the, the phoniest and most dishonest thing about that marriage was me. She wasn't doing anything different, she, you know. And, and, but I'd just come off of being knocked to the mat back to back, two different marriages. Every time I step in the ring, I get knocked to the mat, and I thought, forget it, I'm going to try it this way, and it didn't work out. And, it was, and Katie's watching this whole time. Katie didn't approve of any of my marriages. I mean, she, didn't, she certainly didn't like the 19-year-old. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, and she's watching this one. But anyway, one night we charter a plane. And we're going to fly from East Hampton out, out on Eastern Long Island. We're going to, we had a beach house out there, and we're going to fly from the Hamptons back into Manhattan. I'll never forget it. In the New York Post, they said Mr. Parker and his wife had chartered a plane to fly from their Hamptons home to go in and have dinner at Cipriani's. Don't you know there were people reading the Post going, I wish he'd have died. You know, I mean, <laughs> really, you chartered a plane to come from your house in the Hamptons to go to Cipriani's for dinner, you poor thing. You know, and, but... Uh, but we're going along, and now I knew couples that flew to the Hamptons every weekend for 20 years. It was the first time I ever charter a plane in my life, and we're going along. Let me tell you. I'm in the co-pilot seat. It was a six-seater Cessna 210. Everybody always asks me. I had retractable landing gear. I'm in the co-pilot seat. I am not a co-pilot. But uh, I'm sitting in the co-pilot seat. And, and the thing you don't want to hear your charter pilot say when you put on the little headphones is for him to be going, Come on! Come on! Come on! Come on! Come on! Come on! You know, and, I'm, and, and then I hear them say, You're cleared to Gabreski Airport. And I look, and there's a runway right out there at 10 o'clock, and we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. And he says, You don't understand. I've lost engine power. I can't make land. I'm going to have to ditch. We're out over the Peconic Bay. And, and uh, I'm looking at him like, what? <laughs> you know, and, and he says, he says, brace for impact. <laughs> Anybody know how to do that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so, 
whoosh, we hit the water, and it's like splashed down at Six Flags times a thousand. I mean, there's spray and water and glass and, and, uh, and then absolute silence. And all of a sudden, I'm like, holy mackerel, I think we're okay. And right about that time, I felt something on my knee. This wasn't much of an airplane. Really crappy boat. You know, I mean, about the time I realized I think we're okay, that water goes whoop, and uh, I go up to get air, and there's nothing but water on the roof of the plane. And that's what I remember thinking. So that's it. I die in this airplane tonight. This is it. This is the day I die. And I go back underwater, and the door comes open, and I get out, and we wind up being on Anderson Cooper, and, and uh, you know, all the hum- there were five adults and one dog, and the only non-survivor was the dog. And... Uh, it was, it, but we didn't survive by much. We came much closer to drowning than dying from the plane crash. The reason I'm t- it's funny because Katie and I just did a workshop in Hampton Bays the other day, and uh, and during the break on Saturday afternoon, I had read the I found the old newspaper story about the plane crash, and we went over to the guy's house, and we got to go in and go out on the patio and see where we crashed, and, and it was really it's kind of it's kind of eerie, you know, looking at it and going, I almost died 600 feet out there in that water, you know, but. The reason I tell that story is because it changed things. I, I came back from that, and uh, in the hour and a half I have left tonight, uh, I just want to tell you, I mean, we, we may have to push Clancy back just a little bit, but that's uh, But, you know, um, after that plane crash, I started looking at things differently. You know, there were things that will make you look at things differently. And I come back from the plane crash, and I remember calling up John Henry, this guy in Austin, old-timer, and I said, John Henry, I said, I am so self-centered that I can't even be in a conversation with anybody. I mean, I have to just force myself when I'm with somebody to go, hey, Carl, how are the kids? You know, and act like I give a flip about the answer because I don't. All I care about is me. When we talk about manifestations of the self, we talk about it a lot. And one of the things we talk about as a manifestation, Steve talked about it beautifully, that all through the rest of the work, well, we talk about manifestations of the self and how it shows up. And one of the things we talk about as a manifestation of self is story stealing. This is a little tool, a little game I'll give you to play in Alcoholics Anonymous. Story stealing is where you come up and you start to tell me a story. But your story reminds me of one of my stories. And my story is much more interesting than your story. So I just come right over the top of your story and I tell my story and then I spin around and walk off. You know? And the other person, we call it story stealing. Rampant in Texas AA. Probably doesn't happen up here, you know, but watch for story stealing, you know, and, uh, you know, because, uh, and then there's other things we, we talk about a lot, but, I start working with guys, and I get with John. You know, this selfishness and self-centeredness thing, turns out it's mentioned in our literature, you know. But I missed it for a long time. I missed it for 17 years. If there's a mistake, I'll tell you what happened in my first attempt through the steps. We went right from A, are you alcoholic and can't manage your own life, B, that probably no human power could have relieved our alcoholism, and C, that God could and would if we were sought. And that's where somewhere along the line we started chanting like a bunch of kids at summer camp. I just want to take a second to say you don't have to do that. You know, The chanting is optional. It comes out of the treatment centers. The chanting at the end of the Lord's Prayer drives me out of my mind. I love the way you guys end the Lord's Prayer. It turns out, amen is a kick-ass way to end a prayer. You know? I mean, 
people have been doing it for a long time. You know, I mean, we're the only group of people that would take the Lord's Prayer and go, you know, I think I can do this a little cooler than Jesus did it. You know, know, put a little flavor on the end of it. And if you pucker it up when I said that word, I understand. You know, I mean, I swear to God, you can get up here and talk about Buddha and Tupac, Oprah, and, and uh, you know, and saging, and American Indian spiritualism, and Hinduism. But you mentioned Jesus, and everybody goes, what? What? Just saying. I'm not even a you know, big deal about it. But anyway, uh, it's, it's funny because Mark used to quote the carpenter a lot. You know, when, when Mark would be talking, Mark quoted a lot of philosophers. He quoted Eckhart Tolle. He quoted Buddha. He quoted the carpenter. And he would say, the carpenter says this. And I went up to him one time. I said, you know, it's funny, Mark. When you say the carpenter, I don't, I don't feel like attacking you. And uh, he goes, well, that's why I say it. Because it doesn't have as strong, it doesn't have those old ideas attached to it that that other word does. I don't know why. I've never talked about that before. But about that time... Please don't hate me for that one. It just came out in my ear. I, you know, I don't know. But about that time, we're trying to work this deal on a new level, and I'm working with the guys, and and, uh, and it feels like I'm a step ahead of these guys sometimes. I'm 17 years sober, and there were times where they, they'd say, you know, will you sponsor me? And I'd go, well, yeah, go home and read uh, the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. And I'd go home and read the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. I mean, there were times where I felt like I was just trying to stay a step ahead of these guys. And I, and I called up, and so, well, about that time, I started doing some work with Myers. Myers is my sponsor now, and, he, and Mark H., Mark Houston, was my deceased sponsor. And he, he came into my life, he came into Katie's in our lives, and he, he blew the doors off our sobriety. We were two people that were absolutely dying in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous of untreated alcoholism. I mean, we were sitting in these rooms. Katie had just lost her husband. And when she said we almost lost her, it was close. It came down to a little act of God that kept her in our fellowship. I was, I had no idea how much trouble I was in because I wasn't having the struggles Katie was having because she was doing stuff that was outside of her value system and it was driving her crazy. Mark used to say most people arrange their behavior around their values. He said, we lower our standards to match our behavior. And what I had done was I had slammed my standards down to the floor. So what I was doing wasn't outside of my value system because I had lowered my value system down to the floor. It probably doesn't happen to anybody else up here in sobriety, but I'm telling you, I'm a guy that had significant problems well into AA, and I can't figure out what's going on. Well, Mark started, we go to a workshop with Mark, and it's so weird, you know, that... We, we went to this workshop 230 miles from Austin, and here's this guy, and I mean, when he talked, it felt like there was a silver cord between us. Everything he was saying was going right to my core. And I'm leaning over, and at one point, I lean over to Katie at one point, and I go, what book is this guy reading from, you know? <laughs> I have never heard half the stuff he is saying. I'll never forget it. I mean, he was coming with stuff and he was talking about the strict spiritual disciplines of 10 and 11 and the disciplines of 10 and 11. And when I'm living within the strict spiritual disciplines of 10, 11, and 12 and practicing the strict spiritual disciplines of 10, 11, and 12, and I'm sitting out there going, la, 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 you know. Because I'm not even in the same area code as the strict spiritual disciplines of 10, 11, and 12. I'll never forget. He called this guy up. He was having a lot of fun with this guy named Sean. I mean, Brian. And he brings Brian up there at one point. He gets Brian up there, and, he, and Katie mentioned this a little bit. He says, uh, hey, Brian, he goes, let me ask you a question. He says, uh, 
do you meditate? We were at step 11 at this point. And he goes, do you meditate? And Brian goes, well, see, it's like this. He says, I'm a truck driver. See, and uh, sometimes I meditate when I'm driving the truck, you know, and that sort of thing. And uh, I'll never forget it. And Mark goes, okay, Brian, listen, two things, very important. First of all, when you're driving the truck, we very much need you to be about driving the truck, you know. We do not need you hurling down the road in a tractor-trailer rig meditating. And he goes, second of all, in the future, when I ask you a yes or no question, I'm going to expect a yes or no response. So I'm going to ask you again if you meditate, and it's very important to me for you to say no. And, and, and Katie and I are sitting out in the audience going, Am I glad he didn't call me up there? You know. Well, right after this, when I was, I went off on a little bunny trail there. When I talk about the biggest mistake that we made in AA is we went right from see that God could and would if He were sought to doing the third step prayer, and I missed this whole body of work. But on pages 60, 61, 62, and 63, it's not very important. It's just the root of my problem. And the basis of my sobriety for the rest of my life. Other than that, just skip it, you know. You know, because it, it says on there the first requirement. I'll never forget reading it. I was reading it one day, and it says, I see on there, it says, right after the C, the next little paragraph down, it says the first requirement. There's a requirement in step three. It says the first requirement is that I be convinced that my life run on self-will can hardly be a success. Not only was I not convinced of that, that sentence had never touched me. The whole selfish and self-centeredness piece was not on my radar. Well, let me tell you, it is an absolute game changer in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, some of the stuff I'm going to talk about might differ from your belief systems. I know for me, if you come at me with stuff that differs from what my sponsor told me or what my current belief systems are, my ego goes into self-defense, and now the ego is fighting for its life. So we work a lot with the set-aside prayer. God, please help me to set aside everything I think I know about uh, myself, the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and even you, God, so that I could have a new experience. Help me to see the truth. Something like that. Because I know for a guy like me, what I think I know stands in the way of the truth. Sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm reading the book and I'm going, oh, yeah, yeah, I know this part. Oh, yeah, this is that, this is that part where it says that, you know, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah Jay Walker. You know, and, and, uh, and, then, and then I'm going, oh, you can't tell me anything about this piece. I've already got it highlighted and underlined in my big book. You know, I do the set-aside prayer and new stuff leaps off the page at me all the time. Well, the book takes a huge turn on page 60 and I missed it for 17 years. It, we call it the second surrender. The first surrender in Alcoholics Anonymous is the surrender to alcohol and other outside issues, and that's pretty easy because it comes on the heels of a fresh ass weapon. You know, there's there's something about a gorilla having his foot on your throat that makes it pretty easy to surrender. But trying to get one of us to quit playing God is a lot harder than getting one of us to quit drinking. Right? Because I was able to put down the drink and, you know, surrender to that. But this surrender to selfishness and self-centeredness took me hitting the wall a few times. It hit me when I was working with Bob. And what happened was I backed away from this thing. I licked my wounds a little bit. I waited the appropriate amount of time between that marriage and the next relationship. Fourteen days. And, uh... <laughs> And I run back into it again with self-will. And I hit the wall again. And I blow up another marriage at seven years. And I pull back. And then I go run at it again. You know, so, you know, when Katie talked about what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. But I don't know why. 
I think life's happening to me. This selfishness and self-centeredness piece, when you start really examining the manifestations of selfishness and self-centeredness, it is an absolute game changer. I mean, now all of a sudden, I mean, it can rewrite history. That fourth column we talk about in the fourth step, my favorite thing, and Katie talked about it, my favorite thing to hear when I'm doing inventory with a guy is they write down, here's what they did, here's, here's, here's who I'm mad at, here's what they did, here's how it affected me, and I'll go, I'll do the fourth column with you. And we do this little sick man exercise uh, on the bottom of page 60. I missed it for a long time, and it talks about um, seeing that these people are perhaps, it's, it's a compassion exercise, because I'm never, you know, you know, when I, when, when I screw up, you're going to hear about my motives and my delusion and where I was coming from and why I wasn't trying to make this bad thing happen, that sort of thing. Now, now when you screw up, it's an outrage and I demand justice. But, you know, but when I screw up, you're going to hear my story. So that's why I'm blind to my own self-centeredness when I'm looking for it. And when Katie talked about being on a fact-finding and fact-facing mission, it's the job of the person hearing the inventory to be the one on the fact-finding mission. When I'm listening to the inventory now, it's like I'm a news reporter. I'm sitting there asking the guy, so where did you come from and how many kids did you, were in your family and, and were your parents still together and how was the money situation and where were you? And, and you formulate stuff that comes out that I've never said to anybody before. But we take the, when we go in, the thing about it is with most of these resentments, I never considered for a second what was driving these people, what their motives were, what their background was. As Chris says, their lack of dealage. You know, what were they able to do? And, you know, is it possible that they were doing the best thing, the best they can? You know, and you talk about a game changer. You know, like Sandy says, we can go back and have a happy childhood. You know, I, I mean, it turns out that it wasn't, some of that stuff wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was. And, and one of the examples I like to use is, is by X wife. You know, one time I'm, I'm going to do a workshop in, in Idaho and they sent this guy to pick us up. And usually if I only have a little while to work with the guy, the, the, where we can get the most movement is in this selfishness and self-centeredness piece. If we can shift the focus to looking at selfishness and self-centeredness and manifestations of self and asking the power to help us get through that, it can be a real game changer for somebody sobriety that's just been hanging around the meetings and, and trying to get by the best they can. So this guy picks us up and we're riding from Salt Lake City Airport and his name is Sean. And I got a sponsor with me, and we're riding along, and he's telling me, and, and, we, and we go to lunch, and he says, you know, he says, oh, man, he says, my first wife, she was nuts. I mean, you know, whew, that, that was one ugly divorce. You know, and he goes, and, and I'm going to shorten the story a little bit. And he goes, and this chick I just broke, my second wife, oh, my God. I mean, she was an absolute, you know, maniac. I mean, riding on the hood of the car and, you know, that sort of thing. And he goes, and, and this chick that I broke up with about three months ago, she was out of her mind. I mean, you know, and so I'm sitting there listening to this, and I go, Sean, um, we've just been talking about selfishness and self-centeredness. I said, how do you find yourself in relationship with all these crazy women? And he goes, what do you mean? And I said, well, I mean, were they crazy when you started going out with them? Or is it possible that the only difference between the way they were when you started dating them and the way they were when you got a divorce from them was the effect of spending that amount of time with somebody as selfish and self-centered as you are? And his sponsor was sitting behind him, and his sponsor goes, Say that again. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and we get outside, and my little sponsor here with me goes, Dang! I was like, What? He goes, Oh my God. He goes, We've been there like an hour, and you just boom! You know? And. I said, that's my job, man. I'm the out-of-town guy. I come in, drop the bombs, go home. You know? I mean, you know, that's a, I, but, uh, 
But it was that way with my first marriage. If you'd asked me what happened in my first marriage, I would have told you she cheated on me and I don't roll like that and that was the end of the deal. And you can get support for that story in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. Looking back on it with the work I've done and selfishness and self-centeredness now, I would tell you that there's a very good chance that I exhibited a level of selfishness and self-centeredness in that relationship that would have driven anybody out the door and driven anybody crazy. I got the potential to do it in the marriage I'm in now. I've never been near as happy as I am with Katie. But my selfishness, I fall asleep. I fall asleep. If I don't stay in this work, if I don't stay connected to this power, I will fall asleep dreaming I'm awake. I will be going along and I get focused on my work and on my job and on the investments and on the sponsees and on the meeting and on the travel and all the stuff like that. And, and, uh, and next thing you know, Katie's not even getting talked to. And, and I don't know, I have a terrible, have, part of my way of self-manifest for me is if, you, if, it, if she comes at me with a heavy conversation, it's like I'm on methadone. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, she starts, she sort of wanting to talk about my youngest daughter and I go, You know, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's like I just go, you know, and like, so, you know, one of the things we did, and it's funny, I just, I just bought a chair that I put in our bedroom, and I call it the listening chair. There are times, because I'll try to lay down, and she'll start trying to talk to me, and I start going, and I go, hold on, I'm going to get in the listening chair. And I, and I go, and we've had some amazing talks in the listening chair. There were, Mark came into our lives, and we, I've just got a few minutes left. Hang in there with me for about, Five more minutes. Mark came into our life, and we started working the program at a level that I had never experienced. He came into my table. I have a Thursday night meeting at my table with about 15 of my boys. It's the best day I've ever been involved in. He came in. I'll never forget the first meeting when he came in. He says, tell me about the amends process. We're going to start working with this new guy. You know, what do you figure when you get a new sponsor? You're going to write inventory, right? Mark sits down. He goes, where are you at with the amends process? And we started talking about, you know, unfinished amends. And he goes, I have, a, I have a, a feeling there's a significant experience available for you guys in the amends process. And we thought it was like Svengali or something. You know, we're like, how does he know that? Well, because nearly all of us have a significant experience available to us in the amends process. I don't know about you guys, but I made the big amends, and, and, and the, the list kind of went into the file. Next thing you know, we're making all of our amends, you know, and we're making a list, and we're having meetings, and we're getting together, and we got guys that have spiritual consent with each other. We have the right to call each other on stuff, even if you hurt my feelings. We like to say, I'd rather step on your toes than stand on your grave. And i got people that are really willing to ask the hard questions and look for for the real answers. And you know, Bob talks about these unsigned death packs we have with each other. And we got guys that are willing to take the risk of and then we have meetings we have meetings about sarcasm a lot of times. We have meetings about current agnosticism. I had some boys in from Colorado the other day and the meeting was on current agnosticism. What is current agnosticism? Current agnosticism are areas of my life that I'm not bringing God into at this time. And we went around the room. I'll never forget it. This one guy had 23 years, and we're right now. What are the three areas of your life you're not bringing God into? Current agnosticism. And this guy goes, holy mackerel. And we're like, what? He goes, the three areas of my life that I'm not involving God in are my marriage, my job, and my children. We're like... But other than that, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's the way I fall asleep in sobriety. And if I'm not bringing these power, this power into this deal, the book talks about trying to establish a consciousness of this power. I don't think it's, you know, and I, I've barely touched the thing about in, insinuating the power, or, uh, uh, but, but, 
the book talks about a consciousness of this power. It's not trying to move me so much to a faith in this power or a belief in this power, but it talks about a consciousness of this power. On page 51 it says, When many hundreds of people are able to say that the consciousness of the presence of God is the most important of the fact of their lives today. It's not, you know, it's not that... God changed when I did the third step prayer at a new level. It's not like when I did the third step exercise that God picked his game up a little bit. I became more conscious of God's power. The book is constantly trying to move me to a consciousness of this power. You know, when I, when I talk about it, we were sitting there at the meeting one night on Thursday and I said, and I got guys that all have accountability with each other and we do an email check-in with each other and we're calling each other and we're doing 10th steps with each other and we're doing evening review and we're doing morning meditation and we're doing 10th steps throughout the day and if you can't get me, you call one of the other guys on the crew and we're, and one day we were sitting there talking and I said, you know, we like to think of ourselves as being a little pocket of enthusiasm. Being a little group of even maybe big book thumpers, if you will. And look how hard it is to get us to work a basic fundamental AA program. We're not talking about anything advanced here. How much better would our lives be if we were just practicing a basic, fundamental AA program out of the clear-cut directions in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous? But the reason that we don't do it is because it's hard work. Consciousness is hard work. Staying in this stuff is a lot of work. And I am a sprinter. The problem, I like to go like hell for a minute. The problem is I'm a sprinter that's caught in a marathon. This is a long-term deal, and I like to go like crazy for a minute and then back off. All I can tell you is that my life has been on fire with Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 12 years, and I can hardly believe it. If you'd have come to me before that plane crash, if you'd have come to me when I had 17 years of sobriety and said, Charlie, the thing that's going to set you on fire and, and change your whole life and for you and the people around you is working the program out of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have told you you're crazy. Because I've been in AA for 17 years. I know what this program offers me, and I hadn't stuck a toe in the water. If you're new here, we love you, and we're glad you're here, and we hope you'll come back and become a part of our lives. But the people I'm trying to talk to are middle management. I'm sick of losing people in middle management. We're losing the people with five years, ten years, fifteen years. And half the time it's behind pills. Half the time it's behind, but it's untreated alcoholism. And when I'm going along in untreated alcoholism and I don't even know it, next thing you know I go to the dentist, they give me some pain pills, I get a knee surgery, I get a back surgery, and the pills don't treat the knee, they treat the spiritual malady. And when they treat the malady, they trigger the allergy. And next thing you know you got a guy with 15, 25 years of sobriety going, what the hell just happened. Two weeks ago I was sober and now I'm drinking vodka straight out of the bottle. If you're sitting around and you are not experiencing what you hear these people talking about from the podium up here, I'm telling you it's still available. It's available as a result of the work out of this big book. Get with somebody who's done that work. Go to that annoying little big book thumper in your room. You know, Just like I had to go to Myers and say, I want to do the steps the way you guys do it. I don't know how to do it. I want you to show me how to write inventory. I want you to show me what we're talking about here. Your life will never be the same. I want to thank God for showing me to you people, and I want to thank you people for showing me back to God. I'm Charlie Parker. I'm alcoholic.
moment. My name is Clancy Emerson, and what she has said is true, and I now must clear, cure an emotional leper. Heal. Heal. I've had some wonderful introductions tonight, but not around here. <clears throat> My name is Clancy Ibbotson. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 31st, 1958. And my home group is the Pacific Group, which is not as wonderful as some of the groups in Texas and other places, but we, we are the largest and most successful group in the world, and we stagger on. There's a lot of, we just had our 50th anniversary. There's a lot of groups that are 50 years old, but there's not very many with the founders still sitting there whining. That's not right. That's not right. And that's my job. I, uh, I guess they have me here as a throwback to a different, the previous generation. Most of our speakers have been, I get, I noticed got sober in the 1980s and, uh, I got sober a little before that, but, Nothing much different has happened in AA. There have been a few changes. I think in the 1950s, there were no treatment centers. You couldn't go to treatment. You had to just brave it out if you could. And uh, over the years, there's been some conflict a little bit in AA. The current one is whether to get rid of the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure glad we said it here, I'll tell you. But there's a, there's a force that thinks that it irritates people, that it offends people. I don't know who it offends. My home group meets at a big synagogue in Los Angeles. And every once in a while, the, the rabbi will come in on a Wednesday night and sit in the back row. And I could just see him thinking, how can I get this many people here Friday night? <laughs> but when we say the Lord's Prayer, he jumps up and holds hands and says the Lord's Prayer. And I think... You're supposed to be offended by that. That's what they say. A couple of years ago, I was asked to come and speak in the World Service Office in New York for the staff. And at the end of the meeting, they closed it with a serenity prayer. I said, why the hell don't you say the Lord's Prayer? And I offended them. And I've never... But I... Uh... I guess one of the reasons for being getting sober a long time ago is I may be, you know, there's not no opportunity to do this in a matter of merit, but I must be one of the very few people in this room, if not the only one, who spent an hour talking to Bill Wilson. In 1963, I was sober about five years, and I'd been sent to New York on a project, and I got it done at night, and the next morning I had time to kill. I thought I'd go over and talk to Bill Wilson. And so I went over and talked to, Bill, talked to Bill Wilson, and the girl said, oh, he's booked up for three weeks. I can get you in in three weeks if you want to. I said, no, I won't be here. Never mind. I went to archives, and I was looking through some old papers and pictures, and all of a sudden, here comes Bill Wilson. He said, you the young man wanted to talk to me? I said, yes, sir. He said, well, my 11 o'clock didn't show up. Come on in. And we sat and talked for an hour. And you know what he said? I don't remember. <laughs> I was more concerned about what he thought about me than what he was saying. (laughs) 
The only thing I remember, and it came this, this week too, I said to him, I said, uh, one question, Bill, before I go. Uh, last week in our book study, I read the chapter on working with others aloud, and it talks about all the identification you do and all the adjustments you make, but you never once talk about taking the people to meetings. Don't you people never take anybody to meetings in New York? He said, young man, when I wrote that, there were no meetings. That just sent a chill down my back. Just stop thinking, having to work with a new guy and getting him just a little interested then have to take him to an Oxford group meeting where they like a church service, and that wipes him out sometimes. But he uh, he bore through it, of course. And I I'm, I was had pleased to hear him talk in 1960 at the International Convention. I was pleased because I was there to hear Abby give his only talk that he ever gave at a convention. That's an interesting little piece about Abby. You might know about this. But, you know, Abby was Bill's original sponsor, kind of. And uh, he... He couldn't quite stay sober very much. And Bill was worried. In 1953, Abby got drunk again. It was, there must be someone to help him. And someone said to Bill, there's a guy in Dallas named uh, Cersei Whelan. I don't know that. I, don't. <laughs> I want to talk about how much Bob has helped me, too. Um, I, I, let me interrupt something. I do have something to say. Bob helped me a lot with something he said many years ago. I was sober a while, coming into Minneapolis, trying to get a car, rent a car, to take down to see my folks in Wisconsin. And Bob said, take my car. And I said, okay. And I took it, a nice big car. I know what he did. What did you do when I was gone? Hitchhike, I guess. I don't know. Who cares? But, that's the best thing he could have said to anybody at that moment. But anyway, uh, Abby went down to see Cersei, and Cersei kept him sober for seven years, the longest he ever stayed sober. And Bill was so thrilled that he had him come and speak at the International Convention in Long Beach. Long. And uh, it's interesting, when Bill got up, he said, I'd like to introduce my sponsor, Abby. Very touching. And Abby talked. Then it turned out he went back to Texas and was very upset because Bill got more attention than he did. He said, I should have got more. I'm his sponsor. He should have got more attention. He didn't realize he didn't stay sober all that much. And so he got brooding about that, and he eventually got drunk again. And Bill went down to Texas and picked him up and took him back to upper New York State and put him in a rest home where he died. But he died sober. He died sober because they didn't serve any drinks in that place. But it's an amazing thing. I think about that sometimes because the one thing when you hear about Bill, he went to the door, or when Ebby, when Ebby was being arrested or drinking a lot up in Vermont, and Roland went up there, and they said, well, you talk to Ebby, he's such a bad drunk, and Roland said, sure, I used to drink, and I'm sober now. So he brought him in, and he said to Ebby, Ebby, there's one thing you got to learn. you got to find a power greater than yourself. And Abby said, I don't want to hear that religious crap. That was the end of it. The next day he was in jail. Bill appeared for him in court, got permission to bring him back to New York. And ironically, 
when Bill was in the hospital, town hospital, and the Lois called up Abby and said, they say he's going to die, perhaps. Would you go talk to him one more time? Abby said, sure. And he went up there and talked to Bill. And he said, you know, Bill, you have to find a power greater than yourself. And Bill says, I don't want to hear that religious crap. And Abby went home, and later that night, Bill had a spiritual experience. The reason I think about that is because in 1957, I was living and working in Dallas, and somebody took me to see Circe, the magic worker. And he said to me, Clancy, there's one thing you've got to learn. There's a power greater than you are. And you know what I said? I said, I don't want to hear that religious crap, and I went and got drunk. Because if the listener isn't listening, it doesn't make any difference what you say, it turns out. And I got to know Circe very well years later and got to know him many ways, but he is a good man. Also, at the 1960 convention, I heard Sister Ignatia tell that story of how she got Bill and Dr. Bob in to see Bob Dod- Bill Dodson. And I went afterwards. I was quite touched. I'm touched by celebrity. And I shook her hand, as I recall, and kissed her on the cheek. And then I think I said, oh, my gosh, is it all right to kiss a nun? And I think she said, as long as you don't get in the habit. Uh, Can't remember every detail from 1960, for God's sake. But uh, I'm kind of at a loss in a sense because I had kind of a plan to go through the speakers one by one and announce what they'd said and how important they were. And then thank you, Mark, for doing such a good job. And the previous speaker did all that for me. Uh, he, uh, you got a lot in in that hour and a half. <laughs> no, I wasn't. I wasn't upset. You know me. Uh, but we all have a lot in common here. I, uh, I think about uh, Carl. He and I probably are the only Lutherans in the house. They're, they're, they're hard to find. They don't mate much is the problem. <laughs> I don't recall. I just have to think. I was telling somebody that the other night. I don't recall ever being hugged as a child. I don't think I ever was hugged by my grandma or anybody. Norwegian Lutherans don't hug. They say, well, well, very good. <laughs> But you don't know you're not being hugged because you're not used to it. You know, you don't. But uh, I was raised in a very strong Norwegian Lutheran community in northern Wisconsin. And I was confirmed and catechized and very strict. But I didn't know any better. It just that's what you do. And uh, I got straight A's in school. They shoved me ahead in school at Christmas time once and again another time. And they remember my grandma said, you're going to be governor of Wisconsin someday. You're so proud. And then when I was about 12, my parents got divorced, which doesn't seem like much. Everybody gets divorced. But I had, at the age of 12, I had never heard of a divorce. And none in our church, none in our family. Somebody explained it to me, but I was bitter. I thought they were doing, hurting me. They are breaking up our family group. We don't get together anymore. Everybody, Christmas, everything. And I withdrew into kind of a sullen inaction and stopped doing things and got to be a sarcastic smart aleck. By the time I was 15 years older, I was flunking out of school, and I had nobody, nobody cared for me that I knew of. 
couple kids I ran around with. They wound up in the penitentiary later. I'm sure I was going to go there, but to, but save me the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. And that was just such a impressive, shocking thing that I, it took my mind off everything else. I suddenly had a great patriotic drama. I want to go over there and kill Japs. And I uh, couldn't do much because I was only 14. But, but when I turned 15, just before I turned 15, it was at the summer vacation. I just got done with my sophomore year of high school. I told my, told my mother, I want to go to, uh, up to Duluth to see my aunt. She says, okay. And she packed my little bag and gave me some bus fare. I got a guy to give me a ride to Minneapolis. And I knew that she, from what I read, San Francisco was a hotbed of Marines at that time for some reason. I wanted to get to San Diego or San, San, Francisco, San Francisco and enlist the Marines. And I'd never hitchhiked, but I'd heard hitchhiking was a good way to go. I said to some guy, how do you hitchhike? He said, just to cut your thumb and smile. And I, I remember standing outside of Minneapolis, where the hell the highway went, you know. <laughs> but finally, a uh, car stopped. The guy said, where are you going, kid? I said, San Francisco. He said, okay, so am I. Hop in. Turned out he was in the Navy, going back to the ship. I don't know why he picked me up. He drove me all the way across the country. We stopped at night. There were no motels. He gave me a bed in a trailer court. Bought my meals, listened to me prattle. I told him I was going to go over there and kill Japs and make up for America. He said, I don't think you're going to get in the Marine Corps, kid, because you're only about, I was that tall and a face full of pimples and glasses. He said, you don't look quite old enough. He said, but uh, maybe get in the Merchant Marine. They're crying for anybody. All the good guys go out in the Navy. They're very short on shipboard. I said, okay. He says, go to, I'm going to take you to the Coast Guard office. Go in there and tell them you want to be in the Merchant Marine. So we came to Market Street in San Francisco to smell the ocean for the first time. God, I still remember that. And the, oh, big buildings, the excitement. I want to be in the Merchant Marine. I said, fill this out. And I put it down. I put down 16 like he told me to do. He says, well, you're only 16, kid. You have to have your parents' permission. So I took it around the block, got my parents' permission. And that afternoon, without any training or knowledge or nothing, I was on a load of torpedo warheads going to the South Pacific. And uh, I was in a ship with a bunch of really bad guys. Uh, they weren't bad guys. They had been pirates any other era. You know, drinking and talk dirty. And I was in a room with some, they called it a cabin. It wasn't a cabin. Cabins in Wisconsin have got logs in them. And... Uh, but I remember the first day I was on that ship, the first night I was lying in my bunk, and they were all talking about what they'd been doing in Los Angeles or San Francisco for the three days the ship had been there. And they'd been doing terrible, dirty things. I was shocked. I'm, I had broken three commandments by then, but I wasn't old enough to really get to the others yet. And I thought, oh, my God, these, all they ever talk about just I suddenly realized, of course, They've all got black hair. Those are the Catholics I've been warned against. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't give the wrong impression. But I like to say that even at the age of 15 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I'd had sex. But I'd been apprehensive and I'd been afraid and I'd been alone. And these guys were doing it with people. Oh, God, I couldn't believe it. 
But he eventually accepted me as kind of a dumb mascot. And they had, at the end of our watch, a watch on the ship is a four-hour period. As if you get four to eight, it's four to eight morning, four to eight at night, and so on. And uh, these guys went for our watch, and they all had whiskey in their sea bags. They weren't supposed to have, but who's going to stop, you know? And uh, drink whiskey, ha, 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 drink whiskey. And I just lie in my bunk and think, oh, God, these are sinners. I hope God doesn't punish me. One day a guy came over just before we came into Pearl Harbor. I stuck a bottle in my face. He said, you think you're man enough for a little snort, kid? And I thought, I better stop this right now. I was going to tell him, you get that bottle out of my face. I don't happen to be a Catholic or whatever you are. I'm a Norwegian Lutheran. We don't drink whiskey. We don't even talk to people that drink whiskey as a rule. So I'll thank you never to put that in my face again. I was just going to say that. He says, what do you think you're man enough? I heard a voice say, God damn right. <laughs> well, so I had my first drink of whiskey out of the first bottle I was ever close to, and it burned my mouth and my throat and my stomach and my throat and my mouth and his shirt finally. <laughs> Get the bottle away from the little son of a bitch. <laughs> to this day, I don't know any emotion that's worse than public humiliation, where somebody just points out you're nothing and there's nothing you can do about it. I thought later there was one thing I might have done. I'm glad I didn't think of it at the time, but if I'd have done it, they'd have thrown me overboard. It would have been cute, though. I could have lean over you. Yeah. Take that. <laughs> but uh, the next day we went to Pearl in Honolulu, and uh, they got me a bottle of beer, which I, I had had sips of beer in Wisconsin. Everybody in Wisconsin drinks beer. Everybody in Wisconsin, Minnesota drinks beer. Uh, but I didn't like beer. It was sour. I didn't like it there. I didn't drink it much. And uh, that was the end of my drinking experience. And the reason I mention that is because all of us talk about, boy, when I held that first drink, what a wonderful feeling. Not me. I hated it. And I didn't drink. We sailed around the Pacific. I didn't drink anything. They, a lot of guys on that ship drank, but not me. I, I was appalled by it. And I thought it was kind of sickening. In fact, we went up to, up to the Aleutians, you know, a lot of kids don't realize that in 1942 and 43, 43, the Japanese invaded the United States through the Aleutian Islands, took two Aleutian Islands, and uh, we had to go up there and get them out. And I was 17, finally. I enlisted in the Navy and uh, found it much. I went to Great Lakes, got in trouble there. Thank you. They used to have a, something called the grinder out there. And if you were a discipline problem, well, everybody else went up to have cokes at 5 o'clock. You got a loaded rifle. They'd play waltz music. You got their muzzle butt, muzzle butt, up, down. I did that a lot. But I finally got out of the Great Lakes. And I, uh, I enjoyed the Navy uh, to a degree. I, I didn't, I was, when, when uh, Carl was talking, he, I talked about it later. He got a lot of trouble in the Navy. If he'd gotten that trouble during the war, he'd have gone to prison. There was no rehabs, no nothing. You go to prison when you screw up, turning over that car and the Marine Corps guy, and you'd have been just getting out now. You couldn't. <laughs> you'd have a good story by now. And then I said to the screw, <laughs> but. Uh, I went to Captain's Mass three times, which is a minor little, but I never drank. I just was a smart aleck. 
At the end of the war, the Naval Hospital up in Northern California, outside of San Francisco, being sewed together a little bit. And uh, the Red Cross was taken by surprise by the atomic bomb. They had piles of tests to be given. And so now they had to get rid of them all. So we all took a test. And I've always been very good on tests because I read a lot. And I remember the guy came in and said, Clancy, it's hard to believe this, but you're in the top 5% of intelligence of the entire United States Navy. And I said, I know. <laughs> but I got discharged there. I went briefly to the University of California and, got, and then left and went back to Wisconsin. And I, uh, I've just finished my sophomore year of high school. I've got to be a junior now in high school. And I didn't bring that up in California, but I wouldn't have to do it in Wisconsin. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I could go back with a bunch of high school kids. Uh, too worldly wise. And I went to talk to the guy at the VA. At that time, you could talk to him. There were no long lines. You just talked to somebody in the VA. And he said, I can help you, kid. And he got used my certificate for that test and got me in the University of Wisconsin as a freshman. Now, all the way, I went to university. And it went well. I, I did well. And I don't know if there's anybody in this room that remembers 1946 very well. But millions of guys got out of the service all at once and they all went to university many went to college because you got your due, you got your uh, tuition paid they paid for your books they sent you money every week a lot of guys just did that for something to do you know you could sit in freshman English class there'd be some grizzled old ex-marine sitting in the front row and either side little honeys just out of high school at Black River Falls or someplace were you in the war yeah, you put out. <laughs> Very rude, but a lot of them did. And uh, but the thing was that the veterans used to cling together and go out and have parties and have fun together. They didn't want to monkey these high school kids. And as a veteran, I went with them. I wanted to be with them. And they, after, after a while, it became necessary for me to drink something to look as though I was drinking. And I drank little by little, and pretty soon I started to feel good, feel better. And halfway through the university, freshman year, I think, I did something I read about in the book. I crossed over an invisible line. All of a sudden, alcohol became desirable. I loved it. I loved the feeling it gave me. I loved doing going out with the guys, having a lot of fun. And it helped me through the university. I, uh, I won some trophies for the university, and I was editor of the college newspaper, uh, chief justice of the student court. And I was really doing good. I spoke on behalf of the senior class at commencement. It really was wonderful. I, uh, but I walked across the stage. They all got a diploma. I got a blank diploma. And I knew they were going to get that because I had been gotten incomplete in the last semester from English history. They had a class at 8 o'clock in the morning, which I couldn't possibly get to. And so I got incomplete, and they held my... I've been hired to teach journalism at Duluth-Denfeld High School. And I, so I had to go to summer school and get this damn three hours of English history. So I got a job at the U.S. Rubber Company balancing white sidewall tires. I'm very good at that. <laughs> and I uh, go to three hours a week, and I'd stop after work every night. By this time, I loved to drink. And I just enjoyed it very much. And I, was, I told everybody in every bar that I was in, 
what that damn university done to me after all I'd done for them. They had me do be like a dog. And uh, after a while, nobody wanted to hear it anymore. But one night, there was a girl in there who seemed to be new, and she was with a traveling salesman, magazine salesman. So I told her the story. And she said, well, that doesn't seem possible that you're such a celebrity at the university. You're, you're kind of dirty. Your hands are dirty. You're got dirty clothes on. I said, I'm on my way home from work. I'll show you. We jumped in her car and drove to the campus, locked at one o'clock in the morning, of course, but I found a rock and broke the pane in the door. And we got in, we went up to the show the trophy case. She was overcome. She slumped to the floor, as I recall. I thought she had a flat tire and I was trying to pump her up. When a policeman's flashlight illuminated this, you talk about a passion quencher. Jesus. What are you doing there? Nothing anymore. <laughs> they took me downtown and booked me for breaking and entering in the nighttime. That's five years in the penitentiary in Wisconsin. And uh, thank God the school got in and got it reduced to drunken disorderly before I had to go. The next morning I was in court, though, and it was, oh, I was so sick. And I hated it. It was embarrassing. And uh, the judge was a friend of our family, and I knew they were going to run in the paper. The small town papers run all that crap and love it. And uh, I said, there waiting for a guy come in with a box. He said, who's the Emerson? I said, I am. He said, here. And I looked at my box, and there was all my school books and all my notebooks and a note from the, on top from the, from the dean saying, I covered for you as long as I could, but I can't cover this one. You're expelled. And then I got a telegram from Duluth saying that I, my, tech, my contract had been abrogated on the grounds of moral turpitude. It was just turning out to be a bad morning. <laughs> then the judge came in with the most embarrassing of all. I said, I'm so sorry, Judge. I, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. <laughs> he said, Clancy, I regret that you're that sorry. And why not, Judge? He says, my experience when people are that sorry, they're not only sorry for what they've done, but they're sorry for what they're going to do. And, oh, no, Judge, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> but he was right, of course. The fun was just starting. But I wasn't going to teach now, so I had to get another job. I got a job as a sports writer on a newspaper. And I loved that because I do sports, and I write fairly well. And I met a girl with black eyes and black hair and flashing, beautiful, mysterious manner. I thought, oh, and she won my heart. Then she dropped the big one. She said, I'm a Catholic. Thought, oh, shit. I can't take her home. What can I do with her? But she had my heart. We got married. My grandmother tried for two years. But we got married and uh, had a wonderful time. We'd start having children immediately. My wife began manifesting the behavior of Catholics that I know nothing about, nor any other Protestant boy ever learned. But if there's any little Protestant boys here, and you're going with a hot Catholic girl, and if she's a good girl, you are going to have a much bigger family than you ever dreamed. <laughs> I became a national distributor of small Catholics. <laughs> and I said, can't we use birth control? No. I don't know what I'd have done if she had said yes, because it's impossible today to remember how naive people seemed in 1950. I'd been overseas in a war. I'd been through a major university. I heard the word condom once in my life in a Navy training film 
where they showed this beautiful girl with big hooters and said, if you go to bed with her and don't have a condom, you'll die or some goddamn thing. <laughs> At that stage of my life, I'll try, I'll try. You know. <laughs> you know, what you'd find in 1950, bad kids would have condoms and they wouldn't buy them. You have to hire someone depraved to go and buy them. And even they would be ashamed. They would say, hey, give me some cigarettes and some rubbers. <laughs> now, the writer aid by my house, the kids, I guess they're here kids, but they look grown up to me. They say, hey, give me some condoms <laughs> and some cigarettes. <laughs> yes. But I, uh, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed sports writing. It was my favorite job I ever had. But we begin having children that seemed to me at a rapid rate. And I had to get more money. And I wasn't going to get any more money from the newspaper, so I got a job with Fairbanks Morris, a big manufacturing firm in southern Wisconsin, in their advertising department. And I, they loved me. I did very well. I remember they, after a few months they called me in. said, Clancy, you know, you're, you write very well. <laughs> Thank you. I said, but we really need you here Mondays, too. <laughs> and on Tuesday, when you come in, you smell bad. And I, uh, I'd had that same experience just about a year before that, when I was a senior at the university. I'd been arrested a couple times for disorderly conduct. Nothing serious, just high college kid stuff. But my friend said, why don't you go downtown? They got this new thing called Alcoholics Anonymous. Maybe they'll help you. I said, I'm not an alcoholic. We know that. But at least you won't get arrested. So I went to aid, went to this room, eight fat guys sitting around the table. What the hell are you doing here? I thought, that's kind of odd. But I don't know why it was, because I was 22. I looked even younger. And there wasn't anybody in Wisconsin under 40 in AA at that time. Like some kid coming in tonight, eight years old, and saying, I think I'm an alcoholic. Oh, do you? I think you have a broken nose. And I, I learned all I need to learn about AA. If there's new people here tonight, you don't have to go to a lot of meetings. Alcoholics are people who drink too much. And uh, they come to AA and admit it. That makes them feel better. Then they return to God. Then they show their gratitude by interminably helping one another for the rest of their natural life. I thought, God, what a dreary bunch this is. But I went for a few days. I thought, they're not going to help me. And so when the guy told me that at Fairbanks Morris, I had an answer. I said, you know, you're right, Mr. Collins. I got drinking heavily overseas when I saw that horror. I just wanted to play the veteran game. That's good. I said, downtown here in Beloit, they have an Alcoholics Anonymous. Let me go down there and learn how to stop drinking, and I'll be back in two weeks. And he said, oh, you will keep you on the payroll, kid. And I went down there. Some more fat guys sitting around the table. And then I drank, and then I lost my family and lost my home. And then I thought things were going to hell. And I'm just on and on, interminable droning of losses. I thought, this is going to help me. I'm alive. So I knew I'd have to do something else. I went to a different, I went to over to uh, next city over, which is <laughs> Rockford. Got a job there in an advertising agency writing about Rockford machine tools, really exciting. And I worked there and did a good job till one day they called me in and said, you, you're drinking too much. And I realized it was over then. 
So I gave him this same AA song and dance and had a couple weeks to move around and I looked for a different job. And I did that for 10 years. Year after year after year, different. All my kids have been born in a different part of the country where it's going to be different. Sometimes I did very well for a while. I made a lot of money for a while. Other times I had terrible times. But it finally ended in Dallas. I was working for a big firm called Tracy Locke, the largest advertising agency in the South. I was working on the Borden account, if any of you are old enough to remember L.C. Elmer the Cows. And uh, they called me in one day. The guy called me and said, you know, Clancy, you're a very good writer. And I thought, oh, this is the beginning of the end. He said, but last week you almost cost us the board, the uh, Hager Slacks account. And uh, I said, $10 million billing. He said, we can't have that. We have to discharge you now. He said, I'm going to ask you to clean out your office today and leave. And we have notified your wife yesterday that we're going to do this, so she'll be expecting you. And I thought, oh, Jesus. And I cleaned out my office. and I didn't go right home. They gave me a big severance check. I didn't go right home because who wants to go home and take the heat all of a sudden? I really didn't. Uh, I forgot what that was like, kind of. About four months ago, my dogs, I got five dogs. I'm boarding two of them. Uh, start barking in the middle of the night. Woof, woof, woof. And I said, shut up in there! I said it with love. And they, uh, I finally got them tottered out there, all baying out the front window. There's a guy, there's a little wall in front of my house. There's a guy sitting on it. And I thought, what the hell is this? They opened the door and said, what the hell are you doing out there? I'm going to a lecture. I said, a lecture? On what? Alcoholism. I said, where in the hell in Venice, California, is there a lecture on alcoholism at 2 o'clock in the morning? He's at my house. <laughs> and I know that. I said, God bless you and shut the door. But I, uh, I drank up my severance check and then I went home. I had two or three days doing it. I had gone home once before in Rockford, oddly enough, where I used up my whole paycheck. And I had a clever remark for my wife. She said, Where's the money? I said, I bought something for the house, honey. She said, what? I said, three rounds. And she didn't didn't laugh at all. But this time I had no money and I had no clever remarks. And I got home and the house was empty. No no furniture, no people. My clothes were all on the floor and on the porch. And there's a note on top saying, my children and I can't stand this anymore. We're leaving. They never told me where they went. And I knew I had to get out of Texas fast because I was at the moment through a series of bad breaks on severe probation from the state insane asylum. And my wife had signed me out under the guidance that if I had do anything bad, she'll call them and they'll come and get me. I knew she must have called them because she's such a vengeful thing. And so I knew I'd, I, a guy had asked me about a week before that. I said, do you know anybody can drive my car to Los Angeles? And I said, yeah. No, I don't know anybody. But that morning I did. I said, I know somebody. He said, who? I said, me. He said, I thought you were a big deal at Tracy Lott. Well, they're phony. I quit. So he gave me a credit card and some money. And away I went. First day I got as far as El Paso, where uh, I used to work on the, uh, I was on the faculty of the university there. Because they didn't ask to see my degree. They just believed me when I told them I had it.
And uh, I parked my car some safe place I knew about. And I went to Juarez, where I like to think I'm a living legend. And by midnight, the next night, I was standing in the bar, the old Chinese man. Ah, yo soy el maestro de los locos de Chihuahua. <laughs> and my fans were all going, cavrón, cavrón, which I think means welcome in Spanish. But uh, next day I got up, I was so sick. Oh, God, I was sick, but I had to get going. Got as far as Phoenix, another three or 400 miles. I didn't know anybody in Phoenix. I just had to hide my car well, and I really did, because I haven't found it yet. And, uh, and as the sun went down, and I was going drunk through the streets trying to find my car. And some guy says, get out of the way, kid. And I said, help me find my car, will you? He said, don't bother me. I said, come on, for God's sakes, help me find my car. I'm in deep trouble. He said, don't bother me. And I grabbed him by the lapels. For Christ's sake, what's wrong with you? He took out his badge and said, you're under arrest, boy. He threw... I suppose if that were Johnny Harris said that, you'd cry. Anyway, he took me to jail, and I, it's, it, it, he said, they're going to cool you off. In a jail where it's 130 degrees, you don't cool off right away. But I finally got to sleep. They woke up about midnight. Oh, God, I'm so sick. I'd have vomited. <laughs> Turned out to be some guy's bed. He wasn't in it, so how were they going to know that? But then I, I did something I'm sure most of us have done. Once you vomit in the middle of the night, you ever notice how nice it is just to put your cheek on the cool tile on the floor? <laughs> and then you're right there if you have to vomit again anyway. And I went to sleep, and he came back and found me there. I said, you puked on my bed, you son of a bitch! Started kicking at me, kicked my front teeth out. And I... Uh, I didn't say anything, I didn't make trouble. But that was the end of that. In the morning, they let me out at 6 o'clock. My clothes were torn. I had vomit and blood all over me. Sick. Didn't know a soul in Phoenix. In deep trouble. Didn't have a car at the moment. All my stuff was in that car. But I'd learned one thing in AA. And if you want to be a long-time slipper, here's something you want to add to your bag of tricks. When you get to a point where you're dirty and filthy and smell bad and nobody wants a thing to do with you, there's one place you're always welcome, an AA club. It's the only place in the world where the worse you look, the better they like it. <laughs> this one's mine, Fred. So I found the AA club and hustled someone ready for $20, and I ran downtown to the bus depot. I don't know why I wanted to get to Los Angeles. I had no reason to go there, but I got a bus, got to Los Angeles, and I didn't know anybody there and had a terrible time. I, uh, I had one guy there that I knew. I'd give, he was a big star now, and I'd give him a start when he was a kid. I called him. I said, Ted, I've had, this client's have had a terrible car accident. I've lost everything. I'm waiting for a check to come in. Can you help me? He said, oh, absolutely. He told me how to get on the bus from downtown to Hollywood. I went to and it was front office of this big agency and got off. Oh, look at that. He, he almost cried when he saw me. Oh, Clancy, I'm so sorry. My God. He would turn his wallet and peace off some pretty good dough. I said, God bless you, Ted. I'll pay it back as soon as my check comes. And I went down and rented a room and cleaned up a little bit, got some of the vomit off me and went to a few bars and had fun. A couple of days later, I was out of money. I called him back and said, Ted, 
My check hasn't come. Could you help me, please, a little bit more? He said, Clancy, I called Dallas after you left my office. And they said, uh, you didn't have any car accident. You're a bum. You used to be a good guy, but you're a bum now. Nobody wants a thing to do with you. You're a loser. I said, oh, for Christ's sake, Ted, for old time's sake, please. He said, okay, you come to the station tonight, but you come to the alley behind us. Don't come in the front door and shock everybody. Come in there at 9 o'clock. Maybe I'll walk out of the fire escape. And if you're there, I'll see what I can do. God bless you, Ted. I was out there at 8.30, raining like hell. He came out and I and said, Clancy, you make me sick. If you threw a $5 bill that tousled down to a mud puddle, and I crawled out and got that, that boy really fooled him. And the next night I was sleeping in an all-night theater in Skid Row. And I don't know if they have them here. They probably don't. But in big cities, they have Skid Rows. Theaters have, they're cheap. They just run all night long. They run 25 or 30 cents. And they're designed primarily for street bums to sleep in. And I got into one of those with my last few pennies. And they don't really last all night. The guy comes in at 5 o'clock and says, Okay, all you bums out! The guy brings in a hose and starts hosing down. And I staggered up to still raining. I, oh, God. The guy says, You want to sell a pint of blood? I said, Jesus, do I ever. We walked eight blocks up 4th Street to a blood bank and stood in line, could drop a blood over here, sat down. Guy came in, who's Emerson? I am. He says, you don't have enough iron in your blood to sell a pint of blood, sorry. I oh, God, pal, I'm so sick. I think I'm going to die. He says, well, down here about four blocks, there's something called the Midnight Mission. They're designed to help bums like you. Go down there. Maybe they'll have to help. Oh, I went down in the rain, went to this mission. I said, I'd like some breakfast, please. God, we just got done serving. Come on back at lunch. I'll give you some food. I can't make it till lunch. Jesus, help me. He said, done serving. And I grabbed him by the lapel. Bad habit. And two guys stepped over, and they each undead one hand and threw me out the door. I said, and don't come back, you phony bastard. And I tried to explain to him, I'm not a phony bastard. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I wrote, the LC number as... We're running that very week in life and time and Severine Post and Collier's New Yorker. I've had my picture in the New York Times for one of my achievements when I was up. But it's hard to explain these things in midair. Yeah. <laughs> I started to say that old mission. If someone got up company that morning and said, you know, Slim, you're dying. Said, Why don't you go back to AA? I have to tell him, pal, you don't understand. I'm not an alcoholic. I've been going to AA for 10 years. I have some reasons I know I'm not an alcoholic. And I wish, by this time, I wish I were. I wish I were that simple. I wish I could go and listen to somebody talk about how much they drank and that somehow make me feel better, but it doesn't. AA is full of, I can't return to God. I'm too far beyond that. I'm not interested in helping people who don't need help. The number one reason I knew I was an alcoholic is because I can stop drinking. Alcoholics can. I knew that. They all said so. But I can stop drinking. When the remorse gets bad enough and I get to jam enough, I find that I can stop. And uh, fine. Except in two or three days, somebody sneaks in my bedroom and puts an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day they start to tighten it. And it does come out as I need a drink, like the way Carl was talking. 
just you know, it just gets crappy. And the days go by and get bad. And but I'm I could hardly stand it. And at one time I all thought I had it made. In the mid nineteen fifties I went through a spell where when I got to a certain stage of drinking, I find myself counseling police officers. Absolutely a dumb thing to do. And I'd wind up in jail overnight for disorderly, drunk and disorderly or something. And one morning I got out of jail and the guy, my neighbor was there. He said, I'm coming out to give you a ride home. I said, yeah, I shouldn't do that. I got that damn cop. I got his badge number. He really screwed me around. I'm going to get him. He said, I don't know about that, but while you were out drunk last night, we couldn't find you when your son died. I said, oh, God. I had a bunch of little girls and one little boy. And here's the new apple of my eye, I'll tell you. And I almost went crazy about that. We went up to Wisconsin and buried him in the, the foot of his grandmother's grave, my wife's mother's grave. And I took my, put my hand in his casket. I said, John Immelsland, this will never happen again. I, I'm so sorry, God. We went up to Texas. And I didn't go to AA because AA makes me want to drink. I quit drinking. And I came home from work after my work at night and have dinner with the kids and help them with the homework sometimes. And sometimes we would go for rides. On every meal we said a little prayer for baby John in heaven. And uh, went very well for about three, four weeks. And then one night somebody snuck into my bedroom and put an invisible spring on my gut. And the next day it was kind of inconvenient, just comfortable. But I thought I can get through this for baby John. But the next day it got worse. And the next day it got worse. And I found myself just getting that. Mary, take your sisters and go to your room. For Christ's sake. I'm sorry. I don't mean to holler at you. Just, mm -hmm. One morning I got up. I just had to get a, I was just crazy. I had to get a cup of coffee before I killed somebody. I felt out to the kitchen. No coffee. No coffee in the house. No coffee made. A note from my wife. I've taken the kids to mass. All right. Damn it. So I went out in my car and hooked up a hose in the exhaust pipe and turned the motor and went to sleep and died. I just didn't know. I was crazy. And the neighbor watching us, I guess, through his breakfast nook and heard the motor running. I didn't come out, so we wandered over there and found me dead in the car. They pulled me out and beat out of my chest and rushed me to the hospital. They worked on me for about three days. Then they determined to check my emotions and determine I was seriously mentally ill and committed me to the state insane asylum for an indefinite period. Which is how, why I happened to get there. And I was there until the next year. Because it's kind of hard to get out. Because you don't really get any treatment. They just keep you in the back ward. But I finally got out when I convinced my wife to sign me out. I went, I convinced these people in Dallas I'd learned my lesson. And now I was given by all of And, uh, but I knew I wasn't an alcoholic. I wish I were. And, but, uh, he might come up and said, you know, partner, you're dying. You're down to the last 120-some pounds. You've lost your wife and children. Never see them again. Lost your career. Once upon a time, they called you a boy genius. You can't even get a job washing dishes. Look at you. You're a filthy mess. He said, your little mother up in Wisconsin is no longer allowed to talk to you on the telephone because your stepfather's so tired of watching you play on her emotions. So she'll go down to the... Union Bank and take out a few more dollars from her little bank account, send it to her little boy and hope this will help her. And you, uh, you have no ID, no clothing, it's all in that car in Phoenix you'll never see again. 
He said, why don't you go to, back to A one more time and at least admit you're an alcoholic instead of this screwing around waiting for the heat to get off so you can get out of there. I said, you don't understand. My case is different, I would have said. And I didn't know what, how hackneyed that was. And uh, nobody came up and talked to me, but I finally had to go to the whip. I said, some, where's the A club here? Well, there's nothing downtown. There's one on Wilshire and Fairfax. Where the hell is that? Well, you go up this hill to Hill Street, cross over to Wilshire, go west to come to Fairfax. That doesn't sound bad, does it? Rain. I walked through it. It'd be seven and a half miles. I got to that damn club. I was so sick. It just, I almost didn't go in because there was a guy in the doorway saying, Welcome home, son. <laughs> I thought, oh, shit. But I went in, and much to my surprise, that was my sobriety date. Much to my In fact, when I think about it, you know, I told you my birthday was October 31st. That was Halloween. I could have gone to a party and won a prize for my costume. But I never drank again. And much to my surprise, I didn't have any intention to stop drinking. What I had an intention was to get the heat off me somehow. And the guy at the club said, you know, there are three rules. You're not supposed to be in here during the week. You have to be a member during the week. You're here on the weekend, so you can be here. But three rules. You can't ask anyone for money, which you've already done. None of your smart Alex sarcastic remarks, which you've already done. And you have to go to a meeting every night at the club. Oh, Jesus. But I just decided to hang on. I slept in an all-night in a abandoned 1949 Mercury in the parking lot. And... Uh, I had no intention of ever staying sober. That's one argument I have with AA. In some of the literature, they say, you must have an, in order to be in AA, you must be, have an honest desire or a desire to stop drinking. I had no desire to stop drinking. It's been my experience that many people come to AA without a desire to stop drinking. They get it after they get here. And you have, you have to go through the tr- troops a little bit. But I, uh, the reason I stayed stopped drinking is because in those meetings I was going to, I saw a guy that I'd seen in the movies. I knew he was rich, must be rich. And so I thought he'd like to help somebody who was new, but he didn't want to help anybody new. By Friday, I knew I was going to die. I was eating and living on cake at the meetings. Jesus, I got sick of cake. And uh, I went to this guy and said, Bob, I really admire your program. Would you be my sponsor? <laughs> He said, okay, I want you, to do, want you to do what I tell you. Oh, sure, Bob. <laughs> and I found out shortly there were a few of the movie stars at all. I'd seen him in three movies. He'd been, he'd been in three movies. I saw him in two of them. So I thought he was in a lot of movies. He just as a goof. What he was was a radio actor. If During the 1950s, if you were alive and you heard, yours truly, Johnny Dollar, that's who he was, yours truly, Johnny Dollar. But he is, by this time, he drank himself out of that job. And uh, he wasn't really a great actor, but he's a good actor because he acted well at meetings. That took a lot of acting for him because he was not a good guy. He was a right-wing fascist AA pig of the worst sort. (laughs) Do this, do that. (laughs) Why am I taking this crap from this idiot? I'm so much smarter than him. Because he was my only meal ticket other than I could see. And what he would do sometimes, he was a man of strong opinions. He'd come down. He never gave me any money. He told me to get a job a couple of times. He'd come down to the club and pick me up. 
at night and you'd go to where he was speaking and he'd give me a new series of edicts on the way back. And, and one night we went out to the Brentwood meeting, which was a big meeting at that time, biggest meeting in town. And before the meeting, some kid got up. He had asked to say, make an announcement. He said, I was here about, uh, I don't know, two, three months ago, and I was having a lot of trouble. And somebody here told me, pointed out that I was drinking too much. And I never thought of that. But I went home, and I thought, that's probably true. And I stopped drinking. I haven't had a drink since. I'm getting along fairly. I have a job. My family are getting along. I just came by to say thank you. And after the meeting, you know, people clapped. And I saw my sponsor pounce on him and say, that's very nice. We appreciate you being here, but don't ever come back. And just really gave him hell. On the way home, I said, Bob, why are you grinding this kid? He's sober. He said, well, because he's, he's got an alcohol problem. I said, Bob, I don't want you to get mad, but <laughs> AA is designed to help people with alcohol problems. Said, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. People with alcohol problems don't need AA. What do they need, Bob? They need to quit drinking, clean up their act. When they're offered a drink, say, no, thank you. I said, that doesn't work. I've been trying that for 10 years all over the country. That doesn't work, Bob. He said, I guess you don't have an alcohol problem, kid. You must have what I have and everybody else in AA has. I said, what's that, Bob? He said, something called alcoholism. I said, oh, for Christ's sake, Bob, don't play word games with me. I look terrible, but I'm smarter than you'd ever believe. Shut up, he said. He gave me about a three-hour harangue, most of which I was able to blot out before I went insane, thank God. But in that period... He explained to me something that I never could understand that Alcoholics Anonymous stands for. I didn't know that. He said, there are people who drink too much or they get in trouble drinking. And they, uh, they realize that. So they quit drinking or they cut down their drinking. And that's the end of it. In our group, there are people who are too much with trouble drinking. And we cut down or the end of it, cut down, maybe taper off. But the difference is this. They stop. We must always drink again. We must always drink again. We can never stop. I'd, why would that be, Bob? Christ, I've been going to meetings all over the country, and I've been asked to sleep, asked to leave the 2218 club. That's in Minneapolis. They're a heartache. But anyway, I said, I, I hear these A's talking, and they'll say how much they lost. They lost my family. I lost my home. Why do they keep drinking? It was so damn wonderful. He said, kid, they're, they're not stopping drinking because it's bad for them. Just the opposite. The curse of alcoholism is that it does too much for you. He said, this, he had a Coke in his hand. If this were Johnny Walker and I took a big drink, mm, 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 the result would be to almost instantly alter my perception of reality. Make it more colorful, a little less mean, a little friendlier. <laughs> and I have another drink and it relieves the pain inside of me. And I feel all of a sudden I have the beginnings. I'm getting cute. They don't know it, but I know it. And I'm clever and cute. And I drink until I drink too much. And I've always known that to be happened, that alcohol is the best. I tell people alcohol is the best friend I ever had. 
Friends come and go. Lovers come and go. Jobs come and go. Cities come and go. But when a few drinks is just making you what you want to be, instead of that semi-wimp, whiner, complainer, inadequate goof, all of a sudden you're slick and cool. That's great. My only problem is I don't remember to stop. I get in trouble. And so my whole adult life was spent trying to find ways to stop. Imagine my surprise sometime later when my sponsor had me read the book. I'd read it once before, but I didn't. I just scanned it. In Chapter 3, they discussed that exactly. On the first page of Chapter 3 is the best definition of alcoholism I've ever seen. I've read a lot of them. It talks about what people like us have in common. We have a lot of differences, appearance and size and shape and color and drinking history. But there's one thing we have in common. It's apparently alcoholics of our type. Somewhere along the line, we've had to voluntarily or involuntarily accept the obsession that someday, somehow, I will control and enjoy my drinking. It says the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many followed into the gates of insanity and death. And uh, I thought, God, I was the only one in the world that had that situation. And it talks about how you keep drinking, and eventually you wind up with pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. I remember reading that thing, boy, how drunk do you have to get to feel like that? But that isn't what that means at all, I don't think. It means that's how you feel when you get sober again. Pitiful and incomprehensible. And people want answers for why the, what you're doing, what you're doing. And I don't have any answers. Leave me alone. Screw off. Get off my back. And uh, they talk about the things that you do. We try. We try switching from scotch to brandy or drinking wine only or drinking beer only or reading spiritual literature or taking exercise. All these things. Taking a trip, not taking a trip. I read that. I remember... There's only one thing in there I haven't done. I've never not taken a trip. When, it gets, when the heat's on, I take a trip. <laughs> only cowards stay and face the consequences. But little by little, Bob was explaining things to me. I said, Bob, you know, the way you describe it, that's not the story of my life for the last 10 years. I was saying, I'm going to do it this time. And somehow or other, it doesn't. He says... There's a name for people like you, kid. I said, what could that I hate to ask him because you're so profane. I said, what could that be, Bob? He said, I believe you're an alcoholic. I said, how could I be an alcoholic? Sure, I drink too much, but my problem is not alcohol. My problem is when I don't drink, it gets so bad. I feel so inadequate, so afraid, lonely. i got to do something. He said, kid, alcoholics aren't people whose problem is alcohol. Alcoholics are people whose answer is alcohol. And if it's your answer, it'll be your problem till you die from it. And he told me that early in December of 1958, now sober about five weeks. I thought, what if that were true? What if that's accurate? It can't be. But I can test it. I'll try to do what the old fool says for a while and see if I can survive. And I did. And I thought about this about two months ago. I was talking to somebody about something. I remember the situation that I'd almost forgotten. Probably the greatest moment of my sobriety when I was about four or five months sober. And I almost forgot it because it's such a mundane thing. But there was a woman 
in the club who I just hated. I hated her. I would kill her. I'd lie awake at night and think how I could kill her and not get caught. She just was a beast. She treated me like a piece of crap. And uh, I went to the meeting one night and Bob said, I want you to make amends to her. I said, are you kidding? She owes me amends. I'm not, why should I make amends to her? Someone told me that you called her a bitch. Bob, she is a bitch. Well, be that as it may, you apologize. And right there, every fiber of my being said, to hell with AA. This is all nonsense. I've been kidding myself. Apologize a bag like that. Screw it. And my whole being was against it. The only thing honest was my feet. <laughs> I'm sorry I called you a bitch. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> but that seemed to make everything easier after that. After I did that one thing. I guess that's the moment I took a third step, I would imagine. That's the closest thing I ever took. And I, little by little, did the things. And as they recited the steps this weekend, I remember my life, the crises in my life, adjusting. How when I was, when I was about 10 months sober, well, six months sober, I guess, I got a job as a dishwasher at the Gady Delicatessen. And I got fired the first night because it wasn't my fault. It appeared to me the busboys were bringing in more dishes than the waitresses were taken out. And I think the busboys were trying to get me because I was an Anglo. So I just piled up to the screw you, Juan. And the guy fired me. And I went back to the club and I got it was about 11 o'clock and after they closed at 12 and just the manager was left. Everybody got home from the meeting. I said, Jesus Sullivan, I got fired as a dishwasher tonight. People I got sober with got jobs, they got girlfriends and cars. I'm living in an abandoned car for Christ's sake. I thought I was going to get out of there with some money and now I'm screwed. And uh, I said, I might be drunk. I was seeing how you talked me out of it. And he said, I think you're right, kid. You'd be doing us all a favor by getting drunk. I said, what? He says, there's about 170 people in this club who think you're a jerk. They'd love to see you get drunk. There's about six people who like you, and they have to protect you and defend you incessantly. Just think, if you got drunk, you might make those six people feel bad, but you make 170 people really feel happy. <laughs> I said, no, I won't! And about a week before that, my sponsor had ground me again about taking an inventory. I'm not going to take an inventory, but I did. I went, give me some papers, Sullivan. I went in the back room. I didn't use any columns. I just wrote down, oh, God, all the things. I just bubbled up like vomiting on a sheet of paper. <laughs> and I got done. I felt pretty good. And the next day, that manager must have called Bob because Bob said, I understand you took your inventory. <laughs> How did you hear that, Bob? He said, never mind. I know. Sponsors know. He said, I'm coming down tonight, 6 o'clock, pick you up. We're going to take you in fifth step. I said, Bob, I've got some stuff in there I haven't even thought of for years. It's so close, so visceral. I don't, I'd like to wait a couple of weeks before I do it. Shut up, he said. 
I'll be there at 6. And he came at 6, and we went to a box yard, which is 40 miles up the ocean, gave me a flashlight, and I read this dreadful thing to him. And, oh, God, it read even worse than I remembered, because I'd, I'd forgot some of that stuff, little. And I've forgotten you're up in the ox yard. I said, that, that's all, Bob. He said, are you done now? He leaned over and said, that's the best thing you've done since you got sober, kid. You're going to make it. Oh, I don't understand. But it turned out he was right. But taking my fourth step, and ever since then, it's been my experience when I work with people. I try to work with people for a long time. They get sober, and they see do they do well in the magic of AA and all that. But after a few months, sometimes five, sometimes six, sometimes seven, they hit a wall. They've done all they know what to do. There's nothing more to do. And that, it seems to me that's a perfect time to take an inventory when you when you feel so bad, you're hopeless. And a lot of people, now this is going to be a little questionable, I suppose, but i tell you what I, in my experience, I've had a lot of people take inventories, and uh, I've never been a great fan of those four columns in the book, because I didn't take mine that way. So I wrote some series of questions for the people I sponsor. And they say, like, uh, one, and looking back over your life, what memories are still painful, are still guilty, are still dirty. Two, in what way today do you feel inadequate as a person? Three, who do you resent and why? Look at the book and find how to write that down. On days you know you're having a bad day, where do you turn? And things like that. I wrote seven questions. I give everybody I sponsors begs an inventory with those seven questions. And some of them seem to stay sober. And they seem to. I've given three or four people 50-year cakes, so I know something's working for some of them. But it seems to me that the one thing that's missing in the fourth step in the book, and as he says, this is one way to do it, and he later says, we realize we know only a little, so he's not against the concept, is that it, it focuses too much on resentment and not enough of the secret inadequacies and despairs that you feel, that you have no way to get out. You can't blame anybody because they're just you. And that seems to be helpful. And uh, my sponsor had me write inventory. Write uh, people I owe an amend to. I enjoyed that discussion, that step, eighth and ninth step. And I... Uh, but it's, it's, to those who are new, it's a mixed feeling because sometimes you really get good results from an amend and sometimes you don't. I drew all the way, I drove, spent, saved money for $500 to fly to Dallas to make an amend to a guy. And uh, I said, I want you to know about that. Uh, the reason I, I was drinking so much, that's why I stole your company truck and erected it. I didn't mean to. It was, he's a, how, why did you do that? And I said, well, I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous now. He says, what do you do with an Alcoholics Anonymous? I said, I'm an alcoholic. Why do you think I did it? He said, I thought and think you did it because you're an asshole, and you were an asshole then, and you're an asshole now. <laughs> I want to just jump over the desk and choke him, but I didn't know how to explain it to Bob. <laughs> On the other hand, sometimes work out. When I was about... Uh, as I go along, little by little, my life began to change. We've heard such wonderful descriptions this weekend of how your life changes, and especially your perception. That's really all that changes. But bad things turn out to be all right, good things. And uh, 
I discovered somewhere in those years the purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous. I bet you you don't find many people who know the purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous. You say, well, to get sober and stay sober. Nah. The purpose of AA, I believe, and the 12 steps and sponsorship and the actions is to very slowly do what alcohol did fast, to change my perception of reality, to make the world a finer place, a world I can live in, to have some degree of self-worth, self-confidence, do things. I thought, God, that's so obvious. Why didn't I see that all the years I screwed around? And uh, when I was about 15, when I was two years sober, I got a little job as a beginning writer in a medical corporation. And Bob stayed on my can on how to act there. And by when I was five years sober, I was director of advertising in that corporation. Had front teeth again. If there's anybody in the hair new that's lost their teeth, let me give you hope. Once you become spiritually perfect, they grow back. Now, seven years sober, another guy and I were brought into Hollywood. We created the number one hard rock station in the world, some called Boss Radio. We brought the Beatles in from New York. God, we were slick. When I was 10 years sober, I was downtown doing public relations for an oil company. 15 years sober, I was a marketing director in Beverly Hills. When I was five years sober, the same wife and all those children heard the crinkle of green in my wallet all the way to Dallas, leaped out of their post office box, rushed to my side, attached themselves to me like a group of starving chiggers. Nine months and ten seconds later, another Catholic hit the street. And uh, there's one little boy, though. I remember sitting in the hospital, St. John's Hospital, crying. She said, you have a little boy. Oh, God, thank you. I've got a little boy again. And uh, somebody gave me a book on the rhythm system, which is the Catholic version of birth control, apparently. And I memorized that baby. There were no more babies at our house. I remember having to tell my wife, I'm sorry, honey, I got a headache. <laughs> and all my girls, all my kids have grown up now. And uh, my wife and I, she's been a princess. Uh, all the kids graduated from college, all grown up. And I'll tell you what makes you feel old. My oldest daughter is a judge. That doesn't make me feel old. She's retiring. She's 65. I say, why are you retiring? You're only 28. <laughs> I'm 65, Dad. Oh. But they're all doing fine. It's really wonderful. Three of my daughters turned 25 this summer in AA, much to my surprise. And everybody's doing well. And the, the nice thing is when you, when things are going your way, you, you feel kind of good. And I always felt kind of good. And, uh, when I was 15 years sober, uh, in some hideous fit of do-gooderism, I found myself resigning my job in Beverly Hills where I was making the big dough. And for the last 40 years, I've run the Midnight Mission on Skid Row, the place that threw me out in 1958. And people say, don't. Start a love offering. <laughs> Keep us on the air, for Christ's sake. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, it's been a lifesaver for me. I go to work every morning and watch people die. But uh, when I was there about four years, I got a call one day from the University of Wisconsin saying, 
the, uh, the chancellor, used to be the dean, the guy they expelled me, he's now the chancellor. Uh, he says he knows that he and you are not close. But we have a problem, and perhaps you could help us. We are supposed to have an alumni, alumni luncheon in Los Angeles next weekend, week after this. And the man who's supposed to set it up turned out has been dead for three months, and we didn't know it. There's no arrangements. Can you possibly help us? I said, I'll call you back. I called her back in about an hour. I said, how would you like the Coconut Grove, where all the movie stars go every night? I'd like to spend your lunchtime there. She said, oh, that'd be wonderful. I didn't tell her. I, I, I sponsored the manager. That's why we got it so quick. And uh, so he came out. I said, on one condition, I said, that I get invited, even though I'm not an alumnus. She said, I'll call you back. And she called me back. She said, okay, you can come. And so they came out, and we had a nice lunch in the Coconut Grove, and the chancellor and I were talking. And he said, uh, what's this I hear about you devoting some part of your life to helping others? I said, well, I guess that could be described that. He said, that's impossible. You are the most self-centered, selfish person I've ever known. I've never known you to do anything that wasn't in it for you. There's something in it for you. Why are you doing this? And I don't know. It just makes me feel better. He said, I'd like to see this wonderful place in all its pristine purity. Don't let them know we're coming. Let's just jump in the car and go over there. It's okay. So we went over there Sunday afternoon. Everything's sparkling clean. Floors are waxed. Guys outside. Hi, Mr. Clancy. Hi, Mr. Clancy. We went to my office. I got some awards I've gotten in the last few, last few years. He said, this is the most remarkable thing I've ever seen because you are a selfish self-serving person who have never known to do anything for anyone and here you are devoting part of your life for this. Yeah, I guess that's right. Now's the end of that. Well, the next February, then I got a call from the university again. Hello. Uh, the chancellor is retiring this June. I said, that's nice. He said, for, he has named you our distinguished alumnus of the year. Can you come back and talk at commencement? <laughs> You bet I can, baby. <laughs> so I took all my kids as we went back there. I talked at commencement. My parents were both still alive. I was their only child. They both sat crying in various parts of the auditorium. Wonderful experience. And I went back to California. It's really great memory. But then I couldn't let well enough alone. Jesus. The next year I started writing little notes to the university. Isn't it bad to have an alumnus of the year who's not even an alumnus? Isn't that kind of a violation of your ethics? They said, well, you wanted to write a letter. You know why? Because the dean wanted to I wrote him another one next year, a little funny one, cute little one the next year. And after seven years, after my commencement, I finally got in the mail, here's my diploma. Here's your diploma, and stop writing us those notes. <laughs> so if you ever come in my office, you'll see something wonderful. Alumnus of the year, 1980, graduate, 1987. <laughs> now, that's a good, good uh, amend to make. And I, uh, I love the last three, I'm not going to spend a lot of time. I don't want to talk overtime. But that's why I never look at my watch. That's where you made your mistake.
Don't look at your watch. Just know that you're all right. But I, uh, I had a little difficulty with the 11th step. I guess I must call it a type A personality. I'm not comfortable meditating for 15 minutes. That makes me crazy. I can go to a meeting where they have meditation. I can last a minute or so. And I, then I have to move. I've discovered that I don't have to meditate for hours. I, I meditate sometimes sitting in the traffic. I have to remember God means good for me. And just remember that. And the 10th uh, the step was a wonderful thing. One of the most wonderful things that ever happened to me. As you might guess, I have not been a very good husband. I've been an excellent father, but a very not a very good husband. And Bob Darrell, a kid from Las Vegas, and I were talking a couple years ago up in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I spoke on amends, and he spoke on Tenth Step. And he had an impression of the Tenth Step that I'd never heard before. He said, that the Ninth Step, we say we make amends, but the Tenth Step, we ever stop and think you're going back to the people that you've said you're sorry to, but you've screwed up their whole life? I said, no, but I'm, I came home on the plane. I thought, boy, that fits my wife perfectly. She's, had the, she's gone through so much with me, and we're getting along well now, but I'm so sorry. I got home, and she was in bed, and I wrote a cute little note which I was acknowledged I was a bad husband and she'd been a wonderful, loyal wife and I really appreciate it. But I couched it so it was kind of funny. I got up the next morning thinking, well, maybe she's read it and brought me some coffee, but she's still sleeping. Just sit on the table. And I went to work and about a half hour later I got a call saying, hurry home, your wife just died. And I hurried home and my wife had just died at the kitchen table. She was sitting there having a cup of coffee with my daughter, apparently, and holding this piece of paper saying, he finally admitted it. <laughs> she's, had the, she's gone through so much with me, and we're getting along well now, but I'm so sorry. And I got home, and she was in bed, and I wrote a cute little note, which I was had not acknowledged I was a bad husband, and she'd been a wonderful, loyal wife, and I really appreciate it. But I couched it, so it was kind of funny. I got up the next morning thinking, well, maybe she's read it and brought me some coffee, but she was still sleeping, just sitting on the table. And I went to work, and about a half hour later, I got a call saying, hurry home, your wife just died. And I hurried home, and my wife had just died at the kitchen table. She was sitting there having a cup of coffee with my daughter, apparently, and holding this piece of paper saying, he finally admitted it. <laughs> I took a sip of coffee shut her eyes and just never opened them again. I'll tell you, that note took about a million pounds off my heart that I'd left that note. I am so glad. And we had a good funeral, and we took mother up to Wisconsin, and she's buried now between her mother and her son. And I took all the kids up there, and we had a saying goodbye to her. But I thought, just think, if it weren't for Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd have sloughed that off. I'd have been guilty for the rest of my life. I got. I had to make amends to my father, a man I hated, because as far as I was concerned, he deserted my mother and I. And we, uh, I went up for his wife's funeral, and we sat and talked at the kitchen table. I said, Dad, you ever stop and think, why did you desert mother and I and never take care of me? He said, why, how could you say that? I gave up everything for you. I sent you money in the service. 
I said, after you got home and got married, I supported your wife. I brought, I brought the groceries to your house. You didn't even know it. And I loved your son, and you wouldn't let me see him because you said I was a bad grandpa. And he said, I've cried myself a lot of times to sleep over you. I thought to myself, God, I never knew that. It's an entirely different perception than I had of the relationship. And so we got to be kind of close. He came out and lived with us in California before he died. Then he had to hurry home, be like an old elephant going back to the funeral or the burial grounds. He went back to Wisconsin and died. And I came home for the funeral and he, we buried him. And I remember kissed him on the forehead and said, I'm so glad that I had a dad when you died. Because if it weren't for AA, I could go, I could make a case of it. How did you get along with your father? Well, he's all right. He's a bright guy. But he dumped my wife, my mother, and I had put me on the street and made me feel bad. I had to run away. Screw that son of a bitch. He's dead now. I hope he's in hell. I hope they're jabbing him with knives. But as a result of AA, I think, how did my father? We didn't see things the same way, and we almost missed it. But we got together, and he's gone now. I think he's in Valhalla, which is the Norwegian heaven. And I hope he's saving a seat right next to him so I can go there and have a cup of coffee with him. What a difference that makes. Such small little things. You know, there's a one thing I want to say to the new people also. In the program, on the last page, the inside of the last page, they have Dr. Bob's last talk, the last third of it. They don't have the first two-thirds. It's, I think, to me, are the, the history of AA. It says, let us remember to keep our program simple. Let's not louse it all up with Freudian complexes, which may be of interest to the scientific mind. Our purpose here is love and service. And we all know what love is, and we all know what service is. He said, and secondly, let us guard that erring member, the tongue, and use it with kindness and understanding. And there isn't a person in this room or in this world that doesn't know exactly what he's talking about. We all do well when things are going our way. <laughs> Love is the answer, baby. <laughs> but does somebody hurt our feelings or thwart us? <laughs> and you give the ultimate curse. I don't even think that son of a bitch is alcoholic. <laughs> but that's what this is. I, I am, because when I got sober, it was a little more of a different approach. But... Uh, Dr. Bob wrote a great treatise once. He said, the 12 steps are simple in construction and easy to understand. They are extremely workable by anyone who wants to stay sober. You don't have to know the inside and outside. You don't have to know the secret meanings. There are no secret meanings. Alcoholics Anonymous, much to my surprise, turned out to be what it said it was. And what I had to do was adjust my thinking down to accept it. I, uh, and I know it doesn't work for everybody. About a month ago, a big Hollywood celebrity came up to me. I was giving a talk. He came up first and says, Clancy, he said, you're, you're very lucky. I can't get my mind around it. You've got it, and I can't. And I, I should, I can't. I don't know what the hell's wrong. I said, you will. But not quite in time. He committed suicide last week, a week or two ago. I, I wept for him because I know that feeling. I, I went to A for years. And thought, what? I can't, I can't understand this crap. What's so good about here? And yet today, I have come to believe in a loving God. And the great thing about that, I don't know what, sometimes I don't know 
I've thought over the years, what should I pray for? I've prayed for a number of things, but I read the 11th step, and that tells me, as now and for the last 10 years and for the rest of my life, I hope, the only prayer I say at night, I say, Dear God, thank you for getting me through this day safe and sane and sober. And please help me discover what your will is for me so I can do it. Because I'm convinced all the niceties, if I can find God's will for me, I don't need nothing else. I'm home free. But as a human being, I can't always reach it. Because no matter how hard you work to program, you never rise above human being. And human beings are flawed. And they make mistakes. And they're emotional. And they're up and down. But the great thing about AA is, you know, rather think, January or December 31st, everybody's excited that we've got my new series of things that would have changed next year. And uh, if January 1st comes, I'm doing a new life. And sometimes that, those things will hold on for five or six days before I break them. The great thing about Alcoholics Anonymous in my life is this. Every night is New Year's Eve. And every morning is New Year's Day. And some days I don't do very well that day. But then I say my prayers at night, and I think, come on, tomorrow. Fresh day, fresh January 1st. And uh, some days I just go to bed and think, boy, I, I know better than what I've done today. But that's a mark of what A is about. It isn't designed for perfect people. It's designed for people like me, and I believe you, and I believe Bill Wilson. A very flawed man, lost in his own emotions, wrote about a lot of things that had never happened to him. And yet they all work. They all work out to us. And probably, uh, I think about the years I hated God because he killed my son. And I've been trying to say this recently when I get done talking. I can't do it with very much earnestness because I don't know how to do it exactly. But I like to say, I'm glad to be here tonight, safe and sane and sober. Thank you, and God bless you. Synonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problems and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We're self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics. My name is Ralph White, and I'm an alcoholic. And I would, uh, I'm going to do what the rest of the speakers have done, not because the rest of the speakers have done it, but because it's, uh, it's heartfelt. Mark and Dawn, but Mark, you had a vision. 
and more important than having a vision, had the commitment and and the balls to stick with that commitment. <laughs> That's more than a notion to put something on in New York. Um, you guys sometimes out here pay a lot for a little, you know. It's, um, it's challenging. It's, um, you know, many people in here know what it is to be involved in putting on anything in Alcoholics Anonymous and to do the work. And a lot of times it feels like the thank yous are, why did you do it like this? Why didn't you do this? Why did you, you know, and, um, but on behalf of at least this table up here, and I'm going to speak probably for most of the people who've been here, Mark, this has been a hell of a weekend, you know. Uh, You know, I'm reminded in Alcoholics Anonymous of what it is that, that we get the opportunity to do, unity, recovery, and service. You know, and the, and the speakers who've been up here, you know, we've been doing the spotlight work in Alcoholics Anonymous. I always talk about that. That's a spotlight work. All eyes on us. We get to come up here. You guys do a long line and you thank us and you tell us, oh, you appreciate us traveling and the rest of that. And, and you, that's cool. That's, that's the spotlight work. Um, and it's rewarding. You know, I came in here, my sponsor's here this weekend, and he says his gift is he fell in love with Alcoholics and I, that's me. Fell in love with the program. When, when I came to stay, it wasn't hard for me to get into the fellowship, the unity part of our program. Fell in love with it. And as a result of doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that and doing that, I'm from a region in this country where we talk about the big book from the day I came here. We've always talked about recovery, and I'm the kind of guy, why be in a 12-step program and not know about the 12 steps? Don't make sense to me. You know what I do, I do. You know, sports, I'm a sports fanatic. I collected baseball cards. I could tell you one year, you know, Elgin Baylor in the playoffs, I averaged 30, and he averaged these men. You know, I, could, I, I, you, I subscribe to high times. Whatever it is I do, you know, I, I get into. I get into my craft. You know, so as a result of coming around here long enough, I said, why be in a 12-step program and not know about the 12-step? Got really interested in that. And so God then started getting into the recovery part of this. And so as a result of getting into the recovery part and having had a spiritual awakening, as a result of that, you know, what do you do with a woke-up spirit? And you put it in the service. And that's the deal. That's the people around here who know the secret to what it is that we do. You know, those are the people, guys like Tom. You know, I, I still don't take it for granted. Blows me away. Dude got up. He didn't know me. Got up, got in the car, came to the airport, picked me up, took time out of his day, you know. And that's the people, the guys that's been at the back in the yellowish, greenish garb. I appreciate you guys, the greeters, you know, the security. You know, the ladies who sat at the registration table. You know, the people who sold the lottery, the, the, the raffle tickets, you know. The, I, I call them the shadow soldiers, the ones who work in the back. 
the ones who get up on a Friday night or a Saturday night and they get out of their warm beds and they get out from in front of the TVs and they go fire up the coffee pot and they open up the door and they wait for Ralph White to show up. Super Bowl Sunday, seventh game of the World Series, NBA Finals, get out of their bed, fire up the coffee pot, wait for Ralph White to show up. They go in our jails, they go in our institutions, they go in our treatment facilities, and they look for Ralph White. And I am so grateful to the men and women, the shadow soldiers, the ones who work in the back, who kept the light on for a drunk like me. Still grateful. Still grateful. Feel overwhelmed when I get the opportunity to sit with the men and women who've been here this weekend. You know, we, we, to, what we do and what we've been doing this weekend is try to put, give words to something that you can't really give words to. So we do the best we can to describe a personal experience. When I talk to you this morning and I speak of this God of my understanding, trust me, whatever it is that I say is very limited because I'm trying to give words to something for which there are no words. When we talk to you about our experience in Alcoholics Anonymous, at least for this guy, I try to give words and I try to breathe life into something that you, you guys in here know what it is. I have a friend who says you can't describe the taste of a banana. You gotta experience it and it's an experience for each and every one of us. You know, and I've never been the anchor man. You know, I'm usually at the front end. So as the anchor man in this kind of deal, I, you know, I'm already on full. You know, I was, I was in sales for a time and one of the tenants of selling is know when to quit. Know when to quit, you know, and so I really want to just say ditto to everybody else and just, I'm out, you know. Um, but you gave me the time, so I, I'll take it, you know. Um, my boy started us off. Carl, he and I have been together so many times this year, and he's from home. And he kicked this thing off, and he set the bar where it needed to be set. Then Mr. Lorenz here from uh, Indy. Mike said some things that spoke directly to me. You know, I'm a guy, uh, I'm a guy that says some stuff and you know, but it's a trip because the longer you do this deal, the less invested you are in the way you think this deal is supposed to be done. I used to have really strong ideas about it. When I do inventory, I don't put myself on the list. I'm not going to write about God. That's another way of being self-centered. Here you go. Yeah, you want to write. And But Mike says some things that has nothing to do with, you know, oh, the structure as it's laid out in there. It has to do with do you want to see yourself? Do you want to do whatever it is, you know, that is going to enhance whatever it is that helps you with this whole self-examination process? You just opened me up to some, some new ideas about some things, you know, and I really appreciated that, you know. Peter, Peter had to take off already. You know, I love Peter. And Peter brought more spirit. Peter is an intense guy, you know, but, you know, with his intensity, he has some enthusiasm. You know, I love Peter Marinelli, you know, and he's got that intensity. But that's up here. When you meet him off of here, you know, Peter's like a gentle guy and the rest of it. So, um, talking about no words, if you guys were not here, 
you don't describe the diva of the crew. <laughs> the lovely Katie Parker and Katie, oh, man. You know, Katie says some stuff. Here's the deal. And, I, you know, you guys are saying, did this dude get up here to summarize the weekend? Well, I got up here to talk to him. Got up here to talk about my experience and my experience with this deal. I always get a fresh experience. Katie says some things and it, and it dawned on me and you know, and I don't mean to talk about it, but what Katie says, sometimes the danger when you put a label on just, is the hearer hears something that you didn't intend because Katie talked about, I'm a technician. And when I was listening to Katie, I'm like, no, you're not because Katie's like, write on a napkin if you have to, you know, just get it done. Just do the damn thing. Just get in touch with the power. Don't worry about how it looks and the perfection of it. Just get in touch with the power. And Katie has an insight and a way of communicating that just, it's intimidating because it's like, because I do four and five, and I'm like, man, I'm not Katie, you know. And uh, then my sponsor. If for no other reason, Mark, I want to thank you for getting me here on the same weekend. You know, I think I had a best sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous, and if you don't think you had a best sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, maybe get a, but no, nah, don't, don't trip off that, because this ain't a comparison thing. He's the best sponsor for me. He's the best sponsor for me. It may not even be for you. Don't trip off that. But he's the best sponsor for me. And if you listen to him do six and seven, you get a glimpse of why. Um, sponsorship, I'm going to talk about that a little bit if I get through talking about the speakers. You know, um, <laughs> sponsorship is not a one-size-fits-all. It's tailor-made. It's customized, you know. And a sponsorship relationship, as far as, as I am concerned, uh, yeah, take people through. Show them the words, but there is something that will fill in a lot of the gaps. And my sponsor, in addition to being a man who walks this thing, and I keep learning more about him, because he won't tell me. And when Gary Brown was standing up here sharing about his relationship with him, I said, yeah, that's my sponsor. That's the way he rolls. That's the what he does. He fill in the gap. He steps in and he mans up. And he mans up when I came man up. So that's that's what he does. You know. um, and I'm grateful for that relationship. You know, I never met Gary Brown in person, but he's impacted my life in a big way. There are some guys who've been doing this deal in a particular way. And the way that I do what it is that we do comes from those guys. And I've heard a lot about him. And he, you know, when, when, when Bill saw Ebby at the front door and he said he shouted great tidings, he, you know, he talked about his deportment. That's a walking uh, alcoholic. And the thing about Gary that makes it easy is he talked about struggling and he's, you know, 
Folk talk about, we don't have icons, we don't put people on pedestals and Alcoholics Anonymous. I came in here broke, beat down, tore up. I needed somebody on a pedestal because the people I had on pedestals in the life, I needed to replace them with something. And they weren't on pedestals, but they were, they were places I wanted to go. They were markers for me. You know, they were markers. You know, that's like when you, when you're on the freeway and three miles down the road, you know, this is where you're trying to get to. These men were markers and these women, you know. And so, yeah, you know, some of them for me, it was good. I told you I grew up sports heroes. I have heroes in Alcoholics Anonymous. A lot of them are sitting in this room right now, you know, and that's one of the guys, you know, I've been hearing a lot about walking example. My boy, Steve Lee. Wow. When Steve talks, you'd be like, I don't want to talk now. You know, I don't want to talk. I don't want to talk. Steve is a wordsmith, you know, he's kind of like, you know, I said about Bob Darrell and Steve Lee is kind of like that poet laureate of alcoholics and I, Steve just weaves it and I, and, and more than that, more than that, the thing I'm, I'm saying about all the speakers up here, more than them talking up here, I know them all. I know them. And they live this thing. It's a trip. When you bring some people out, it's one thing when you get people who can articulate what the process is and talk about it. It's another when you get people out who can articulate it. But more than that, they live it. They live it. You know, so you can take my word for it. You know, they these people live it. Me and Charlie Parker stayed up. I almost shut the place down. I like being a shut the place down kind of guy. I'm one of the ones that used to shut it down and then go look for the after hours because the party ain't never over for me. You know, I come from South Central Los Angeles. They have their big family, you know, and, and uh, I'm, a, I'm a high achiever, you know, and coming up in life, I, I always had some things and, and not had some things. I never had material things, but I had dreams and goals and hopes and aspirations. You know, I, I, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the common themes you'll hear from most of our members is they never felt like they fit in. That's never been part of my story. I've never been interested in fitting in. I've always wanted to stand out. And as a result of that, I achieved and I accomplished some things coming up in life. And some of the reasons I was a high achiever, you know, uh, is, is, is you've heard it from so many speakers in here, you know, is that, that, that prison I've lived in much of my life. I'm trapped in what I think you think about me. And I want to shape and mold and form and frame your opinions about Ralph White, you know, and I, and I'm deathly afraid that if you really know me, you won't like me, you know, and that has been a driving force in my life for many years. Took a long time before I took my first drink. You know, I was 16 years old. Somebody talked about 12 years. I was 16 years old, and that's very late in Alcoholics Anonymous, but I was busy on my way to being the first black president of the United States, you know. <laughs> People laughing here, but in my neighborhood, I grew up in the heart of Watts. I'm from the 60s. I was in, I, I lived across the street from where the Watts riots took place. I mean, where the National Guard set up. Grew up in that time, but I grew up in a time and in an era when I was going to make a difference in my community. I was going to make a difference in my neighborhood. I was going to make a difference in this world. People in my neighborhood, when I was growing up and I would say, I want to be the first black president, you know, people would pat me on the head and say, you go for it. Cause I was always student body president, class president, straight A student, teacher's pet. Grew up going to school. My mother, old Southern Baptist sister, and she used to take her six boys to church every Sunday. I'd resent it. I said, as soon as I turn 16 years old, you won't have to worry about Ralph White 
darkening the doors of anybody else's church. Said it, did it, meant it. Religion was an opiate of the people. Rather smoke mine, thank you very much. You know, and, and that's the kind of stuff we would say that was real cute back then in the city. But that, that's the way I'm rolling, man. And, and my grandfather, you know, he was a deacon at the church and he was one of the founders and everybody liked him. He had probably fifth or sixth grade education. Old Southern cat that came to Southern California to make a better way for his family. You know, and, uh, and, and homeowner, same, you know, and I look at my grandfather and my granddad and my mom up in church and I'm like, yeah, that's cool for you guys. You're from the South, you're a little, you need some people to tell you how to think and to tell you how to live. I'm too slick for this, you know, I'm the new generation. I'm not trying to do that, you know. When I hit the chapter we agnostics, you know, there were some things in there about forming this relationship with this power that were very important for a guy like me. And it said, be quick to see where religious people were right. They were, you, they were exhibiting a degree of stability, usefulness, and happiness. Stability, usefulness, and happiness. LO 63992. LO, that's a prefix. Youngsters, phone numbers used to have letter prefixes. You know, that's my grandparents' phone number. I can't tell you how many phone numbers I've had in my life. My grandparents had one phone number the entire time they lived while I was alive. The exhibiting a degree of stability. You know, and I used to talk about my granddaddy don't make as much in his lifetime as I'll make in a year or two years. Because I was, I was working in good, you know. And, and it dawned on me when I hit chapter we agnostics, as much as I talked about the, as much money as I made, now what little granddaddy made, it dawned on me. Granddaddy never asked me for bail money. Smart guy, you know, and so I'm. So that chapter, you know, opens some stuff up in me, you know. And I'll, I'll probably dance around and get around, but I really want to talk about what it is I'm charged with this morning. You know, our 12th step. You know, um, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to. Uh, practice these, you know, carry this message to alcoholics and practice these principles and all our affairs. And, and so I get here, but you need to know one of the reasons why we share our stories is because you can't appreciate where I am if you don't know where I come from. For all you know, this thing come easy for me. Yeah, dude, you standing up there in a suit and you've been doing this for 27 years. Yeah, of course you can talk about God. It come easy for you. Look at you. You square. You a schoolboy. The rest of the well, what? We do a disservice a lot of times when we talk about everybody know how to drink. Carl talked about it. We look very different in the life. And the thing that the power in Alcoholics Anonymous. The power in Alcoholics Anonymous is not the transfer of information. The power in Alcoholics Anonymous is to see the transformation. Forget the information, new people that are sitting in here right now. You came for a weekend and you think you're going to get filled with these speakers, these powerful speakers in Alcoholics Anonymous who are going to arm me with some new information. Forget the information. It's about the transformation. It's about the transformation. The guy you see in front of you this morning is not the guy that came to you October the 11th, 1986. Something happened. Something happened. And as much as I respect the distinguished crew right here, and I really want to, you know, sometimes I have to not think about them because I think, oh, God, people critiquing, that ain't the way they do it. Flora, I came to talk to you. Came to talk to you. Yeah, you. 
one day sober. I came here for you. Because we all been there. I love when Bill said, we know what you're thinking. I'm jittery alone and I'm alone. I can't do this, but you can. But you can. Good news, bad news. Sometimes in Alcoholics Anonymous, the first thing we say to a newcomer, it's going to be all right. I'm going to let you know it ain't going to be all right. Keep going the way that you go. It ain't going to be all right. And it's that collapse. I love when my sponsor talked about that. It is on that collapse. Bill said how dark it is before the dawn. It's on that collapse. It don't take a lot of courage, and it does take some courage, but I don't pray you courage. I pray you desperation. My life had got to a real dark place in October of 1986. I'm not the man who's standing in front of you this morning. That's not who it was that came to you guys. I have six brothers, five brothers. All six of us were in the life together. We damn near killed my mom. Three of my brothers, we were the first three guys off my block to go to college. Me, then my brother Ron, then my brother Reggie. I'd be student body president, then Ronnie, then Reggie. Went off to school, made my mom proud, written up in the papers. You know, my mother was always, you know, PTA, all these things. Everybody in the neighborhood knew us. Some few years later, fast forward, everybody in the neighborhood knew us again because neighborhood watch was like, get their asses off the block, you know. And they were, and so that October in 1986, when I found you guys, I lost my home. I lost my marriage. I wrecked it. I'd done most of the things that most of us do by the time we reach a place like this. I was walking the streets at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning with nowhere to go. I turned into one of those foot soldiers. I was sleeping in the back of my mother's garage, and I was eating lemons off a neighbor's lemon tree for, for breakfast. I'm a graduate of a major university in this country, and my job at the end was taking the trash out for a 21-year-old. I hadn't answered anybody's 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock wake-up call to go to work in so long, I no longer knew if I was employable. Didn't know where my little girl was going to school. Didn't know where my family was living. Met you guys in that condition, you know, toe up. And I came in here, and I found my people. And I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I got into the unity part of that program. And I fell in love with the fellowship, like I said, before I fell in love with the program. And after about a year of going to meetings and diligently going to step studies at the hall and listening to people share about steps that they hadn't worked, but it's good, including me, by the way, you know. I, I love talking about stuff I don't know about. <laughs> I ain't no problem, you know, and uh, I get in an argument like that, too, you know. And if, 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 you know, if you can't be smart, be loud. You know, that's my thing, be loud. You know, so anyway, I'm doing the deal, I'm doing it, and I'm sitting at a marathon meeting, and some men and women came in at a slot. And they were a group called Big Book by the Sea in, in Santa Monica. And they presented the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous in a way I had never heard. 
in a half, an hour and a half meeting, they had members proceed to come up, and each one of them would share about it. And I was like, wow, what is this? You know, and I asked my mind, and my brother and I, you know, because in Alcoholics Anonymous, as important as it was for me to get a sponsor, I found another couple of things important. You won't find it in the big book. You won't find this in any of our sponsorship pamphlets. You won't find this anywhere except in Ralph's book of experience and a lot of your book of experience. As important as it was for me to have a sponsor, I had a couple of road dogs. And my road dogs early on, because this is going to have to be fun for me. Flora, if it wasn't fun, I wouldn't be doing it. You'd have, they'd have another person doing the 12 step. You know, this was fun for me. And my brother and my boy stranger, we, we were hitting it. We were doing the damn thing, man, and we fell in love with it. We had one car. Strange had an old yellow bucket, and whoever had a panel that night could use the car. And we would be rolling. We'd go to meetings. We'd take meetings to members who, were, who couldn't get out to meetings, and we started doing the damn thing. And my brother and Strange, we were all at this marathon together. We said, we want this. And we approached two of the members in that group, and my brother and I approached my mom. We were both staying at my mom's house, year sober, and said, Mom, can we open the doors? And in November of 1987, we opened the doors to my mom's house. And about 12 people sat around a dining room table, and we had these blue books open. And we started going through that book page by page, line by line. And that was November of 1987. And in Los Angeles, it's probably about 6 in the morning right now, but in about three hours, you know, that workshop that started then, we would finish the 12th step, we'd take a month off, then we'd open up for a new crew of people. Most of the same people came back, and a new batch came We had about 12. We liked it. We said, let's do it again. Some people said they liked it. And that was our intention to just go through the book a couple of times. And, well, since November of 87, we outgrew my mom's house. We went to a hall, outgrew it. And so in about three hours at home in L.A., It'll be about 250 to 300 members sitting in a meeting, the Never Too Early Big Book Workshop, going through that book page by page, line by line, doing what it is that we do better than anybody else. Floor, a group of us went out the other day, and we went to 182 Clinton, you know, Bill Wilson's old address. And some years back in the 30s, December 1934, that gentleman found himself in the hospital. Fourth time, same hospital. Went up in that hospital, and something happened in the hospital. The doctor had told his wife, get a black dress, because dude, get ready for his funeral. Or he going to the nut house, the way he going, because he get lo- he he do it like I did it, you know. And told his wife to get ready. Something happened to him in the hospital that December in 1934, and it was so profound. And, and he had been in there a few times. But whatever it was that happened scared him. And he told the doctor, doctor, and described to him what happened. He said, am I going crazy? And the doctor said, from the outside looking in, this is how profound that experience was. The doctor looked at him and said, dude, whatever it is, I don't know, but you wouldn't look good holding on to it. And he left the hospital, and he went out looking for people like you and me. Six months passed, couldn't find nobody, preaching to him. You need to do, you need to have this white light experience. Nothing happened, but he stayed sober. And in that length of time, some of, his, some of his guys that he used to do business with put together a business opportunity. They said, we want you to represent us in this business deal. Sent him out of town to Akron, Ohio. And his business didn't come off too well. And he found himself in a hotel lobby 
on a Saturday afternoon and he got thirsty. He got thirsty. And he could see the bar from the hotel lobby, probably hear the ice clinking in the glasses. I always think when I, because I put a backstory on the story. You know how it is when you're trying to get sober, and you, when you first try to get sober, you kind of be like a kid, like Santa Claus. I'm doing the right things. If Ralph do good, good things will happen, right? But in the back of your mind, you're thinking, this thing ain't going to work. If it had been me and my business had fell through, I'd have been like, I knew it. I knew it. Why did I even get my hopes up? Because if his business had gone through, he'd have been set. And trust me, him and his old lady needed to be set because they were struggling. They were struggling. With a good motive, he'd have been set. He was tired of his wife struggling like that. He was tired of being a burden to everybody. He was tired of it. And his business didn't come off too well. And he stood in that lobby. And he could see, and he didn't have no money. Barely enough money to pay for his room. Get a drink, try to pay for his room. Get a drink. And he remembered his buddy that he had seen and told him, you're going to need to work with somebody. My sponsor talks about Bill Wilson always said yes to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first time he, the thought came in his mind, I need to find a drunk not to drink. Our first turning point as a society, we stood at the turning point in the personification of Bill Wilson. And he said yes to the idea of finding a drunk. That's still what it is that we do. That's what we do. He didn't have 12 steps. He didn't have a big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. He didn't have a fellowship. He didn't have a sponsor. He didn't have prayer at that time, even though that was a prayer. A plea is a prayer, whether you frame it or not. I need to find a drunk to work with. And what he had that is so instructive, what he had and what he did was found a drunk to work with. Through a series of divine coincidences, he was making calls and he got put in touch with a lady who had a husband that was one of us. Ms. Smith, I understand you got a husband who's got a drinking problem. I'd like to come talk to him. Do right not today. It's inconvenient. He'll give you 15 minutes tomorrow. That 15 minutes turned into about four and a half hours. And those two gentlemen set about looking for people like me and you. What it is we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Practical experience. And that was our first practical experience in the person of Bill Wilson for all of us. Practical experience shows that nothing ensures immunity from drinking as much as intensive work with another alcoholic. That's what it is that we do. The rest of it is the trappings. The rest of it is to facilitate that. We do that. If nothing ensures immunity from drinking like that, check this out. Immunity, that's a key word that's in that sentence. So if I'm going to get immunity from drinking, that's my immune system, working with others. If your ass ain't working with others, you're walking around with spiritual AIDS. (laughs) If I'm not working with others, where is my immune system? And that's what it is we do. And that's what it is we came to talk to you about. And that's the good news. When it talks about, you know, to carry this message, and then a lot of times people get caught up on the, this message. and this, you know, Yeah, this message, but what is this message? Sometimes people think this message is 
the method. That ain't the message. The message is, I've done these things that have put me in touch with a power that has given me access to a power. Because that's the, that's the whole deal. This isn't a series of, of steps that we get graded on. It's not a series of discrete steps that you say, Ralph, where are you at? It's a series of integrated activities that if I put them together as a whole, it's the way I live my life. It's the way I live, and it's an integrated set of actions that become a working part of who it is I am. And I can't tell you the day or the time or the hour when that thing happened for me. This attitude that Steve talked about, this attitude had been just given to me. I can't tell you when it happened. I can tell you that I know it did happen. And it was a looking back experience where, damn, I'm not thirsty, and I don't even think about it. Damn, I'm sitting in here at a bar because I'm here for a good reason, or I'm at a wedding, and they're drinking alcohol. It's just like they're drinking water. I can't tell you when that happened. I can tell you that it did happen as a result of a series of discrete activities that I started incorporating into my life as a way of living. You know, I'm a guy that, um, you know, my sponsor, and he's here, and I, you know, I, I just take stuff from him, he's here, and that's what he says. He says, you can't treat a spiritual condition through mechanical means. We do the mechanics, but that's not what's treating it. We do the mechanics to get in touch with the power. The power is what's doing it. I'm up, I'm standing up here in an upright position on Sunday morning. I'm not doing it because I do, I read this book so well. I'm standing up here for one reason and one reason on God's grace. Every single one of us who approach these 12 steps approach the 12 steps already sober. Every single one of us who approaches this deal approaches it already sober. So this didn't get me sober. What gets me? God's grace. On October 11th, 1986, what happened for me is what happens for a lot of people. When desperation meets opportunity, a window of grace opens up and I jump through the window. I jumped through the window that morning. For I jumped through the window. And when I jumped through the window, what I've been doing ever since then, the book talks about enlarging and perfecting my spiritual life through self-sacrifice and working with others. So ever since then, I've been bigger and better in my spiritual life. Bigger and better. Enlarge and perfect. How do I do that? Grow God, shrink Ralph. Grow God, shrink Ralph. How do I get this growing God thing going? Shrink me. Don't worry about growing God. You just shrink you. He'll be what's left. Reduce you because you in the way. I mean, my sponsor says that is him. Don't worry about that. Don't go looking out here and go looking out there. Well, how do I do that? Work for his kid. You know, anybody, sometimes people will say, well, I love God. I love this power. And I, you know, it's a lot of people that love Alcoholics Anonymous can't stand alcoholics. <laughs> the theory of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, the organization Alcoholics Anonymous. It would be great if it wasn't for those goddamn alcoholics. You know, and some folks, you know, I had some people, and, and, and well-intentioned and well-meaning, some people came up to me talking about, Ralph, we want to start at 10, 11, and 12. Wouldn't it be great to be in a meeting where everybody is all the way recovered? And, and to me, this is me. I'm a trenches guy. It's like, that sounded to me, Jimmy, something like being in a hospital with nothing but doctors. What is that about? <laughs> We want to keep the riffraff out. We are the riffraff. What the hell are you talking about? 
well-intentioned, well-meaning. I understand that. But the deal is, you know, the deal is what it is that we do. The reason we came out here this morning is not to dazzle you with information, not to dazzle you with uh, what we can say from this podium, not to dazzle you with our vocabulary, not to dazzle you with our knowledge of this process and the rest of this. The reason that we came out here, Flora, is to let you know that there's a way out and a way up. The reason I came out here for you is to let you know that there's a man that came up in here that was a shell of a person. You know, I come up in here not to talk to you about that. You know, somewhere inside there's probably a woman waiting to bust out. Somewhere inside some man up in here, there is a father waiting to show up. Somewhere inside every man and woman in here, there's probably a family waiting to be reunited. Somewhere up in it. That's why I'm here. That's why, I mean, I don't play with people. I don't trip off of all that. You know, in the chapter, working with others, you know, it's some clear cut through. And the thing about the working with others, you know, yeah, that's the, the, the 12th step is really that piece right there. You know, having had a spiritual awakening is some stuff I can do. But I don't get the spiritual awakening if I don't start working with others before I get to the 12th step. So working with others is a continual thing. You'll see that very early in our literature. Our constant, you know, my very life as an ex-problem drinker depends on my constant thought of others and how I can meet their needs. You know, I will, if the alcoholic doesn't enlarge and perfect his spiritual life, how? Through self-sacrifice and working with others. He won't be able to survive the certain. Anybody in here hit a low spot? Don't know about you. The certain trials and low spots. I loved when Gary was sitting up here talking. I loved when he was talking about, because he's iconic in my mind. I've heard about him for a long time. And he walks on the, you know, the alcoholic spiritual waters as far as I'm concerned. And he was, and he's just a guy. He's just a guy. He said, I've been taking people through. I was doing the damn thing. I was sponsoring. I was sponsoring people who were sponsors to people. And, and I was doing the damn thing. And I went bankrupt. And I was doing this. On my, and I was doing. And he's just a man standing up here doing the best he can with what he got. And he was standing up here talking. And the reason why that resonates with a guy like me is because that's what I do. I fall down. When I take one, I can't tell you the amount I'm going to take. I can't control it. And when I sincerely don't want to put it in me again and start that cycle up again, I do it again anyway. And I believe that probably makes me alcoholic. And if that's the case, I'm suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience will conquer. And I don't believe that because it's written in there. When we were, when, when, when the men and women that I work with and that I, and I, and I trudge with, You know, I'm right there. I don't just take this. Okay, so what? It's in the book. And do I believe only a spiritual experience? No. Why do I believe only a spiritual experience to conquer what I suffer from? Because I tried a financial experience. Didn't work. I tried a love experience. Didn't work. Tried a family experience. Didn't work. Tried a father experience. Didn't work. Tried a fear experience. Didn't work. Tried a self-knowledge experience. Didn't work. Tried an acupuncture experience. Didn't work. Tried an est experience. Didn't work. You know, I tried everything there was. So that's why I believe if that if that last one, and you know, if they think you know, suffering from an illness that only a spiritual experience to conquer, and you know, and and that, and I'm gonna be all over. I'm a somebody said. 
said, you can't talk about one step without talking about the others. And particularly this working with others because this is how I, I got there for me. And the way that they work with me. Because that was a hard pill because I grew up in the church. And, and what it was, when, you know, I always felt like this is myths. I'm not feeling it. You know, and maybe I come from a Baptist church that, you know, sometimes they feel to fit what they feel. And I'm, I'm, I'm a skeptic. If it ain't my experience, you lying about it being yours. That's the kind of guy. <laughs> you phony. You fake it. I still say that sometime in recovery. I have to really be careful on those, some of the old ideas that I have. If it's not my experience, you're lying about it being yours. And so in church, people would, it's a trip because my brother talks a lot too. Me and Ronnie slept in the same, we're a year apart. Three months apart recovery. He's three months ahead of me. He's a year younger than me. We literally slept in the same bed, could smell each other's feet. We, you know, we literally slept, same house, same conditions. Emerge out of that house with two different perspectives of it. Ronnie always wanted to be somebody else, wanted to be something else. He always wanted to feel what my mother felt in church and felt like it was unavailable to him. I never wanted to. And I look at my mom in church because one of them, and I don't know about a lot of you guys, you may not know, but in Baptist churches, sometimes folk, you know, get overcome with her. And I look at my mom like, you better not jump up in here and embarrass me. I'm a kid. I'm a kid. You don't know about that, Carl, because the Lutheran churches, they're probably, they're probably, thank the Lord. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That ain't where I come from. You know, and I look at my mom like, don't you embarrass me. I'm seven. Selfish and self-centered at the, from earlier. I'm so selfish. I don't know where we're going this morning. Stay with me, though. I'm so selfish and self-centered. I'm so selfish and self-centered. This is Ralph White. Through eight years old, 109th Street Elementary School, I remember I'd be walking through the hallway, and I'd walk a certain way because maybe I'm on candid camera. Old people, remember candid camera? I would really be rehearsing. For real, okay? For real. I'd be thinking one day I'm going to be on candid camera, and I needed to be walking right in that early age. Early age, you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm that kind of guy. So this whole church thing, you know, I'm not feeling that, you know. So when we hit the chapter, we agnostics, you know, and some working definitions for that agnosticism for me was, you know, you know, I didn't have a problem because I wasn't trying to be atheist. That's too windy an argument you got to uphold why there is no. eh. Plus, I, I suspect that there was. He just wasn't doing nothing for me. Plus, I wasn't trying to fool with him. You know, that, that's, that's the bottom line. So when presented with this idea that only a spiritual experience can conquer this, you know, I really identified, you know, when the book said that next piece, which seems really, really odd. To be doomed to die an alcoholic death, which ain't pretty, is slow death. Death on the installment plan. You know, it's the kind of death when they looking at you again. You're doing that kind of you know, cutting it slow. To be doomed to die an alcoholic death or to live life on a spiritual basis is not always easy. Death, life. Why ain't that easy alternatives? Death, alcoholic death, or life. Because they put that other piece on the life in. Or to live life on a spiritual basis. Why you got to go there? <laughs> or to live life on a are not always easy alternatives. When are alternatives not easy? Ralph, kid, you can have castor oil or cod liver oil. Yeah, great, right. Electric chair, gas chamber. 
You'd rather be shot or you'd rather be cut. You want to listen to Liberace or Lawrence Well? God damn, you know. <laughs> Alternatives are not easy when they look the same or they appear equally distasteful. And to live life on a spiritual basis or alcoholic, they look the same. Ain't that, ain't you, what? Ain't living life on a spiritual basis the same? And I'm thinking that because I know, I don't know what a spiritual basis looks like and I think I do. I think spiritual basis mean no fun, no chasing, no, you know, no cousin, no, no, none of the stuff I like to do. So number one, I don't want it. And here's the kicker. Not only don't I want it, I can't do it no way. Plus, I can't live up to that. I'm not that guy. That's beyond me. And in that chapter, you know, which they talked about already so masterfully, I won't go back through it too long, you know, but in there, I did the negative second step, which is what brought me into this piece. I had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of living life as I have been living. I had come to believe that at three in the morning, you'll find me walking. And it's just going to be like that. I had come to believe. We don't know what's waiting on you in recovery floor, but I can guarantee you what's waiting on you in the life. That's how I work with new people. Had a guy that came to me, one of my favorite guys. He said, Ralph, I've been in 17 programs. Called me at 3 in the morning. Went and picked him up off the street. He had on a T-shirt and tennis shoes. L.A., and it was cold for us. He had frozen out here. It was the middle of the winter. And I picked Ray up. He said, Ralph, how are you going to guarantee? I said, what you want to do, man? He said, I want to do whatever you tell me to do. All right, we're going to get you somewhere in the morning. I don't want to go nowhere again. How you going to guarantee me what's going to happen? I've been in 17 programs before. I said, I can't guarantee you what's going to happen if you try it this way. I can't guarantee you what's going to happen if you don't. Sponsors, don't be sitting up here browbeating people. You don't sell a program Alcoholics Anonymous. We ain't trying to stop people from drinking. In my home group, we say, we want you when alcohol is through with you. Alcohol is our salesman. That's our sales. That, that, that's our account exec. <laughs> we don't have to go out looking for, you know, alcohol is our AE, you know. Okay, you want to keep doing, okay, you like it, I love it. You know, they'll be back. That's just like, you know, Fred talked about, who was talking about Fred? Was it uh, Jimmy? You know, Fred, okay, see y'all. And they's like, okay, cool, Fred, you will. And Fred was like, <laughs> we didn't hear from Fred for a while, but... That's how that happens. That's how that works. You know, and we get the opportunity. We get the opportunity. We get the privilege. I've been going a lot and people be like, Ralph, ain't you inconvenienced and don't it feel written? You know. I like having an immune system. When Gary was talking, he said something in his talk. He said, through all them years of all my malfeasance and alcoholics and personal, personal, personal stuff that was going on that was going against what it was that he was the man he was growing into. 
He said, but one of the things that must have held me in all that time, he said, I never stopped working with others. I never stopped working with others. I heard it. I heard it. I never stopped working with others. It's a privilege we get to do that not a lot of people get to do. Working with others encompasses sometimes sponsorship. It encompasses more than sponsorship. It encompasses other than sponsorship. And then But that is the greatest privilege I get the opportunity to do. And one of the reasons why you never hear Ralph White talk about I throw people away at you, you ain't got to do, you know. And, and you will hear me talk. Sometimes I feel like I'm fun. Okay, I am. You know, you hear me talk a lot about my sponsor. And, and most of it is his example. And Bob talks about we know who the players are. You know, I got people on my team. You know, I got people on my team. You say, how many people you sponsor? And I don't know if it's Scott Lee who has that answer, but I don't know who it is. But the first time I heard it, I loved it. How many people do you sponsor? Oh, about half of them. (laughs) Isn't that a great answer, sponsors? About half of them. Why folk be going around firing people? Check this out. The reason most people fire sponsees is the sponsees ain't doing what they want them to do. Well, the ones who ain't doing what you want them to do ain't fooling with you no way. It ain't like they're taking up a lot of time. You know, I'm not even tripping off that. You know, I don't even, because, because we don't work with others to get them sober. We work with others so we stay sober. What the hell am I doing getting rid of my immune system? No, you're, no, 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 no. You know, I need you. I need you. In the early ones, when they were doing 12-step and real stuff, and, and a lot of times, folk of our generation, when Clancy was talking, a lot of what he was saying, is like, oh, man, that ain't what we do now. But then I'm like, because this is how I am. This is how I am. I will hear Gary Brown, I will hear Bob Bazanz, I will hear Clancy, and they'll talk about really what happened. And they hear. And I want a discount. Oh, you ain't doing it right. How the hell am I going to tell you you ain't doing it? And you're sitting here. You're sitting here. I used to be in a spot and somebody used to be telling me, you ain't doing it right. I'd be like, <laughs> I, do, I pay for this shit. I do it however I want to. I'm getting the effect. I don't care what it looked like to you. I mean, in effect, you know, Charlie, because I did some everything. Charlie was really nice and dancing. He said, you know, we're not going to talk about, you know, I, I did a lot of stuff. I grew up in, you know, I came up when I came up. You know, when they handed me that J, if I had known I'd be here at the Gotham City Roundup, when they told, when, you know, back in like 72, when they handed me the joint, I would have probably told them, Mark, I can't hit this because I'm going to be at Gotham, but I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't know. So... And new friends, the tradition violation ain't mentioning that, but the tradition violation is talking about that, and you ain't and ain't talking about alcohol. Because that's what we do. We alcoholics anonymous, you know. And and so in working with others, you know, my sponsor, I was on the point, and he like, we know who the players are. We know who the players are. Me and Jimmy was talking, you know, uh, last night, you know, and. Uh, no, me and Charlie were talking about that last night. I don't trip off guys. I got people, you know, and sometimes I listen to Katie. I listen to Charlie. I listen to Mike. You know, I listen to Katie. And I'll be like, Steve, something's wrong with my sponsorship. You know, you guys just seem like you sponsor so much better. I listen to you when you share. And it's like, so new friends, don't trip off that. That is, that's who we are. 
That's the humanness in us. I don't know if it's the alcoholic in us. That's the humanness in us. You know, that whole comparing and I want to be like this. And, and, you know, sometimes that is also, it can be motivational. Look for the similarities. Don't look for the differences and don't trip off that. I'll never be able to get up there and talk like these guys have been talking this weekend. Don't worry about that. This ain't a talking program. It's a living program. It's within the grass reach of anybody sitting in the room right now. You know, and so my sponsor talks about we know who the players are. We know who the players are. Don't be worried about the people that ain't doing the right, and you know that ain't, because there's enough people that's hungry for what it is you have, and you're the only one that's qualified to carry your message. One of the biggest benefits and one of the biggest things I've been given in Alcoholics Anonymous is my own walk. You will hear people who talk about us being a cult and us people, you know, being in, in, and that's the furthest thing from the truth always been scared of what you would think of me if I really showed up. I've always been scared that you would toss me if you knew who I really was. I've always been afraid of, of, of who it is. I don't know if Katie said it, but it is so, they, they give voice so much better than me sometimes to what it is that I feel. Most of what it is that we share in these rooms, when you find yourself nodding, it's not new information. It's not informational, it's confirmational. It just confirms something and somebody gives it a name. They put words to something that I've been feeling, I couldn't put it in those words. And so we nod and we, and we identify. Had a brother in my home group, brother named brother, and he used to say, when heart speaks, heart hears. And in Alcoholics Anonymous, that's what we do. We speak the language of the heart, and we do it the way nobody else can do it. We can reach other people when nobody else can reach them. We charge with that. There's something that is special about what we do. And the way that most of us get it, the thing that we are armed with that makes us the most useful and the most valuable, it hurts a lot, but it's what we are, and it's our experience. I got on my knees in my first year of recovery and I, with a group of men and women, and I said, God, I offer myself to you to do something with me. I offer myself to you. And if I'd have said that prayer, if I'd have said that, if I'd have walked up to you, Ms. Hume, with that one-year recovery, and I wasn't a vision for you, I wasn't much to look at, and I didn't have nothing going on. I was standing at my mama's house. You know, and if I'd have walked up to you and said, Ms. Hume, I offer myself to you, you'd have been like, dude, keep it moving. You know, but... Um, <laughs> But what I like about this process is when I did that sincerely on my knees in front of this power, I didn't know. On the th- that's the third step. I didn't know this power. It was a promise to submit to the rest of the process. And I got on my knees with a group of men and women, and I said, I offer myself, do something with me. And I've done a lot of things in alcoholism. And I veered left a lot of times. I've fallen down, and I've done stuff. I've done stuff I'm embarrassed by, and I've done stuff that I'm ashamed of. I've done stuff on, you know. And then at the end of the day, those are the things that seem to make me the most useful. But what happened when I got on my knees in that condition? You know, in churches, in religious institutions, I don't know. If they say that, it's what I heard. You had to come a certain way already. You had to come right already. And Alcoholics Anonymous, you don't have to come right to get right. Come like that. Get on your knees, third step. Steve was talking about it felt hypocritical. That's the biggest freedom in that third step. Come as you are, still hoeing, get on your knees. Still lying, get on your knees. Still tripping, get on your knees. Still watching porn, get on your knees. Still not being able to be trusted, get on your knees. Still not giving them a full day's work, just get on your knees. And right in that condition, doing those things at that time, in that 
circumstance, he'll do what it is that he do. And he don't need your permission. He does need your cooperation. And he did something with this man's life. He did something. He did something. He did something. It's what we do better than anybody else. At the end of that prayer, it says, God, take away my difficulties. Not because I'm afraid of them. I am. Not because they're uncomfortable. They are. Not because I don't want them. I don't. But take away my difficulties. The victory over them may bear witness to those I would help. That's how we get most useful, you know. So if you're going to claim that God can handle anything, check this out. Sometime he just going to have something for you. going to have something for him to handle. Somebody in here just have something for him to handle. Don't trip. Somebody in here feel like they're in a dark place right now. Don't trip. It's going to be what you are. But I'm going to tell you, you can grow in the valley. Been there. You can grow in the valley. You can grow wherever you plan. Not only can you grow, you can thrive and you can prosper. 22 years sober, I thought that they needed a treatment for the, I thought they needed a recovery home for old timers. I was like, Carl, you got to, I was ready to call you. I felt fraudulent in my, in my sponsorship. I felt like I didn't need to be going out talking no more. I didn't know. You know, I thought that there was this, this, that there was going to be this, um, Causal relationship, and there is somewhat between if that that is a measure of how you doing the damn thing. The measure of how you doing the damn thing is doing the damn thing. We're behind looks. You know where we come from? Who we? And it takes sometimes it takes a while. That's why my sponsor, my son, he said, "Should it might take 50?" Because I fall down. Spiritual walk ain't perfect. But I love this thing because as a result of me falling down, I am extremely useful to folk because that's what we bring to the table. Everybody in here got something. You might think because you can't take people through this, you don't have, you got experience. You got experience. I can stand up in front of you and say it with certainty. You can lose your house and you ain't got a drink. I can say it with certainty. You can come out of a 20-year relationship in front of everybody in your Alcoholics Anonymous community, knowing everybody at the same moment, you ain't got a drink. I can say it with certainty. IRS can come after you for 80, you ain't got a drink. can say it with certainty. You can go broke and you can live happy, joyous, and free in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can say it with certainty. You can come through the dark and you can get to the light and I can guarantee you that there is light. And here's something else I can guarantee you. That if you put your hand in this hand, those promises they read, if you keep working with others, if you stay close to us, if you keep doing this damn thing. I remember I was getting ready to talk. Stay mine. Getting ready to talk on the third step about making this decision for God. I was upstairs in my room and I got a call from my wife. They just came to the door and put a note on the door. We got to be out of the house. I'm losing my house, and I'm getting ready to go downstairs and talk. December. I got two girls, and my girls are spoiled because of you guys. They're spoiled. Yeah, Christmas is a big deal in the White House. Big deal. My girls don't know that. That Christmas was looking really bleak and really bad. My feet have been trained by you guys. I, I didn't, you know, when, the thing about doing these things right here, folk, don't come up here rehearsed and practice. Come up here and shoot from here. That's why we, you don't know where it's going to go, you know. And I'm, I'm up there talking about the Thursday and stuff comes out because that's what I'm trained to do. I had a friend that said, Ralph, when you think you're looking bad, that's when you're looking good. And me, I'm an image guy. 
I have to counteract that. A lot of people say, Ralph, we thank you for your honesty and your humility. No, that's not who I am. So I practice diligently to be transparent. I practice diligently to let God use me. You know, I practice diligently to do that. And I'm standing there and I'm sharing and it comes out and we don't know what Christmas is going to look. And my fellowship showed up. I'm not one that ever diminishes the power of any one of those sides of the triangle. I don't diminish the power of Alcoholics Anonymous. You guys have carried me. You've carried me at various times. You know, and so this deal, this working with others deal, it yields benefits. And the benefits it yields, you usually see after the fact. In that process, this, this, this reduction of ego, this ego reducing things so that the power can grow in my life so that I can experience this transformational power that's done the impossible in this man's life. Next Saturday, I'll be getting on a plane. I've got two little girls that are no longer little girls. My, ba- my, ba- my oldest one is 31. She's a practicing attorney, and she gave me my first grandson. He's three months old. <laughs> Thanks to you guys. He'll always have a granddaddy that's present and accountable and spoiling that young man. My little girl, she's 19, will be on a plane to Boston next week. She'll be moving into her first apartment. Dad will be flying back with her because that's what daddies do as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous. This working with others deal, man, is real, it's tangible. It'll take you to the next level. Three levels of prayer life, three levels of my spiritual life, and Alcoholics Anonymous. First level, first phase, almost all of us come in here on that. Help me. First prayer, universal, almost all of us come in here on that. Next phase, phase two, give me, grant me. Third phase, highest phase, highest calling in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can lose my money, check, lose my house, check. You know, lose, you know, my standing, I thought, I didn't, but in my mind, all that. Third phase, highest phase, can't take it from me. Use me. Use me. You've made me useful. You've given me a way out. You've given me something to hold on to. You know, I am extremely, extreme. You'll never hear Ralph White say, I don't know why I'm sober. I know exactly why I'm sober. I get a blessing so that I can be a blessing. And recovery for me is a gift from God, what I do with my recovery. That's my gift to God. My name is Ralph White. I am an alcoholic. Thank you very much, Ralph. We'll close with the uh, Lord's Prayer. Who's large and in charge? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. 
and in the kingdom, power, and glory forever and ever. Amen. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things that I can, and the wisdom. Um, to introduce um, any of the people in the class in the 90s that came in when I did, um, names like Chris Schroeder and Raymer and, and Houston and Hawk and all those different guys. When I came in, that's who we listened to. And, um, you know, these guys have a depth, uh, have carried this message of, of depth and weight. And, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times, Chris, that I listened to your CDs um, and was at a few of the speaking commitments. And you don't know. None of you guys, you know, I, I guess we do because it happened to us as well. But you guys touch people and you touched me in a way that you couldn't possibly know. And, and things have sprung board from that. And I thank you guys for your service. And it's Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris, and I'm an alcoholic. What an incredible weekend. You know, everybody that's gotten up here has said this has been an incredible weekend, but it has. Uh, I, I mean, what, an, what a great lineup. Mark, uh, Mark was talking at dinner uh, last night, and I asked him how this, how this came about, and he goes, well, I, th- I was thinking about doing an event like this, and I picked my 13 favorite speakers, or 11 favorite speakers, and I, I called them all up expecting maybe six of them would be free, and everybody said yes. So, so really, really what, what this is, is it's, it's, uh, it's a collection of, uh, of the people that, that Mark really likes to, to listen to. And, and in that, and in that dynamic, <laughs> In that dynamic is is something that I've I've never experienced. I've been part of a lot of conferences and workshops, but really what I see in this particular one is there's a heavy influence on the Denver, the early Denver areas, uh, uh, the young people's group and people that came out of that. Uh, Gary and you know Don Pritz and a number of these people. What, what they did was they got down to a very very a specific way of moving through the steps out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous and made that, made that the core piece of their recovery program and changed countless lives. And, and, and the ripples of that have moved out uh, uh, across the country. And really what, what, what's represented here today are the people that have been influenced by the people who um, got involved in the early days in the, in the different young people's group and the people that were touched by that. So that makes this a really special event uh, for me because my spiritual lineage is traced back uh, to Denver. Many of the people I've, I've never met, uh, many of the people that are gone today have helped, uh, helped to influence me in uh, in actually doing uh, doing the work as it's laid out in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, my my topic uh, today is on awakening, and that, that leaves a lot of latitude. Uh, but you know, and I will be describing that a little bit. Um, the section from the spiritual experience that was read earlier describes it very very well. You know, what happens to us through a course of action and a, and a shift in perception is we begin to awaken. Uh, that would lead me to believe that if they're saying that we're going to become spiritually awakened, 
prior to this work were spiritually asleep. And that's not something that's real popular to share at the local home group, you know. But but to a degree it's to a degree it's true. I, I was I was so asleep to how things actually were that it, that it's incredible. Yet I truly believed that I understood at a very, very deep level how the world works. And, and I would just not be interested in, you know, your opinion on it. I, I've already figured this out. And I was living at home with mom at 33 years old. <laughs> you, you know, I, it, it's just crazy. I was so certain that I understood the world and people and, and business and politics. I was so certain, but I, I had no clue. I was walking around, uh, I was walking around asleep. Something that's, that's typical of the alcoholic, uh, and you'll hear this in almost every alcoholic's story, is that there was, they were incomplete in some way. It might have been, uh, that they felt different. It, you know, it, it might have been that they were waiting for the Martians to come and take them away because they thought they were on the wrong planet. I mean, you hear a lot of these stories, but I believe that the alcoholic is incomplete. And I believe that we're yearning and searching for something in kind of a desperate way because there's, there's a missing component to our life. Very common to all of us is, is feeling uncomfortable with ourselves and our environment. That's very, very common. Uh, I know I felt that way. I felt that way in kindergarten. I didn't, I didn't feel like that I was in the right place. You know, when they took me off to kindergarten, I was like, who came up with this kindergarten idea? You know, this is not working for me. And, and, you know, all the way through school and they wanted me to, to take take square dancing lessons, and I was supposed to be a Boy Scout and put a little tie on it. i got to tell you, folks, none of that worked for me, you know. I wanted to be somewhere else with different people, you know, doing something else. I, I never I never wanted to, to play the games that were being laid out in front of me. There was, there was something, there was something really missing in my ability to appreciate and be comfortable with my life. And I can, I can remember that. I, can, I had a hard time walking down the hall in school. I, you know, I had, they would ask me to give an oral report in front of the class. I would cut school for four days after that to, just to be sure that I'd miss the makeup exam too. I mean, I was just really, I was, you know, I, I, I wanted to go. Okay. I wanted to, I'll see you later. And, uh, and I, I, there was something missing in me. There was a component that would allow me to feel okay with the world. Now, uh, I discovered, I discovered an artificial, uh, solution to this one day. I was about 12 or 13 years old and a couple of my buddies and I decided that we were, uh, we were gonna cut school and we were gonna go home and we were gonna get drunk. We had heard about this and seen the John Wayne movies and stuff, and we thought it would be really cool to do. So that's, that's what we did. We went back, we cut school, we went back to my house, and I brought out a big bottle of Four Roses whiskey, and I poured three big water glasses of it. Now, 
The important piece to this really isn't what happened to me. I think most people in this room would understand what happened to me. But it's what happened to the other two guys. The other two guys drank about two-thirds of their glass, and they'd had enough. No more for me, thanks. I hated drinking with people like that. You, you know, people that would have enough on you. But they did. They did. Oh, by the way, you know you're an alcoholic if the last part of your sentence is on me. You know, like somebody died on me or, you know, that's that's typical of the selfishness of and self-centeredness of the alcoholic. It's always, you know. But anyway, they had enough on me. And... Uh, and they sat back and watched the show. Now, this, now each each of our each of our alcoholic experiences are going to have uh, similarities and they're going to have differences. Uh, a lot of people drink their way into uh, the phenomenon of craving, the allergy to alcohol. I had it like that, and, and I, I had to start to deal with it right away. But what happened to me was. I drank my glass of Four Roses. I drank another glass of Four Roses. You know, I finished what they didn't drink, and I finished the bottle, and I went into my first blackout. This is at like 12 years old. I came to in a field not knowing how I got there. And then I was horrifically, horrifically ill. Just t- like had to, had to be horizontal for two days. You, you know, your, your first real drunk, how sick you get. That's your body saying, dude, you know, this isn't the best stuff to be putting in you at this kind of level. But uh, but what happened was, in between the first and the second drink, something very significant happened. And that event colored the, the, rest, of, the rest of my life. Because what happened was, when the alcohol went down in, there was a, there was a sense of ease and comfort. There was a warm glow kind of thing that went down in me. And all the anxiety I had, all the self-centered fear I had, all, all the forms of just being uncomfortable with you went away. And all of a sudden I felt like for the first time in my life I absolutely fit in. I'm in the right place with the right people. This is so cool. This is so great. I feel so great. And then I became a vomiting pig. But, but in between, in between, I finally felt like, like this is, this is good, man. I'm okay. And I chased that feeling into, into active alcoholism and, and into drug use and everything else. I chased that for the next 20 years. I, 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 needed to, I needed to feel okay. Now let's, let's just fast forward a little bit uh, to the last couple of years of my drinking. Uh, I would come to in the clothes that I've been wearing the, the night before every single morning. And, and the vodka or the bourbon would be coming out of my pores. I would just, you'd smell me and you'd be like, man, God, take go take a shower. It was it was really funky, and uh, and I would stagger up, and you know I'd go into the bathroom, and, you know I'd, I'd be just shattered. I would have drank a quart of bourbon or a quart of vodka the night before, and I'd have to go to work. So you know, I'd splash water. I'd go out to my hundred dollar car, and and. Uh, and, and you know I I never I never accumulated anything. There, there was. There was a woman in our home group who raised her head one time. I'm brand new. She raised her hand. She goes, I've got a real problem. I've got a lot on my plate. 
You know, I, I just bought a new house and I was expecting to sell my old house and my old house isn't selling and I'm stuck with two mortgages now. And I'm thinking, how do you get a house, you know? How do you get a mortgage? I, what is credit? You know, I, 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 I was unsympathetic. Anyway... Anyway, you know, I would stagger out to my $100 car and I'd go off to my terrible job. And, uh, you know, I was an electrician and I was not a very good one. Uh, I don't recommend the electrical trade for people that are still drinking. Uh, I got to tell you, I, you know, I would electrocute myself at least once a day. I, mean, I just left my hair standing straight up, you know. I, I told everybody that's the look I'm going for, you know. Uh, it was really bad. Uh, but anyway, I, you know, I'd go off to this terrible job, and literally, literally, I would, I was, sh- listen, when you drink like a lot of us do, it's not a hangover. It's alcohol poisoning. You have put so much alcohol in your body that your body is poisoned with ethyl alcohol. It's like hangovers are what the heavy drinkers get, you know. And and I, you know, I would I would uh, uh, I would go to my job and my boss would go, okay, do this, 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 and this. I go like, oh, all right. And and I'd forget what the hell he told me by the time I got to the truck. I'd have to go back with a pad. Like, what did you say? You know. And the, it was a terrible job. He was an alcoholic. That's the only reason he put up with me. And, I, and I'd run off to, like, start a fire in somebody's house. Uh, and, and, the, and the whole time, the whole time, I would just be so ill, and I would swear to God, I would swear to God that I can't do this anymore. I never want to feel like this again. Today is the day. Today is the day that I am going to quit. I, I, I swear to God. And I meant it. I meant it. You know, Charlie was, Charlie was talking about this, uh, this earlier. You, you know, we mean this. If you put a polygraph, a lie detector on us and you, and the polygraph expert goes, do you really mean this? Yes, that the needle's gonna go right to true. Because I absolutely never wanted to feel like this again. But what would happen is about halfway through the day, uh, I'd start to think about, you know that decision earlier to never drink again? That's a pretty strong decision. You know, I might have overreacted. As a matter of fact, you know, I'm going to modify that decision a little. I'm actually going to go to the liquor store on the way home. And, and, and I, it was a cycle I couldn't get out of. It's a cycle I couldn't get out of. Now, I was drinking, I was drinking to not feel toward the end. I was drinking to just black out. I just wanted out. Life was just too painful. And, and, you know, the obsession of the mind, the allergy of the body, I was being driven into this alcohol. And, you know, I understand, I understand just how serious this is. You know, earlier, uh, when, uh, when the hands went up and the people came up for the countdown, there was a lot of people in, in what I would call early recovery, you know, in the, in the first year or so. I, I need to tell you something. If, if you've not gone through the steps yet, with a sponsor uh, following the guidelines of the big book. If you don't have service commitments, if you haven't made a commitment to a home group, uh, you're in a lot more trouble than you think you are. It's absolutely true. We minimize. I mean, 
I'm in, I finally end up in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I, you know, I, I stumble in uh, to Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I'm going late, and I'm leaving early, and I'm not getting involved with anybody, and I'm really thinking that AA is like a castor oil treatment. You know, you, you go to the meeting once a day to take your medicine, and, and, then you, and then you go home. And I didn't have a clue how aggressive and how corrosive alcoholism really is. The fabric of my entire being, the fab- the fab- every piece of quality of my life was impacted uh, by alcoholism. And I was so used to it that I just, didn't, I just didn't know that recovery was possible. I just didn't know how sick I, I was. And, and, you know, most people die when they become alcoholic. Most people die drunk. There's a, there's a small percentage of people who find their way into Alcoholics Anonymous or, or maybe some other, other things who, uh, who actually survive this. But it's difficult to survive because we walk and think ourselves out of here. You know, think think again about the uh, 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 about the, the everybody standing up during the countdown. There was, there was probably a third of the people had less than a year that stood up in the countdown. Where's everybody going? You, you know, if everybody stayed who came into these things, if everybody stayed, you'd have the same amount of people with two years standing up as you have three, all the way up to 50 or whatever. But we know that doesn't happen. We know that people find their, their, way, their way out of here. And there's many reasons for that. But it, it, just, it shows me just how aggressive alcoholism is. It, just, it shows me how we are. You know, we're, we're looking for a way out. And... Uh, and to be able to stay here is very, very difficult. Uh, a lot of people say, you know, it's hard to get in here. It's easy to stay. I, I think it's the opposite. I, I, think, I think it's easy to land in here. You know, we, somebody will push you through the door. But it's hard to stay. There's a certain amount of work we have to do. I believe if we're alcoholic, there's a certain amount of work we have to do to, to be able to stay. And that's not something everybody wants to hear. You know, I, I remember, I remember early on in a meeting, somebody was talking about actually doing the steps. I got sober in New Jersey in the late 80s, and uh, and it was a whole different dynamic than it is today. But every once in a while, someone would be talking about the steps, and there'd be an there'd be an old timer who'd go, "Kid, if they told me I had to do all these steps and I had to do all this work when I first came in here, I'd been right out the door." And I always thought to myself, you know, you're, you're, you know, you, you're probably overestimating our concern about whether you would stay or not. You know, I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't know how much good you really are, Clem, uh, for, uh, for, for, uh, for our group conscience here. But, but anyway, um, there was there was a lot of negativity to work. There was a, the work that you have to do. There was a lot of negativity to God. There was a beginners meeting where they in the in, in the actual in the actual format of the meeting it told you not to talk about God because you might you might scare the newcomer out. You know uh, that'd be like saying to a cancer patient, uh, don't talk to him about chemo or radiation. You know you, you might you might scare him away. Well, cancer's going to scare him back. You know, same thing happens. Uh, same thing happens with us uh, in alcoholism. 
we're going to come, we have to, we have to come to this with a willingness to participate. And that willingness, I wish I could give a pill to some of the people that I work with to make them willing. I, I've not found the secret answer to that. And Ralph was talking about uh, alcohol is the great persuader. And that's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. I, I, you couldn't have got me into Alcoholics Anonymous with a Komatsu tractor before, uh, before I was ready. I, I just, I would have avoided it like the plague. And, uh, you know, so there's, there's got to be, there's got to be some, uh, some participation in, uh, in the recovery process here. Now, talking about awakening, uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we are lucky. We have, we have an actual program that pretty much promises a spiritual awakening if we follow it. But awakenings, and the term awakening have been around for a long time. There was, uh, in America, there were the great awakenings of the 17 and 1800s. And really what they were, were they were religious revivals. You know, the, the era of the tent preachers, where they'd put up the gigantic tent and they'd drag people in and everybody would get saved and there was a lot of spiritual fervor. And this really changed a lot of the dynamics uh, in, in America, these early, these early uh, tent revivals. And they called this period of time, historically, you know, the Great Awakenings. So people have been awakening to their spiritual nature through, uh, through religion for a long time. It's not that Alcoholics Anonymous fig- figured out a specific thing that had never existed before. You know, there were awakenings going on in the Oxford group prior, prior to, Bill, to Bill showing up. But I believe, I believe in, a, in awakening, there's many aspects to awakening. I believe one of them is a shift in perception. I believe that we start to see things differently. And I believe a spiritual awakening and awakening is a, is a shift in behavior. We're going to start reacting differently to life. We're going to start behaving differently. We start to really understand maybe what our purpose is here. An accurate, humble self-appraisal is part of, uh, part of an awakening. One of, one of my favorite speakers, um, uh, Anthony DeMillo, uh, uh, it was rare that his, his retreats and workshops would get taped, but I got, I got a hold of one of them. And uh, he gets everybody together, and they're all gathered in the meeting. And he starts off, he starts off his talk like this. I'm Anthony DeMillo, and I'm here to get you to wake up! And, you know, and, uh, and the whole, the whole place, the whole place goes like this. And, uh, that, that's really what, what he was there for. We, we, we need to wake up. One of the greatest things about working, working with others is, is you, you can, you can recognize, you know, just, just, the level of devastation that alcoholism has, the, the level of how much someone is asleep to what is going on in their life. Um, uh, this weekend I, I was revolved around a, a handful of people uh, who, uh, who were involved in uh, trying to figure out the proper hospitalization for some of the befogged people that showed up here this weekend. There was like four 12-step calls that, that resulted in one form of treatment or other that happened down in the, in the front. And, uh, and I, a lot of times when I get involved in work like that, I get, I get to see the true face of alcoholism, the true face of, of addictive illness. And you, you, get to, you get to see somebody who is 
toxically uh, and critically uh, minimizing their particular condition. You know, uh, how, how often does, it, does this happen? How often do you get somebody that asks you to, to, to work the steps with you? You know, would you take me through the steps? Okay, sure. Um, uh, here's, what, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like you to come over on, on Thursday night, and, you know, we'll, we'll get down. We'll start work. And it'll be like, oh, Thursday's no good for me, man. Yeah, well, what, what, are you, what are you doing Thursday? Oh, you know, uh, actually, this whole summer is not too good for me. Uh, it, you know, I'm, I'm going to be touring with the dead. And uh, I always tour with the dead. And, yeah, but you're, you're one day sober. <laughs> you, you know, I mean, a lot of times they think we're, they think we're overreacting when, when, we're trying, when we're trying to work with them. Uh, but there's, there's so much, there's so much work that really has to happen. Now, I truly have had a spiritual awakening as the result of the 12 steps in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I stand before you today with, with an awakened spirit. An awakened spirit does not mean that I'm a perfect person. It doesn't mean that I make mistakes. It doesn't mean that I'm not wrong sometimes. It, it just means that I, I'm, I'm basically awake to the spiritual life as a necessity for me moving forward. I'm awake to the fact that I have toxic selfishness and self-centeredness, and the foundation of my life was built on that. And I need, I need to work very, very diligently to try to move off of that foundation toward a foundation of service and, and compassion. And uh, I, I've realized that through the work uh, involved in the, 12, in the 12 steps. If you have not done a fourth step, if you haven't, if you haven't inventoried your resentments, your fears, uh, if you haven't really closely inventoried your conduct and moved through the rest of the steps, especially steps eight and nine, you don't know what your problem is. Those particular steps highlight what your actual problem is. The causes and conditions, the the root foundation of your alcoholism. So it's very, very important to pay attention to those things. For the longest time, for the longest time, I thought drinking was my problem. I really did. I was in AA for six months just going to AA to not drink. Now, for the, for the newer people in here, not, not drinking is pretty important. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm minimizing that. You know, that, that's, that's a pretty important thing to do. But the root problem is, is a much deeper, much deeper problem. Um, and a story I tell that kind of kind of illuminates this is this particular story. Now, I told you I was a bad electrician, and by, by the afternoon I would have convinced myself to go to the liquor store. And that happened like clockwork uh, Monday through Friday. Um, and I had, a, I had a liquor store that I had a, a relationship with the owner. You know, we had an understanding that he would have Gordon's vodka on the shelf or he, ha- he would have George Dickel bourbon on the shelf, depending on whether it was winter or summer. And he knew not to run out of that because we had had discussions. And, uh, and this one day, this one day I, I'm tearing, I'm tearing to, to the liquor store, a terrible day at work where I had to electrocute my helper to get rid of him, you know. Uh, 
I used, I never used to be able to just say, look, you're, you're not working out. Uh, you know, I think that you need to move on. I thought it was a better idea to, to have them work on a junction box and then turn the switch on. You know, you know, you do that to somebody three or four times and they change their career. Um, so that's how, it, but anyway, I, you know, I, I'm heading to the liquor store and, uh, and I grab my bottle and I head up, you know, I've got my 20. I'm real efficient with this checking out thing, you know. And, uh, and I get up there and there, there's, a, there's a lady who's talking to the person uh, behind the cash register. And she's going, what kind of wine goes with tilapia? And, and I'm standing there like, what? You know, and he's answering her. He's going, well, it's this marvelous new Chablis from the vineyard regions of California. It's got kind of a blush. And, and I'm like, I'm like, are you nuts? Are you nuts? Vodka buyer! Vodka buyer here! You know, that trumps the wine lady! Just give her some gallo and get her the hell out of here! I gotta check out, I gotta check out! I got, I got, I got a pro, I got, I'm sober! You, you know? I'm freaking out now. Now, now, now think about, think about this. Really, is it really, is drinking really my problem? If, if I experience something like that. Drinking is really the bad solution to, to the problem. Being so freaked out in the line is a manifestation of my alcoholism. Being the type of person who's really impatient, really selfish, you know, uh, you know, just not caring about anybody or anything except, you know, their own agenda, that's really the cause and condition of alcoholism. I quiet that person with a bottle of booze. The problem is, the problem is, is the bottle, you know, I can't, I can't drink. My alcoholism has progressed to the point where it, it's gonna, it's gonna kill me. I start to drink it and, uh, you know, who knows, who knows what happens. So, all of a sudden I show up in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and I'm the guy behind the tilapia lady and you're telling me just don't take a, a drink no matter what. You know, there has to be a complete personality change at depth. There, ha- there has to be a shift in my perception and my, uh, my ability to, to feel comfortable in the world. That has to happen. It just has to happen or, or, or else I- I'm not going to make it. I'll be able to stay in the rooms a month, a year. You know, I'll, I'll, the trials in low spots ahead will happen and I will shatter myself out of here. And I'll end up back with the the solution that doesn't work anymore, you know, just to, just as an escape. So that that type of that type of psychology has to be treated. It has to be treated, and it gets treated in the uh, in the twelve steps. I truly believe it. There's a whole lot of stuff that happens by going going to meetings. That's I believe it's essential going to meetings, and I believe service commitments are essential. But I believe the true healing of my alcoholic nature comes in the practice of the, the, the 12 steps. You know, so I've had a spiritual awakening as a result of the 12 steps. You know, step, step 11 has kind of prepared me for a better acceptance of 
the spiritual awakening, uh, more, more and better practices for achieving, uh, achieving the spiritual awakening. Uh, from, the, from my earliest days partying, I recognized that there was spiritual malnutrition in Chris. I, I, I recognized it. I remember being in college and seeking out Carlos Castaneda books and Alan Watts books. I was reading all this, you know, P.D. Auspensky, all these really wacky authors that, uh, that, that had, uh, had depth and weight with their spiritual language. And I, I was drawn to those books. I, I was drawn to that stuff. And I think, it, I think it was a natural draw. There was the thing that was missing in me, uh, I was being pulled toward. Well, today the same kind of thing is happening. Um, probably 50% of what I read, and I do a lot of books on tape, uh, probably more than 50% of that is spiritual literature. I find a great comfort in spiritual wisdom. I find a great recovery in actually taking that spiritual wisdom and directly impacting my behavior with it. You know, uh, recovery from alcoholism is behavioral. Everyone has said this who's been up here. It's not necessarily about what we think or our opinions. It's more about how we turn spiritual principles into action in our life. And uh, I'm not going to say I'm very successful at this. I still have a lot of challenges in my life. But over the course of the last 24 years or so, I've been trying to apply these spiritual principles uh, in my life. And step 11 was an important point in that because step 11 exposes me to prayer. It exposes me to meditation. It also exposes me to the people who know more than I do about prayer and, the, and more than I do about meditation. So I've found a lot of comfort in that. There's a great line there's a great line in the forward to um, the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions. A's 12 Steps are a group of principles, spiritual in nature, which, if practiced as a way of life, can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. And that's a great one-sentence description of what the 12 Steps do. I, I need to be happily and usefully whole to be able to stay sober and to have quality in my life, and I certainly need it to be able to stay separated from, uh, from alcohol. I, I don't have the power on my own uh, to stay separated from alcohol. You know, in step 10, I learned that uh, I have to reactively apply these principles in my day-to-day affairs. Uh, we have to live life. We've got to go out there and, you know, we can get kicked in the shins and we can get put in, in some uh, tricky situations. The more we're able to apply spiritual principles, uh, the more we're able to promptly admit when we're wrong, uh, the more we're able to seek God's direction in these things, uh, the better we're going to get along, the more comfortable we're going to flow through all of this. Step nine really showed me a lot. It showed me the depth of the harm. I had a, I had a clue about how much harm I had caused. I learned just how much harm I had caused after I made direct amends uh, to people. They told me how I hurt them. I love to think, well, this is how I hurt you. <laughs> Anyone that's got experience with amends knows that it gets a little deeper than that when you're involved in the amends. Uh, 
we don't have an accurate perspective really on the damage we've done until we go out and we make amends. Uh, step eight, I need to become willing. I need to become willing to make amends uh, to the people that I've, I've harmed. Uh, that's a serious piece of willingness, by the way. Um, that really separates the people who are serious about their recovery problem and who aren't. Um, I come from a school, a spiritual tradition, where you actually go out and make amends, you actually do this work, and I try to encourage that with, uh, with, with the people that I work with. I think that there's nothing that will put more uh, horsepower into your recovery than steps eight and steps nine. And I find it's very, very important. Um, I also find that sometimes the key to not allowing character defects to impact your life, not to continue to be stuck in these patterns of defects, one of the great ways to do that is to go out and make amends. There's, there's something inherent in the actual making of amends that makes it more difficult for you to cause the same kind of harm. It's possible to continue to do so. I know I do myself, but uh, I, think, uh, I think the magic in steps six and seven is the action we take in steps eight and nine. In steps six and seven, uh, I need to become willing to have the character defects. You know, my alcoholism, my, the damaged nature uh, of my condition, I need, to, uh, I need to start looking at that. I need to understand that if I could change my life, I would. If all I had to do was want and try to remove my character defects, I could have done so. But no matter how much I wanted and how much I tried to not engage in behavior or to change the way I was living, I was unable to do so. I found myself stuck in these patterns uh, that came from the, the selfish and self-centered uh, nature that, that I had. So I need to understand in, in step six and step seven that, that God is the power. Bill Wilson talks about God in many, many different ways in this book. I, I love some of the Father of Light. You know, he uses a ton of, uh, of descriptives when he's talking about God. But I think he was talking about a God of power. When I showed up in Alcoholics Anonymous, the type of God I had was other. I had an other God. I had a God up in the clouds, sitting on the throne, taking notes on the Schroeder kid, you know, for Judgment Day. This was this was a punishing God that was that was going to know everything, and I was going to be in deep trouble. Bill Wilson was. Part of, uh, part of basically a new thought movement that some of the people that he was, he was inspired by were very, very liberal and very new thought, uh, people. And I think his, I think his vision of a God had a lot more to do with power than it had to do with personhood. It was a lot more verb than it was noun. You know what I mean? Because when he's describing in here, he's describing that this power is going to be able to transform our lives. This power will be able to place us in a position of neutrality where we're safe and protected. And I believe this, this is the power that we can, we can uh, touch in with, that we can become unblocked from, that will have the ability to transform our lives. 
and to enable uh, enable us to move forward so that we're not trapped in a cycle of, uh, of character defects that are causing us uh, and the people that we care about a whole lot of a whole lot of trouble. Step five: I, I really became as honest as I could at that moment with another another person, and, and that, I've done many fifth steps, and that's true of every one of them. I've become as absolutely honest uh, as I possibly could at that moment uh, with the insight that I had during that fifth step. And what that has done is that's offered me a great a great amount of freedom. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but the things that I was ashamed of, the secrets that I had, the harms that I had caused, that went, caused others and other institutions that remain completely unaddressed because I just didn't want to look at them, what, those things were corroding my quality of life. And if you're alcoholic, they're going to corrode your spiritual condition. There needs to be a cleansing. To be able to get to awakening... There needs to be a cleansing, and these, char- the, these character defects needs, need to be addressed. And we do that by, by sharing with another person. We're the type of people who will be in therapy for 30 years, paying like 100 bucks an hour, and we'll, we'll get this far, and we'll come into Alcoholics Anonymous and do a fist step with a plumber, you know, and, and it's just gonna, you know, we're, we're gonna, oh man, I feel so much better. There's a simplicity and there's an economy to these instructions in this book that's just wonderful. I I swear, it's not deeply Freudian complexities. It's just not. It's very very simple spirituality 101 that Bill got in touch with when he was back in the Oxford group. So I I need to share this stuff. I need to share my inventories. I need to share the fourth column of uh, my resentment inventory. I need to share my fears, and I certainly need to share my conduct inventory with someone that I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna be held accountable to, whether it's a teacher, a spiritual advisor, or a sponsor. They they need to know the patterns of my behavior, and when you do the conduct inventories and the resentment inventories, if you listen to enough of them, you can pick up on the patterns. You can pick up on how somebody is is on the wrong set of tracks and you can help them get back on on the right one again in step four step four is really identifying the causes and conditions i I mean you know have you ever have you ever been in a situation i'm i'm sure i'm not the only one where someone will come up to you after some debacle and go what's wrong with you you know what is wrong with you I, i i would hear that on a weekly basis and and it was a very difficult question to answer. You know, I mean, usually I'd say, "What's wrong with you?" You know, because I got the lights on me. I got to shift that light quick. You know, what's your problem? And uh, I, I didn't know. I didn't know what my problem was. And most of the time, I didn't even think about it. I would just shift the conversation. But every once in a while, I would ask myself, what is, what is wrong with me? You know, I am telling you, until you do these inventories, until you really thoroughly and honestly 
put together those, those lists, you're really not going to have a true understanding of why life has been so tough for you. You know, why have, why have you had those bad breaks, misunderstandings, and, 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 and uh, wives and husbands and girlfriends and boyfriends that, that, that were disloyal and misunderstood you? You know, I, I mean, uh, I, Katie, when you asked that question, how many people in here are married, and 10% of the hands went up, that was telling for me. You know what I mean? There's a great line in the 12 and 12 that says defective relationships are almost always the cause of our immediate woes, including our alcoholism. Now, there's a lot of descriptions in our literature that talk about what an alcoholic is. But that's the only place I've seen in the literature that says why we're an alcoholic. You know, like what was the cause of alcoholism? Defective relationships. Why do we have defective relationships? Because of the selfishness and self-centeredness. We're the actor trying to run the whole show. You know, we, we absolutely have the best idea of how to manage this whole thing. Our family, our, 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 our boss is always an idiot. You know, the, the people driving in the next lane are always maniacs. I mean, we, we just, we know, we know we could, if people would just do what we think that they should be doing, this whole thing would go well. I mean, you know, that's, that's what we are. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. I ended up in a treatment center in early 1989. I, I signed myself into Happy Hills. You know, I, I mean, I had run out of plants. You know. And I'm in there about three days till you start to figure, you start to, you know, you go in there desperate, oh, please help me, please help me. And like three days later, you're going, how come we can't use the phone? What, what, what's with this food? You know, you know, you have decaf coffee, you know, and I start, this is a typical alcohol, alcoholic, right? I gather the troops together and I'm going, I'm going, we're going to strike, you know, we're going, let's get together, let's demand our rights. I got, I got a piece of hospital plastic on my wrist. I'm in the hatch and, and I, you know, and I want people to follow, follow me, you know, oh my God. And they did, you know. <laughs> and they're like, we're with Chris. Oh, my God. So, I mean, this is, it's, 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 ter- folks, it's terminal. It's terminal. If, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to run the rehab with three days sober, that's terminal. You're in, you're in real trouble if you want to do that, you know. Uh, and, and, and so I start to, t- I start to see a lot of this stuff in the fourth step. I start to see it now. The third, the third step, the third step is really where I, I am. I in or am I out of this thing? You know, am I am I going to? This is not a uh, this is not a, a program of suggestions. It's a suggested program. You know, so if you're going to do Alcoholics Anonymous, it's, it's not a cafeteria. You don't take step six. I'll use a little step six today, and you know, a little a little eleven. You know. It, it's, it's not a program of suggestions. It's a suggested program. If you want to do Alcoholics Anonymous, I would, I would, I would recommend that, you know, you do the steps and you do them in order and you do them with someone who's experienced. Because, uh, there's just too many, we can go off on, if, if we're the type of people who are going to try to take over the rehab with three days, there, there's some tangents that we can go on. We can go down some rabbit holes. So, uh, so it's a good idea to find yourself Someone who's who, who you're going to be accountable to, who you'll 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 work through this stuff with. 
So in step three, I need to I need to make a decision to engage in the rest of this process. I need to make a decision to do the rest of the steps. I, I, part of my decision is becoming consistent with meeting attendance, uh, working with a sponsor, someone that I'm held accountable to, and uh, and being available when it's available and appropriate for service commitments. Uh, it's a package deal for me. I, I see Alcoholics Anonymous uh, as the circle and triangle, as as the legacies. You know, the recovery legacy, uh, that's the 12 steps out of the big book. Uh, the service legacy, that, that's making it possible for or carrying the message to the still suffering alcoholic. Uh, and there's a lot of latitude in that. My favorite belief about uh, the service uh, part of the triangle is the chapter working with others. I think that's probably the most underused chapter in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and it's probably the most misunderstood thing that we do out there. Uh, there's there's a hundred instructions in the chapter working with others. And when I do them, which I don't always do, but when I follow them, things work. Uh, it, one of two things will happen. Uh, someone will recover, or someone who is not ready will go away and leave me alone. And either one of those outcomes is fine. In the early days, I, I just attracted a bunch of dysfunctional people who wouldn't do anything and just caused a lot of trouble and used me for cover. You know, if, if I follow uh, the instructions in the chapter working with others, that doesn't happen. So in the third step, I, I, I have to buy in. I, I have to become part of this thing at a working level. You know, I really have to be in. I have to actually be doing this stuff. Um, step two, I need to come to believe that there's a power greater than myself, that, that I can get in touch with spiritual power, and that spiritual power can work in me and through me. My job will be to, to remove the blocks to, to make that spiritual power available. And I'll spend the rest of my life removing the things that I've put up in the way of a clear connection to the power and grace of God. Because it's all me. I believe... Uh, I believe that the power of God is available to all of us. Um, God always has been, always will be, and is today available to us. That power is available to us. But through the covenant of uh, through the covenant of self-awareness that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, that self-awareness, we can take self and ruin our whole spiritual life. I, I, I'm telling you, this is what I think happened in the, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, <laughs> Adam and Eve are running around in the garden, right? They're naked, you know, the fruits on the trees. They're having a blast. And, you know, God comes in and God goes, listen, you know, I, I, I put paradise together for you. And I want you to enjoy yourself. There's just there's a suggestion that I have. And that suggestion is that tree over there, that's a, that's a tree of self-centeredness. That's a tree of, of self-awareness. I, I'd recommend that you stay away from the, the fruit of that tree. And he leaves and, you know, they decide for one, one reason or another that, you know, uh, he could have been wrong. 
And, uh, and, and they both eat of the, the tree of, uh, of self-awareness. And, you know, all of a sudden they become self-conscious, right? All of a sudden it's like, <gasps> you know, <laughs> I'm me. And, uh, and they get the fig leaves. They got to cover themselves up. You know, they're like, they're like all shy. And, and and God shows back up, and uh, and he and he looks at him. He takes one look at him, and he goes, "Did you, did did you eat from that tree that I told you not to eat from?" And then they're like, "No," you know. And he 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 knows right away, right? So he goes, "Okay, okay, listen." I, you know, I love you guys, and it just seems to me that you know you want self awareness. You you want the, the self-centeredness, or you wouldn't have ate from that tree. So, so that's cool. That's cool. But you, you gotta, you gotta get out of paradise, and you gotta go east to Eden to the land of Nod. Anybody been in the land of Nod? Oh man! Every every night around seven o'clock, I'd be like, and if I wasn't calling somebody up, you know, drunk and dialing, I, 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 I lived in the land of Nod. Uh, you gotta go to the land of Nod. So, so kind of in, kind of in step two, what it's asking us is it's, is it's basic. We can, we can come to believe that we can re-access paradise. We can re-access this, this, uh, this spiritual continuity that we walked away from, from being so self-exhibited. And we can, we can come to believe that that's available for us. And folks, it, it is. You know, well, one of the great promises in this book is, uh, is well, there's a ton of great promises, but we can be spearheads of God's ever-advancing creation. Oh, my God. Imagine, you know, what are you doing today? Well, I'm, I'm going to be the spearhead of God's ever-advancing creation. Yeah, yeah, it's not something you want to share at the PTA meeting. But... But to a degree, it's true. I mean, you know, we, we become... We become channeled. The power manifests in us, and we can do things that we couldn't do on our own. We can we can become impactful to our community and our, our environment in ways that are just absolutely I- I- incredible. You know, part of my part of my story is uh, is unbelievable to me. I mean, I was. Uh, I was the kind of alcoholic. All I did was I'd get home, I'd start drinking, I'd pass out, I'd wake up and go to work the next day, I'd go to the liquor store, I'd go, I'd pass out. I, I had absolutely no ability to do anything. I, I was caught in in, a, in an unbelievably aggressive cycle of uh, of drinking, and I could not I could not get out of it. Uh, Today, uh, today they talk. Another promise is you, you pack into the stream of life all that you can pack in. I, I, I'm a stream of life packer. I got to tell you, there's a lot of stuff going on in my life. I got a I got a call uh, on Wednesday, and my company said, uh, Chris, we want you to uh, go out and uh, run a big piece of business for us in Colorado. I'm like, well, when is this going to happen? Uh, we need you there yesterday. I'm like, I'm like, oh my god, I, I got to move to Colorado. You know, so I'm flying out. I'm flying out there on Tuesday, and uh, uh, and I'm, I'm probably, you know, it's probably 90% chance I'm I'm going to be moving to to Colorado. And and you know what? I have a little bit of anxiety about this because there's some there's some unknowns. It's a, it's an account that's in a lot of trouble. It's it's going to take a lot of work. But I know everything's going to be okay. I know I know that my wife and I are going to have a great experience out there. And what is the worst that can happen? 
The worst that can happen is it doesn't work out and I've got to find another job. I've only done that about 20 times, you know. That's okay. I know I can get through that. So really, what's, what's worth it? it it's... It's an, it's an opportunity to do something different. Guess who lives in Colorado? My wife and two of our grandchildren. I'm, I'm sorry, my, my, uh, my daughter. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, she's going to kill me for that. That was, that was not a Freudian slip. That, that, uh, my, my tongue got caught. No, no who, who, who lives out there is my daughter and, and two of my grandchildren. And, uh, you know, I, I don't get a chance to see them that much. Uh, I haven't been a big part of their life because it's very hard for them to travel and it's very hard for me to travel. So that's going to be, that's going to be a great opportunity. The Denver area is where the recovery process that, that I'm most inspired by, that's where the genesis of it was. So, oh my God, I'm going to be able to go out there and, and hang with, uh, hang in some of the meetings that, that, uh, started the whole, um, the whole recovery awakening that I've been I've been involved with that's going to be absolute that's going to be absolutely great, and all of these steps are powered by my full blown understanding of step one, my full concession to step one, and I truly in my heart of heart understand and have a buy in with step one. There, there, when you, if you can get somebody to that that you're working with, there's going to be a lot less resistance to the work that you lay out in front of them. If they have a true understanding of step one, they're not going to be hemming and hawing because they're going to know how much trouble they're in. Step one is, dash, my life had become unmanageable. Well, what is that? What is that? Well, I know I was crashing cars and getting divorces and losing jobs and, you know, waking up in Topeka with one shoe. I mean, I knew all of that. That, that, that's certainly unmanageable. But the true unmanageability was the emotional and spiritual unmanageability that I was suffering from. I was on a good day, restless, irritable, and discontented on a normal day. Pray to misery, depression, anxiety, shame, guilt, remorse, suicidal ideation. You know, I mean, that's like a normal day. On a bad day, it was the hideous four horsemen, terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair, and pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. That's really what my unmanageability was like. I like to tie my unmanageability in to the results of my drinking. But it's, it's worse than that. It's deeper than that. It's more caustic than, than results of bad drinking. It's in, it's in the fiber of my being, this unmanageability. And I understand that today. And I certainly understand my relationship with alcohol. I know what my relationship with alcohol is. My relationship with alcohol is, don't even fool yourself. I am not in charge when I drink or not. I cannot take ownership of when I drink or not. I'm not one of these guys that's going to say, I just don't drink even if my ass falls off. That's taking ownership of something that's more powerful than me. I don't want to do that. That, I believe the power and the grace of God keeps me safe and protected, keeps me in a position of neutrality. It's not on me. If it was on me, you know, I'd make a bad decision somewhere, and I'd, I'd end up drunk. But the last 24 years, that hasn't been a decision of mine. It's, it's a, 
it's something that God is in charge of. And I understand that when I drink, when I drink, I, I, can't, I can't control the amount I drink. I, I have a chronic allergy to alcohol. And what that looks like is the first drink always takes a second, the second always insists on the third, the third always demands the fourth. And, I, you know, I am wandering around, you know, wondering who I am, asking people, do you know who I am? You know, by, by the end of the night, I, I, I just don't, I just, I won't know. So, so working forward, step one, moving all the way through step 12, if I buy into this process, I am going to have an awakening. I'm going to have a deep and abiding relationship with my Creator. I'm going to, I'm going to understand. I'm going to understand. I'd have, I'm going to have an accurate self-appraisal of, uh, of my position, my position in the world. I am truly going to, going to understand that. Uh, I'm going to be connected to something that is much more, uh, much more powerful than I am. Another great promise in the book Alcoholics Anonymous is uh, that, that God will give you, if you, if you practice this stuff as a way of life, God will give you things that are much better than anything that you can design yourself. Now, what kind of a promise is that? That's an incredible promise. God is going to offer to me much more than anything I can, I can come up with myself. So listen, if you haven't had a spiritual awakening, um, if you're thinking, I don't know if I had a spiritual awakening, you, you probably haven't. Uh, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, uh, but usually when you wake up, you know you're awake. Uh, please, please go after that. That is the brass ring in Alcoholics Anonymous. The spiritual awakening as a result of these steps is the brass ring. That's what it is. It's not getting 20, 30, 40, 50 years sober and still being cranky. You, you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I'm for 40 years. That's not the brass ring. You know, we, we absolutely insist upon enjoying life. You know, we absolutely insist upon enjoying life. That's part of the spiritual awakening. The people that I hang out with, the, the, the incredible speakers that were here uh, this weekend, every single one of them demands that they enjoy life. I, I, I know most of them, uh, and I met the other ones that I didn't know this weekend. It, this is this is about this is about gaining access to what really matters and what really is valuable in our life. And and you know what? <clears throat> Once we become awakened, we're now awakened to compassion. We're now in tune with uh, the necessity of helping other people gain this, to gain this spiritual awakening, to help people get sober, to help people survive. Alcoholism. You know, uh, the group of the group of people that I like to associate myself with. If you become involved with that group of, of people, you're going to improve your chances of survivability uh, where it concerns alcoholism greatly, because these these people really care, and they've learned how to help you uh, jump through the hurdles of your own perception and move forward with this, this spiritual work. They've, they've become really, uh, really good with it. You know, um, to end, I want to thank Mark and his team for putting this together. Uh, wow, what a, what a great conference this was. Uh, I've, I saw and hung out with so many of my friends here. 
this is you know please please make this an annual event because because uh, uh, it's it's just great. Thank you very much.